This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents The Cycle of Oron, The Complete Trilogy Written by Edward W. Robertson Read by Tim Gerard Reynolds Chapter 14 Here's your damned book, Dante said, flipping the cycle of Oron at the feet of one of the priests they'd found inside the Cathedral of Ivars. The bald man raised an eyebrow at its sprawled pages. A copy of the cycle, he said, replying in malish. Shall I add it to the hundred others in the cellars? Not a copy, Dante said. The copy. The priest glanced at him, then at the book on the floor, then shot Dante a sharper look. His shoulders jerked at the cold defiance on the boy's face. The priest tripped on the skirts of his robe as he went to snatch up the book. He cupped it with both palms, the white tree of Barden shining up at his face. A tall, willowy priest, silent till now, leaned over his shoulder to gaze on its cover. Dante Galland the bald priest said, and Dante willed his face to keep composed. Why have you decided now to return it to its proper owners? I've read it all, Dante said, tossing his head. Besides, I'm tired of killing your men. It's not even sporting anymore, Blaze added from his side. You wouldn't know a real man if you were staring straight at his kneecaps, boy. The tall priest spoke down to them. You think so little of Will Palomar, Dante said through curled lips. We slew him too, you know. Will's not dead, the tall man said. Blaze burst into laughter. Is he? He hasn't come back yet, the bald priest said, meeting the other's eyes. They turned back to the boys. No. Boyish fancy. What are you, twelve? Almost sixteen, Blaze said. Our friend robbed the corpse of his mailed shirt, Dante said. We thought his cape too womanly to take. The tall priest gasped. The bald one beetled his brows. I assume, he said, voice measuredly soft, you didn't come all this way to let us know we need to order another tombstone. Dante nodded, body as tight as a bowstring. It all hinged on their reaction to his next words. I can't read that gibberish in the back, he said. I want to know what the rest says. There's a nice long section about the tragedy of outgrowing one's britches. The bald priest spat. I don't remember that verse, the tall one said. The first priest blinked at him. Dante folded his arms. I'm joining your order. I want a cell in the citadel, access to your archives, a tutor who knows enough to be of use to me. We'll give you a cell. The bald priest licked his pudgy lips. A nice, dank one with good, thick walls to keep you safe. You'll do as I say, 
Dante warned, stepping forward until his nose was an inch from the priest's. You'll give me my books, my lessons, the knowledge I still lack, and I'll release your god from his chains in the heavens. You're a rat's asshole, the tall man said. He splayed out his hand. In the same moment, Dante met the priest's nether with his own, and Blaze's sword whipped up to dimple the man's throat. His Adam's apple bobbed against the killing steel. Put your weapon down, the bald priest said, and for the first time his eyes were bright with fear. And you step back, Paul. I've heard enough to know he's not as weak as he looks. The priest named Paul spread his fingers in peace and lowered his hands to his waist. Blaze kept the blade at his neck. He twitched his hand, and a tiny rivulet of blood leaked down Paul's skin. Paul suppressed a whimper. Blaze snorted, lowered his sword. There, the bald priest said, folding his hands below his chin. All right, let's calm down and think about this for a minute. Think about me gutting you like a trout if you try one of your little spells again, Blaze said, twitching the point of his sword at Paul's belly. Like a flounder for him, Dante said, pointing to the bald one. It's fatter. And think about me gutting you like a flounder. I said, let's calm down, the bald priest said, shuffling the anger from his face and waiting till Blaze put away his blade. The man took a long, slow breath and gazed around the small living quarters in the back of the cathedral where the boys had ambushed them. This is beyond my authority, he decided, nodding so the wattles on his neck ruffled like a lace sleeve. Paul, go see Laramore and tell him the boy has come. Tell him he's brought us the book. And then what? Dante said, pointing his chin at the bald priest's sternum. And then he'll figure out what to do with you, he said through his teeth. Blaze's sword ground against its sheath as he worked free the first half-foot, which I'm certain will be peaceable and amenable to both parties. He fixed Blaze with a look. They'll appreciate you've returned our property without any more bloodshed. What are you waiting for, Paul? Blaze said. Move your bony ass. The bald priest fought a smile as Paul hustled from the room. Blaze glanced at Dante and bugged his eyes. Dante fought down a laugh that would have unmasked them both. They snapped their faces flat and dully contemptuous as the priest turned back to them. What's your name? Dante said. Nack Randall, the bald priest said. He nodded to Blaze. And yours? We never learned your name. We'd taken to calling you The Pain. Dante saw Blaze swallow a grin. Blaze Buckler, he said. Nack sucked his cheeks and darted his watery eyes between the two boys for any sign they were putting him on. Blaze didn't need to act to make his face go red. Very well, Nack nodded quickly. Dante Galland and Blaze Buckler. You've come a long way. We heard of your city's legendary hospitality, Dante said. Thought we'd see it for ourselves, Blaze said, 
I hope it hasn't disappointed, Nock said, wiping something from his eye and examining his nail. Someone shot at us on the way in, Blaze shrugged. It's been better since. Nack nodded. It might have helped to learn the language. Things are a bit bestirred at the moment, but some of the cities wary of foreigners. Dante snorted. We've been a little busy being snuck up on in the night by Samaran's hounds to work on our education. I suppose that's true, Nock said. He crinkled up his face and rubbed his eyes with one hand. Things are going to get interesting a few minutes from now. Care for a seat until then? Thanks, Blaze said, thunking into a chair. Dante took the one beside him, and Nack bent over the last one in the room and dragged it in front of them. He sighed as he sat down, then laughed, shaking his bald head. They're not going to like this. Too bad, Blaze said. Nack crossed one leg over the other, wincing when his slippered toe snagged on his robe. Trouble with your feet, Dante said. Bunions, Nack said sadly, then looked up, faintly embarrassed. He frowned hard at Dante. Speak like that to Lerimore, and he'll either kill you on the spot or take to you like a duck to water. Lots of non-duck fowl like the water, Dante said. What? Who's Lerimore? Blaze said before Dante could expound. He's known as the Hand of Samaran, Nack said with a hint of irony around his mouth, because he turns her will into something you can grasp. He's a priest, then, Dante said, leaning forward. Just a man with an uncommon facility for getting things done. If he weren't so damned good at it, you can bet one of the council would have stilled his restless tongue a long time ago. Thus why he might actually like you two. Dante cocked his head. If he's that good, maybe his arrogance is accurate. Even if that were granted, Nack said, folding his robed arms, he still lacks the wisdom to realize that fortress over there may be jammed with holy men, but it's no less a court than the palace in the capital, where respect and obedience are the highest virtues of all. I thought the winters up here were supposed to be cold, Blaze interjected, cutting Dante off once again and refusing to return his annoyed look. Nack swiftly took this turn of the verbal crossroads, allowing it had been unseasonably warm, in fact the mildest winter he could remember from the last twenty years. He was still telling Blaze about all the people who had died during last winter's blizzard, when the door swung open and a thin, sharp-boned man with the light brown face of one of the Marl Islanders from the sea south of Bressel strode into the room. Two guards bearing sheathed swords followed at his heels. Paul took up the rear, eyes locked straight ahead, as if he were afraid where they might land if he let them free. Nice of you to return our book, the sharp-boned man said, glancing between Blaze and Dante as they stood. It would have been a little less trouble if— You're Laramore, then, Dante said, taking in the man's unfashionably short black hair, the tears and stains to his thick, fine-stitched cloak. 
His boots looked like they had been once worth more than all Dante owned, including his life, but had since been scuffed and worn to the point where they resembled the bark of a pine. His black gloves and scabbard were the same. The only thing he wore with any hint for its care was the silver badge pinned to his collar, a gleamingly polished ring around the wide-branched image of Barden, and at the tree's center a pair of sapphires winked as richly blue as the glacier-fed lake they'd looked on with Robert. From his tight-trimmed hair to the not-heavy laces of his boots, he gave off an air of almost willful disrepair, like it offended him to have to concern himself with anything as trivial as how he made himself not naked. Dante was thrilled in a way he couldn't explain. The man was thirty years old at the utmost, and at the clear peak of his life, wholly vital, but in no way boyish, and when Dante summed him up, it was like looking on the man he could become if he grew into himself without flaw or injury. You aren't kidding, the man who must be Laramore said, eyebrows raised at Paul. Paul nodded, eyes still fixed rigidly across the room. The man turned to Dante and spoke in a quick tone that nearly sounded bored. I am indeed Laramore, the Hand of Samarand, and as an acolyte of our order, you will address me with the respect my station is due. So you've seen reason, Dante managed, thrown by the man's use of the word acolyte. He hadn't known what to expect. This plan, like their plan for when they'd first come to Narashtavik, had been built on the desperate premise they'd show up with a goal in mind and let no resistance stop them from reaching it. But, at his most optimistic, he hadn't expected such ready acceptance. Did you really slay Will Palomar? Laramore said, tilting his head. I smote him down with a column of flame. Wonderful, Laramore said. Nack, how would you feel about a move? A move, sir? Across the street. The boy will need a teacher. He hasn't slapped you around. I assume that means he likes you. He raised an eyebrow at Dante, and Dante nodded. Well? Nack drew back his chins. I'd be honored for the chance. Then it settled. Laramore nodded to the guards. Take them to the chapel. Clear a cell for Nack and one for Dante. Throw out some of the monks if you have to. Blaze comes with me too, Dante said, struggling to keep up with all that was happening. Only men of the cloth may live within the chapel, Laramore said. Dante set his jaw. He is my hand as you are Samaran's. Well, I do set the rules, Laramore said, rubbing his throat. I suppose no one can say anything if I'm the one who breaks them. He jerked his head at the two armsmen. By your will, one guard said through his beard. He gestured toward the door. Dante took the lead, Blaze and Knack moving to flank him. The second guard moved toward the head of their sudden formation. Their bootsteps echoed through the vast emptiness of the cathedral. Dante and Blaze exchanged another look, all but jogging to keep up. The lead guard held the front door, and they broke into the overcast afternoon of the square. Across the way, the castle gate stood open. Motionless pikemen lined the walls that led inside. They walked across the square 
and the shadow of the gate's thick stone cooled their faces as they crossed from Narashtavik to the separate city of the sealed citadel. A small squad of guards drilled in close order in the yards. A minor market lined the wall to the right of the main gates, peopled by keepers that spoke in normal tones with the men who handled and haggled for their wares. The clink of smithies underlined the modest chatter of the market and the barked orders of the soldiers. Directly ahead, the keep jutted straight up from the ground, shorter than the church on the other side of the square, but an immense thing in its own right, a powerful block of dun stone and pure strength, like a titan's front tooth sewn in the earth. Dante's eyes tracked up its neck-bending height. I haven't been in here in a while, Nack said, pleased. One of the guards gave him a bored look. Behind them came the clank of chains lowering the grill and pulling closed the reinforced wooden gates. Before they reached the keep, they heard the boom of tons of iron-hard wood clapping together. The guards escorting them wasted no time taking them to a small but ornate chapel that leaned against the outer wall of the keep. Its main hall, perhaps thirty feet by twenty, felt toyish in comparison to the cathedral they'd so recently left. One guard led them to the cells at the chapel's rear, while the other pulled one of the curious monks aside to confer about quarters. Don't leave this room, one of the guards said, once the monk had shown him to an empty cell. He ushered the boys inside. Someone will see to you in time. Goodbye for the moment, Nack said, offering a wave. See we're not kept long, Dante said, and bring us some food. The guard's mouth twitched. He nodded to the monk, and they walked on down the hallway. Blaze waited for their footfalls to recede, then closed the door and pressed his back against it, palms spread wide across the wood. Lyle's parboiled guts, he said, gazing stupidly at Dante, lower lip tucked between his teeth. Did what I think just happened actually happen? Dante sat down on the cell's feather pallet. When they brought in another for Blaze, there would hardly be room to walk around. Dazedly, he pinched the bridge of his nose until his eyes watered. The last half hour had felt like a completely different life than that of the prior week. Ow, he said. I think it's real. Well, what now? I don't have the faintest idea, Dante said, rubbing his finger below his nose. Really, I didn't want to think about what would happen after we threw the book at them. Blaze nodded, still grinning. Let's try not to get killed. I promise nothing. He leaned back, gazed up into the timbers of the ceiling. He felt as if he could rip the roof down with a look. Why hadn't he been like this before? Why hadn't he known that what he was depended on no more than what he willed himself to be? It was there. It was all there. Everything he'd wanted collected within the walls of this simple temple. Copies of the cycle, references and interpretations, versions with the final third translated into Malish. He reached toward the shelf of the chapel library 
and heard Nack, who'd been sent back to their room an hour later to settle them in and show them around, say something about reading it in the original. Dante slid free a Marlish translation and sat down in the strong sunlight of the south-facing reading room, glad to be off his feet, which had felt swimmy beneath him. He hadn't realized just how long he'd been kept from finishing the cycle, just how much its version of the world had come to underpin his own. Much simpler than your idiotic mishmash, Nack was saying. What? The grammar. Unlike your tongue, if it can be so called, ours actually follows rules. Nack scowled at him as Dante leafed through his book. Certain subtleties are lost in the translation. Besides, you sound like a barbarian. You're in Gask now. Tomorrow, Dante waved. I've been charged with your instruction, Nack said, slipping his hand beneath its cover and folding it closed. And if the remainder of the cycle of Aron is still beyond you— I need you reading at least as well as a child before I can direct you through the rest. I said tomorrow. Dante swung his feet, sucking air through his nose. I'll be your student then. I'll be as diligent as the course of the sun. I just need this one day with what's eluded me for so long. Nack ran a finger around his flabby jaw, then nodded. Very well. This day is yours. Tomorrow is mine. It was a translation, and for that he was wary. But the difference between the cycle's first sections and that final third were too clear to be caused by the liberties of any scribe. It felt older, primal. They were the words not only of a different man, but of a different race of men a men whose waking thoughts were just as much a dream as the hours they spent in sleep. As Dante read the same basic story that had begun the cycle, he felt as if he'd found a chord between himself and the deepest, purest knowledge of that first and brightest spark of man, that at last the riotous chaos of civilization might be put into some kind of sense. In the days before day, in the nights before night, all things swirled, all things mixed with another. The waves broke, but there was no shore. The foam foamed without light to see its crest on the waters. Greater Rawn and Tame fought the serpents and the dragons of the stormy north, and roiled the water with their struggle. Aron's great mill cracked and fell. The bodies rolled on the surface, scale and claw, eye and tooth, and from their spines Tame grasped them and formed them into the shores and the peaks. He plucked their knuckles and set them to the islands, and Aron split the first sky from the second sky, where he left to grant the measure. And what of man, Carvajal said, and from the blood of the serpents and the blood of his own shining wounds, Tame packed them into the mud where the river met the banks. The wind filled their lungs, and they stood and saw what Tame had made. To the men he gave the earth, and he made the sun to warm them and coax the seeds of plant and babe. 
To the heavens Aaron forged the thrones of the gods, and he planted the stars of his law. Carvajal left his seat, he left his house, and found the northern fire where once a dragon watched its waters. He cupped that starlight in his hands, and bore it down to minds of men. He showed them where the two rivers rose into the skies. And so Tame cursed men to wither and return to mud. Aron cried out. He cried to see the men so used. He took their dust and ground it in his mill, where he ground the grist that fed all things. And there the wind would carry the last breath of men, where it would take them to the black fields. Again they would mix with all that once had been. But Aron's mill was cracked. It had broken in the struggle with the north-laired dragon. It had fallen when that dragon fell and cracked upon the earth. And when it ground again, this broken mill, it ground no more of stars and plenty. The stars had shifted. Now strife was ground with man. What? Blay said, and Dante realized he'd been laughing. I just read how the gods made the world. You mean like you could have done in any temple back in Brussels? Their story is like this one's shadow, Dante said. His shoulders felt like hilltops, his fists like boulders. We didn't make the world a terrible place, like the priests of Tame say. The gods did. Blaze grunted. I thought you didn't believe in the gods. I don't. But maybe they just died a long time ago, and this is what they did before they went away. His smile fell as Blaze continued to watch him. Did he suspect it? The second layer of the plan that had gotten them inside? That the only way Dante could think to get close enough to Samaran to kill her would also take him to the one place he knew would have a cycle he could read. It wasn't that Dante had lied. He'd gotten them inside the sealed citadel, meant to learn its layout well enough to figure out how they could murder her and then escape back to the south. That hadn't changed. But neither had his other need. He could do both. Learning the cycle's last secrets could only help him when it came time to snuff Samarin's candle. If suspicion tickled Blaze's mind, let him hold his guesses. Dante had been the one who'd gotten them through the gates. He read on. He heard Blaze's boots knocking around the confines of the chapel, the whisper of pages as the boy poured through the monk's dash of romances, presumably in search of saucy pictures, then more footsteps and the close of the front door. Dante read without cease, lighting a candle once he realized he'd been squinting into dusklight for the last half hour. He read without pausing to take down all the names or map out all the places like he'd done when he'd started the book. That would come later. For now, he had this one night to read it through, and when he turned its last page a couple hours before dawn, he felt the breath stir in his lungs, the blood in his veins. He felt elevated, touched by a mood of lightness and wholeness. From that vantage, his worries and doubts looked like malborn vermin, 
things he could pick up and snap into two dead halves. He closed his eyes, pressed his palms together, felt the fiber of the shadows mingle with the flesh of his self, felt it pour into the empty places in his body, in his skin, in his blood, in his hair and eyes and heart, felt his own position as an extension of the eternal burn of the stars. He opened his eyes, and the world was changed. He was a part of it, and it a part of him. And he knew that when he died, it would mean no more than a retreat from the isolation of this body back into the blood-warm swell of Nether. Dante woke the next morning the same way he always had, confused, vaguely angry, already weary toward whatever the next hours would bring, in a way he thought unfair for any sixteen-year-old to feel. And it was a while before he remembered he should feel any different. But sleep had robbed him of that elevation he'd had on finishing the book, that sense of oneness and rightness. Like if he had to die, it would be all right if it just came then. He had its memory, though, the thirsty knowledge it was possible to feel that way, for however brief a time, and instead of feeling cheated, he lay beneath his blanket in a mood of deep removal, not at peace, but too far from his worries to be hurt by them, and passed an hour coldly dissecting the facts of his life until Knack knocked on his door. Get teaching, Dante said once he'd let him in. Oh, so it turns out you've still got things to learn, Knack said, and in the mental coldness that hadn't quite left him, Dante could tell Knack's jest wasn't meant to run him down, but came from a sense of admiration the monk could never voice in plain words. I finished the cycle, he said. And? It felt like I'd been lifted to the moon, Dante said. He frowned. That wasn't right. It was incomplete, at least. It felt like a foundation. Now it's time to quarry more blocks and keep building my tower. Ah, Nack breathed. You felt the touch of Aron. Perhaps, Dante said, not because he thought it might be true, but because he found he didn't care how Nack wanted to classify it. Nack scratched his bald pate and led Dante to the reading room. A spread of sparsely worded primers lay in the soft winter sunlight on the desk. Dante picked one up, felt the last of his clear-eyed coldness seep away. These look like they're made for children. And unfortunately, you know less than a child, Nack said. But they're as simple as we have. Nack stepped him through the Narashtavik alphabet, which was nearly identical to Malish but lacking three letters, and the subtleties of its pronunciation, which, unlike the Malish stew, was regular and orderly as the board of a game of cotters, and which Nack claimed was close enough to Gaskin to sound like no more than a regional accent. He made Dante write it out five times, then speak each letter five more. He drilled Dante on the verb conjugations of Narashtavik and its relation to modern Gaskin. He showed him the structure of its grammar in simple sentences, taught him a handful of words, 
the precise laws of how a verb cycled through the tenses of the present, the past, the future, the subjunctive. He bade Dante write out a dozen verbs through each of their forms, and left on some monkish errand. Busy work, Dante thought, and far too much to take in at once. That knack wanted him to learn through rote memorization struck him as an insult. He did it anyway, writing out Knack's precise little tables. Knack returned and nodded at his work, correcting his past pluralizations, then went over it all again before leaving the boy with pages of hand-prepared vocabulary to study through the evening. The next day, he had Dante write out maddeningly simple sentences about cats chasing balls and boys throwing sticks. The next day was the same, but working in the other tenses, repeating and repeating until Knack was satisfied what he'd taught had stuck. When are we going to read something real? Dante asked as Knack prepared to leave him once again. Once we've laid a few blocks on your foundation. Dante rolled his eyes and turned back to his list of words. Learning much? Blaze asked him when he came back to their cell for the night. Conjugates, Dante said, staring at the shadows on the ceiling. How do you say to murder? Natus, Dante said. He lifted his head, stared at Blaze. We knew this wouldn't work overnight. They have to learn to trust me before I'll be able to get close. Blaze shook his head at the cold night and silent yard past the cell's small window. There's a world outside this keep. Give it time, Dante said. I haven't forgotten why we're here. You just keep your eyes open while we wait for something to happen. Their wait didn't last long. Knack bent over Dante's latest lesson, following his sentences with the sharp tip of his pen, striking out words and muttering corrections, when the door banged open and slammed against the wall, shuddering to a stop. Knuckles possess a great facility for knocking, Knack said. He looked up and his teeth clacked shut. Uh, my lord? The boy, Laramore said, beckoning with a single flick of his finger. Three guards crowded in behind him. I have a name, Dante said. That will only be an issue if we decide you're worthy of a tombstone. Samarin's hand nodded to the guards. They grabbed Dante by the elbows and dragged him toward the door. The bluster he'd come at them with back at the cathedral and ever since crumpled into nothing. He could only gape at Knack, plead dumbly for help from the middle-aged monk. Knack tapped his fingers together. May I ask? Their cycle is a fake, Laramore said, running his tongue along his teeth. Ah, Knack said. Upsetting. Laramore ignored him, turning on his heel. The guards hauled Dante out the door and out the chapel. He struggled to keep his feet, toes scraping the stone yard. Blaze shouted from behind them. Dante winked at him and tried not to throw up. I have legs, he said, boots scuffing through the dirt. For now, Laramore said. I don't know what this is about. He wriggled his shoulders, twisting his body to find a way to meet Laramore's eyes. 
Do you hear me? Laramore looked down at him, face impassive, then reached out and flicked Dante's nose hard enough to make his eyes water. They carried him up the steps and inside the keep, through its airy entrance and down a hall adorned by tapestries of Aron and his deeds, by grey-bearded men hoisting pennants and flags over their foes. The guards slowed enough to let him catch his feet as they reached a stairwell that descended to a cool, well-lit subfloor. Laramore took out a heavy iron key and opened the second door they reached. Dante was yanked through the doorway and heaved into a heap on the plain stone floor. Other than a single lantern by the door, the room was empty, chilly, hard rock with dust on every surface. The armsmen moved to either side of the door. Laramore shut it and folded his arms behind his back, regarding Dante for a long minute. Dante tucked his feet beneath him and clasped his hands in his lap. Without changing his expression, Laramore lashed out and booted him in the ribs. Cut that pious crap. There's no priests here. Dante had fallen to his palms, gasping for breath, rage flashing through his skull. Pain rattled up his nerves, but he let his body hurt, knowing it wouldn't kill him. Tell me why I'm here, he said. Laramore snorted. Don't play games. You gave us a copy. I gave you the same book I took from the temple. Laramore stepped forward and slapped him so the ends of his nails bit into Dante's cheek. Tell me where the real one is. Now. Dante made his face twist with anger. It wasn't hard. How do you know it's a fake? The man just laughed. Dante's heart shuddered. How did they know he'd given them the copy he'd found in one of the temples in Narashtavik? Had they found the real one? Had they dug it up from where he'd buried it in the yard of the house next to the one he and Blaze had lived in, just inside the city's first wall? But they couldn't have. Otherwise, they'd be busy killing him, not questioning him. He stayed silent. There are no identical copies, Laramore said. You idiot. Like we wouldn't look past the pretty white tree on the cover? Your attempt at deception is outrageous in its stupidity. As if we have no records, no way to check. He blinked, tightened his jaw. You gave us a copy. An old one, but a copy nonetheless. It's the same one I found. Maybe you've been chasing the wrong one this whole time. Where is it? Dante rolled his eyes. If you're so sure I've got it, why don't you just conjure it out of my pocket or sniff it out like you did all across Malin? Because we can't, Laramore snapped, jerking his head back and forth with each syllable. We're not hounds, and it's not a fox. It can be lost as simply as anything else, including lives. Then how do you know you weren't chasing a fake? Laramore lashed out with his boot, aiming for Dante's side. The boy shifted at the last instant, and it struck him in the hip. He sprawled out on the stone. The nether throbbed at the edges of his vision. He panted, glaring up at the other man. Answer me! Laramore bared his teeth. He pressed his fist against his brow and shook his head. We followed you by the blood you left at the temple, he said, 
leaning forward as if preparing to kick Dante again. We know the book there was the real one. Ergo, you had it. But it's fakes you plant in the temples. Dante pushed himself back to his knees and glared up at the man. That's right, I'm versed in your bizarre little scheme. How you leave out copies where people can find them, then if they survive your attacks, you scoop them up and induct them into your order. If they break instead, you toss them away like toy soldiers. And I'm supposed to believe I somehow got my hands on the one true cycle. Laramore had drawn up short during Dante's speech. His eyes were slits, his voice as low as the floor. How do you know all that? You look at me and you see some boy. I've traveled a thousand miles. I've killed a dozen of your men. I've taught myself to work the nether. For a moment he forgot his bluster, was taken instead by a curiosity he'd had since Callie told him how they used the book. Why do you leave it out like that? Why do you recruit people that way? Why so complicated? Because it works, Laramore said. He stood in place a moment, face frozen as he stared at Dante. Men like you are as rare as a monk that isn't fat. Do you know how few people can work the nether? We need as many of them as we can find. Their strength's the only thing keeping us from being crushed. He continued to stare like he'd forgotten this was an interrogation. You're a strange one. I just want to learn. You still can. Just tell me where it is. I don't know, Dante said, though he knew the man wasn't lying, that they would still take him back if only he told them where to find the book. Enough. More than enough. Laramore crouched down in front of Dante, eyes bright and hard. Again, Dante had the sense he could become this man, cunning as the animal mind of a drunk, open-eyed enough to seize the unexpected and turn it to his advantage before it could be turned against him, with a will so swift and sharp he could trust its quickest instincts to lead him where he wanted. That was the difference between them, Dante thought. Dante knew what he wanted— had the same ability to adapt rather than be caught flat-footed by the false assumption of a rigid mentality. But he didn't know how to act, or didn't trust his impulses to make his desires fact. The burn in Larimore's eyes told him the man hadn't yet made up his mind to kill him, that there was a way to convince him he didn't have the book and still be kept as a student of the order. Yet Dante's only plan since he'd found the extra copy of the cycle in the garbage of one of their old temples after Samaran's sermon was one of scorn and contempt, a whirlwind of arrogance meant to keep them so far back on their heels they wouldn't have the wits to question anything he said. It had worked till now, till they looked closely at the prize he'd tossed at their feet. And now he was snared. Bluster and violence were all he knew. He didn't know how to convince Laramore of a lie. They had him. 
This was their castle, their city, their army of men guarding its gates, their troop of priests hoarding its law. If he'd been something more, he could have talked his way out. Instead, he had no more than this one simple lie. I don't know where it is. The boring part, then, Laramore said, almost sadly. Torture. I think we'll start with Blaze. He's got nothing to do with this. Of course he doesn't. Then why him? Why not me? Because he'll get to you better than if we put you in the boots. Don't, Dante said. He knew Blaze would die before he gave up their secrets. He was stupid that way. You're a reasonable man. Why don't you just believe me? Because you're lying, Laramore sighed. He got up, knees popping, and nodded at the guards. One opened the door. Wait, Dante said. He swallowed back his nausea. What about the prophecy? Laramore paused at the door, face unreadable. Which prophecy might that be? The one from the cycle. It's a big book, Laramore said, dropping his hand from the doorframe. The South shall bear the child of flame, Dante intoned, quoting the passage he'd found in the last pages of that final third, the close of which he'd read every night since. With bleeding hands and bleeding blade, in Millstar's skies he'll write his name, and brother's treason be unmade. Rubbish, just like all poetry. I came from the South. Everyone's from the South, Laramore said. There's nothing north of here but piles of rock, and farmers too stupid to know you can't squeeze wheat from stone. Dante held up his hands, showed the scars of all the times he'd cut his hands to feed the Nether's hungry mouths. And these? Every priest of worth has those or on the backs of his hands, or on his forearm, or his forehead if he's given to theatrics. Dante folded his hands in his lap. Other than attacking the man and his guards outright, it had been his last play. He might be able to kill them. He might even be able to get to Blaze before the rest of the Citadel knew what was happening. He wouldn't be able to get them out, though, and would never be able to kill her. It would all be for failure. Tears stung his eyes, and he closed them. He couldn't give up the book either. He didn't know why, just that it was too important. Could tip the balance so far that even Samaran's death wouldn't be enough to cease their aggression? He would do nothing, then. He wouldn't break. The least he could do was keep his silence until they stole his very voice. Stonewalling, he heard Laramore mutter. Delusions of destiny don't impress me. Your only coin's the book. If Blaze doesn't give it up, we'll be back for you soon enough. Dante snapped open his eyes and fixed them on Laramore. If I'm so unimportant, why are you doing everything you can not to hurt me? You're overlooking the possibility that's a measure of my own stupidity rather than a measure of your own worth. 
Larimore smiled, then remembered himself. Wait here, he joked. He gestured to the guards, and they stepped outside. What will Samarand do when she finds you've murdered the keystone of her desire? Dante shouted after them. He heard them speak in Gaskin to each other. Then the door clunked shut. A lock snapped into place, and the hallway went silent. Dante stood, wincing at his rib and hip, brushed dust from his trousers. Other than himself, the dust and the lantern flickering by the door, the room was completely empty. At least it was clean. He felt calm, somehow, as if his few minutes with Larimore had spent all his available emotion. Feeling stupid, he tried the door and was almost glad that it didn't budge. He had nothing in his pockets but some of Nack's papers and his torchstone. He sat back down in the middle of the room. Had anyone ever learned to teleport themselves? What was the point of all he'd learned if he couldn't use it to escape a simple dungeon? He could probably blast down the door, he thought. Murder the guards Larimore would have posted outside. Still, anything drastic depended on being certain they were going to kill him or Blaze or both. And he had the odd conviction that wasn't the case. He'd planted the seed of doubt with Larimore, thrown him with that crazy scripture of prophecy, if only by a little. Larimore didn't strike him as the kind of man who put too much stock in anything, likely why Samarant had taken him as her captain. But he was the captain, and if he was off consulting with anyone, it would be her. As the holiest of their order, perhaps she would put a little more weight in the possibility of Dante's importance. He'd wait and see, then. Doing anything rash would ruin both their chance to assassinate Samarand and his ability to learn the nether through the structured instruction of this place, rather than through whatever fragments he could scrape together on his own. They'd decide either to kill him or use him. He wouldn't act until he knew which. Time went by. Without a window on the sky, he had no way to tell how much. He conjugated irregular verbs for a while. He killed some time holding his breath for as long as he could, then waited for his gasps to subside, and tried it again. He made a methodic sweep of the room, poking every stone up to the eight-foot ceiling, tapping his toe against every block in the floor. None were false or loose. He hadn't expected they would be, but he liked to think someone who'd shared this room before him had made an effort to escape rather than let himself rot, clapped up and forgotten. It wasn't until he could no longer forestall urinating that he grew angry. There were no buckets, no holes in the floor. They hadn't exactly forgotten about him in a few hours either. It was deliberate. They wanted to reduce him to an animal, degrade his pride. He did his business in a corner and laid down on the other side of the room, breathing through his mouth. After a while, he even slept. Dante woke to pitch darkness. He jerked upright, flinching, as if he expected to bang his head. The lantern had gone out. He groped for the near wall, 
leaning forward until his fingers brushed stone. He let himself wake up for a minute, torch stone in his pocket. He cocked his head, listened for the scrabbles of rats or anything else lurking in the blindness. There was no need for light. The room was practically a complete seal. Darkness couldn't hurt him. For a while longer, he sat there, listening to himself breathe. Maybe it was a good thing he was still locked up. Maybe that meant they had lots of things to talk about. His stomach gurgled. He had no way to know how long he'd slept, but from his stomach, insistent but not yet pained, he guessed it had been some twelve hours since he'd eaten lunch shortly before they'd dragged him here. He sucked on his fingers, straining his eyes against the inky darkness. He stilled his mind. A coldness like exposing wet skin to a breeze crept over his hands. He thought on the nature of the shadow sphere, the all but solid substance of its delumination, a deeper blackness even than that of this room. He bent his mind to define the sphere by what it wasn't, by its unduck-like properties. He laughed through his nose, and as his breath touched his palm, he could see the creases of his skin, white and illusory as a flash of pain. It winked out at his surprise, and he cast back out for its feeling, gathering it in like rope onto a pier. First a spot, and then he saw his hand, his wrist. It expanded over his arm, the dust on his knees, and the smooth stone floor. He stood slowly, willing the light to grow. His line of sight bubbled outward until all the room was lit in ghostly white. It had been so simple. What else could he do if he took the time to think about it? Metal scraped on metal, on the far side of the door. Dante started. The bolt clicked. He swept his thoughts clean and popped back into darkness in time for the light of the hall to spill into his chamber as the door swung open. Still alive, Laramore called. He walked inside, glancing idly to either side of the door, then saw Dante standing half in shadow at the far side of the room. Laramore was silhouetted, his face unreadable. Stinks in here. That's what happens when you treat a man worse than you'd care for your stock, Dante said. At least it hasn't dulled your tongue. How's Blaze? Untouched, despite my best counsel, and his brilliant plan to try to brawl his way to wherever we might have you, Laramore said. He raised a dark hand to his face. How would you like to see Samarand? Dante snorted. Do I have a say? Of course not, but I thought you might be comforted by the illusion you did. Laramore turned toward the door. Come. Dante squinted against the modest lantern light of the hall. After a single day in the room, it already felt strange to walk about relatively free, qualified only by Laramore, the sheathed swords of the guards who followed him, the walls of the keep, the hundreds of soldiers within it, the walls around the keep, and, he supposed, his own need to stay here until Samarand lay dead at his feet.
He stumbled, and the guard put a hand on his back. He shrugged it away. His heart railed against his ribs. Samarand, face to face. He felt certain he could take her life if he sacrificed his own. Why had all this fallen on him? They ascended to the entry hall, and Laramore strode straight back to the sets of doors at the far end of the room. A few soldiers and well-dressed men glanced their way. Into a hallway, through another couple doors, a tight spiral staircase. Dante stopped counting steps after a hundred. Laramore turned off to a landing, a short distance from the top. Dante smiled at the heavy breathing of the others. He was winded, but not badly. All that running away had been good for something after all. From there they entered a sort of forehall, thick black rugs on the stone floor, weavings and paintings on the walls, elegant sculpture of the same make he'd seen on the temples within the city. They passed a window of purified glass, and Dante stopped short. Below him lay the yard, and the walls, and the open street, and beyond that, across a yawning gap of empty space, the upthrust steeple of the Cathedral of Ivars soared into the sky. For all their height and the keep, a full two-thirds of the church's spire towered above them. Dante was beginning to understand just how big the world was, but surely Ivars was the tallest thing man had ever built. Behind it, the dead city stretched for miles through swathes of grey and white stone, river-like streets, black fringes of pines growing frequent between the first and second walls, and thickly enough to resemble a forest in the crumbling fringes of the outermost city. To his north, he could see the grey waters of the bay, the tree-painted arms of land holding it in place, the silvery line of a river feeding it and coursing off to the southeast. It was earlyish morning, he saw, eight or nine o'clock. He'd spent closer to twenty hours locked up than twelve. Enough goggling, Laramore said. Dante pulled himself from the window and hurried to catch up. They drew up in front of a solid-looking set of doors, and Laramore wrapped his knuckles against the wood. A woman's voice filtered through the door with a distant thrill Dante realized he understood the foreign words. Come in. The room was close, warmed and lit by a hearth at its far end. Samarand was seated in front of it, turned toward the door. She folded up a book on her lap and looked up. Her gaze caught on Dante a moment. Then she smiled at Laramore, who walked forward and bobbed his head. They exchanged a few words, and Dante's comprehension of the Gaskin by way of Narashtovic evaporated. He shifted his feet as their talk wore on. Samarand laughed regularly, pressing her hand to the base of her throat. His eyes settled on the hollow there, the white, fragile skin. He imagined slitting it, gathering the nether and caving in her face. If he made the room go black first, he could probably do the same to Laramore and the armsmen before they could stop him. He was more dangerous than they gave him credit. Dante Galland, Samarand said, standing and facing him. 
Her voice was soft but carried a current of command. Her words were malish but accented with the thick consonants of gask speech, an influence he hadn't heard when she'd given her sermon. He met her eyes. I'm sorry you spent so long in that cell. I was out. My fault, Laramore agreed, smiling. She gave him a look, and he gathered his men and bowed out through the door. It was at least a step more civil than all those times you tried to kill me, Dante said, managing to keep his voice level. I've never seen you before today. In the fields, coming for the book. Did I pass your test? Was I ever out in those fields with you? Whose men were they then? She shook her head, gaze steady. This isn't why I brought you here. She nodded to a chair across from hers. He fell into it, leaning his head against its high back. I bet the others were grateful for the chance to prove themselves, he said. She just smiled. He found it maddening. It's easy to forget, she said. When Larimore tells me of all the things you've done, you're still a child. He let that go. The others were angry, too. They didn't understand at first. But the same drive that brought them to the book gave them the vision for what they could become. Two of them are present members of our council. Is that an offer? She laughed again, then touched her fingers to her lips. You've made things difficult for me. I'd like you with us. We need talent now more than ever, but I need that book. Dante made himself sigh. I told Laramore, the book I gave Knack is the same one I found in that temple. Indeed. She leaned back in her chair. She could have been discussing the health of a distant relative. He readied himself to reach for the nether. I suppose you've already made up your mind. Why would I have done that? She frowned, showing the wrinkles around her mouth. This isn't a formality. I wanted to see you for myself. He narrowed his eyes. Is Blaze safe? Your friend is fine. I want to see him. She lifted one grey-flecked brow. If it turned out I'd killed him, what would you do about it? Try to kill me? That would be suicide, he said evenly. Here and now, you and I are in this room, she said with the same easy power with which she'd given her sermon. It's high and isolated. The doors are shut. I have one question. Do you want the knowledge I can offer? His hands tightened on the chair's arms. Yes. Her blue eyes skipped between his. Then give me the book. Look at these, he said, pointing his fingers so close to his eyes he might poke them out. And no, I'm telling the truth when I say I've given you everything I have.
She stared at him the way you'd stare at the scorpion while deciding whether to crush it or leave it be, and he felt a flickering around his mind. He jerked his head, then made his mind go as blank as when he sought to channel the nether. Burn in hell, he thought, but he saw no recognition across her face. You're a snake, she said, freezing his blood, but I see no lie in your eyes. Finally. Now maybe I can get back to my lessons. Heavens forbid I infringe on your time. Is that how you aspire to spend it? With grammar and vocabulary? I need to know those things, Dante frowned. You all speak more than one language. Yes, we are wise enough to know the world's a large place, and good for us. But you didn't travel all this way in hopes of learning your letters. I'm inclined to agree. Dante leaned forward, trying to keep his eyes guarded. Meaning? If these were ideal circumstances, we'd be in no hurry to rush things along, she said, lifting the corners of her lips at what she saw in his face. But they're not, and we do. You'll continue your lessons with Nack, but we've got a lot of work and not enough hands to get it done. Laramore will make use of you with some tasks more suitable to your skills than copying conjugation tables. What kind of tasks? She gave an ironic tilt to her head. Trust my great wisdom will see they're matched to your abilities and temperament. I'm not interested in wasting either of our time on tests. Dante nodded, considering her placid face. He'd have training both formal and experiential. In the employ of her most trusted servant. A chance to at once realize his talents and stay close enough to find the right moment to strike her down. He couldn't have asked for more. He knew this was no fortunate turn of a die, though. He had made this thing happen. Through wit and will, he'd put himself in position to receive this offer. He wouldn't squander it. I accept. Excellent, she smiled appearing genuinely pleased. Dante still hadn't seen the violence and radicalism Khalid claimed she'd ridden to power. For a brief moment, he wondered if the old man might have been wrong, if the Samarand he'd known years ago had let age temper her ambition with wisdom. People did change, he thought. He wasn't the boy he'd been three months ago. He'd become potent in a way he'd imagined would take years, had done things he never would have dared on his own. If he could reforge his personality so much in three months, what could Samarant have done in twenty years? Perhaps when she'd gotten the wants of her heart, she'd mellowed, satisfied with her power and her place. You won't be seeing much of me, of course, Samarant went on. I've got a lot to do beyond holding the hands of all those administrators who keep writing me for money and troops. She nodded at her desk, overflowing with signet-stamped letters. Laramore will tell you whatever we need done. Grow strong. We'll need you soon enough. He nodded, dazed. She stood, and he did too. He wondered if he was supposed to bow, he offered a kind of 
deep nod, and when the guards escorted him from her chambers, he knew it wasn't to control his path, but to protect him. Why didn't you do it then? Blaze asked when they had a moment alone. He had a bruise high on his cheek and a cut across his nose, but he looked to be in one piece. We'd have been killed, Dante said simply. He rubbed his eyes and looked up from a pile of Nack's notes. We can't do this like we've done all the rest. We need a plan, a real one. Yeah, Blaze nodded, letting his heels bounce against the side of the desk he was sitting on. Was she as nice in person as at her sermon? There's something about her. She's seductive. That's disgusting. Not like that, Dante said, face going red. He shoved Blaze. Wait, let's not rule this out, Blaze said, writing himself on the desk. We can use this. First, you flatter and sweet talk your way into her confidence. Then, when the moment is right, you use that sharp tongue of yours to- Shut up! Dante shoved him again. How had they started talking about this? I mean, she has a way with people. She's a leader of men. If she's like Callie said, then she hides it well. Well, I see how little it takes to win you over, Blaze said, eyes lingering on Dante's neck. Dante touched the cold clasp on his collar, the badge Laramore had given him after his talk with Samaran, a silver ring around a simple, stylized, seven-branched tree. This is how I'm going to keep close to her. Closer than a private audience? This lets us choose the moment when, Dante said. That gives us the power. He moved across the room to their one window. They told me they'd assigned you an instructor from the soldiers. You'll be with me on our assignments. Blaze tapped his finger on the desk, then leaned forward, elbows on knees. Just what are these errands anyway? Well, I don't know, Dante said. Things they need done. They found out soon enough. Laramore appeared the next afternoon to interrupt Nack's lesson with a tersely worded order about a man spotted in the ruins beyond the outer wall. He wanted Dante to bring him in. Why? Because I'm telling you to. A time-honored logic. Because, Laramore said, tugging his collar forward, he used to be one of our acolytes. Not fond of those who leave the fold, Dante said judging he still had some play to his rope. Not fond of those who leave it with their pockets sagging with our property. Laramore tapped Dante's badge. Nor is it particularly pleasing when they make a point of lurking about and robbing our monks when they're out on their business. Stealing from men of peace. What is this world coming to? Dante nodded, mollified. Should I know anything about him? Dark hair, cued, bearded, in fact a general mess. You'll know he's been on the streets a while. Name's Ryan Briggs. I meant of a less tangible nature. Laramore laughed, met his eyes. Scared? No, Dante said. He picked up his sword belt, 
Well, what can he do? Minor talents, nothing you can't handle. Want him in one piece? Would be nice. Laramore shrugged. But denial of men's desires is the god's way of saying hello. Dante nodded, buckling his sword around his waist. He'll be yours by nightfall. I hope you're cognizant of the irony here, Blaze said after Dante'd found him trading blows with one of the soldiers in the yard and explained their job. I'm cognizant. Remember why we're here. You'd do well to do the same. Dante shook his head. They crossed the yard to the small door at the other side of the citadel's walls, the only other exit from the place, a door far less ostentatious than the main gates, but thick as his palm was wide, and set in a passage too narrow to swing a sword. The sunlight flashed on the icon on his collar, and the door's guards let them by. They strode east into the city, toward the fringes. Citizens' eyes lingered on Dante and the silver at his neck as he brushed by. He gazed straight ahead, a faint thrill of rank and recognition tickling his nerves. It had snowed the night before, and their boots slid on the ice-slick cobbles. They passed under the inn gate to the shabbier, less peopled buildings between it and the gappy ring of the pride gate. So named, Naka told him in a brief break from the endless language lessons, because in all the times the city had been sacked, no man who defended its outer walls had ever abandoned them, except to be thrown in a coffin. Much of the city was still a mystery to Dante. He hadn't been outside the citadel since the day he'd given them the fake copy of the cycle. But the keep and the church were landmark enough to keep his direction, even with the sun hidden behind a screen of clouds. The ground sloped down between the two sets of walls before leveling out in front of the pride gate, threatening to yank itself from under their feet with every step into the snow. It was easy to forget, behind the thick stone of the sealed citadel and among the bustling crowds behind the inn gate, that so much of the city was wrecked, forgotten, neglected, peopled by the lost and the landless and the outcast, when it was peopled at all. Dante paused in the street just past the outer walls. Birdsong and single footsteps trickled through the rubble and the pines. Behind him, far-carrying notes of shopmen crying prices, hammers shaping steel. We were rats recently enough, Dante said, gazing over the houses in their various states of decay. Laramore said he'd been seen in this quarter. If you were a rat, where would you hide from our soldiers? A basement to hide my light, Blaze said. He sucked his teeth or the second floor of a place where the stairs had caved in. If someone came for me in my sleep, I'd hear them scrabbling around before they could get up to me. Dante nodded, impressed, but didn't say so. They made a few circles of the weed-choked streets, examining the houses with fresh litter of footprints in the yellowed grass and snow-patched dirt, spooking a few grimy men ensconced in their filth in single, under-furnished rooms. In the sixth or seventh house of their search, they saw a tuft of long black hair beneath a blanket. Dante called their quarry's name. Got no response. He walked toward the man and nudged him with his boot. Stiff. 
Blaze took out his sword. Dante knelt and pulled back the blanket. The body's cheek looked bruised where it rested on the dirt floor, its open eyes dull and glassy. Dante shook his head. When twilight came, the hour of roaming, they returned to the gateless gap in the wall and sank down against the stone, watching the shadowy figures of men in the distance. Footsteps echoed from the other side of the walls, and they put their hands on their weapons. A blonde man walked through, eyes darting to the scrape of swords being put away. He hurried into the growing gloom. Are they going to string you up if you don't find the guy? They'll probably start with you, Dante said. Give me something to think about for next time. I'd give them something to think about, Blaze said. He picked up a stick and flipped his wrist in a tight circle, stabbing at the air. Been learning much? A bit, Blaze said. They don't fight as dirty as Robert showed me. Dante grinned. He hadn't thought of Robert in days. Then they won't be expecting it when we make our move. Nor will I at this rate. Dante put a finger to his lips. More bootsteps, slowing as they approached the walls, as if the wearer were nearing the end of his journey. The man began whistling. In the day's last light, Dante saw a bristle-bearded man emerge from the wall into the dirty street. A light, steady wind tossed locks of black hair over his eyes and nose. Dante let him get a ways down the street, then stood and moved to cut off the way back inside the gates, Blaze half a step behind him. Ryan Briggs, he called in the husky, cheerful voice Laramore liked to use when he was delivering bad news. The man spun, his smile freezing on his lips. Who are you? he said in Malish, which came as only a mild surprise. His name was Southern. He squinted at the pair. Dante edged forward, falling out of the long shadow of the wall and into the soft light of dusk. Ryan's gaze dropped to his neck. A trained dog? Can you play dead? My name is Dante Galland. You're to come with me. And you're to kiss my puckered ass, Ryan said, face gone tight. His left hand lowered to the short sword on his right hip. I wouldn't, Blaze said. They'll give me much worse at the Citadel. You've been robbing monks, Dante said. He took another step. I had a brother in Bressel, Ryan said, and Dante stopped short to hear the city's name. I say had, because I learned he died on the road a few weeks ago. Killed in a skirmish. He glanced beyond the wall to the hulking mass of cathedral and citadel, miles deeper into the city. Surely you've read the scriptures, he said, returning his eyes to Dante's. Do you remember the part where they compel the church to drag the innocent into its squabbles? What's happening in Bressel? Blaze said. His hands hung at his sides, empty for the moment. For all their talk, these people can't take the city, Ryan spat. It was like he'd been waiting for them, Dante saw, had been stewing in his reasons with no audience to which he could explain them. 
So they camp in the woods and ambush the nobles and guildsmen and clergy and soldiers whenever they leave the walls. A sure sign of God's on your side when you're forced to squat in the woods like a cur. They say the people are remembering the old ways, though, that they're joining the fight. For all I know, Bressel's burnt by now. The boys looked at each other for a long moment. They'd speculated sometimes on how things were going in the South, but no one had been able to give them any real news. Dante wanted to press for more, but Ryant would be in the hands of the Citadel soon, might say anything to ease his time if he were put to the knife or the boots. Could even, unlikely as it may seem, speak about the boys' unnatural interest in the events of their homeland. Unbuckle your blade and come with us, Dante said to Ryant. They may find mercy when they hear your story, but if you try to run or resist, I'll grant you none. Yeah, go on, do as you're told. You don't know a thing about why I'm here, Dante said. He tensed himself. Ryant smiled with half his mouth. I know enough, the man said. He pinched his fingers together, and the boys were swallowed in pure blackness. Blaze's sword rang out from somewhere behind Dante. He drew his own and heard boots pounding away from them. Careful, Dante said, then ran after the sound of the man's feet, clenching his teeth at the blind plunge over uneven ground. He managed not to trip and dashed free of the shadow sphere and into the sudden brightness of twilight. Ryan's disappeared around the rough edge corner of a house a score of yards ahead. The boys sprinted after him, making a wide turn around the house in case he'd planted himself against its wall in waiting. Up ahead, Ryan glanced over his shoulder and slipped in the snow, cursing as he bounced against the ground. He hauled himself up before he'd finished falling, faltered on his right ankle, then cursed again and ran on with little drop in speed. Dante closed to twenty feet. Ryant weaved through pines, ducking branches. A foot-high fragment of what had once been a full wall sprawled out in front of him, and he vaulted it, crying out as his feet hit frozen dirt. He popped up, jogging backwards, and waved a hand at Dante. Fire whomped up, and Dante bent double, hand trailing the ground to steady himself. A strange anger took him. As if it were somehow offensive, this man should try to kill him in order to save his own life. And Dante blanked his thoughts and wrapped the nether around Ryan's body in the opposite trick of what Gabe had shown him. Ryan's legs froze up, and he toppled forward, sliding face-first through the snow. Dante approached quickly, Blaze circling to his right. Dante dug his knee into the man's back and yanked his arms behind him. He bound his hands and elbows tight with the rope he'd taken for his task, leaving Ryan's legs unsecured. Let him walk his own self all that way. He gave the knots at the man's wrists another tug. I'm going to let you up now, Dante panted. And if you try anything other than walking exactly where I tell you, I'll reduce you to a fine red mist. Ryant only gurgled in reply, his throat caught by Dante's shadowy grip. 
Dante let the nether fall away, feeling its reluctance to part, its primal urge to clench Ryan's throat until his breath stopped. Freed, the man gagged, gasped, curled up as his body rediscovered it could move. Dante gave him a moment to regain his wind, then grabbed the ropes around his arms and, with Blaze's help, hauled him to his feet. I'm going to curse your name the instant before they trim my thread, Ryan said, still half-choked. One morning, you'll wake up dead and never live again. Or maybe your arm will go black and drop off. Or maybe it won't be your arm, it'll be... Get moving, Dante said, shoving him in the back. Ryan had twisted his ankle in his first fall, and the progress was slow. Blaze took point cloak thrown back over his left shoulder to keep his sword visible. Dante walked behind Ryan, eyes on anyone who drew too close while he kept his mind open to any surge of shadow from their prisoner. You can still let me go, Ryan said, when they were waved through the inn gate after Dante'd shown the war guard his badge. The city lay under full dark by then, lit by sporadic lanterns outside public houses and at the more major street corners, and by the weak aid of the moon through an overcast sky. Be quiet, Dante said. Look in your heart. I haven't hurt a soul. That's more than can be said for them. Boo-hoo, Blaze said from over his shoulder. It isn't a matter of justice, Dante said. What then? Ryan pressed, trying to catch Dante's eye. Dante shoved him forward again. Do you like to hear men beg? Is that what tightens your trousers? The sound of a man's voice who knows he's at your power? Shut up, Dante said. He grabbed the knots at Ryan's wrists and twisted them so the ropes cut into his skin. Ryan cried out softly. You don't know a damned thing. The man went quiet. From there, like the prisoners Dante'd seen brought up to the crooked tree outside Wetton, even Blaze and Robert themselves, Ryant was docile, following their course without speaking, accepting orders of movement with a downturned face. Why did they do that? Why didn't Ryant try to kill him? Did the man's dead brother mean so little to him? For that matter, how was robbing monks supposed to honor his memory? It made as little sense as whatever divine scheme had necessitated his brother's death in the first place, or why the House of Aron had ever had to face the Third Scour, or why Dante had been chosen to stop a war he couldn't be certain was unjust. He felt no pity for Ryant. So the man had snapped awake enough to see something was wrong. Bully for him. All he'd done with that fresh vision was skulk around the ruins, taking pennies from those who'd wronged him. Dante's own ambition was no less than the killing of the Order's head. If, as Gabe believed, even that was no guarantee for any kind of change, what chance did a man like Ryant have to make some sense of his life? No wonder he didn't struggle when it came time to give it up. Dante bore his prisoner to the eastern door from which he and Blaze had set out, and hailed to the guards with his name. They opened it, 
and led Dante's troop single file down the dark passage through the citadel's walls, the entry being too narrow to comfortably walk shoulder to shoulder. Not content with that precaution, the passage's interior was lined with holes meant for firing arrows and stabbing pikes at anyone with the right combination of strength and stupidity to try to force their way through it. Perhaps they could kill her, Dante thought, and then just walk on out under color of Leromor's errands. On the other hand, what was the hurry? Who said killing her would solve anything? Couldn't he see a while longer to his training with Nag, while he worked out a safer route to the process of transmuting Samaran's living body into a rotting corpse? Excellent, Laramore said when he saw the three waiting for him inside the keep's main hall. He tucked his lower lip beneath his upper teeth and grinned, nose sticking out like a fox's. That room downstairs has been feeling a touch empty since you left it. It'll be glad to once more be a home. He tried to set me on fire, Dante said. Laramore's eyes flicked up and down his form. You don't smell burnt. He spoke orders in Gascon to a pair of guards, and they led silent Ryant away. He turned back to Dante, who lingered in the hall, uncertain what he was expecting. Well done. If only we'd had you to send after yourself. We'd still have gotten away, Blaze said. Probably, Laramore said. He raised an eyebrow their way. What are you waiting for? A knighthood? Get off to sleep. Busy days ahead. He strode away into the belly of the keep. Probably to let Samarand know of the capture. A strange pride crept across Dante's chest as he exited to the yard. He'd done the service of the enemy, but he had done it well. An average man-at-arms would have died to Ryan's simple sorcery. In his brief time in the Citadel, Dante had vaulted from a life of self-education and fleeing for his life to one of formal, rigorous instruction and meaningful work. He could be important here, he knew. He was already useful in a manner he'd never been. Knack thought he was bright, if occasionally too aware of it. Already Laramore trusted him enough to give him tasks beyond the grasp of ninety-nine men out of a hundred. With no other obligation splitting his focus and loyalty, Dante felt certain he could one day have been one of the twelve men on the council but he would have to give that up for the well-being of his homeland, a place that banned the light of Aron, and had recently tried to execute Blaze and Robert, two of his only friends. He could see no way in which that was fair. For all those thoughts, as he returned to his cell in the chapel, he could see nothing more than the slump of Ryan's shoulders, his slack face the hollows of his eyes as he disappeared into the dungeons. Ryan probably thought the wrong done unto him was the rightful price of his resistance. He was probably even so vain as to think there was some meaning to whatever would be done to him next, whether it was torture and execution or no more than interminable imprisonment. Well, Ryan was an idiot. Either way, he'd be forgotten just one more body in a city already choked with the yards of the dead.
His brother was gone, and now he would be too. That was the way of things, Dante decided. With the gods and the stars so far removed from human matters, the only justice to be found was what you took for yourself. Chapter 15 By morning he learned language with Nag, and by evening they trained with the Nether. Dante's methods were undisciplined, Nag noted, crude, if effective, and the monk showed him cleaner paths to channel the Nether and more closely bend it to his thoughts. Most men have to struggle with every step of this, you know. Nack said in mild confusion, after Dante had mastered another lesson on his third attempt. You fly through it like a bolt. It's less like I'm teaching than I'm revealing things your mind already knows. They worked in the cold of the open yard beside the chapel, filling the space with shadows and light, with bursts of flame that melted the snows on the grounds, and spikes of force that could crack small rocks. When soldiers suffered injuries in training or in scuffles in the streets, they were brought to the chapel, and Nack showed him the proper methods of mending flesh and bone. Through all his education, the bald priest made no mention of the peculiar talents of Jack Hand and the few men like him mentioned in the cycle. It was as if death, for as much as the prayers and the studies of the priests and acolytes of Aron centered on the life after life, were a thing beyond them, the one depth forbidden to be plumbed. It was a blind spot, Dante saw, a thing he could exploit. Laramore came to him with a new task most every day, and Dante'd cease his lessons with Nack to deliver sealed letters across town and wait for a hastily scribbled reply, to place orders with smiths and tailors, to escort priests and monks and nobles and ambassadors through the danger of the city to the relative peace of the wilds, to tail emissaries and messengers from other cities and lands and see to whom they spoke away from the eyes of the sealed citadel. Once he was sent to capture another man, and when the man drew his blade instead of letting himself be tied, Dante struck open his guts with a thrust of his hand. He left the body where it fell and went back to the keep to let them know to send a team if they wanted to pick it up. A week into this routine, Blaze asked again about Samarand, about their true purpose, and Dante answered him like before. In time... He kept his eyes and ears open, as he did Laramore's bidding, and between gossip at the keep and the fragments of conversation he could understand from the well-dressed men bearing the colors of lords and territories all throughout Gask and beyond, he began to piece together that something was coming to a head. The council factored heavily in this intrigue, meeting frequently behind closed doors high up in the keep. More doors opened to Dante by the day. He'd had a reputation before he'd arrived at the Citadel, he discovered, based on the gruesome tendency for none of the men dispatched to kill him to ever be heard from again. And as he carried out Larimore's will in the field, it only grew. He was grimly efficient, they said, already more talented than half the priests who weren't on the council, cold and harsh as sunlight glinting from the snow. He was on the rise. 
Nothing was shut to his blend of ambition and ability. Nothing, for now, but the doors to the council. He learned the Citadel's regular orders for weapons were being sent to the city smiths rather than their own forges, which were busy dealing with the bricks of silver as big as his forearm that disappeared behind their walls each day. Dante explored and lingered as much as he dared, intentionally losing himself in the twisting halls of the keep so that, when the time came to still Samaran's heart, he could flee the halls without a wasted step. Priests and guards sometimes caught him in places he had no strict business to be in, and he'd lie about an errand of Samaran's hand, or walk on by without a word, as if he were too wrapped up in his latest responsibilities to even notice their questions and turned faces. Once he'd learned the general lay of the keep, he started waking earlier, finding excuses to slip away from Nark and walk alone in its halls, in the hopes of at last hearing the details of whatever they prepared for, and perhaps, though Dante didn't think it outright, to hear something that would push him into completing the task Callie had sent him here for. When he delivered letters, he crowded close to their recipients, daring glances at their responses as they wrote them. He was cutting it close, he knew. He was earning their trust, but he was still an outsider. He wasn't certain they'd believed him about the book, and if they hadn't, why they were giving him so much rope. Sometimes, when he heard Laramore's laughter, it no longer sounded innocent, at least as innocent as Laramore could claim to be, but scored with an undercurrent of scorn, as if the man could see the treachery hidden in Dante's heart. The slightest noise could make him start like a rabbit. His nerves were getting too frayed to maintain his double purpose. If he couldn't breach the council doors in person, perhaps he could do it by proxy. The sealed citadel was secured against the intrusion of men, but wasn't meant to keep out rats. The night before the next council was scheduled, he lay awake in bed until the chapel was long silent, then crept out to the pantry. He waited no more than a minute before the dark blot of a rat wriggled across the floor in search of crumbs. Dante snapped its neck with a brief flicker of nether, then surrounded it with a stronger hand of shadows and reanimated it as he'd done in the past. He closed his eyes and saw the pantry from its alien perspective so near to the ground. Heart racing, he opened the front door of the chapel and sent the beast scurrying toward the keep. Its doors were shut firm, and Dante had to wait for half an hour before someone opened them on a midnight errand. He made the rat run inside, head swimming as the ground rushed past its nose. He kept it tight to the walls of the main hall, eyes out for guards. A few stood watch, faces hooded by gloom, but either they had no interest in vermin or were sleeping on their feet, for his rat made it to the corridors beyond the hall without drawing their attention. He sent it down the passageways he'd memorized in his wanderings, running from doorway to doorway, pausing to listen for the sound of footfalls. Would the priests be able to sense its intrusion? But saw no more than one stock-still guard before it reached the stairwell to the upper floors. 
The dead rat leapt tirelessly from one step to the next, clambering ever upward, until, at last, it reached the seventh-floor landing, where they held their council. The hallway was silent, still, lit by a single lantern. The doors of their chamber were open. Dante willed the rat inside, then sent it snuffling around the room's edges until he found a crack in the stone just wide enough to lodge its body and look out on the dark blurs of the great table and its chairs. The task had taken no more than an hour. But he was exhausted, and despite his pulsing nerves, he fell asleep within minutes of hitting the bed. Dante woke an hour after dawn and drew breath so sharply he choked on his own spit. He sat upright, muffling his cough to keep from disturbing Blaze, then closed his eyes and sought the sight of the rat. Sunlight diffused through a north-facing window, illuminating the same furniture he'd seen by the darkness of the previous night. It remained empty of people, but as Dante went about his breakfast, and then his morning grammar lessons with Nack, he'd briefly shut his eyes and catch glimpses of servants sweeping the room, straightening the sashes on the windows, lighting candles along the walls. In still-framed flashes, he'd watched the council chamber grow tidied for its use. Nack was grilling him on Narashtavik verb tenses he hadn't yet mastered, and in his frustration Dante let twenty minutes pass without checking on his spy. He rubbed his eyes, and with a shock to his heart, saw robed men seated at the table, heard tense voices arguing their points. This isn't something we should be trying to hasten, he heard Samaran say in her slightly accented malish. I'm not going to risk a false step for the sake of shaving off a few days. But every day we spend on our haunches is one more day we give them to prepare a man's voice said, in an accent so thick it was a moment before Dante could make sense of the words. And what are you doing about them? How is it they're able to prepare so close to our city? A third voice says. Enough, Tarkon, Samarand put in. You know we're spread too thin to root them out right now. We'll lure them to us in the open field, then break their spine then. Dante heard Nack clear his throat, and he scrambled to reply to the priest's obscure linguistic query, only to get it wrong. Nack threw up his hands and sighed, and as he repeated his lesson for the third or fourth time, Dante divided his attention between his bald teacher and the conversation high up in the keep, only to find it had turned to an over-specific discussion of payments due for the maintenance of their soldiers. What's going on in that head of yours? Nack snapped, leaning in so close his nose was six inches from Dante's. This may not be so exciting as Laramore's little ventures, but it's just as important to your education, dammit. I know, Dante said, rubbing his eyes again. It just feels like I'm making so little progress. You're doing fine, Nack said. Better than fine. Your fundamentals are sound. No one can learn a new language overnight. All this waiting is killing me, Dante said. Nack furrowed his brow at the boy, lifted himself from his seat. Tell you what, he said. Take a break while I go fetch us some tea. Okay, 
Dante said. Without pausing to wonder what tea, he was plunged back into the vision of the rat. The council was still going on about the finances of the soldiers. Did they usually talk about things like that? Or was it the prelude to military action? From the rat's vantage and the crack in the wall, he could see no more than a few slippered feet and the hunched backs of old men. He leaned his senses forward, as if that would somehow shine light on everything that was now obscured. Why were such important people talking about such trivial things? I sense, he heard Samaran say, then cut herself short. There was a shuffling of robes, a moment of silence. What is it? one of the men said. Nothing. Pardon my interruption, Baxter. The conversation resumed. Dante slapped absently at the back of his neck, thinking he felt a fly. A hot prickle ran across his scalp, and he realized it wasn't his nerves he felt, but the rats on the other end of the connection. At once he could sense her, the way you can sense the presence of a person in an unlit room. She had found the rat, felt the nether that kept it on its feet, was now tracing whatever line tied it to Dante as delicately as a spider climbs down its web when it knows there's something large stuck in the far end. Dante jerked himself away from the rat, some part of him registering he'd also jerked back in his chair. But that cord held fast. Samaran's presence surged forward. Dante stood and cast about the chapel reading room as if looking for a physical axe with which to cut the connection, feeling her cold intelligence dropping down the line ever closer. Then, with an exertion of will so forceful it made sweat stand up on his forehead, he took a breath, cleared his mind, gazed on that needle-thin shadow that bound him to the rat. He severed it quickly and cleanly, heard a sharp question from Samaran's consciousness, then darkness and softness nothing more than his own five senses. He stood there a while, half-dazed, trying not to move for fear it would somehow draw her back to him and this time identify him. He couldn't remember a time he'd tried anything more stupid. What's the matter? Nack said, returning to the room with a copper tray bearing a kettle of something that smells like land leaves. You have the look of a man who just tried to puke up a live horse. What? Dante said. Maybe. I mean, maybe it was something I ate. We'll sit down and have some tea. Nack gave him a doubting glance. Grammar isn't that upsetting. After they drank a bit, they returned to their lessons, but Dante was too busy trying to convince himself he hadn't been caught to pay any more attention than he had before, and Nack dismissed him less than an hour later. Dante wandered to his cell, napped fitfully through the afternoon, rose and reread the translation of the cycle until Blaze returned from his training with the soldiers. Blaze unbuckled his sword and threw himself down on his pallet, sighing into his pillow. I feel the way a club must feel, he said muffledly. Everything hurts. I'm losing my grip, Dante said, double-checking the lock on the door. How do you mean? They're up to something big. I can't find out what. They almost caught me today. Then re-grasp it, 
Blaze said, wriggling onto his back. Make a plan already. The time isn't right. He heard Blaze snapping straw in the dark. And why does it matter what she's up to, exactly? Whatever it is, it's going to distract her, Dante said slowly. He hadn't tried to explain to himself just why the Council's plans were relevant to their own, but he couldn't shake the need to know. I think if we take her out then, and she fails, this whole thing might fall apart, break into too many pieces for someone else to put back together. Can you find out what it is? Not unless it's dropped in my lap. I can't do any more snooping. It feels like I'm being quartered by my own cross-purposes. Blaze hummed. Why don't you just ask them what they're up to? What? For some reason they think you're arrogant and ambitious, right? They do appear to be under that impression, Dante said. Blaze tapped his chin, then went on. A man like that wouldn't like feeling left out of the loop, right? You'd demand to know what's going on. You'd say, Laramore, tell me what you're up to before I smash this castle down around your head. And he'd say, Dante, grow the hell up. Blaze shook his head in the gloom of their single candle. And you go on to tell him you're being wasted as his errand boy, delivering letters, guarding ambassadors, that's for servants, not Aron's chosen. Ask him if they'd have left Will Palomar in the dark. Dante licked his lips. And when he says no, remind him who killed him. Exactly. I wonder who Will Palomar was. Who cares? He was somebody around here, that's clear enough. And you can be damn sure they wouldn't be treating him like a trained bear. Just ask them, Dante repeated. Really, it'd be suspicious if you didn't. How's this look right now? The first day you barge in here and throw their most prized possession in the dirt like it's a used whore rag, all the while threatening their lives, and two weeks later you're bumbling around saying yes sir, no sir, you've got to act like a prick again, for the good of the land. Dante laughed, buried his face in his rough cotton bedclothes. If this gets us killed tomorrow, I'm blaming you. Blaze snorted. Then when it goes off like a dream, I get all the credit. No way, I'll be the one that got it done, based on my brilliant idea. I could have thought of that, but you didn't, Blaze said, lobbing straw at him. Dante grabbed some from beneath his palette and threw it back. You were over there, woe is me, I'm adrift in a cruel sea. Blaze, won't you be my anchor? Bring me back to shore, Blaze. That's not what I sounded like, Dante said. Maybe not to your ears, Blaze said. To mine, it was all I could do to keep from slapping you. I'd have turned you into a toad first, then chopped you in half with your own sword. You'd have to turn yourself into a man first so you could actually lift it. Dante had no answer to that. He closed his eyes and swiftly fell asleep. He brushed Knack off the following morning, and before Laramore could find him and make him play sheepdog to letters and people for another day, he found Laramore. He was in the room of the keep he considered to be his business quarters, drilling a bevy of servants in Gascon. Dinner. They were talking about dinner, Dante understood. 
The particulars of this dinner remained obscure, but Dante felt a faint thrill to know Nack's lessons hadn't been erased. I need to talk to you, he called from the doorway to Larimore. Do you want our guests to starve? The man tossed before turning back to his orders. Dante waited in the frame until Larimore dismissed the servants and waved the boy over. Dante closed the door and took up a chair. There shall be no mistakes regarding the gravy tonight, Dante said, trying to remember how he'd acted that first day. Indeed not. I presume you came here for higher reason than mocking the skillful administration of a home this large. Dante steeled himself. What's going on here? Yet another banquet, Laramore said, waving a hand. Fine fare is terribly important when you're a man of noble concerns. I don't mean dinner, you oaf. What's Summerand preparing for? What's gotten the Citadel so busy? Oh, that. Yes, that, Dante said. Laramore clasped his hands beneath his nose and regarded Dante for a moment. I wondered when you'd stop skulking around and come see me. I thought, why the secrets? Why is the boy of infinite hubris creeping around like a mouse in the larder? None of that is any kind of answer. Well, it's no great secret, Laramore said. Yes, I know. Dante leaned back in his chair. You wish to release Saron. You see, Laramore said, tipping back his head. Everyone knows. And rather than involving me in what must be the most important moment in the history of the House of Aron, you believe my time's best spent toting letters and playing wet nurse to fat idiots from faraway lands. Laramore pressed his hands to his face and chuckled into them, his whole body bobbing with laughter. Anyone else would have been whipped for that, he smiled. Dante rolled his eyes. Do you have any explanations for anything, or does your existence consist entirely of sitting around approving the chef's plans for supper? I should be so lucky. All right. What is it you wish to do, exactly? Be involved! Dante yelled, long past the need to pretend to be frustrated and scornful. I'm not even in the same sphere as the other students I've seen here. I can help you if you'd let me. Laramore laughed happily. You really believe you're a boy of destiny, don't you? You think you're the one in that prophecy you quoted me. I've made no such claims. You certainly hinted, implied, and danced around them. Only to keep the hand of Samarand from strangling me prematurely, Dante said. He and Laramore looked at each other, surprised, then exchanged a chuckle. Dante rubbed his nose and let the new thought he'd had take its course. What's so important about the original copy of The Cycle, anyway? Aren't the others just as good? Look, Laramore said, flexing his fingers against each other until they popped. There's no guide written for what we're trying to do. At best, we've got a rough idea of the procedures involved. It's important to reduce uncertainties wherever possible. Then why did you leave the book lying around in the first place? Laramore sighed. We didn't. Yes, but you thought you had. You locked me up over it. 
Oh, don't you remember that time you locked me in a cell and didn't feed me for a day? Oh, please, you can't blame us for being suspicious. We weren't about to take a chance on that. Dante bit back his question about why they'd believed him about the fake. Or, he thought queasily, why they'd pretended to. There was something else he needed to know first, something he hadn't expected to find an answer for when he first sought out Laramore this day. Then how did you lose it in the first place? He said. We didn't lose it. Someone stole it. How? Because he was technically its owner, Laramore said, folding his arms and glaring across the room. A couple decades back, there came a time when the old head of the order was supposed to step down. He didn't much like that idea, despite his obvious frailty and probable senility, and was even less fond of the idea of Samarand taking his place. After the council forced his ouster, it was found he'd absconded with the book. Dante pinched the bridge of his nose. What was his name? Calamandicus, Laramore said. He rolled his eyes. Needless to say, that's caused us no end of trouble between then and now. I read somewhere Samarand killed the previous head of the order. Dante felt as if he were speaking from a point a few feet distant from his body. That she usurped the position? Hardly. His time was up, figuratively speaking. Though surely he's with her on now. The old bastard had actually fought during the third scour. But that would mean even twenty years ago he'd have been a century old. Ninety-five-ish, I think. Laramore shrugged, gave Dante an odd look. This was all before my time in any event. So what did he do after he left? Laramore laughed to himself. A lot of intricate but ultimately failed scheming for the most part. About a year after he ran away, he made a rather pathetic attempt to retake control. When that didn't work, he spent the next four or five years in petty vengeance. Did manage to kill a few of our men, including one who meant something. He disappeared after that last fight. He's dust and bones by now. If he were still breathing, he'd be trying something even now. I see, Dante said, groping mentally for the top of his head, which felt like it had floated free at some point in their conversation. What's wrong? You have the look of a drunk lord who's just discovered he's shat himself. Perhaps it was something I ate, Dante said numbly. Shall we go for a walk? Cleanse out the blood? Let's. Laramore was a lively man, and he didn't so much rise from his chair as spring from it. He strolled in the direction of the main hall, passing servants and soldiers rushing about on their business of keeping the castle together, brushing by acolytes and students off on some duty for their instructors. Dante felt their eyes tracking him and Laramore through the hallways. You already have more responsibilities than some men who've been with us a year or more, you know, Laramore said in a normal tone, not caring who heard. I've earned it, haven't I? 
Dante said through the screech of his thoughts. Had anything Callie told him been true? How much could he question Laramore before he betrayed his split interest? What should he be asking now, if he were here for no other reason than worshipping Aron and culling his own power? Did Samarand deserve to die? I suppose, Laramore said, you haven't failed us yet anyway. I suppose you're of the school of thought that young men should be allowed to rise until they falter, to ascend like a hawk on an updraft until they can naturally go no higher. That seems fair. Seems fair, Laramore laughed. Then it would be no stretch to assume you think a measured education, promotion through experience rather than raw potential, those are no more than meaningless hoops you have to jump through for the amusement of powerful men. Aren't they? Dante said, and he sensed they stood on a peak, that his answers now would determine which way everything else fell. How close are you to your goal? How badly do you need strong backs to help shoulder the load? We're close. Very close. Do we really need one more hand to help us shape the nether? Who knows? It would help more to have the book. Failing that, we're going to need all the help we can muster. Then stop throwing hoops at me and make me into something that can tip the balance. Indeed. Laramore snapped his fingers, looked surprised. Oh, it didn't work. He snapped again. Then a third time, he shook his hand at the wrist, scowling at it. Damn thing seems to have given out. Dante stopped mid-stride. He bit his lip, oblivious to the self-inflicted pain until the metallic taste of blood filled his mouth. He opened the channels of his mind and let the shadows flock through them, calling out through the clear, open pathways Knack had showed him, until he could actually see black streaks shooting from the dark places in the room to gather around his hands and at the trail of blood that leaked past his lips. So Callie, too, had used him. And now Laramore mocked him. Were all men treated this way? Or was it because when they looked on him, they still couldn't see past his unlined, beardless face? They pretended to be wise, but none of these self-important men knew a God's damned thing. Let Laramore at least look on the full reach of his power. For a moment, Dante didn't know how he'd make it manifest, simply letting the forces grow until his limbs shook and his blood burnt with a sheer energy he hadn't felt since he'd strained all his body in the battle to free Blaze from the lawmen of Wetton. He saw Laramore's natural state of ironic glee melt away. His smile recede until his lips were a taut line. The light of his eyes shift from amusement to alertness and perhaps to alarm. Dante's throat felt too tight to swallow. His vision grayed at the edges. Release it, Callie would say. For the love of the gods, let it go. Dante let it burn on until his skin felt ready to peel from his flesh, enjoying every hot second of the pain that held him in its palm. He spread out his arms, as much for the spectacle as for the need, and then he nodded once and set the shadows free, not in a focused fire 
or the bleeding edge that cut people's flesh, but in a pure sphere of unfiltered force. It expanded from his body so fast, Laramore was knocked down before he could cry out. It whipped the dust on the floor into billowing clouds. Rugs flapped and spun into the walls. Vases and statues flew sideways from tables like an invisible tablecloth had been yanked from beneath them, smashing on walls, clattering to the ground. Servants and students spun from their feet to land on hands and knees, or hard on their backs. The sphere met the walls then, striking so hard it boomed like cliffside surf, like a battering ram swung into a great gate. Dante sunk to his knees, seeing black and white through the slits of his eyes. Then the crash of the nether was gone, replaced by a silence interrupted by the clinks of glass and pottery ringing to rest on the ground, by the slow crackle of stone flaking from the nearest wall, by the light sobbing of the servants and his own ragged breathing. How insightful, he heard Laramore say, distant as a cloud. The man rolled to his feet and brushed dust from his worn clothes. Around them, the other men who'd been knocked down dragged themselves up and suddenly remembered tasks of calamitous importance, disappearing through doors and around corners. Dante made no move to get up. His whole body tingled as if it were no longer just his, but belonged to all the world. His mouth was a loose O of dumb shock and simple exultation. Laramore towed a broken shard of glass. As if we didn't have enough work already. I don't need you, Dante slurred, dreamlike. He laughed, the low, breathy laugh of an idiot. Shut up, you clown, Laramore muttered. He crossed to the wall and fingered the cracks that had appeared in the stone. I want you to go to your room and think about what you've done. Tomorrow, your true purpose begins. He walked back to his cell in a daze. The world felt as close and translucent as the time he'd been drunk back in Bressel. He lowered himself to his pallet, heavy as a boulder. It was a long time before his thoughts became shapes he could understand or control. Callie lied, he said, when Blaze showed up after night had fallen. He's pretty old, Blaze said, turning his back and hanging his sword from a peg on the wall. Maybe he just forgot the truth. Gabe, too. He said Samarand led a coup, killed the old priest. Callie was the leader, and the council forced him out, not her. And obviously she didn't kill him. Blaze frowned down on him, noncommittal. Were they both lying? Or was Gabe just repeating the lies Callie'd told him? I don't know, Dante said. He stared at the ceiling. I don't suppose it matters. What do you mean? Did Callie send us here to exact justice, or to execute a personal vendetta that's twenty years old? Blaze's face clouded up. 
He shuffled his feet around the straw and dirty stone of their cell. You're thinking maybe it's a good thing it's taken so long to get things in place? I no longer have any idea what the good thing may be. Whenever I have that feeling, I try to go with whatever I haven't tried before. Blaze sighed through his nose, ruffled his hair. His eyes shifted to Dante's prone form. When did you learn all this, anyway? Today. Not a week ago. Not a month ago. You haven't just been sitting on this while you let them teach you all their fancy tricks, have you? No. Blaze stuck out his jaw. I'm not stupid. I know you pretty well. You've been enjoying this, playing them with one hand and me with the other. Dante sat upright. That's not true, isn't it? You're not putting off what we have to do so you can puff yourself up with power. Blaze, I'm not using you here. Dante told him about his conversation with Laramore, how he'd asked the man what the Order of Aron was up to, and how it had led to their talk of the history between Samarand and Calamandicus. He left out the part at the end, when he'd blown up the keep, and Laramore's promise about his true purpose, whatever that meant. I didn't know, Dante said, clasping his hands in his lap. You see? I'd been looking for a way to get to her. I had. And now it's all been swept away. Blaze blew up his cheeks and knocked his knuckles on his forehead. I'm going to ask a question, he said carefully. It's going to sound crazy, but I want you to think about it before you answer. Okay. Okay, Dante said. Blaze raised his brows. Does this change anything? That's crazy, Dante said. Blaze sighed again. Dante bit his lip, wincing when his teeth found the raw split where he'd bitten it open hours earlier. He lowered his voice. We came here thinking she's a usurper. That if she died, reason would take her place. If her place in the council's legitimate, how can we expect things will be any different just because she's gone? I don't know, Blaze hissed. Gask seems peaceful enough. There's no more murder out there than in any other city. No towns were burning on our way through. But they are burning down in Malin. If we can do something about that, how can we hold back? Dante looked down. Wetton, Bressel, the village he'd left the year before. They were just places he'd once drifted through for no reason more special than that they were near where he'd been born. He didn't miss any of the people he'd known from those times. Who were they? Faces, fragments of memory, that was all. Did the fact he had once known them somehow make them more important than the people in this city, in this kingdom? There were people in Malin who wanted to worship Aron shoulder to shoulder with the devotees of Gashin or Leah or Carvajal or Menoch. That was somehow a crime? Who'd made that decision? He shook his head at Blaze. Killing her won't change a thing. It'd be like Gabe said, someone else will take her place and the wheels of history will roll right on. Not if you're the one who takes it, 
Blaze said. Dante squinted at him until he was certain the boy was serious. Did someone hit you on the head while you were sparring today? Let me see. Dante said. He stood and reached for Blaze's head. Blaze wrestled him away. I'm serious. So am I. Let me see your skull. I bet it's got a big fat crack. What's stopping you? Blaze said, shoving Dante back again. An army of men and an order of priests. Then here's what you do. Blaze narrowed his eyes and tipped back his head in an owlish expression. Get Laramore or someone from the council to back you. Divide them up against each other and promise your supporter you'll be their cat's paw, that you'll do the thing they wouldn't dare, and so claim her seat in their name. Even if they throw you out right after, they'll be too busy squabbling to keep screwing up the South, and if they leave you in her seat, then you can rule like a king and end it all yourself. Dante sat down and chortled into his hands. You're right. Your question wasn't crazy. That's crazy. Only if you lack the vision to see it through. Let's suppose I give it a shot, Dante said, exaggeratedly stroking his chin. I'll have to expose my plan to off Samarand, to whoever I want to back me. What if they don't go for it? How well do you think that's going to fly? Like a cat in a trebuchet? Blaze shrugged. Someone's got to hate her, just figure out who. Good God! Sometimes I think we should just sneak into our chambers in the dead of night and fight our way outside. Blaze's brows knit together. Do you think that would work? I have the strange suspicion the High Priest of Aron is smart and strong enough to use her eerie powers to make sure nobody just stabs her in her sleep. So that's a no. Dante squeezed his eyes shut. You're supposed to be the reasonable one. This is going to be a disaster. You're going to do it, Blaze said, looking as if he couldn't decide whether to be enthralled or horrified. No. Maybe. Laramore's got something in store for me tomorrow, something important. I want to see what it is before striking down the road to madness. Ah! Cowardice. Cowardice? You're right, Dante said. I'll have the whole place taken over by tomorrow, then. I'm naming you my Secretary of Parades. It better be grand, or I'll redub you Secretary of Getting Eaten to Death by Rats. They argued nonsense until Blaze claimed exhaustion. Dante lay in bed for a while after Blaze had fallen asleep, laughing softly at Blaze's plan, its tempting confusion of absurdity and daring and total stupidity, until the darkness of the night and the talk he'd had with Laramore bubbled back into the fore. Why hadn't Callie just told him the truth? Why send him all this way on a false story of Samaran's treachery? Didn't the old man know Dante would have thought the way Blaze did now? That it didn't matter how she'd gained her power, that, legitimate or not, the things she was doing with it were wrong? But he knew why the old man had lied, of course. Because Callie didn't trust him to make the right decision. And so he'd used him in a way he knew would get the results he desired. Dante wanted to feel angry, 
to rage at the fact he'd once again been used as a piece on someone else's board. But all he felt was tired. For the first time since he'd touched the book, he wanted it to stop. He wanted a moment to catch his breath, perhaps to run away from all these schemes and live for himself, free from the snares of the ambition of other men and himself. He knew that want was nothing more than fantasy. He was caught up in something that would only get bigger before it went away. All he could do now was ride it out until it came to rest. No lessons today, Nag, Laramore said as he spilled into the chapel. We've got more important work for our little scholar. Nack rolled his eyes over his papers. I don't see how you expect me to teach him two languages as well as refine his more ethereal talents when you're always dragging him off on your chores. I'm learning, Dante said in Gascon. Make me some lessons. I will go over them tonight. We'll start with clauses, Nack muttered. He waved his fingers, dismissing the boy. Laramore led Dante into the keep and immediately made a left turn for the stairwell into the dungeons. What are we going down here for? Dante said, peering into the dim torchlight. He had a sudden vision of being forced to torture Ryan Briggs for answers. Nothing, Laramore said. How cunningly I've tricked you back into prison. You thought you'd get away with your insolence. You could use a dose of sobriety, Dante said. Wrong. In time, you'll learn the value of running your fool mouth until no one can tell when you're serious. Only then can you get away with saying anything to anyone. What does that even mean? he said. But Laramore didn't seem inclined to explain. The air of the lower levels rose up to meet them, cool but sturdy, the faint whiff of human filth and things that may once have been rotten but had since turned to dust. Laramore opened the door to the corridor where they'd hauled Dante not so long ago. Dante skipped his gaze over the thick door behind which he'd been imprisoned, straining his ears for sounds of riant. Was he still alive? Alone in the darkness of that empty room? He glanced at Laramore. The man was smiling. The hallway terminated in another door that opened onto a second stairwell. Laramore grabbed a lit torch from a sconce in the wall, and they continued down into the darkness. The walls weighed on Dante's shoulders. The stones seemed to move beneath the shadows thrown by the flickering torch, as if the walls weren't mortared in place, but were in the process of a silent and half-stalled avalanche. Dante stared hard at his feet until they hit the landing of the lower level and the walls widened out into an unlit corridor. Here we are, Laramore said, stopping at the hall's first door. He fit a key into the lock and leaned into the door as it opened, pouring himself into the room. From behind him, Dante saw black shadows, gray stones, the dull white of a floor full of bones. What? It's not as bad as it looks, Laramore said. Do you have any idea how many people have died in this city over the years? Sometimes after the larger sieges, they had to sort of dig up the old to make way for the new. That's barbaric. Pragmatic, Laramore corrected. 
egalitarian even. This way, everyone gets a turn in the earth. He stepped forward into the mess, shuffling his feet against the floor. Bones rattled away from his boots. Dante followed in the path he cleared. What do you want me to do with them? Dante said, shrinking back from the top half of a skull that had rolled within an inch of his foot. Tidy up. I said you'd be doing something important, didn't I? Laramore bent at the waist and knocked away a few random bones. He made a satisfied grunt, then plucked one up and displayed Dante the jawbone in his palm. Weird looking, isn't it? Strange to think your teeth are the same substance as the jaw they're embedded in. Yet, they're exposed, naked to the air and the eye, while the rest of our bones are buried under all that flesh. Truly a marvel of nature, Dante said. It was a large room, perhaps forty feet deep and just as far across, and except for a small space around the door, the carpet of bones lay ankle-deep from wall to wall. In the corners they were piled to the knee, gathered in drifts like snow in the wind. We've got a few mirrors around the place. You should look at your teeth some day. Quite frankly, it's scary when you think about them like that. Is there some kind of lesson on the virtue of looking closely at the things we take for granted? No. It's a lesson on how disgusting our bodies are. Laramore tossed the jawbone at Dante. It bounced from his chest, and he puckered his face. Laramore laughed through his nose. Jawbones, ribs, and thighs. One of each in sets of three. Write Aron's name in blood upon the bone, in Narashtovic, not this decadent malish, and soak it through with nether until the whole thing's bound up tight. Repeat, gain my eternal praise. What? What as in you didn't hear me or you don't understand? Dante kicked the nearest skull away from him. Why? Because Samarand's children are bored with their old toys. Samarand has kids. Laramore's face bent with a shocking flash of anger. What are you, some kind of idiot? They have vows of chastity. I thought I was going to be doing something important, Dante said. You want me to bleed on some bones in a room so low it's under the dungeon? This is important. Before you volunteered, the council was drawing lots to see who'd have to do it. This is asinine. Laramore plowed his feet through the debris, sending bones clattering over each other. He chuckled without humor, then fixed Dante with a stare emptied of any patience. When the time comes for all the excitement, the council's going to need all the power they can find. Sources they can depend on other than their own frail bodies. These bones, the bones you're going to bleed on, they'll be the fuel for their deeds. Dante frowned up at the man. Are you putting me on? Big events are always preceded by countless hours of tedious preparation. Like the good book says, proper preparation is the difference between celestial glory and standing around in a field with our dicks in our hands. I don't remember that verse. Obviously, you haven't been studying hard enough.
Laramore dug into his pocket and removed a small, thin knife, more of a pick than a blade, and a delicate black quill covered in intricate silver Narashtavik words. He handed them to Dante. Any questions? Yes, Dante said, holding the knife in one hand and the quill in the other. How do I do the things you told me to do? Lyle's flayed balls. Laramore rubbed his face in his hands. Ribs of the watchdog, jaws of the dragon, thighs of the lion, just like Mommy used to sing about when she'd point out the stars. Give yourself a good nick and write Aron's name on each, in Narashtavik. Bind blood to bone with nether. I'm not sure how that part's done, but you're a smart lad. Figure it out. He sucked in his cheeks. Don't kill yourself or anything, but we need a lot. Define a lot, Dante said, gazing out on the thousands of bones. Drink plenty of water, Laramore winked. He used his torch to light another by the door. Don't shut this door either. We've only got one key and sometimes I lose things. Got a lot of responsibilities for one man, you see. He flashed his eyebrows, then picked his way out into the corridor. Dante heard him whistling on his way through the gloom. He turned around. Bones from wall to wall. Was this another test? Laramore had barely told him what to do. The man gave the impression he didn't care about anything, but somehow he was the one who kept the wheels of the citadel greased and turning. Dante swept an open circle with his feet and sat down. Laramore wanted bones, did he? He took up a rib, grasping the natural handle where the bone would meet the spine. This bone had once been a part of someone, he thought. Then realized he didn't give a damn. That man had been dead for decades. Whoever he'd been, he hadn't even had the simple courtesy not to get dug up and stored in a forgotten basement until his remains could be involved in some morbid ritual. Dante set the quill in his lap, and with the knife he drew a light incision below his left thumb. His blood gleamed a blackish red in the uneven light from the torch ensconced beside the door. He picked up the quill, glad for the small favor that no one was here to see this bizarre melodrama, then dipped it in the blood in his hand and held the rib close to his face. He painted the letters delicately, one stroke at a time adding a flourish to their ends. He held out the rib, eyeing it critically. Binded? With the nether? He blinked back the frustration that was crowding his mind. Shadows sucked up from under the piles of bones, coursing up his arm and wrapping themselves around the rib's white surface. He let his desire become a semi-conscious thing, felt rather than verbalized, the way he recognized he was hungry without thinking apple or roast chicken, and smoothed the shadows over the length of the rib. Become one, he thought, and twitched back as the shadows pulsed and then sunk into the bone like water spilled on hot sand. The formerly creamy rib had grown gray, lined with the red-brown letters of Aron's name. And when he set it aside, 
he had a creeping sense of energy, not warm, not motile, certainly not conscious, but far sharper than the bland feel of the bones around him or the still air or the stones of the wall. He grunted and placed it gently on the floor. The second bone was easier. He misspelled Ron's name on the third and lobbed the thigh bone into a far corner. After that first mistake, he moved quickly, pinching the skin around the cut on his hand to keep it from clotting. Each bone was the work of no more than five minutes, and within half an hour he had the start of a pile lying beside his knee. Last night's talk with Blaze felt impossibly distant. He no longer had any way to deny he was doing the work of the Aronites. Delivering letters was reasonably harmless. No doubt ninety percent of them said nothing but empty chatter. Bodyguarding men who couldn't help themselves was a respectable enough position, Blazer's similar occupation notwithstanding. Capturing criminals was no more wrong than when the Watch did it in every city on the planet. But this... Painting bones with blood and locking them up with nether for use in what could only be their attempt to unleash Aron. There was no defense of that. Mercenaries and men off the street couldn't do what Dante was doing now. If they succeeded in releasing the old god, not that he thought such a being even existed, Dante would be in part responsible for that success, and if he failed again— when it came time to kill Saramond, perhaps that, too, would have its roots in what he was doing down in this neglected ossuary. He grasped a jawbone, tensed his arm to hurl it against the opposite wall. All at once, his feelings broke. His conflict left him like a hulled boat slipping beneath calm waters. Let him do Samaran's work with one hand while with the other he honed the knife, meant for her heart. Let him tell Blaze he was biding his time, even while he used knack to learn everything the monk could teach. Uncertainty and self-doubt wouldn't help him. No army was going to smash down the citadel's gates, no heavenly hand was going to guide him through his trials and lead him to justice. He had nothing, and no one but himself the strength of his hands, and his head, and his will. And if he was going to become the kind of man he intended to be, that would be enough. The wound on his palm had scabbed as he brooded, and he cut a parallel beside it. He worked without thinking, adding to the pile near his knee. He broke for lunch and wandered upstairs, wanting beef, red meat, and fruit, and a barrel full of water. Servants and guards watched him walk by, the way he'd watch a wolf pad through the brush of the open woods. He ate by himself, and returned downstairs without a word more than what he'd needed to get his meal. Once more, the logic of the nether took his mind. He knew his part. One bone at a time, he created order from the decay. Make any progress? Laramore called to Dante, when he'd halted for the evening and was making his way through the keep. See for yourself, he said. 
ignoring whatever the man said next as he stepped into the yard. Back at his room, Nack had prepared a thick sheaf of notes and lessons. He paged through them, recognizing more of the words than he would have expected, then set the papers aside. Too much lust for knowledge was the trappings and vanity of an unreal world. He spent the next day with the bones, seeing others only at meals. Scabbed lines lay across his palm like tallies on a prison wall. Midway through his third day, in the sub-basement, he heard footsteps, the first that weren't his own. He didn't turn away from his work. Impressive, Laramore said. I'm busy. That's enough for now. I've got something else for you. More important than laying the foundation of our finest hour. Oh, be quiet. Laramore walked around in front of Dante. He pursed his mouth at the boy's blank expression. The council's meeting in an hour. I want you cleaned up by then. You look like you haven't bathed in a week. I haven't. Dante blinked up at him. What does the council want with me? It's not what they want. It's what you want. Up with you. Time for a lesson in politics. Dante snorted and finished up the summons for the rib bone he was still holding. Sounds enlightening. Stop sulking like a child or you'll miss the self-important men puffing their throats and preening their tails. Laramore beckoned. Come, take a bath for the gods' sakes. Samaran's hand's hand will never be of any use if he doesn't understand how the council works. Awful lot left, Dante said, nodding to the numberless bones, then the few score he'd prepared. That's enough. I told you the council had been working on this before you. Come and see the court before I punch you in your gross little teeth. It wasn't the threat that stirred Dante, it was the life behind it. He stood, knees and ankles popping. Laramore stepped forward and patted him on the cheek hard enough to sting. There's some fire for your eyes. The way you carry yourself in that chamber will reflect on me, you know. The only way to keep those old bastards in line is to remind them just how old they are. Shall I dance for them? Dante pulled out the collar of his doublet, tipped back his chin. Where's my fancy jacket? Don't trained apes wear fancy jackets? Better. Laramore gave him a self-satisfied smile and led him back upstairs, leaving the stacks of bones behind. In the main hall, he found a young man in a black cassock and dispatched him to gather the fruit of Dante's basement labor. Laramore summoned a gaggle of servants and rattled off a line of orders in Gascon. Dante could follow enough to pick out the words bath and dress and how the price of sloth would be a word he hadn't learned, but whose etymology meant the breaking of limbs from the body. Go make yourself presentable, Laramore said to Dante. I'll send for you in forty minutes. Before Dante could smart off, the man strode off for other business in the deeper rooms of the keep. Dante turned to the servants with something close to guilt, they ducked their heads and gestured him upstairs, where a steaming bath had already been drawn. 
He barked at the pair of servants who stayed with him to turn away as he undressed, then allowed himself a brief soak. They waited with fresh clothes when he climbed out, and he accepted their finery, slapping away their hands when they attempted to help him put them on. This was how royalty lived. For two full minutes, Dante fumbled with the ends of a sash apparently meant for his middle, then sighed, looked up at the ceiling, and let the servant's swift hand secure it around his waist. He suffered them to dose him with perfume, waving them off after the first application. I'm a man, not a tulip garden, he mumbled in malice, then ordered them away before they could convince him that it was the way of the court. He brushed his hair, which had grown back out a bit since he'd had it trimmed before Samaran's sermon on Ben, then paced around the cushy quarters until Lerimore showed up. The man's mouth was tight, but his eyes danced with mirth as they jumped down Dante's laundered frame. Dante scowled at him. You people are ridiculous. Deal with it like a man. Lerimore gave him a closer once-over, from his combed black hair to the fine silver trim on his cape and doublet and breeches, eyes coming to rest on the scuffed and scarred leather of his boots. Where are the shoes? What's that garbage wrapped around your feet? The boots stay. Fine. Looked like a peasant who's tripped over his hog and fell into a rich man's closet. You dress like you lost a fight with a wildcat, and I've earned that right. All right, little Lord Spitpolish, let's be on our way. Laramore turned on his heel and took them to a staircase leading to the upper floors. I'm guessing you're going to think the old men are stupid. You might even be tempted to try to educate them to the specific nature of their idiocy. Surely an idiot could never attain a position as lofty as theirs, Dante said, suspicious he was about to be told what to do. Indeed. So I'm going to entrust you with your toughest challenge yet. Keeping your damn mouth shut. If you try to toss your pair of pennies into the hat, they're just going to laugh at you. Have you ever heard the sound of eleven corpses laughing? It isn't pretty. I've been writing on bones with my own blood for the last three days. And that will seem like a beautiful dream. I'll be good, Dante promised. Good. I don't like making threats. Dante fell silent, pensive rather than with the moodiness that had consumed him for the last few days. What was Laramore doing? Was he grooming him for leadership? No doubt he thought this was funny, in his perverse way, but the man's eyes sparked with something more. Dante had gotten the impression no one around the keep really liked Laramore. They feared him more than they derided him, granting a grudging respect to the undeniable efficacy of Samarin's hand, no matter how slapdash a demeanor he wore on his cool brown face while executing his many charges. But they did laugh behind his back, imitating the sharp tone of his words, perhaps thinking he used too many or thought himself too clever. They muttered obscenities and the kind of mild threats that carried no weight. They did what he said, but they didn't like him. Perhaps the only one who did was Samarand. 
and she was so busy handing down orders from on high, Laramore was all but autonomous. As far as Dante knew, the man had no pull with the council. Clearly he hated them, resented them for his own obscure reasons. His lot was wholly thrown in with Summerand, and if for any reason she lost her seat, he would lose his as well. What was it then? He was snagging up Dante before anyone else noticed his potential, shaping him up into an ally to help Laramore carve out his own tiny piece of the empire inside the citadel's gates. Dante thought so. Laramore had kept a close eye on the long leash he gave his pupil. His attention had gone beyond the way all adults had of trying to turn the younger people they had influence over into shorter versions of themselves, that strange instinct they had to stamp any sign of youth into their own mold, as if the existence of different opinions and methods threatened their very lives. It was like old people were terrified of dying without duplicating their minds on those who would replace them. That instinct, too, was in the things Laramore did. But unlike most men, it wasn't his driving force. He had other intentions for Dante. He wanted the boy to be able to hold his own. Perhaps, in time, to be able to watch Laramore's back. That's what this sit-in with the council was about, Dante decided. The council was his weak point. He wished he had a little more time to build Laramore's loyalty to him, there would come a time when it would be tested against the man's ties to Samarand. Maybe with another couple months, half a year, Dante would pull harder than her. He hoped when that moment did come, it would at least cause Laramore to hesitate long enough to lend Dante the advantage. Care to share the thoughts twisting your face up like that? Laramore said, spitting Dante with a severe look. What insults an old man most? Calling him withered, weak, or impotent? Why not all three? Laramore said. They reached the landing to the floor of the council chambers, and he took Dante aside before they went into the hall. I want you to pay close attention to the individuals, he said, voice low. It would be a huge mistake to think their minds are united. The most important thing you can learn is what divides them. Pay special heed to the oldest man there, Tarkin Vastav. He's the nominal voice of what you might call the men of moderation. Doesn't speak his mind as freely as he once did, but perhaps that's a sign he's starting to lose it. This meeting might rouse him. Are you expecting a fight? Not from him. I expect more trouble from Ollivander brown-haired, ogreish-looking, ten or twelve years my senior. You'll know him by the way he fawns on Summer's every word. Dante filed away the nickname. If he's so taken with her, why would he be causing trouble? Because she plans to leave him behind while she's off earning glory. What? Why would she do that? You'll see, Laramore said, and would say no more. He opened the dark-stained door and took them down the corridor that led to the chambers, brushing past servants too busy with preparations to give him and his protégé a second glance. Laramore paused outside the council's double doors, the ones imprinted with the stylized tree of Barden, 
then cleared his throat and straightened his collar. He opened the door, revealing the long, simple table Dante had seen through the eyes of his rat. Sunlight spilled through the north-facing window. A half-mile distant, the gray waters of the bay foamed against the shore. Dante counted eleven taken seats, ten men and one Norrin, enormous as a rampart, his brows and hair and thick gauzy beard looking white and tempestuous as a storm around a peak. The seat at the head of the table was empty. Servants stood frozen against the walls, eyes and ears trained on the deep, deliberate chatter of the assembled council. Dante looked at Laramore for help, and the man jerked his head and circled around the table to stand behind and to the right of the empty chair. Dante moved to take his left, and with a discreet tug of the boy's cloak, Laramore shifted him behind and to his own right. About half of the council were white-haired and in varying degrees of personal antiquity, but from the look of resigned martyrdom on one of the old men's unbearded face, Dante took him to be Tarkin, dissenter. He sat silent, unheeded. Ollivander was one, if not the youngest, a bare hint of grey in his well-trimmed brown beard, and when he spoke, the men around him turned their heads to listen. A few of the council cast glances Dante's way, examining this novelty in their cloisters. The Norrin, Tarkin, a middle-aged man with a long nose and his hair in a queue. All outsiders in their way, Dante guessed. Before he could pass out any more details, the talk died off, and Samarand emerged into the airy chamber. Laramore stood straighter, tilted his chin. By reflex, Dante did the same. She made her way to the head of the table, giving Dante a distracted look as Laramore pulled out her chair. Anything new about the rebels, Ollivander, she said, and already Dante was lost. He'd expected a prayer or something to start it off. They were priests, right? She did speak in Malish, at least, and he didn't have to trust his spotty Gaskin. He'd come to learn almost every man of means in the dead city was bilingual, while many men of the South never bothered to learn the tongue of the North, with the result being most conversation in mixed company took place in Malish. It was almost a point of pride among the Malish men to speak no other language but that of their birth. Our scouts are nipping around their heels, Ollivander said in a steady baritone. They have a few hundred. Four at the utmost. Good men, but they've been living in the wilds for weeks. No official backers, from what I've seen, just rabble. Do they look especially schemish? Ollivander frowned, as if he didn't recognize the word. I don't expect they've come all this way to shake their fists at us. Best prepare for something. Right. Samarand put her hands flat on the table and met the eyes of each man in turn. I'm not going to waste words. I'm only taking six of you. Six? The old Norrin rumbled after a general exchange of looks. That's all we need. I'm not going to triumph in the field and then return here to find a smoking crater. We do have a few soldiers, the Norrin said. 
Not to mention a tall set of walls. Look, Samaran said, and pressed her lips together. We need seven. Anyone else would be lace frills. Nice to look at, not terribly functional. And wearing all your lace at once doesn't usually leave you open to invasion, Ollivander added. Dante watched Samaran smile with half her mouth. Who's to come? said the man with the long nose and longer brown hair. Walter, Baxter, Vanagan, Vakshaw, Fanchon, and Piotr. Samaran ticked off on her fingers. None of the men Laramord named for him. Ollivander's nostrils flared. He pinched his brows together. My lady, stow it, she said. I need you here overseeing the citadel. Take pride in that responsibility. The men who'd been named exchanged smug looks while those left off struggled with their shock. After a few moments, a general babble arose as they marshaled their arguments and Samarand held up her hands for peace. I know this must feel arbitrary to some of you. Try to remember we're not here for individual glory. Aran knows your hearts and minds. He'll know those who ensure the safety of this keep are no more important than those who'll be with me at Baden. Can you understand that? And how did you decide who goes and who stays? said the long-haired man. With great trouble, Jackson, and anticipating all the arguments. Samarand leaned back in her seat and touched her braid at the back of her neck. Don't take that to mean I just dismissed them. You know I'm anything but unreasonable. Granted, but neither infallible. I'll assume you wish to argue why your presence at the tree will be necessary. Let's hear it then. Jackson didn't hesitate. I've spent less time in service than most of the men here. Maybe that should count against me. But if this truly isn't about rewarding service or whatever other favor with glory, and is instead a matter of who's most vital to which limb of the body, I'd argue my grasp of the nether is second to yours alone. To leave me behind, then, when it's uncertain how much skill we'll require, and would thus be safer to err on the side of abundance, appears to me as an oversight. Perhaps, Samarin said slowly. She cocked her head and stared at Jackson a few moments the way Dante imagined she'd stared when she felt the presence of his rat. I'll give that its due consideration. Samarand, Jackson started. Are you about to forward another argument or just repeat the first in different words? Jackson's face darkened. Then he nodded. Well enough. Anyone else want to educate me on the unfairness of my decision? She said, raising her brows at the others. I assume the wisdom of my long years isn't considered crucial, old Tarkin said. Honestly, I don't dissemble when I say I'd prefer to have it with us, Tarkin. My fears you may falter on the way. It's even colder that far north. The trek will take days. If we leave you here... We risk missing out on some knowledge that could help us, but I've judged it a smaller risk than that of your health if you went. 
We can't stand before the white tree with a gap in our seven. He nodded, some of the resigned irony gone from his face. Anyone else? No one spoke up, perhaps knowing she'd handle them as swiftly as she had the others. She pushed out her lips, impressed. Good. Don't try to assign any slights or whimsical boons to my selections. We're all working toward the same end. Those of you I named be ready to leave on the morning of the eighth day. Everyone else, you've got your duties here, and they'll be doubled with the rest of us out. Make sure you're prepared. She waited to see them nod their understanding, then set her elbows on the table. Loath though I am to get ahead of ourselves, what's the latest from the South, Jackson? Wetton's still the only city in Mallon where we might be said to have gained a lasting toehold, he said. He reached up for his chin and seemed surprised to find it beardless. Fewer have come back to the old ways than we'd wished. The less said about Bressel, the better. The devotion of our loyalists can't be questioned, but their ability is another matter— though nor can it be said they face no obstacles. And the Colin Basin? There we may safely forecast a more optimistic outcome, Jackson said. We've taken a number of the outlands and negotiated a treaty that will hold for the rest of the winter. That should leave them free to aid us with direct action elsewhere in Malon, should that be our course. Ollivander would know more about that than I. Samarand nodded his way, and Ollivander, who'd been lost in his own thoughts since he'd heard he'd be left behind, creased his brow and leaned one elbow on the table. Won't be easy, he said. Still, with support from Colin, and if Hart's got the sway he says he does with the Norrin, here he nodded at the Norrin priest, I think a late spring strike through the pass at Riverway would work. It would certainly hearten the locals to know they've got our support. Especially if it comes on the heels of our success at Baden, Summerand mused. Set it in motion. Prepare for a mid-March march. You're going to invade Malon? Dante blurted. A few of the priests gave him dubious glances. Larimore elbowed him in the ribs amidst the awkward silence. Dante ignored him. What about the parable of Ben? From the mouths of babes, Tarkin chuckled. Oh, that's not even relevant, Samarin said. The old man twisted his mouth at her. Is he wrong, then? Raising an army hardly suits your delicate words about the wrongs of vengeance. We're not talking about revenge. We're talking about liberation, Samarin said, meeting his gaze. This has nothing to do with the third scar. You say that with almost enough conviction for me to believe it. Tarkon, you're old enough to remember when those people would kill you if you dared worship Aron. Burnings, hangings, that sits fine with you? Of course not, Tarkon said. He cleared some phlegm from his throat. The physicians have an oath about not applying the cure when it would be worse than the disease. Surely in our wisdom, deriving as it does from a far higher source, we're able to apply that credo here. Samarand touched her lips. Unfortunately, 
we don't have the physician's experience to know when that cure would be worse. All I know is what I see. What I see is a woman more driven by her own vision of justice than what were given by the heavens, Tarkon said. The table was still and silent as Dante's days below the dungeons. Ollivander coughed into his fist, as if that would be enough to make the moment pass. We've been through this, said another greybeard who'd kept his peace so far. This argument was old when I was still shitting myself. You say that as if you ever stopped, said a third elderly man. The table dissolved into laughter, and Tarkon's momentum dissolved with it. Indeed, Samaran said once they'd quieted down. Ollivander, get word to the smiths. Start drawing up estimates for what else we'll need and how much it's liable to cost. Hart, speak to your people. Drop a hint I'm considering their request for a free principality at the fringes of the Dundons. Are you? The Noran asked levelly. I am considering it, she said. Their actions between now and our hour of need may help their case. Tarkon chuckled, shaking his head. She ignored him. That's it for now, then. Keep me apprised of your business. We move for Barden in eight days. She got up, nodding absently at Laramore as she left the room. Some of the council filtered out as others stayed to rehash what had just happened. Laramore stepped around Dante, and the boy had to hurry to catch him in the hall. Did you see that? Dante said, glancing around to make sure she was gone. Masterful, Laramore said, shaking his head, throwing them off with who was going and who was staying, then bowling them over one by one. Masterful? She started a war! While they were all too stunned to react. They respect her, though. She gives them just enough rope to think there's no leash at all. She may even grant Jackson's request to come along. Dante yanked on Laramore's sleeve. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah, war, what about it? Well, is that all it takes? What did you expect? Laramore frowned down on him, twice as far away as his normal ironic distance. Inspiring speeches, duty and honor. They've been working toward this or something like it since the day she took power twenty years ago. The only issue for the last ten was how they were going to get it done. What about Tarkin? He thinks it's a bad idea. She was just letting him vent some of his more noxious vapors. You could tell by looking he didn't expect to sway anyone to his side. He glanced down at Dante again and frowned harder. You have family there? In Malin? No, Dante said quickly. He made himself cough to buy a moment and almost missed a step on the steep stairwell that led down to the ground floor. He caught himself, pressed his back against the solid stone. It's about time they did something about the situation down there, he said before Laramore could ask him if he was all right. Or any less convenient questions than that. I just thought there would be more to the declaration. Nope. You were just there to see how she kept the old bastards in line. She's the only one who can be that bold with them, of course, but the same tricks would apply for you or me.
It was eye-opening. Well, get ready for a lot more of it. Later, of course. I've got too many tasks for you between now and when we ride out to spare another meeting. So, I am coming with you, Dante said. He allowed himself a long breath. In the headlong rush of the conversation around the table, he hadn't had the time to work out what he'd do if they meant to leave him behind. All his other ambitions had withered the moment he'd heard Samaran's nonchalant decree of war. He now had no other intent than killing her somewhere on the trail between the citadel and Barden. He had to be there. Of course, Laramore said. It pains me to risk swelling your fat head any further, but the others will underestimate you. You're my hidden trump if anything goes wrong. I'll need Blaze with us. Whatever helps you do the things I need you to do. They reached the ground floor and parted ways. Eight days, Dante thought. Eight days before the beginning of the end. He was sent off with an order for a local merchant and returned to the citadel to find three wounded watchmen being carted through the gates. Nack's fat belly jostled as he rushed across the yard to meet them. Dante joined the monk, saving two of the three and then all four of the others who arrived bleeding a few minutes later, the casualties of a small ambush on the fringes of the city. By the time a pair of acolytes came to relieve him, should any other wounded arrive, Dante went to his cell and tumbled asleep. He awoke feeling cold and sore. Weak moonlight flashed on metal near the foot of his bed, and he made out the dim silhouette of a man standing over him. Blaze, he said softly. The sword snapped back. Dante rolled off his bed, heart jolting, and scrabbled back as the blade slashed down into the pallet. His own sword was on the wall across the room. He readied himself to die, finding it much easier than the last times he'd so resigned himself. Then his half-awake brain shouted through the din of his pulse and the chorus of his nerves. He twisted away from the short-sword thrust and reached out to the nether. It came at once, enveloping his hands, and Dante blasted the shadows forward in the next instant. He heard a deep grunt and a wet splatter, like someone pouring stew out on the ground. The silvery line of the sword dangled in the man's hand. Weirdly, his belly seemed to be bisected by a faintly incandescent line. The man wavered on his feet, and Dante realized the light was the outline of the bottom edge of the door, visible through the huge hole in the man's stomach. Dante's own convulsed, and he had to jump aside as the man fell onto his knees, and then his face. What are you doing? Blaze croaked from his bed. Killing someone. Ah, that again, Blaze said in a dream-distant voice, then rolled over to face the wall. Someone just tried to kill me, Blaze. Blaze? There's a dead man on our floor. They tried to kill me. Dante leaned over Blaze's slumbering form and located his ear. Blaze! Blaze twitched his head up and conked it to Dante's. Dante fell back, bare heels bumping into warm skin. He slipped forward involuntarily. Blaze squinted into the darkness, his body an indistinct blob in the middle of his bed. Then all at once flailed all four limbs like he'd just been shot by an arrow. There's a dead man on our floor! What should we do about that? 
Dante said. Blaze rubbed his face with both hands. Who is he? Dante knelt beside the corpse, inching away from the pooling blood that lay back in the moonlight. He grabbed the dead man's chin and stared into his face. I don't know. I've never seen him. You never called him the son of a whore? Spat on his boots? Gave him that look where you look like you think he's a fresh pile of crap? No, Dante said, in a light state of shock that made him feel this close to laughing. I've never seen him. We know he's from the keep, don't we? Blaze refolded his blanket over his shoulders. I mean, you just don't wander in here off the streets. There are hundreds of men who live inside it. Go get Laramore. He knows everyone. I can't, Dante said. You start asking questions. Why would someone want to kill me? Am I up to anything he doesn't know about? He'll smell a rat. He's too smart. I already feel like I'm treading a knife's edge with him. Well... They're going to have a few questions when they find a body in our room. We've only got one option, Dante swallowed. We've got to eat him. What? Dante laughed like an idiot. Some part of him knew how serious this was, but at the same time it felt completely unreal. Bodies were ceasing to have any meaning to him. No matter what he did, they kept appearing at his feet, limp and useless. He snapped his mouth shut. We've got to get it out of here, he said. Blaze got up, blanket draped down his body to his bare shins. He circled the corpse. Yeah, we'll just drag him out the front door, Blaze said. What the hell did you do to him? How much blood can one man bleed anyway? Look at that, it's everywhere. Don't worry about that, get the window open. Good idea, bodies smell terrible when they're all opened up like that. He threw off his blanket and swung the bubbly glass window open. He leaned out to get a breath, shoulders nearly brushing each side. This isn't going to work. Just get out there, Dante said, crouching hesitantly beside the body. How could he get a grip when it was so blood slick? Make sure no one's outside. I'll sort of hand him to you. And then what? We heave him into someone else's backyard? Those walls are forty feet tall. You're not even going to be able to lift him. Stop naysaying. We'll just drag him off somewhere that isn't here. Blaze swore through his teeth. He planted his hands on the windowsill and wiggled his hips up on the ledge. He leaned the top half of his body through and paused there to consider the physics of his next move, ass and legs dangling back into the room. Dante swatted his legs. Blaze kicked at him blindly, then wriggled forward into a controlled fall into the yard. Dante heard a soft whap of flesh on stone and more cursing. A moment later, Blaze's angry face appeared in the window. Okay, genius, hand him over. Dante grappled the man under his armpits, then lifted from the knees, staggering back under the dead weight. He'd put on some muscle over the weeks of riding, running and fighting, but he was still small, not yet grown to his full size, and the corpse, though not overly large, surely had outweighed him by thirty pounds before it had been drained of a few pints of blood. Dante's back thumped against the sill, and he grunted. He regained his footing and strained upwards, thighs and back quivering, but somehow he lifted the body enough to get its head into the window frame. Give me a hand, dammit, he panted hot with sweat and sticky with blood. 
Blazer's arm snaked through the window and grasped two thick handfuls of the man's cloak. Got him? I guess, Blaze whispered. Dante stood there a moment, pinning the body to the wall with the weight of his chest, blinking and breathing until he didn't feel so weak. Then he lowered himself and wedged his shoulder under the corpse's legs. Warm fluids soaked through his single plain shirt. He straightened his legs as hard as he could, and Blaze heaved from his side, and the body scraped over the sill. All at once, the man's gravity reached its tipping point, and his loose legs kicked up as he fell into the yard, catching Dante on the chin hard enough to make him bite his own tongue. Get out here, Blaze called inside. Dante planted a palm on the wall, giving himself a moment. Already he was exhausted, flushed and wheezing, then hoisted himself into the sill and wormed his way through the window. Halfway out, he realized there would be no graceful exit. Blaze held out his arms like the walking dead, and Dante sighed and let himself fall into them. They crumpled to the ground. Now what? Blaze said from the bottom of their two-person heap. Dante untangled himself and glanced around the yard. They were in the dark corner where the chapel met the keep. A few outbuildings stood against the outer ring of wall across one hundred plus feet of open space. There were no lights in the chapel, other than the lantern that was always lit in its hall, at least, and he saw no guards patrolling the grounds at that moment. Just a few motionless bumps of men, high and far on the outer walls. There was one other building, further along the side of the keep, a simple wooden barracks, where some of the pages and stable boys slept. Straw was mounded waist-high against its wall. Dump it in that straw, Dante pointed. Blaze shook his head, but he grabbed one arm, and Dante took the other, and they leaned into it, one step at a time. The corpse whispered against the stone. They had to cross a full sixty feet, but they moved in the shadow of the keep. And he heard no shocked cries, saw no guards turn a corner and gasp at murderous intrigue. At last they reached the housing and heaved the man into the snow-damp pile. Make it look half-assed, Dante whispered, shoveling some straw over the man's body. That won't be hard. Blaze circled it, kicking straw on the man's glaze-eyed face. They shifted enough around to hide the body from casual inspection, then stepped back and glanced throughout the silent yard. Blaze's eyes followed the foot-wide track of blood between the pile of straw and the window to their cell. And that? Shall I fetch him up? Only if you're going to stuff it in your mouth. Dante said. He beckoned to the shadows and knelt alongside the gleaming trail. Nether poured from his hands and onto the smeared stones, whirling down like the rapids of a stream. Where it passed, the ground was left bare. Dante tugged Blaze's sleeve and they hurried back to the window and stuffed themselves through, waiting in the middle of the original puddle for the Nether to finish its business. It poured over the sill, cleansing the floor then pooled around their feet, seeking what was caking on their skin. It rushed up their limbs, black and noiseless as empty space. When it had finished its cleaning, he summoned it to the window 
and gazed up on the star-pricked sky, then sent it hurtling straight up in as fine a point as it could make. It streaked away without a sound. The boys faced each other in the room, breathing heavily, laughing nervously. A few drops of blood congealed here and there, but it no longer looked like the obvious murder it had a minute before. Blaze picked up the man's sword off the ground and tucked it under his pallet. Do you have any idea why he was here? Who could have sent him? Dante shook his head. Another initiate, maybe. Jealous of my progress. One of Laramore's other agents, for the same reason. He shrugged, baffled. Maybe someone discovered my true purpose, and thought he'd win Samaran's favor, taking care of it himself. How could they have done that? What have you been telling Laramore? I don't know. It's impossible to keep it all straight. Dante thumped down on his bed. Something twinged in his chest, and he hugged his arms to each other. I'm always lying, always bluffing to hide what little I do know. I couldn't tell you a tenth of what I've said. He could feel Blazer's eyes on him, but he couldn't make himself meet them. The humor that had sustained him all this way, his own private pride gate, felt shattered and mossed over as the outer stretches of this thousand-year-old city. Most of the time I'm all right with it, but sometimes my stomach feels like it's bleeding from the inside. Do you have any idea what it's like? I'm on my guard every second of every day. I just want it to be over. I had no idea. You always look the same, you know. Blaze sat down across from him. We've been here too long. I know. You're right. I should never have let it go this far. He closed his eyes, shivered. They're moving out in a week. We'll do it then, no matter what. No matter what. He heard Blaze resettling himself among his blankets. Get some sleep. It helps. He tried, but was still awake by dawn. No one else came in the night to strike him dead. In the morning he heard exclamations from the yard, but when he saw Laramore for the day's errands, the man was inscrutable. Despite the monk's best efforts to heal them, men did die with some frequency within the walls of the sealed citadel, lapsing into drunken squabbles and the long boiling bitterness that grows among men in cramped quarters. It was possible they thought nothing of finding one more body buried in the straw. Dante was too tired to try to sound out if anyone was suspicious of the man's death or even who he'd been. He was too tired to be affected any more by that helpless feeling that had taken him after the attempt on his life. It was almost a blessing when Laramore ordered him to fill his day informing the priests of a few of the city's minor temples about a general prayer in the cathedral of Ivar's six nights hence. On his way back to the citadel, he detoured to the sad wreck of a ruined house. Among the splintery timbers, he killed three rats with a flick of nether. There he raised them, hid them in his clothes. By night, he set one outside his window, one outside his door, and one inside his room, bidding them to watch from the nooks for anyone who tried to enter.
He woke often, gasping and half-panicked from dreams he couldn't remember. But he saw no silhouettes through the eyes of the rat, heard no furtive footsteps with their ears or his own. He thought the days of the remaining week would drag as long as the endless grammar lessons with Knack. But between his duties and his sleepless haze, the hours clipped along like the now-blurred years of his early childhood. Like that, they were gone. Chapter 16 With each gate he left, he felt a weight lift from his feet. He hadn't realized, leading his two lives in the keep, how deeply it had marked him, how each false word and fresh lie had lain on his shoulders like a stone. The attempted assassination had nearly broken his nerve. He'd maintained himself only through insomnia and the knowledge his goal had grown definite, that he'd still Samaran's heart somewhere along the path to the white tree of Barden. Though he rode at Leramore's left, at the head of a column of a couple hundred men, Blaze was at his side, they were in the saddle, and the cold air hit him with the full freedom of the first moments after a bad dream. The muscle of the horse beneath him, the chill nip of the wind on his unhooded ears and nose, the sword tugging on his left hip when he moved, the mass of the true book in his pack from when he'd slipped out the night before and dug it from the silent yard of the crumbling house, just past the near side of the pride gate. These, too, weighed on him. But they were a comfort rather than a burden. He'd worn them many miles before whatever was to come in the next few days. Blaze, his sword, his book. He didn't think he'd be coming back, but he took with him everything he'd need. You look jolly enough, Laramore remarked gazing out at the battle between city and forest, taking place at its forgotten fringes. I've been cooped up too long. It's good to be back in the open air. Well, I shop. We're expecting attack. From who? Who can keep up? Laramore shrugged. Regional rebels? You heard a little about them at the council. No doubt they know Samarant herself is leading this troop. Why do they care? Dante said eyes darting among the wreckage of buildings. They think Samaran's ignoring the will of the king and dragging all of Gask to war, which is sort of true. But the palace leaving Narashtovic didn't mean they took all its power with them. I don't follow. The priesthood stayed put. With the kingdom's power scattered hither and yon, everything got all swapped up. These days it's almost more like a score of baronies than a kingdom. About the only thing they all agree on is they don't like Malon telling them what to do, and the Norrin should shut up and do as they're told. He scratched his cheek, regarding Dante. You should ask Knack about these things. He doesn't have anything better to do than read about why things happened. Point is, they're out there. They'll take their chance, and they'll die for it. Dante nodded. You're so certain they'll fail? Those old men are an army unto themselves, he said, glancing towards the carriages bearing Samarand, 
and the six other men of the council, one of whom was Jackson. Dante had been surprised to see he'd talked his way on the mission. Samaran's will had seemed made of iron. I suppose the soldiers are no slouch either, Dante said. Laramore grunted agreement. Well, good. Glad to know they're not on a suicide mission. Most of the soldiers were on foot, and after they'd left the Pride Gate, it was the better part of half an hour before they'd crossed the bridge over the river and left the last mossy vestiges of the city behind. The lead riders took them down a road that ran north-northeast, roughly parallel to the coastline a couple miles distant. The land between them and the ocean was spotty with scrubby pines, as if the thick forest to their right couldn't make the hop across the rutted dirt trail. Ten or fifteen miles deep into those woods, the land cranked up into a range of tall hills or short mountains. Either way, they were heavily snow-capped. It had snowed again in the city and its surroundings a couple days previously, but that had melted in the not-quite-freezing breeze that blew in off the seas each evening. Riders came and went to Laramore and the carriages that travelled in the caravan centre. Dante caught fragments of intelligence about the state of the road and the signs of enemy scouts in the mud of the woods. Laramore murmured orders and rode on, uncharacteristically subdued. Dante kept his eyes roving, sweat building up beneath his arms. Quite enough out there, he said to Blaze after a time. Yep. What's wrong with them? Are they scared? Blaze drew back his chin. You almost sound like you want to be ambushed. I just don't like waiting. Dante lowered his hand to the haft of his sword. He remembered how it had felt to wield it in battle, the sense of oneness that came from the timing of a perfect parry, as if his body were in tune with the deep note of the song of the world. The silent potency that took him when he drove the blade home in another man's ribs. The rush of the nether thrumming in his heart and through his arms to spill the blood of those who'd see him dead. So what if I am? You're not. A little, maybe. Blaze sniffed, rubbed his nose. With all the drilling I've been doing, it would almost be a waste not to use it. The attack came at dusk when they were some twenty miles from the dead city, too far to be reinforced before the battle was decided. One of their mounted scouts galloped from the woods, wide-eyed and panting, and pulled up before Laramore. They're coming, he said, clutching his chest. Just a few minutes out. That's all the warning you've brought me. The rider tossed his head back at the woods. They concealed themselves well. I could have stepped on them and never known it. Laramore swore thoughtfully. He glanced at Dante, who'd already loosened his sword in its scabbard. Stay with the cavalry. Prepare yourselves. The column of soldiers had grown irregular with the passage of miles, and Laramore pounded down its length, calling out formations and orders to his captains. Their force made a general shift off the left of the road, opening perhaps forty yards of clear ground between them and the woods. The carriages were drawn in tight and buffered by a thicket of pikemen. To the pikeman's front, forming a chevron back along the flanks of the carriage, the swordsmen formed a loose line, letting the two-score archers mingle at their front. The cavalry were but a score in number, captained by a dark-bearded man named Rettinger, 
who barked orders and Gaskin to his men. We're to hold at the top of the column, Dante translated to Blaze, then sweep across their second line once they rush the archers. Not many men for a charge. No time for more complicated maneuvers, Dante said, and the roar of men's voices pitched up through the pines to the east. His skin prickled from ears to toes. Laramore's voice piped out, and the chevron began to swing, so its point faced the bulk of the battle cry. A husky voice rang out, and the archers let fly. Dante still couldn't see anything but shadows of movement among the trees, and the first volley provoked no more than a handful of screams. A couple dozen points of light flashed from the edges of the wood, catching the harsh slant of the last rays of the sun, and he saw arrows lancing almost without arc into the front lines of Samaran soldiers. Can't let that hold up. We've got no cover, Rettinger said, glancing toward Laramore. He growled. Got across. His horsemen followed him across the road, and they lingered just before the pines began. The woods weren't overly dense so close to the road, but it was a forest nonetheless, full of shrubs and cut trunks and rocks half buried in leaves, more than enough to negate the speed of their horses. Another volley swished from both sides, and again the screaming was louder from their own force. Dante gripped his blade. How long would Rettinger let the footman get shot to pieces? Hell with it, Rettinger said, as if reading the boy's thoughts, and he whipped out his sword and pointed it forward as he brought his mount to a trot. In and out, cut down any man with a bow and get the hell out. His men drew arms and fell into a ragged skirmish line. Hooves thunked hard earth. A battle cry ripped up from the bottom point of the column, and through the screen of trees, Dante saw a mass of footmen charging the force concealed in the wood. Arrows swished over their heads from the archers by the carriages, and then more pelted them from the safety of the pines. Men spun in their tracks and thumped against the ground. Then the footmen filtered into the woods, and as Rettinger's men burst upon the front line of the archers, the music of meeting steel exploded from the southern edge of the battle. Dante set his eyes on one man, as he'd been taught, and cocked his arm. An arrow thrummed past his ear, and hot rage burned between his eyes. He gasped, nostrils flaring. Then the man was before him, and he wheeled his blade and screamed, and lashed the archer across the face. He glanced toward Blaze, a couple lengths ahead, and saw him knock aside the blade of a pike. To Blaze's left, at their outer flank, an arrow hammered into a rider's chest, and he flopped in the saddle, horse veering left into the lines of enemy footmen. Dante compensated right without thinking, and turned in time to duck beneath a pike being jammed at his face. He made a quick stab at an archer diving behind a tree, and then bore right to follow Rettinger's curve back into the open. Swordsmen exchanged blows and shouts. Rettinger called out as the cavalry passed, they broke back into the field and cut back toward the caravan. Rettinger pulled up and counted off his men. They were missing two. Dante breathed heavily, relishing the air in his lungs, the air that dozens of men had suddenly ceased to taste. We're in reserve for the moment, Rettinger nodded toward the battle in the woods. Be ready for another pass, if they don't bring them into the open. Why wait, said a man with sweat-streaked blonde hair. 
Leave them in the open so the priests can do their thing. Calls of retreat hewed up from the forest. Over the next minute, Samaran's footmen fell back in a scattered mass, backs turned to their pursuers. That's organized, Dante said to Blaze, pointing at the lines visible in their retreating ranks. See if they bite, Blaze nodded. The footmen reassembled to the far side of the road. The enemy gushed from the woods and took another volley to their face. Arrows flew irregularly from the cover of the trees. Some of the riders grumbled, pointing to the other flank of footmen holding around the carriages. They were holding fast to the fire of the enemy archers, dragging the dead and wounded behind cover of the coaches and the handful of trees. The retreating forces regrouped and turned to meet their pursuers. Shouts and clanging metal filled the field. Swordsmen continued to rush from the woods. Already the numbers of the two armies looked equal, and still the enemy emerged from the wilds. Get your men out there, Laramore shouted toward Rettinger. Let's cause some chaos, Rettinger said, lifting his sword, and Dante aped him. He took them wide around the fury of the melee and back into the woods. Long shadows striped the ground. The trees were of decent age, and few had branches low enough to interfere with their immediate lines of sight. Rettinger whooped and shouted taunts. The other men bellowed along a split second later, Dante's young voice mingling with those of the men. They trampled through a loose fringe of stragglers, slowing enough to aim their blows for the softness of the neck. Dante cocked his arm, laughing at the panicked face of an unmounted soldier before he split it in half with his sword. He understood now they weren't meant to ride down the entire enemy troop. They were the dogs of the hunt, meant to bay, meant to hound, meant to cause panic in the larger animal. He put those thoughts away and cleaved someone's skull. Up ahead, a wedge of pikemen scrambled to intercept their course. The riders veered right, deeper into the woods, away from all that hard steel. Blaze had raced ahead, and Dante spurred his horse to catch pace. He threaded through the trees, keeping one eye on the mass of men rushing off to lay waste to each other, running through the woods, shadows banding their bodies, then emerging for a brief moment to be speared with the glittering dust in an unbroken beam of sunlight. The drumbeat of their hooves drowned out the jangle of swords. They'd been riding for some seconds in a recently abandoned stretch of wood, circumscribing a wide arc around the battle, and Rettinger made a sharp turn, driving them to the northeast. Dante was so close on Blaze's heel, the churned turf of his horse dashed against his face. Within moments, they were skimming along the rear guard, lashing out with their simple straight cavalry blades into the dispersed ranks of the rebels, cutting raised arms between elbow and wrist, the sweat and thunder and howls forcing back the dirty-faced men of the opposition. They rode as an ancient law of the world, as destruction on horseback, as the right arm of an angry god. Like that, they were in the midst of a sizable troop, up near the front of the forest, slashing archers in their turned backs. Cries rang out and arrows creased the air around their heads. At the head of the charge, Rettinger broke right, straight north away from the arrows and swords and pikes. Dante's horse jerked and uttered a choked whinny. Then his level, speeding world of half-glimpsed faces and whipping branches was replaced by a sudden rush of earth and fallen tree limbs. 
and he felt his legs part from the horse as it went down, and his momentum went on. He skidded face first through dry pine needles and wet dirt. Some small part of his mind was happy he'd been thrown clear of the wounded horse. Then he rolled to his feet and found himself alone, surrounded by archers and men with hostile swords, the rear of the cavalry hurtling away into the safety of the woods, the drum of their hooves already obscured by the shouts of men. Blaze! he cried. His sword had buried itself in the ground a couple feet away, and he yanked it up and beat back the first thrust of a swordsman. Most of the soldiers around him were occupied with their own troubles, be they plunking arrows at the men in the open road, or rushing to the side of their friends just cut down by the screaming horde of Rettinger's charge. But he was there, alone, with too many alien faces to make it out alive. He parried another blow and riposted, as Robert Hobble had shown him an eternity ago on their long march. A wild swing that nonetheless slashed across his opponent's chest and felled him. He heard the shifting of the carpet of needles and spun to meet a sword meant for his spine. His senses felt like living things, the scent of blood and sap, the power of the weight of the blade in his hand, the mixed anger and fear of the new swordsman bringing his weapon back around. Dante punched out his left hand, and the nether knocked a hole in the man's neck. His eyes bugged, and he too went down, painting the forest floor with his blood. An arrow ripped past Dante's ear, and he felt a stinging numbness where it clipped his cartilage. Blood trickled down his forehead and cheeks where he'd slammed into the dirt. Two more swordsmen popped up from tending the wounded to meet this new threat, and Dante backpedaled, resisting every urge to throw down his weapon and run till his legs gave out. He swept his free hand through the blood at his ear and face. When the two men stood shoulder to shoulder in front of him, he sprung forward, arm held straight as the arrows hissing through the woods, and white fire belched from a foot in front of his hand to sear past the two soldiers. Its pure heat wrenched the screams from their throats. Others fell back, shielding their faces with their forearms. The flash of flame and the whump of igniting air drew a glance from a dozen other men. Dante had slung the nether like a limb of his own body trusting blank terror to keep him safe. But from the depths of his fugue, he knew if he stayed here, he might take a few more with him out to Aron's indifferent arms. But it would end with his unblinking eyes staring up through the wind-shook needles of the pines. He turned and ran, what he thought was north, away from the loudest sounds of fighting, at least. The sun was down too far to judge by it in the middle of all those trees zigzagging through trunks, meaning to confuse any archers, drawing a bead to string out any pursuing swordsman. He risked a glance. A half-dozen giving chase, maybe more. They'd seen one of the riders unhorsed and wanted to cut out a nobleman's heart and see it bleed the same as theirs. Maybe work up the courage to join the main fray. He knocked down the lead man with a bolt of shadow. Shouts to his immediate north. They were cutting him off. Time nearly stopped. Watching the shadow-struck man's feet slide up in front of him as he slipped in the needles. Blood wobbling away from the wound on the man's forehead. The world was nightmare. Choked gasps and blood gurgling in punctured throats. 
blind rage in the eyes of all the men who were about to kill him, as the agent of a woman he hated here near the ends of the world. Blaze! he screamed. Chill fingers wrapped around his spine as he reached out again to the dead man's corpse now slamming to a final rest. Would it be no different than with rats? Would the effort tear Dante apart like a storm-swollen stream? His body shuddered as the nether left him and darted over to the body. The next swordsman rushed by a couple seconds away. He turned his gaze to them, and from the corner of his vision saw the dead man stand and raise his sword. Dante tasted bile. Just like the rats. He imagined the dead man's sword splitting the neck of the man running past him, and the corpse swiped out and removed a head from a set of shoulders. Then the closest pair was on him. His back bumped into a trunk, and he rolled alongside it. The sword of a man with a black beard and dirty buckskin clothes whacked into the trunk, spitting bark over Dante's face. Dante leaned forward to stab his guts while his sword was stuck, but his partner cut a quick downward stroke, and Dante had to lean back and twist his body just to get his sword up enough to escape with a gashed shoulder rather than a severed arm. He wanted to scream. He grimaced and punched the man in the jaw with the pommel of his sword, knocking him back a couple steps to spit gobs of blood and teeth. The other dislodged his blade from the tree and, being right-handed, stabbed around it. Dante jumped to put the full trunk between them and beat down with his sword, pinning the attackers against the tree. He ripped up the point of his blade, just a quick flip of the wrists, but it cut across the man's chest, sending him sprawling, guts open to the air. To his left, toward where the other men had been chasing him, the animated corpse was laying into three swordsmen. Three other bodies sprawled at its feet, where it had caught them unaware. There was no grace in the swings of its sword, just a tireless, painless strength, a stroke as ponderous and inevitable as the turning of the stars. It didn't try to dodge or block when one of the three men stepped in and hacked through its left arm. Instead, it raised its blade and buried it in the man's ribs. The other two fell on it, chopping wildly, knocking it to its knees. The man he'd punched had recovered and circled around the tree. The man was young, his beard patchy and his hair stringy, blood dribbling past his lips to catch in the hairs of his chin. And as they exchanged strikes and parries, Dante found he could hold his own. A one-man cheer came up from the left, and the sliver of second awareness he'd felt since returning the corpse to its feet blanked out. They'd be on him in a second. He reached out for the shadows, expecting hesitation after all his exertions, resistance, but found them ready. In his surprise, he nearly lost hold of his simple intentions, but maintained his grasp and formed a ball of black around the man's head. The man gasped, and Dante had to duck his blind swing. The sword whooshed over his head. He poked the man in the ribs, then the gut, and at the sight of two more men running toward him, he took off like a jackrabbit, straight west toward the road and all the clamor of a full battle. He weaved through the trees, boots slipping on the pine needles. He held his sword with both hands 
and chopped the back of an archer taking sight through the thinning trees. His cut shoulder flared with pain. Bootsteps thudded behind him. He ran straight through a line of archers at the edge of the woods, and then he was clear and saw the raging anarchy of the fight along the open ground around the road. Swordsmen lashed at each other, the fine black cloaks of Samaran's men mingling with the tanned leather dress and time-thinned furs of the rebels. Pikes waved over their heads, descending in awkward slashes through the crush of men. Men died on their blades and were held on their feet by the pressure of the surging troops. Others tripped on corpses, then lunged to meet the enemy's swords. Shrieks of wrath and pain and steel deafened him to everything but the pulse in his ears. Six hundred soldiers or more, all told, he guessed. The men of Oron outnumbered and with more ready to meet them in the woods. How would real war look if it came to Malin? Tens of thousands clashing in a single battle. Wounded men retreated back to the cover of the tree line, soaked in the blood of their own mangled flesh, pointing and shouting when they saw the flap of Dante's black cloak. He struck one down with a spear of nether. Archers behind him, a war to his front and to his left. The field to the right was mostly empty, but if he went that way, the archers could fire on him without worry of hitting their comrades. He clenched his teeth. Everything was ruin. He'd die here. He'd fall in the field and become lost to the dirt. Another man closed on him, right arm dangling useless, blood dripping from the torn sleeve around his elbow, sword held in his left. The man swung with strength but no precision, and Dante deflected it from his body and swung a forehand counter that took the man's throat. A keening bloom of fire flared from the middle of the battle around the carriages, followed in the same instant by a second and a third. Screams dominated the crash of weapons. Dante started forward to make use of the confusion, meaning to lose himself to any watching archers in the mixed-up outskirts of the fight. But before he crossed to the open ground, the tide of men began to turn back toward him, driven by the tongues of flame and the terror of the men at the front. Dante backed up toward the woods, readying the shadows. The first of the enemy reached him as he heard the pounding of the hooves approaching from his right. The cavalry smashed into the scattered lines. Hands and swords and strings of blood flew into the air. The enemy men stopped short to meet this new threat, caught between the anvil of the Council of Priests, laying waste at their front, and the hammer of mounted men, cutting them apart at their rear. Dante stumbled backwards, seeing the faces of the riders whip past, their expressions fusions of glee and rage. Blaze! he called out. Blaze! A handful of rebel footmen had been cut off from the lines by the swift strike of the cavalry. Their eyes turned to Dante's shouts, saw him alone and unhorsed. He sobbed then tightened his throat and shook his sword and made white fire slither around its length. He held his left hand aloft and swathed it in a hazy sphere of darkness, bellowing for all his worth. His voice cracked. The men hesitated, a couple actually stepping back in the face of his demonry. Then saw they were many, and he was one, and continued toward him. He could run back toward the woods, 
but that would just delay this fight to put him into an even more lopsided match. He tensed his arms, heart rebelling against what the next moments would bring. Two riders peeled from the rear of the cavalry, while the others, too few to risk getting mired down in the throngs of men, continued the charge to Dante's left. One of the riders stomped down a footman and cut across the back of a second. The other leaned down in the saddle and with a smooth stroke sent a man's head tumbling. The first horseman swung away to hurry after the rest of the cavalry, leaving Dante and Blaze, for it was Blaze, his blonde head bobbing with the motion of his horse, blood splashed on his sword arm and face so his eyes stood out bright as beacons, alone to face the remaining men who hadn't turned back to the main fight at the departure of the cavalry. They stood alone, detached in the open ground between woods and the full-out battle at the carriages. Blaze tried to turn his horse for another pass, but saw the men would be on Dante before he could complete the maneuver. He drew up his legs in a crouch and hurled himself into the mass of men as they converged on their target. Two fell beneath his tackle, and only one got back up with him. Dante whirled his fiery blade in front of him, drawing no blood, but lending his own discord to all the violent Babel. He swept his shadowed hand in a broader arc, and the nether cut a line across the veins of the lead man's neck. Blood jetted away from him, and he fell to his knees, clutching his mortal wound. Still the warriors didn't break. Blaze had freed his sword from the man he'd plunged it in during his leaping dismount and was fighting in a way Dante had never seen him do before. Fists held steady at a point just above his waist, he twisted his wrists and elbows to swing the sword's tip in front of his body with little strength but great precision and speed. In no time at all, he opened a hole in his opponent's defense and slashed the blade back and forth across his body. Dante sidled to his left as they fell in around him, hacking out at one man, forcing him back enough to keep the ones on his right out of arm's reach. He flat out charged, then, the bright lance of his sword held out before him. His target sidestepped, and Dante spun right to block his strike. Blaze came at him from his flank, and the man pivoted to prevent being skewered. Blaze had already moved on to the next man, coming their way, as Dante sunk his sword to the hilt in the man's side. He thought he could feel the steel sliding through the separate organs of the man's gut. Their foes fanned out around them. Blaze and Dante fought shoulder to shoulder, a two-man line against the number and determination of the enemy. The soldier's eyes whirled with hate for Dante and the uniform he wore, oblivious to the true nature of his presence how he would land the blow at Samaran's neck the rebels would fail at here. Sick laughter bubbled in his throat. None of them had to die, but they'd be killed in this battle by the score. Whose justice was that? Surely not the gods. This was no reflection of the heavens. This was the law of the soiled earth, a place of angry confusion and mewling deaths. This was the edifice of man, this blood-watered field, where they fought and fell cold for a joke of fate. He snapped his head away from a whistling sword. Blaze was fighting two men at once, wrists flicking so fast his blade blurred in the afterglow of the sunset. 
Dante kept his own, and for half a minute of ringing swords, he was too busy keeping himself alive to reach out to the nether. He landed a deep cut to a man's thigh, and the attacker fell back to be replaced by another. In the open moment, Dante took a clumsy grasp on the shadows, and rather than a stab of force, released it in a blunt wave that knocked away the man's breath. He pressed his advantage, battering away the man's sword and gutting him. He glanced at a grunt to his side and saw Blaze lean into a killing strike and immediately pull back to parry his other foe's reach. He turned back. The sword of the man whose leg he'd cut was sweeping in a level plane toward his ribs. Dante tossed up a half-strength block and sucked air through his teeth as he felt the steel parting his skin. He skipped back a step, stomach soured with nausea. The shadows swept through him, too much this time, an itchy tingle beneath his skin that flared into a burst of pain before he went numb. His assailant fell, but his vision grayed his sword arm lowered to his side. The shouts and screams and pounding of steel met his ears as if he were underwater. He blinked, turned to watch Blaze hack it out with one last man. Everyone else around them appeared to have either retreated to the woods, rejoined the fighting around the carriages and priests, or further down the road where footmen battled footmen, or been struck down in the field. Amazingly, though in his light-headed state, everything seemed at least mildly surprising. Blaze's horse stood a few yards off, tossing its head at the noise and the scents of blood and bile and scorched air. But there it was, standing its ground. Your horse is good, he said to Blaze, who offered no reply. Down to a single opponent, Blaze's swings had become less defensive, Wider arcs meant to take advantage of the strength his arms had gained these last few months. Hey, I said your horse is good. I heard, Blaze said through his teeth. He counted a few blows, then leaned into an offensive of his own. He struck successively higher, and on the fourth swing he twisted his wrist, giving it an upstroke, knocking his opponent's sword up over his head. The man regained enough balance to start a cut aimed at Blaze's neck, but by then Blaze's own blade had passed back down and opened his throat. The man dropped away. Blaze spun in a quick circle and saw the only men near them were corpses. He ran past Dante to the horse and wriggled his way up into the saddle. Dante gazed dumbly at the blood that covered his hands and sword. He wiped his weapon on the coat of a dead man, then brushed his hands in the wet grass. Come on, Blaze shouted. What, both of us? Dante said, wandering up beside the beast. It smelled like sweat and dust and hair. Now, you god's damn dunce! Right. Dante got a foot in the stirrup and swung himself up behind Blaze. Sorry, I'm a little... He tapped the side of his head. What's new? He heard Blaze mutter. Blaze wheeled the horse around and spurred it north, along the right-hand side of the road. A couple arrows whisked past their head. Dante twisted around and gave the forest the finger. They swung around the top edge of the battle, giving it wide berth, working their way toward the rear. After a few moments, the cold air filling his lungs and rushing over his skin began to clear his head. You're pretty good, he said. Shut up. 
Blaze said, glancing quickly between the ground ahead and the slaughter at the carriages. As they curved around the lines of combat, Dante saw streaks of fire lancing out from the hands of councilmen who'd looked too old to walk without a staff. He laughed, then fell silent at the scent of scorched flesh. Samaran's men had repelled another surge and were slowly driving the rebels back. Blaze cut across the road and through a makeshift camp of wounded men. As they approached the rear of the caravan, two horsemen rode out and hailed them. It's Blaze! I've got Dante Galland with me. Alive? One of them asked with professional interest. Blaze reined in the horse and dropped down to the ground. Takes more than that rabble to kill me, Dante said. He hopped down and staggered to one side, arms wheeling. I'm all right. What's been going on? Blaze said to one of the riders, a man whose thick black hair was clipped short. Looked bad until the priests come into it, the man said in halting malice. And now? Not so bad. We need to go help them, Dante said. He took a step forward. Blaze planted a hand on his chest, unbalancing him again. No, we don't. Look at you. You're like a drunk two-year-old. He glanced over at the sounds of battle, then at the rider, then finally back to Dante. His mouth worked over itself. What if... Dante frowned, confused. Then he caught the glint in Blaze's eye and shook his head. Not until the tree, he whispered loudly. But it's so mixed up right now, no one could tell. I don't even know what's going on, Dante said. He walked around the caravan to get a view of the fight, letting his hand trail along the side of one of the wagons. Blaze's feet crunched through the leaves and dirt behind him. Dante turned a corner and gazed out at the swarms of men, swords and pikes flashing in the dim light. He wondered vaguely if Laramore were still alive. He could make out Samarand, her thick black braid swinging behind her head as she called out orders and weaved her hands to form the nether before unleashing it in a booming flare amongst the enemy ranks. And after a moment he'd counted all six priests of the council on their feet and lobbing death before them. But he didn't see Samaran's hand. It wasn't long before the rebels began to retreat. Once it had begun, any meaningful points of battle were over in seconds. Men turned to see open gaps in their lines and the backs of the men who'd just been beside them. Before them, the priests blasted fire and chaos. They fell back swiftly, dropping weapons, stumbling over the wounded and the dead, a motion that began with a handful and ended in a total retreat. Samaran's forces gave chase for a few yards, hacking down anyone within range, then pulled up and cheered. The fighting on their southern flank followed suit within half a minute. The rebels disappeared into the lines of trees, and the air stilled to the rustle of pines and the groans of the dying. Dante sighed, and as he felt the air streaming through his nostrils, he realized he hadn't been thinking clearly since he had last drawn the nether. His senses crept back to him like dogs frightened off by the shouts of their master. He saw soldiers put away blades and sink to their knees, huffing for breath, 
faces splattered with mud and blood, eyes shuddered in the twilight. Others prodded among the prone bodies, hauling off the conscious ones to the carriages, where the priests did what they could to stabilize their wounds. The stink of spilled stomachs clung to the air. The wounded rolled in the grass, sobbing, voices choked with snot. Bodies carpeted the field between the road and the forest. He'd never seen so many. All the men he'd killed along the way to Narashtavik suddenly swum before his eyes. The two at the temple, the kneeling, the three in the alley in Bressel, the tracker by the river, the two in Wetton, the uncounted watchman of the hanging, Will Palomar and his men in the woods, Hanstein and his rebels at Gabe's monastery in Shea, the assassin in his cell in the citadel. A few dozen, and every one after his own life, he reminded himself. But a fraction of those dead and dying in this place. A drop in the ocean to all who must fall in the real wars. However high his count might be, it wouldn't fill a single row in any of the endless cemeteries of Narashtavik. Dante shuddered, not for what he looked upon so much as how he'd come to see it. He tried to rise and didn't trust his knees to hold him up. He lowered himself back to the dirt and for a long time felt nothing but the hollow ringing of his body. Laramore appeared after a few minutes, blood running freely down his face from a wound on his scalp. But Dante knew head wounds always looked worse than they were. He touched the scrapes on his own face, the nick in his ear, the cuts to his shoulder and ribs. The shoulder was tender to the touch, still leaking blood. He shook his head, gazing out at the triage. Hard to tell who won he said to no one in particular. He cleared his throat against the catch he'd felt. Scores of bodies tumped down the grass every way he looked. A full third of their force was dead, or would die from their injuries, he'd bet. Others would be left without arms or legs, or would spool out the rest of their days hobbling, unable to move any faster than a jerky walk. Do you feel that? Blay said. What? Dante perked up his ears, strained for whatever Blaze was lifting his head toward. Out on the fields, men with naked blades stalked among the bodies, pausing here and there to hack once or twice at the fallen. Not all of their targets wore the irregular clothes of the rebels. The clarity. Like my dad said, Blaze held his hand before his face and stretched out his fingers as if to touch something only he could see. Everything is closer. Don't you feel it? I feel tired, Dante said. Is that a revelation? Blaze gave him a sharp look. I'm not kidding. Neither am I, Dante didn't say. He drew a deep breath and tried to ignore the throbs of pain throughout his body. After a moment, he understood the pain was a part of whatever Blaze was talking about, and he stopped trying anything at all, letting his eyes see the men gathering bodies, 
his ears hear the murmur of their low voices and the weeping of the dying. Letting his nerves feel the shell of his body telling him the pulse of its pain. Everything about the battle had been so fast. Where was the glory? Before, at the end of things, he'd often felt a thrill so deep it was like being touched by the hand of the god. It was as if something had been proven. If a god touched him now, he thought his bones would crumble. The wind picked up, hissing through the pines, tousling the grasses. In fifty years, no one would remember this. The earth had forgotten it already. Your father was right, he said. He died, you know, a few years ago. Hired for border work in one of the baronies. He just didn't come back. I didn't know that, Dante said. Blaze nodded. He unsheathed his sword and planted it point first in the ground. He leaned on it, watching the men stack the bodies. It was odd. With all the fights he'd been in, he died in one of those jokes they called a war. Someone shot my horse from under me today. I should have died. Why do you think he didn't? Blaze smiled with half his mouth. Fate? He glanced to where Samarand was ordering men around. Destiny? I've taught myself to do things other men can't, Dante said. Blaze's smile faded, and Dante reached into his pocket and touched the torch stone he'd had since he was a kid. My dad died when I was young, too. That's too bad. He must have been something. Larimore bounded up to them out of the gloom. He had a handkerchief pressed against the still-leaking wound on his forehead, but he smiled at them through the blood drying on his face. Oh, good, he said. I'd heard you were dead. Wouldn't want to trouble your sleep, Dante said. Why so glum? Did you have to kill someone? I lost count. Larimore chuckled, then stepped closer and bent to examine Dante's face. You're all torn up. Go and see a priest, will you? Dante waved a hand. They've got bigger problems. I don't want your humors all corrupted by some little stab. You already seem to have a preponderance of bile. I can take care of myself, Dante said. Laramore looked skeptical. How'd the battle go? They had numbers and terrain, so I'd call it a success, he said, shrugging at the bodies being dragged into piles. He considered Blaze. Redinger says you did all right. All right? I saved your pet's life here, Blaze said, tipping his head at Dante. We'll get you a medal. I prefer some whiskey. Whiskey's fleeting. Badges of honor last until you have to pawn them. Laramore removed the handkerchief from his wound and turned a critical eye on whatever it had sopped up. What am I talking to you two for? I've got things to do. If you're not too busy sitting on your asses, you could lend a hand out there. Sorry, Dante said, stretching out his legs. Single-handedly winning the battle is exhausting work. 
Laramore snorted, and left them to go confer with Samarand over in the road. They spoke and nodded at each other for a minute, and a minute after that, a rider trotted south back toward the dead city. An hour later, the troops had finished gathering the corpses. The fields stunk with the dizzying smell of oil. They laid a torch to the bodies, and the smell got much worse. Samarand marched them a couple miles north, just enough to get upwind and find a decent hill to camp on if the rebels surprised them with another attack. Behind them, the fires kept burning, spitting greasy smoke into the night, clogging the skies between them and the lights of Narashtavik. Like that, they were gone. The ashes of their bodies mingled with the ashes of the earth. Were there spirits with Aron? Dante stretched out beneath his cloak, watched the columns of smoke cast a haze over the stars, dulling their bright points to dying embers. How old was the world? How many men had fed it with their bones? in hopes their children wouldn't have to do the same. He meant to stay up till the fires burnt themselves to darkness, but sleep slapped him down like a rogue wave. For the first night since he'd killed the assassin, he didn't wake once before it was time to move on. Chapter 17 the northern road stretched on. Mounted scouts came and went and exchanged words with Samarand and Laramore and Rettinger. They'd scared up a new horse for Dante, and he and Blaze rode a few yards off the road on the right edge of the column. Other than a sporadic breeze, the woods were silent. The surviving soldiers joked in low tones, but the proud sense of purpose that had filled their spirits the day they'd left the city had been replaced by something more somber, a humorless wariness. Dante's entire body ached like he had been sewn in a bag and rolled down a mountain. He checked the cuts on his shoulder and ribs for excessive redness, but other than some dried blood and angry bruising, they looked all right. He touched the nether, meaning to soothe his wounds, but the powers felt stirred up, fickle, and he let them be. Best to be rested, if another attack came. It started to snow late that morning, at first with a few small flakes, no more likely to accumulate than the ash drifting around a campfire. Within minutes, fat, amorphous bits were dashing against Dante's face. He pulled up his hood. It was a wonder, or maybe just a tendency of coasts, for Bressel's weather was just as weird. It had held off that long. By the afternoon, two inches coated the ground. He heard a scout tell Laramore they'd found a few tracks a couple miles east, but nothing indicative of the remaining rebel troops. And when they encamped on a small hill that night, they slept without interruption. The land swelled and dipped in old, gentle hills, masking the riders that trailed them until the foreign troops crested a ridge less than a mile behind Samaran's force. Dante freed his blade. 
Laramore rode up and down the column, loosening orders like arrows. The pikemen dropped to the rear, but the procession marched on. The riders advanced with no apparent haste, and it was the better part of an hour until Dante could make out the white icons of Barden stitched into their cloaks. He let his horse plod on while he counted men. Forty more riders, hoods raised against the snow that continued to spit from the low clouds. The foot soldiers saw their colors and smiled, some for the first time since the battle. The riders caught up before noon, and Rettinger dropped back to exchange greetings and news. Not many men at all, in the scheme of things, but enough, Dante would wager, to hush the schemes of any enemy scouts. They paused that afternoon to hack a shallow grave from the frozen dirt for the dozen-odd men who'd died of their wounds during the day's march. Once the grave was refilled, Samarand stood at its edge and cast a plain iron ring on the upturned earth. Don't weep for these men, she said, voice carrying through the assembled troop. There can be no higher glory than to die in the service of Aron. We should someday be so lucky to have our names written in the same stars as theirs. She said more in that vein, but Dante had heard similar sentiments plenty of times before, and as with all conventional wisdom, he couldn't be certain whether he'd once believed it because it were true, or simply because he'd heard it so often it had driven all other thoughts from his head. He tried to think how a eulogy should sound, but was able to draw no truths. They were dead. What was there to say? By the end of the fourth day from the city, Dante could see snow-capped peaks peeking through the fog of cloud and snow that shrouded their path to the north. It was almost improper that they hadn't been attacked again, he thought. They marched with no lesser purpose than to unlock a god. Where was the conspiracy of the world to stop them? Were he and Blaze its last weapon? It was like the Southlands were slumbering, waiting for spring thaws to sniff out the roots of the recent unrest. Either that, or were simply too stupid and disorganized to do anything at all. It was obscene to think that for all Malon's strength, the king and his many lords hadn't sent a single man to stop the Aronites. Didn't even know, perhaps, the scope of their intent. On the other hand, Dante himself considered this whole trip to be nothing more than an impressive example of the insanity of crowds. He expected they'd find a warped old tree clinging to life on some ice-swept hillside and start bowing down and chanting. Once their ritual was complete, how would they even know whether they'd freed their lord? Would Aron appear in a puff of smoke and brimstone, twenty feet tall, with a blade as long as a man's full height? ready to scourge all Malin for its hubris? Or would Samarand be infused with his essence, be able to stretch out her hand and see her will be done from sea to sea? Most likely, they'd make a lot of noise and fire, and become so excited by their own power they'd convince themselves they felt Aron's celestial touch. These people put an awful lot of stock in things they'd never seen. Lyle was the last man to have claimed to speak to a god, 
excluding the rum-drunk ravings of the lunatics that camped out on the corners of every decent city around the globe. And now he rotted in the ground, while men invoked his name as a joke. By summer and snowy tits, they'd swear in a century from now. By the whiskers of Samaran's moles. Dante snorted, glanced over at the carriages. What? Blay said. What do you think's gonna happen when we get there? Weirdness, Blay said, and lots of it. An almost demonic insight. What else do you foresee, O oh great prophet? Well, what about you, holy man? Dante smirked in the direction of the deluded priests. Sound and fury. I don't think we're in any danger of a starry-eyed god with a beard as great and white as the ocean's foam showing up and laying waste to us heretics. That's what Aron's supposed to look like. Don't they all look like that? Well, then no wonder everyone's so impressed with them. Dante woke the next morning to find his blankets thick with snow. The road continued straight ahead, but the land to their west began to fall away, until they traveled no more than a hundred feet parallel to sheer cliffs, and below that, the gray sweep of the ocean. To their east, the forest fell back until it was a smudge of dark green behind a veil of falling snow, leaving them to travel on through open hills. Ahead, the mountains were a wall of white and blue, too close to disappear from sight, no matter how thick the weather got. They were running out of room, Dante thought. Surely the land would end with those peaks. They trudged on. The snow crested the ankles of the men on foot. He pulled his cowl tighter. Shortly before noon, as best as he could judge it through the clouds, the leading edge of the column reached the top of a hill and drew up short. Those at the front pointed to something blocked to Dante by the hill's white mass. Talk rippled back through the men. He could hear the voices, but couldn't make out the words. He glanced at Blaze. They swung up the side of the hill, halting on its flat head, a few feet away from the line of men, who themselves were leaving the orderly column to bunch up and lean their ears together and murmur in tense tones. Below them lay a broad, treeless valley, blank with drifted snow, the faint outlines of the road tracing ever to the north. A great snow-streaked peak rose up behind the hill at the far end of the valley. White-capped waves tossed the waters to the west. For a moment, Dante couldn't see whatever the men were straining their fingers toward. He looked at Blaze again, saw him frowning at something on the far hill. He followed the boy's gaze and saw it then, the obscure outlines of a white, branched object just below the crown of the opposite ridge. What does that look like to you? Blaze said. It could be a snowy tree. Dante bit his lip and strained his eyes into the snowfields. It was a tree, he thought, the only one he could see between them and the mountains. Rather than the lumpy cones of the pines they'd been riding alongside for days, it had the wide, globular boughs of an oak, which spread away from its trunk like outstretched hands. Leafless, he thought he could see the hill behind it through its limbs, 
though that was hardly a surprise, given that it was midwinter in the furthest north of the continent. Solid white. A shade duller than the snows everywhere else in sight. Dante dropped his hood to his shoulders, as if that would help him see. That doesn't look right, Blaze said distractedly. Dante nodded. A call cut through the cluster of men, and they began to shift back to their lines. Laramore rode along the broken column, insulting those he deemed too slow, in the same tone he gave encouragement to others. After a minute they were moving again, beginning the slippery descent into the featureless valley. The tree loomed larger as they went down. With no points of reference to provide scale, Dante could tell no more than that it was very tall. At the low point of the long saddle between the hill they'd left and the one they were about to climb, Dante's horse balked, stamping its hooves into the snow. He gave it a tap on the flank and it tossed its head. Blaze's mount stuttered to a stop too, snorting mist from its nostrils. To his left he saw other horses halting, and the glowering faces of their riders as they tossed helplessly at their reins. The footman went on a short ways before realizing what was happening behind them, then turned around with questions stamped on their faces. Dante led his horse crossways to a handful of mounted men talking and nodding to each other. A good a place as any, Rettinger said. They're not going another step. All right, Laramore nodded. Post a couple riders back on the hill. This would be a bad time for someone to sneak up on us while we were gawking. Rettinger nodded and pointed a couple of his cavalry back up the road. He sent three others east, into the open land, in the general direction of the woods that began five or six miles out. We'll bivouac here, Laramore called out to the men. Tie the horses to the wagons. They're too smart to go any further. The mounted men hopped down, passed their reins to pages. Dante dropped out of the saddle and wandered over to the body of action. The doors of the carriages swung open, and old men in thick robes eased their way down into the snow. Samarand got down from her private conveyance and engaged Laramore's attention. Dante set his mouth and gazed out at the sea, where the horizon met the water in a blur of grey clouds and grey waves. It looked, he imagined, like what the gods had seen before they'd separated one from another and put order to the elements of the world. In all his travels, he'd never been able to escape a vague sense of disappointment that even the farthest-flung lands, exotic and mysterious on the clean lines of a map, turned out to be peopled with the same general range of nobility and serf, of merchant and armsman and farmer and wife, as he'd seen growing up. They might dress a little oddly, or look a shade lighter or darker, or speak a little funny, or in another tongue altogether, but Dante could never shake the idea he could find a scene just like it if he turned the right or wrong corner in Bressel. In all the miles he'd travelled, through all the walking and running and riding he'd done in the past couple months, the only moment that had hit him with any kind of real wonder or sublimity had been the bright green waters of the glacial lake in the mountains between Malin and Gask. 
But this moment here, the raw wind off the ocean, the spine of mountains ahead, the silent valley and its skin of snow, it finally felt like something wondrous, like the true end of the world. He knew if he tried to walk past the hill ahead and up into the mountains, he'd always find himself in the gentle rise and fall of a white field, never a foot closer no matter how long he walked. The northern mountains, as real as they looked, would come no nearer than the seven moving heavenly bodies, or perhaps the fixed stars themselves, things you could look on with awe, could hope to calculate and understand given patience and discipline, but bodies that would forever be beyond the touch. He paced around the snow. He felt small things snapping and crumbling under his boots, buried branches or hardened dirt. They rolled like stones, though, and he knelt and brushed away the snow and picked up a white pebble. One end was knobbed, the other cracked. The broken end was filled with a spongy weave of marrow. He picked away more snow. The bones were scattered, far too few to make a second carpet over the dead grass, yet there were far too many for these open meadows, which to his eyes looked barren, trackless, lifeless. Blaze came up to join him and saw what he was holding and gave him a weird look. It was just lying on the ground, Dante told him. He dropped the finger-sized bone back into the snow. That sounds like a fine reason to pick it up. Oh, like you're so much cleaner, Dante said. He glanced back toward the road where priests flapped their cloaks and bunched their fists against their chest. Blaze grunted. They stood in silence. Come on, pops, Laramore called to them after a few minutes had gone by. They rejoined the group. Samarans took the lead the six other priests at her heels, followed by a small, hand-drawn wagon bearing sacks of food and a few rattling bags. A dozen soldiers took up the rear. That's it, isn't it? Dante said to Laramore, in the kind of voice people use in airy, echoing cathedrals. Pardon. Unless they swapped it out since the last time I saw it, Laramore said, unable to keep the reverence from his voice. Why? Do you see any other immortal trees of life and death around here? Maybe. Move your ass. The council's going to need us to watch their backs while they're indisposed. Wind gusted over the clear ground, driving dust-like snow into their faces. Less than a mile to the top of the hill. By the time they'd climbed halfway up, Dante could tell the branches weren't snowy. They were actually white. A slight nausea perched in his stomach. The elder council members picked a careful path through the squeaking snow and blustery wind and the upward slant of the ground. Dante tried to match their pace but found himself constantly moving ahead. He dropped his eyes to his feet and made a game of trying to plant his feet in the exact steps the swordsman ahead of him had made. He thought for a while of Fanna, 
a pretty, dark-haired girl from the village who had a bright, friendly way that used to seem like encouragement. For months she consumed his every thought with the clever things he might say to her. She'd thought him quick and funny, but had broken things off before they'd really started, saying there was something dark about him that she'd never be able to heal, even if they were one day married. He still hadn't understood what she meant, or what had happened by the time he'd left the village for Bressel and the book. Fanna might be engaged to another boy by now, even dead. Dante knew that thought should make him sad, but he doubted if she ever thought of him anymore. Leaving people behind and forgetting them piece by piece was just the way life worked. His past fixation on her struck him now as almost pathetic. He was glad to be gone from her, glad to be older, but he wished he could have met her all over again now that he'd begun to grow into his age, or that she could see him here for just a moment, compare what he'd become to the odd, nervous boy she'd known. He thought she'd like what she saw. Dante bumped into the back of the man whose footsteps he'd followed and saw they were nearly at the top of the hill. Without warning, someone vomited noisily to his right. Before he had time to laugh, his eyes fell on the trunk of the tree that stood a mere thirty yards away, and his mind went empty as it struggled to categorize the thing he saw. The trunk was wider than his arm was long. White and gnarled, it looked at first glance like a rope of spines twisted around each other. He thought it might be one of those tricks of nature where a fly paints its wings to look like a wasp, or a harmless plant grows its leaves in the pattern of the poisonous one. But there were no leaves on this tree. None of its branches swayed in the winds. Instead, it was starkly empty, horribly motionless in a way every other tree he'd ever seen wasn't. The main branches appeared composed of ribs and humeri and femurs, not as if they were a single big bone, but rather a fused line of thousands, like a hundred corpses had been forged into the curve of a single limb. The branches forked into smaller versions of themselves like a normal tree, terminating in willowy fibulas and ulnas and radii and individual ribs, and sticking out from those delineated bones were the prongs of tarsals and metacarpals and knuckles and toes and teeth, looking like twigs and pale blooms. Barden stood a hundred feet high or more, and every inch as wide across its branches, casting still, sharp-edged shadows on the snow. Dante fell back a step, struck by a gut's deep revulsion. His boot caught against a rock-hard root, a jumble of jawbones and backbones. At first glance, Barden looked like it might have been built by someone's hands rather than coaxed from the soil, but for all its stillness, he had the sense it was alive, not artifice. It wasn't inert in the same way that bones in a grave were inert, or like the stones in a fieldstone wall were no more than stones. But if it had been built, who could it have been built by? Some insane person who'd hauled a caravan of countless dead to this desolate spot and spent a year nailing together the bones? 
When he looked closer, he could see no sign of craft in its branches. Where one bone met another, they blended till the seam was nearly invisible. They had grown that way. Some time ago, a very long time ago, the seed of the white tree of Barden had been planted in the dirt, and risen as a sapling, and raised its bleached arms to the heavens, and grown and grown and grown until it filled the sky. Blazer's hand clamped on his shoulder. Around him men muttered oaths, or said nothing at all. Three of the six priests dropped to their knees, arms held out from their sides. Samarand took a slow step forward, neck tilted, and for the first time Dante saw her eyes humbled. Even Laramore looked put out of sorts, chewing and chewing a splinter of wood he'd picked up from the handcart, running his fingers down his face and scratching the stubble on his neck till his skin turned red. A gust of wind screeched through the branches like something living being torn, and the man who'd vomited let loose a fresh stream. Barden, Samarand breathed. I've never been this close, she said, as if she had to explain her awe. But for an occasional wretch, every man went silent. This is where Eric Draconat spilled the blood of Tame in the first days of Earth, she said in quiet tones as she turned to face the small group of men. This is where the birth of man began, where Aron and Carvajal plotted to hand the fire of the heavens to the low reach of our race. It's only fitting it will be the place where we restore Aron to his seat in the stars. Live this earth, one of the priests replied, and was echoed by the others. Bring the treated bones, Samaran said. She walked toward the bleached bowl of the tree. A few of the armsmen reached into the wagon and hoisted rattling bags, and Dante darted to grab one as well. The priests leaned into the wind and snow, and continued up what was left of the hill between themselves and Samarand, and Dante followed, the hard ends of the bones in the sack battering against his back. Overcast shadows of the white tree fell on his face striping his skin more coldly than the northerly gusts of wind. His toes stubbed against roots concealed on the snow, but he kept his eyes fixed on the branches, making sure they weren't about to snatch him up and patch his frame into the greater body of the tree. The branches stayed as immobile as the flanks of the mountains many miles away. He stopped ten feet from the sinuous trunk. Samaran stretched out an unsteady hand and laid it on the smooth bone, ran her fingers over the bumps of its vertebrae. One of the armsmen set his bag by her feet, and Dante did the same, daring himself to touch the trunk. Samaran took a long breath, then drew away her hand and picked up one of the bags, scooping out a handful of bones scripted with Aron's name. Dante recognized his handwriting on a few of the pieces. She scattered ribs and jaws and thighs around Barden's gnarled roots like a fowl farmer tosses seed to his flocks. The bones sank into the snow, gray on white. 
Samaran circled the putrid trunk, throwing bones. And when her bag ran out, one of the priests hurried to hand her another. Scores of bones, clattering heaps, each one holding a speck of the same shadowy force Dante felt rolling off the white tree in waves. She made seven circuits in all, then paused where the road ran up to meet the trunk, considering the rings she'd made around it. It's time to begin, she said. She met the eyes of each man in turn. Dante squirmed. I don't know what will come of this, she went on. Perhaps nothing. Perhaps three hours from now we'll stop our work, exhausted and defeated, and everything will be the same as it is now. There are no guarantees we know the steps as well as we need. There are no guarantees we possess the power to do what no one before us has been able to accomplish. She paused in the manner she'd done while giving her sermon. Yet, I have no doubts we'll succeed. Why? Is it simple faith? I feel it's something deeper than when we tell our parishioners or each other to place our trust in the hands of the gods. Perhaps it has something to do with standing in the shadow of a thing from another age and knowing at least some of the old stories must be true. She drew back her lips in something close to a smile and gazed up at the many arms of Barden. Perhaps it has to do with you, the men who've come here with me, and our purpose which defines justice. If, some time from now, we cry the final word, and the heavens crack apart and we look upon the face of Aron, know we still live in and of this earth, that this will be but a beginning to restoring his place in the hearts of men. Rejoice, but be resolute. Remember also that a god may take a form we can't understand. I need everyone not of the council to leave me now. Our concentration can't be disturbed. Even me, Laramore said, eyebrows scooting up his forehead. Even you, my hand. He frowned but nodded. May your will be done where I can't follow. Laramore started back down the hill, and Dante and Blaze and the armsman who'd carried the sacks fell in behind him. They reached the wagon with the other men and looked on the seven priests some twenty yards away. Samaran stood at their center, three of them to both her sides, all heads bowed. They were silent. What now? Blaze whispered at Laramore. Now you keep your damned mouth shut and hope against hope we have nothing more to do than stand around. For how long? For however long it takes, Laramore said, leaning toward the boy so intently, Dante felt sure he'd punch Blaze in the face. After a few minutes of silent prayer, Samaran's clear voice pitched into a droning chant of ancient Narashtavik, and the men of the council joined her. The wind tried to drag away her words, and for all Dante's lessons with Nack, 
much of its meaning remained foreign. But he made out something about star-touched blessings, verses about the cycle of the twelve months of earth and the twelve houses of the heavens, how the lives of men had been warped by Iran's missing seat in the house of the gods, and how that balance must be rebuilt. It was an eerie tune, harmonious but as fundamentally wrong to Dante's ears as the leafless limbs of the white tree were to his eyes. At times the pitch of their notes seemed to match that of the wind in the ragged branches. The council ceased singing, the last word hanging in the air. They bowed their heads again. Other than a few oblique references in the cycle, Dante didn't know a thing about what they were doing. He couldn't even tell if they were actively shaping the nether at the moment or just praying. He reached out for the shadows, meaning no more than a touch to try and see what they were up to. But the energy lurched up in him so fast he gasped. The white tree was a nexus so potent that any tap into its pool shot up like a geyser. He sent the nether away and held perfectly still. Nobody had seemed to notice his intrusion. He supposed they had their own concerns. For a long time, the priests didn't move. Men leaned against the cart or quietly took a seat on it, brushing snow from their trousers and watching the scouts coming and going on the crest of the hill across the valley. Samarand lifted her head and bent down in front of Barden. She picked up one of the bones she'd thrown down and turned it in her hands. For no obvious reason, she dropped it and picked up another instead. Dante made a face. None of it made any sense to him. Come with me, he said softly to Blaze, after another while had gone by, with no evidence of progress. Blaze blinked at him, then got up, snow falling from his hood and shoulders. Dante wandered left toward the cliffs. What's up? Blaze said once they were a short distance away. I get the idea they're going to be a while. Yeah. Blaze glanced back toward the tree. How will you know when it's time? Samrand will give up her last ounce of strength before it's over, Dante said just above a whisper. I'll be able to tell when they're drained. Blaze ticked his nail against the hilt of his sword. What do you think we should do after? Fight off all her men, or leap off the cliff and take our chances in the ocean? I think we're doomed, whatever we do. Dante laughed through his nose. His breath steamed. Oh, that's funny to you. There's this story in the cycle of Iran, he said. It's about a man named Q. Sounds fascinating, Blaze whispered. It is, Dante said. He took a moment to remember the important parts of what he was about to tell. Q was an average man, a follower of Iran, but not of the clergy. He was a farmer. For many years, he and his neighbor, Harren, had feuded. It had gone on for so long they no longer remembered how it had begun or who was in the right. One night, Harren would open Keel's goat pen and make him spend all day recapturing them. 
So Keel would dump old grain in Harren's troughs and make his swine sick before market. That sort of thing. Angry as they were with each other, neither considered actually taking up arms. This was, excuse the pun, a domestic matter. That's not a pun. Shut up. And so on it went. Harren impregnated Keel's prized mare with his spavined nag. Keel sowed one of Harren's barley fields with batweed, and so passed the years. One night, Harren tried to burn the sign of Sim's hair into the Aran-fearing Keel's yard. I don't think I need explain the blasphemy. But a wind picked up his fire and spread it to burn down Keel's barn instead. Tough break, Blay said. The aggressive disinterest had faded from his face as Dante went on. Indeed, tougher yet when the townspeople saw the fire and came to see what had happened. Harren, guilt-stricken over the consequences of his prank, told them what he'd meant to do and that he'd accidentally started the fire. As it is now, burning someone's land was a serious crime, but rather than our humane hanging, the people of that time punished arson with death in a fashion similar to the crime, and the townspeople grabbed Harren up and carried him into the city to be burnt on a pyre. For a brief moment, Keel was grateful, as he thought on what a nuisance Harren had been. And the loss of his barn was no mean price. However, as he saw them stacking up the cordwood for the fire, he realized that, if justice were to be done, it couldn't come from the hands of these intrusive men who'd had nothing to do with he and Harren's squabbles. For justice isn't earthly, it's handed down from the stars of the heavens, and must be seen in their silvery light. Neither, he realized, did he want Harren to die, for Harren was a part of his life. So he put himself in front of the stake where they'd tied Harren up, and spoke to the men who were preparing to burn him. I know it is our law to burn those who'd burn our houses and lands, he said. But I know Harren, and I know he didn't mean to do the thing he did. What you think doesn't matter, the townspeople said. The law is the law. Justice must be done. But Keel didn't move. He harmed me, and me alone, he said. Let him free, and I will decide how he may repay me for his unintended crime. We cannot do that, Keel, they said back. Now stand aside. Again, Keel refused. Let him go, for I will not budge. The townspeople gathered around him. Stand aside, or we will tie you with him to the flames. Keel sounds like a hard ass, Blaze said. He does. And Keel saw they meant what they said. He also knew they deserved no role in the punishment, that their lust for blood and vengeance was driving them, rather than a natural hunger for justice. Harren was, Keel knew, his friend, and he wouldn't let his friend be burnt as Harren had burnt his barn. I see I cannot stop so many of you from killing him, Keel said, leaning on the barley scythe he'd carried into town. But I am this man's friend and if it is his time to be rejoined with Aron in the black skies, I will send him there in the manner I deem just. Before the townspeople could stop him, Keel swung his scythe and cut out Harren's throat. 
You fool, the townspeople cried. You've murdered and so stolen our justice. You will take his place on the pyre. Keel only shook his head. He could not fight them all, and so he let them take him and lash him beside the corpse of Harren. They lit the pyre. Keel closed his eyes, and even as his skin crackled and his fat popped, he made no sound but to thank Aron for giving him the strength to send his friend to that great place with the peace Harren deserved. The men were humbled then, and slit his throat with his own scythe before the fires could roast him. They carried his scythe to the altar of Aron, where it has stood ever since. Blaze shuffled snow with his feet. I'd have swung that scythe at the mob till my arms dropped off. He stole a look at the priests, who were again bowing their heads beneath the tree. Did that really happen? I don't know, Dante said. It's a story from the book, one of the malish parts. It's too old to know which parts were true. Do you think anyone will know? Blaze said, squinting into the snow. The whole town saw the good thing Keel did. Then they told his story till we heard it now. Will anyone know what we've done here? Callie might, Dante said. He'll be able to figure it out at least. And probably claim credit for himself. The people will know someone did something right when there's no war in the spring. Blaze shuffled the snow with his toes some more. But they won't know our names. The priests started another chant, saving Dante from trying to answer that. He made the faintest touch to the nether and saw Barden's skeletal canopy go dark with the shadows of unseen leaves. Around its roots, bright black rings marked where Samarand had scattered the bones. Each of the priests was enveloped by a hazy nimbus, a grey umbilicus traced from their chests to Samarand's. Their auras pulsed with the tune of their words. Dante looked on a power he'd never imagined possible, and still they added to it. Laramore's going to try to protect her, Dante said softly. Ah, see to him, then. You stay with Samarand. Thanks. Dante had never seen the Nether in any form but small, swift parts that sometimes gathered in swirling orbs or shifting planes. It was ever-moving, amorphous and unbounded as water. As he watched, the priests ceased their chant and held up their hands, and the disordered shadows snapped into a stark geometry of lines between them and Samarand and the white tree. She at its nexus. Six dark lines converging from the priests to a single point at the middle of her back, and emerging from her front to meet six equally spaced points on the branches of the tree. Samarand held her arms perpendicular to her body, and dipped her fingers in the slow currents passing from priests to her to Barden, as if it were bathwater in need of testing. Minutes went by that way, the silence broken by the splitting of the wind through the bony branches, by the cough of one of the men at the wagon, by taut, whispered words among a couple of the soldiers. 
Dante began to feel a tension in his nerves, almost like an all-over sting, but it was never quite enough to hurt. More of a constant vibration, like the strings of his body were being plucked by the forces being summoned to the tree. A high whine sounded in his ears. He fought the urge to slap at a bug that wasn't there. How about this? Blaze mused. Take her down, then run away from the priests and back toward the troop. Steal a couple horses, ride hellbent for leather. Sounds dubious. Dante said. Can you make us fly? No. Teleport us back to snug beds in Bressel? No. Conjure up a giant mole that can dig our way to freedom? Dante looked up into the clouds. I could always try. Then we'll steal some horses and run. Blaze shrugged. Who knows what happens after that? Dante laughed. Try to shout something confusing when we're running up to grab their horses. I'll tell them the whole hill's about to explode, and it's every man for himself. Dante clasped his hands over his mouth so his laughter wouldn't be heard by the others. It was a strange thing, talking about their death in this way. He didn't think he could have faced it with a too serious mind, and he didn't think he could be anything but serious without plays to ease his thoughts. It made him mad to think it would all be over soon. But that, too, was foolish. He was beginning to learn how little it meant to be angry. The rites went on. Samarand reached into a satchel at her side and drew out an age-weathered copy of the cycle. She spread the book's broad pages and read aloud from the verses of prophecy and malediction. Black sparks crackled and spritzed from her hands, visible to Dante without any help from the nether. His ribs thudded like when a door was slammed in his face, or the wall of a building crumbled down in one big boom, and a vague rectangle coalesced at Barden's foot, ten feet high and half as wide, hazy as a twilight fog. Some of the soldiers gasped. One of the priests took a half-step back, then forced himself back into place. Did they do that? Blaze whispered. Or did the tree? Dante shook his head, equally ignorant. The blue shadows of the snowfield flocked to the doorway. After five minutes, he could no longer see the part of the tree that stood behind it. After ten, it had darkened to the pitch of a moonless night. Samarans turned pages as she read on, dividing her gaze between the darkening rectangle and the words she invoked. The priests began to repeat her sentences, parroting the harsh consonants of Narashtavik. The wind faltered and blew itself out, and the still-falling snowflakes settled into a lazy drift groundwards. After another ten minutes, points of light brightened within the black frame, faintly at first, slowly hardening into icy white points that winked like the stars. In time, Dante could see they made all the designs of the belt of the Celeset as arrayed to their opposite. The two rivers and the golden hammer, the hourglass and the watchdog, the lion and the hare, maiden and cicada, fox and ship, the snake and the dragon. The constellations burned with fierce white purity, 
brighter in that doorway than he'd seen in the sky on the clearest night of silent winter. Dante's head swam with vertigo. Looking into the door was like standing on a roof and pretending your feet were stuck to the bottom of the world, and the night sky was the ground beneath you, vast as the ocean, deep as an eternity of unbroken sleep. Samarin's voice softened in the doorway's presence. The words of the priests dropped to a rustle just above a whisper. The air felt charged, pregnant with immutable power. Something passed over the stars in the door, like a face upon the waters, blacker, if possible, than the portal of the sky behind it. Blaze's hand jumped out and gripped Dante's shoulder. Dante hesitated, then put his hand on top of Blaze's. His thoughts circled and bit each other's tails. This was a mirage, a show. It was the touch of something greater, the sign he'd been waiting to see. It was as false and empty as all the world's other so-called miracles. How could he tell the difference between the work of godlike men and the work of true deities? The stars flared brighter, as if Samaran's words were breath-blown on smoking embers. A white-haired priest began to waver, his head tracing a wobbly circle in the air. He dropped to one knee and knelt there, shivering. The stars within the doorway dimmed. With the strength of will, Dante could almost taste. The old man planted his hands in the snow and pushed himself back to his feet, his thin chest heaving. The man inhaled deeply, and then his voice joined the others in the repetition of Samaran's speech. The stars glared with all their former intensity, and as if lit by their newfound blaze, the rings of bones around the white tree erupted into pale fire, shimmering tongues of white and blue that reflected the snowscape and the skies and seas and mountains to the north. Samarand tipped back her head and shouted out the text of the cycle of Aron, and the whole world seemed to go dark. A great black halo formed around the crown of Barden's bone branches. Dante felt light and insubstantial as ether. The string-like vibration in his body increased until he thought he could predict Samaran's words before she spoke them. That sense of connection extended to the priests, to the doorway they faced, to the constellations that shone from within it. Dante felt so close to the order of their revolution he could touch it, even if he reached out his hand, could hold in his palm the nature of existence. It's almost time, he whispered to Blaze. I'm ready, Blaze said. Why did you come with me all this time, all those miles? Dante no longer felt the need to cloak himself, to arrange his words like pinned insects before he let himself speak them. Aron was about to appear from that door to the stars. He had no other way to explain what he was feeling, that sensation of attunement to the world. And as the god clambered free, Dante would strike down the woman who'd freed him. Dante had no illusions of survival after that. He wanted one clear answer before whatever he was became parted from the meat of his body. He could have left at any time, you know. They were only ever after me. He felt the weight of the book 
in the pack on his back. Me and this book. Blaze let his hand rest on the haft of his sword and gazed on the motions around the tree. I wanted to do something important with my life, he said. Back when you insulted me in that square in Bressel, I knew if I followed you, you'd lead me to it. Did you think it would be anything like this? No, Blaze said, eyes fast on the tree, on the halo at its head, the rings of white fire at its feet, at the starry door and the dark auras around the six priests and Samarand. She lifted an open hand above her head and held the book before her with the other. Blaze shook his head and smiled crookedly. I thought we'd make some money, maybe. Overthrow a baron and marry his daughters, if we got really ambitious. I'm glad I met you, Dante said. Yeah. The nether surged and tossed. A subverbal hum quivered on the air. Samaran shouted what Dante recognized as the last passage of the prophecy of the three-tailed beast, the one he'd quoted in part to Laramore when he was trying to keep from being tortured and killed down in the dungeon. Let the prison of the heavens be unmade, Samaran said. She closed the book and faced the door. Dante drifted toward her up the hill. Blaze crunched through the snow at his side. Samarand waited, oblivious, arms dangling at her sides, transfixed by the black portal. One of the burning bones flamed out in a wiggle of grey smoke. The sense of a presence grew excruciating, maddening Dante's mind like all the things he'd ever been unable to recall, like the panicked eyes of a birthing mother whose child won't come, as tonic as the fires of the earth forging the scaled body of a dragon. Samarand glanced over her shoulder at the priest's eyes wild, and Dante slowed his pace. Something's wrong, she said. There was no error, Jackson said quickly. I don't understand, a balding priest said. I can feel him waiting, said another. There is a flaw, Samarand said. Her voice was creased with an animal dread. Another bone burnt out. Then a third. The halo around Barden was growing indistinct, muffled by the falling snow. Tears of exhaustion and frustration slid down Samaran's cheeks. We don't have the time or strength for a second attempt any time soon, a dark-haired middle-aged priest said, face blank with fear. No, Samaran said. What are you saying? the balding priest said. What does this mean? Nothing, Samaran said. She gazed into the void of the doorway. We failed. Then we are lost, the middle-aged priest said. We're the only ones who know that right now. Samaran drew a ragged breath. Some of her old sternness returned to her eyes. It makes no difference. We'll tell the people we have restored Aron to his seat at the Heaven's Twin Rivers, and they must do the same for him on this earth. Perhaps their faith will succeed where we have faltered. Perhaps we will find the true cycle, and on that day we will try again. 
Wait, Dante blurted, reaching into his pack. He drew out the first copy of the Cycle of Oron to ever be written and held it over his head. The white tree on its cover mirrored the bone oak that dwarfed them there on the plains of snow. I have the true book. You could have warned me this was your plan, Blaze hissed in his ear. The eyes of Summerand and all six priests snapped to Dante's face and the book in his hand. All of the strings of his body hummed like a living chord. He gestured to the vault of stars shining through the doorway, as if that would explain to Blaze what he felt lurking within the constellations. What if he held the key that would turn the final tumbler? Aron, the god who'd made order of the mixed waters of the heavens, he who'd set the order of time from his seat in the light of the furthest roaming planet star. In Aron's presence, would wet and hold the trials that had condemned Blaze to die? Would he allow the meaningless slaughter of the rebels outside Narashtavik? What other power could make the laws of nature sing in tune with what Dante felt in his bones? If he had the ability to bring that god to life, how could he prevent such justice for the world? Destiny, perhaps, had guided Dante to steal the book, and through its subtle machinations, inevitable as the revolution of the belt, had put him here to complete what the council had begun. Samarand could complete the rites, but none could deny she'd done so only by Dante's mercy. If he cut her throat in that final moment, in the weakness of her effort, he could seize the reins of the order, ensure peace for the Southlands as Aron made for the earth what he'd set right in the skies. This was the moment he'd been born for. This was the moment that would test his will to its limit. Give me the book, Samaran said. She stepped forward and extended her hand. Dante held out the impossible weight of the cycle of Aron. You mewling worm, Jackson thundered. He leapt forward and slapped the book from Dante's hand. It sunk into the snow. What is this? Samaran said whirling to face him. Old debts repaid, Jackson said. I told you I'd come back for it, Summer. Summeran's eyes widened, then narrowed to fearful slits. You! Me! Jackson said, in a nasally clipped voice that wasn't his own. He laughed unevenly, then swept a hand down his middle-aged face and body and became a skinny old man with a fiercely curled beard and sharp blue eyes that burned with their own ageless fire. When did you replace him? How? Samaran said. Dante felt her clutching at the nether. I know things you couldn't dream, you usurperous hag, Callie said. You've let your dream of conquest blind you, your monstrous Spraying ego, let me remind you of the look of righteous power. He thrust out with the shadows. Samarant jerked up her hands, and the two forces met with an inhuman scream. Blackness burst over her, and she was knocked to the ground. Shouts hide up from behind them. Dreamlike, Dante turned to see Laramore and his soldiers racing up the snow, 
the oldest of the priests flung his arm at Callie, and Blaze cleaved it off at the elbow. Who do we kill? he yelled at Dante. Everyone, Dante said, mind splintered. The cogs had turned again and yanked him from his solid ground. He didn't know whether to help Callie or kill him. The old man had sent the assassin to the chapel, he knew at once, having seen Dante at Laramore's command, and assuming he'd turned to their side, ignorant that Dante held fast to his first purpose. But the moment was too desperate for fine distinctions. For the moment, Calais was on the side trying to kill Samarand. That was all that mattered. If it came down to it, Dante would deal with him once all the men who were about to try to kill them were dead themselves. Samarand was scrabbling to her feet, away from Callie. She curled her fingers, and a ghostly blade spun for his face. He cursed and whacked it aside with a hastily formed shadow sword of his own, then swung his bony arm and slung the weapon at her body. She twisted, and it clipped her right arm, blood pattering into the snow. Around them, Dante felt the priests beginning to open their own overused channels to the nether that saturated the grounds. Blaze crouched like a cat, then slashed his sword across the gut of the middle-aged, dark-haired priest when the man made his move at Callie, dropping him without a word. A tall, stout priest clenched his fist, and blue fire rushed at Blaze. He yelped and threw himself into the snow. Dante flicked his wrist and sent all the snow between he and Blaze to bury the boy in cold white and smother the remaining flames. He whipped out his sword and met the tall priest's next assault with a wave of pure energy. The man had been weakened in the hours he'd spent in the ritual, and when Dante tapped into the primal river flowing around Barden's roots, it roared past him and charred the tall priest on the spot. Is it really you, Callie? The balding priest called out as Blaze dug himself out of the snow and hunted for a victim. It's really me, Baxter, Callie said, then grunted as Samarand lunged forward and punched him in the ribs. The priest called Baxter chuckled wildly and turned on the last remaining man of his order, a fat man of some sixty years with a grey beard in place of his chin. If the fat man died, none but Samarand would be left to oppose them, and for a careering moment Dante thought they might actually win. Then Laramore and his soldiers closed the distance between them, and Dante remembered the small army across the valley and why he had resolved to die. Aron's come loose and is killing everyone, Blaze screamed, dropping into his defensive posture, fists holding his sword tight at his waist. He cut at the calf of the lone soldier who'd broken ranks to face him. Head for the hills! What's going on here? Laramore shouted, sword in hand. Before his eyes, Baxter grappled Nether with the fat priest. Kill them, Laramore, Saramand commanded, dipping her hand in the wound on her shoulder and tossing burning drops of blood at Callie. Baxter and the children, they're traitors! Laramore's long face went blank. He stuck his sword through Baxter's back, and blood jetted where its point emerged from his chest. The fat priest fell back, wiping blood from his eyes. Dante ran him through before he could recover. And like that, half the Council of Aron would be dead when Samarand and Callie's fight was concluded. 
Blaze finished carving up his soldier, and then he and Dante stood to face Laramore and his men. Dante, what are you doing? She's going to burn our home, he said, sword arm quaking. I have to stop her. Laramore shook his head, squeezed his eyes shut. I'm sorry, he said. Then hurried uphill to the duel between Samarand and Kali, a couple armed men crunching along behind him. The remaining ten-odd soldiers and armed servants turned on the boys, swords out. One took a quick swipe at Dante, and he jumped back, meaning to give the man's blade a mere nick of his left arm, but his timing was off, and he felt the steel bite deep, bringing with it far more blood than he needed for his next summons. Get down, Dante shouted, planting his hand on Blaze's neck and stuffing his face toward the ground. Blaze fell into the snow with a sigh, and Dante punched out with all the force he could draw from the white tree. Blood spurted from Dante's ears and nose as the shockwave hammered outward from his body. Already he'd pushed it too far, drank too greedily of the bottomless energy drawn by the tree, but he had no intention to hold back at any stage of this fight. The men were blasted, head over heels. He heard bones snapping, then the muffled thuds of their bodies bouncing in the snow. He lunged forward and hacked at the man who'd laid open his left arm. Blaze staggered to his feet, half stunned. Six armsmen struggled and swayed upright. One had lost his sword and scuffled to find it in the churned-up snow. From over their heads, Barden groaned with an ear-splitting shriek, and as the first man closed on the boys, a two-foot rib fell free from the white tree's branches and pinned him to the earth. By instinct, Dante grabbed the rib's rounded end, and his left arm went numb to the shoulder. He tugged it loose and snarled at the survivors. Shockingly, they fell back. Any other tricks? Blaze breathed, glancing between the five opponents that still faced them, and the crackle of Nether from further uphill, where Cali fended off four of his own. A few, Dante said, and his eyesight blurred, and the world went mute as he poured the shadows into the veins of the recently slain. Three of the ruined bodies retook their feet, broken limbs dangling, blood still oozing from their wounds. Within a second, the dead's oafish blows had struck down one of the living comrades. A soldier swung at Dante as he brought up the rib to block it. The man's sword shattered like an icicle, raining shards of steel into the snow. Dante stuck him in the gut with his sword. He swung the rib, and it passed cleanly through the man's trunk. The walking dead overwhelmed another while Blaze charged one of the remaining armsmen, who could do nothing more than fend off his wild blows. Blaze drove him back, and the man tripped on a corpse, arms flying out to break his fall, leaving his body exposed. Blaze stabbed him in the neck and whooped. A calmness had taken Dante, a stage beyond confidence. The shaking nausea that had hit him when he'd revived the dead flesh of the soldiers washed from him like it had never been there. He walked through the falling snow towards the last man standing. Please, the man said, his face a rictus of terror. He let his blade hang loose from his grasp. Then the dead took him, 
and pounded him into the earth. To Cali, Dante said, sprinting up the hill. Cali had retreated steadily, outnumbered. One of the two men Lerimore had taken with him lay in a reddish heap on the snow, but blood flowed freely from Cali's left hand, now missing a couple fingers, and from a gash on his thin chest. Nether sputtered from his fingers, and Saramand wrestled up the strength to turn it aside. They were both near the end of their limits. Soon they'd simply be an old man and a middle-aged woman, no more potent than a beggar and a fishwife. Dante put himself between Callie and the others, and brandished the fallen rib of Barden. Everyone stopped in their tracks. You don't have to die, Dante told Laramore, meeting the man's eyes. Don't you ever get tired of being so cocky? What's this about? Samaran said, blinking at the blood trickling from her split eyebrow. Has Callie promised you a seat on his council? One you couldn't wait for under my rule? He's promised me nothing, Dante spat. He's told me nothing but lies since the day I met him. I told you what you needed to hear to stop a war, Callie said from behind him. And then you tried to kill me. I thought you'd thrown in your lot with these vermin. Look at it from my perspective. You'd have tried to kill you too. You've cut enough holes in my order to make killing me moot, Samaran said. We can't risk war with so few priests to lead it. Shut up, Dante shouted, chest heaving. What have you gotten yourself into? Laramore said softly. The man tightened his grip on his sword. More than these lordly figures ever intended, Dante said. I gave you every opportunity under the sun, Samarin said. I let you study in the citadel. I let you replace Will Palamore as Laramore's right hand. I even brought you here. I taught you enough to save your friend, Callie said. You let me send you here through your own ambition. Oh, yes, everyone's innocent, Dante cried out, unable to tell if his face was wet from snow tears, or laughter. You'd use me as a tool in your harmless plot to kill thousands in my homeland, he said, waving the rib at Samarand, while you'd angelically send two boys to kill the political rival who cast you down. He finished, poking his sword at Callie. Callie raised his brambly brows and laughed. Laramore gave him an odd look. You have to admit, it was a keen enough plan, the old man said. What are you going to do about it, then? Kill us all? Don't tempt us, Blaze said. We couldn't go to war now if we wanted to, Samaran said. She flipped her battle-frayed black braid over her shoulder, gestured at the corpses of the priests melting the snow with body heat and blood, pointed at the hulking mass of the white tree. You have the book. You know how close we came today. We can try again. Heaven must be a place where other people shut up, Dante said. You know it can be done, she said, locking eyes with him. With your help and a few years. Dante sighed through his nose. He felt cold and bleak as November rain. 
They could come back and try again, but they didn't need Samaran's hard ambition for that. It seemed laughably cruel that Callie's clear-eyed lies would be preferable to anything, but if one object of value remained in the ruin of Dante's beliefs, it was the knowledge that killing her would guarantee Malon's safety. With Samaran's death, they could start over. Perhaps whoever took her seat as Lord of the Dead City would come closer to the pattern of the heavens than she. Stand aside, Laramore, the boy said in an unsteady voice. It's time. Laramore shook his head at the ground. He smiled then, a wan thing that marred his eyes with the first sadness Dante'd ever seen on his face. You know I can't do that, Samaran's hand said. I'd have died a hundred times without her. Whatever conflict I may feel can't erase that past. Dante nodded. His throat was dry. I liked you better than any of them. Considering you want them all dead, I think you damn me with faint praise, Laramore said, finding himself again. Dante's spirit faltered. How could he kill the one man he'd met other than Robert, who understood his place in the world so well? And not just understood it, but seized it, knew by instinct which things he could control, and which he could only defy by mocking them. Of all Dante's crimes, he knew killing Laramore would wear on him the hardest. In time he might forget the rest but Laramore's burden would weigh on him till the end of his days. I'll do it. Blaze stepped forward, hand on hilt, sensing Dante's hesitation. You deal with her. He's my burden, Dante said, seeing the face of a farmer through a sheet of flames. I'll be the one to send him to the banks of the two rivers. He called over his shoulder to Callie. Samaran's yours. I never wanted her in the first place. Oh, good, Callie said weakly. If you get a moment, you might think about what we're going to say to them, Blaze said, jerking his chin toward the scores of men who'd left the encampment a mile down valley and were dashing through the snow towards the battle under the tree. Dante laughed tonelessly and lifted his weapons. Laramore brought up the point of his blade. He winked. I'll save you a room in that place behind the stars, you little bastard. He made a quick swipe for Dante's throat, and Dante turned it with the flat of the rib. Laramore's sword rang but stayed intact. To his right he heard Callie advance on Samarand, and then the whisper of Nether called and discharged. Blaze headed for the last remaining soldier, and wisely the man turned tail and ran downhill. I should have stomped your wrinkled ass twenty years ago, Samaran said. Then good for me you're such an idiot, Callie laughed. Laramore struck again, and if the two said anything else, Dante didn't hear it. He parried and stabbed for Laramore's stomach, and Laramore twisted his wrist to turn Dante's blade. He swung the rib for the meat of Laramore's torso, the man sucked in his gut and swung back his hips, and the rib tore through his cloak and cut a shallow crease across his stomach. Laramore smiled harder and pressed the attack,
blade flashing. With both his weapons, Dante barely held him back. Blaze grunted and tensed, but Dante waved him back. He lashed out with the rib, and Laramore spun away and slashed across Dante's extended arm. He bled freely from both wounds to his left arm, grip unsteady on the bone's natural handle. He held himself, nearing the end of his endurance. Samaran screamed from off to their right, a bright note against the clash of weapons and the frazzled pop of spent nether. Laramore's smile broke. He glanced her way, and in that brief moment, Dante clamped the man's sword between blade and rib and wrenched it from his grasp. It spun away and disappeared into the snow. Dante placed the point of his sword over Laramore's heart, willing himself to steady the quiver in his arm. Don't make me do this, he whispered. Laramore leaned into the blade. Dante's wrist twitched as he felt the skin parting. Then he cried out and drove his arm forward, eyes closed to the steel burying itself in the man's chest. He felt his sword tug from his hand as Laramore slumped to his knees. One last thing, boy, the man whispered. Dante's eyes shot open, and he knelt across from Laramore's strained face. What is it? My gravestone, Laramore gasped. Make sure it describes me as I was. Anything. He died plucking the queen from the jaws of a dragon, Laramore said. He smiled at the boy and slumped into the snow, breath rattling past his lips. Dante sat down beside the body and gently freed his sword. He wiped it clean on the white snow and put his hand on Laramore's still shoulder. For all the years he lived, Dante could recall that moment as if living it for the first time. Laramore's prone form, warm but vacant. His empty hand stretched out in the snow, oblivious to the freezing cold. Droplets of water melting on his fingers his open-eyed face showing no pain or agony, just an enigmatic twist to his lips, a budding surprise in his eyes, as if he'd looked on the order that underpinned the turning of time. Dante's eyes stung, an emotion as heavy as the hand of gravity pushed him against the earth. That Laramore, a man of wit and action, and utter disregard for the fearful opinions of the lesser men around him, that he had died in defense of a woman like Samarand. Dante wiped his eyes, so consumed by injustice he felt nothing but absurdity. He stood, sniffling, to see Callie thrashing around in the snow, strangling away Samarand's final seconds. Dante sheathed his sword, slid the rib down the right side of his belt. He drew a shuddering breath. You're keeping that, Blaze said, scrunching up his face. Why? He shrugged. I'll have a sword made from it. That's sick. What isn't? Dante said, then felt dumb, 
however true it may be. Callie leaned back on his knees, chest heaving, scraggly white hair plastered to his brow. He scowled down at Samaran's red, bug-eyed face and slapped her across her dead cheek. Look what you made me do, Callie said. He clambered to his feet and kicked snow over her body. If you'd known your place, you could have been indispensable to me, idiot pride. He kicked more snow, stumbled forward. I don't think she can hear you, Blay said. If there's any justice in the world, a passing spirit will give her my message. The old man's green eyes gleamed in the glare of the snow. His gaze shifted to Dante, and some of the wildness faded from his wrinkled face. He's dead, isn't he? Dante didn't reply. Leramore was a good man, from what I saw of him. You don't know anything about it, Dante said. No, I don't. Then don't speak as if you do. Right, Callie said. His eyes drifted downhill, and he frowned at the walking dead standing rock still a short ways down where Dante'd left them. You're dealing with dangerous forces. Dante shrugged, severed the bonds that kept them upright. They dropped like cut puppets. I'm not the only one, he said. I'm starting to see that. Callie ran his fingers through his beard. So, going to add me to the pile of bodies fertilizing this tree? Dante snorted, wanting nothing more. It wasn't Callie's assassin that tempted him to strike down the old man. That he could forgive. It was everything else that he couldn't. Betrayal and lies. The false friendship he'd let Dante believe, so long as it would benefit him. The empty ache he felt to the marrow of his bones. Dante shook his head, sickness curdling his heart. I need you to tell that army down there they serve you now. They'd never follow me. Wise beyond your years, the old man considered the few dozen men running up the hill toward them, no more than a minute away. It could work, though some of them probably weren't even born the last time I ruled the order. Deal with it. Callie chuckled to himself, brightening by degrees. He smoothed his hair away from his brow and looked shocked to see he was missing most of the bottom two fingers of his left hand. That's unfortunate, he said, watching blood pulse from the stumps with the beating of his heart. He shook his hand, like two new fingers might pop out, then sighed wearily. Shit. He spent the next minute before the troop arrived, binding the wounds with a strip of his black doublet. The sixty-odd men who'd come slowed as they approached the otherworldly spread of the white tree and to the fresh carnage beneath its boughs. Rettinger separated himself from the pack and looked between the old man and the two boys, eyes thick with confusion. Tell me why I'm not about to cut you three down as traitors, he said, voice trembling with an indecipherable mix of emotion. Because that would make you a traitor too, Callie said, and then some bright young man would have to kill you. 
Where does it end? He smiled vaguely at the waiting men. Dante felt him gather a trickle of shadow and lend it to his words, so they'd boom down the slope of the valley. I am Callimandicus. Years ago, I led this order until Samaran stole it from me. I've just now reclaimed it. He killed her! He admits it! Someone shouted from the crowd. There was a general shift of cold steel. Dante clenched his jaw and readied the nether, wondering if he killed a few of them suddenly and brutally enough, whether the rest would flee. He doubted that. Somehow his fate, again, rested in Callie's too clever hands. Do you serve an all-too-mortal woman, or do you serve Aron? Callie barked, sweeping his eyes over the ranks. A few swords faltered. We serve the pleasure of the sealed citadel, Rettinger said slowly. All I see is a few outsiders with the blood of good men on their hands. He is who he says. A middle-aged man with a scar-creased face stepped forth from the line of soldiers, nodding at Callie. Hello, Vlemk, Callie waved. A couple other time-weathered soldiers spoke Callie's full name. Rettinger sucked his teeth and rested his hand on his sword. Snow fell on their faces. Callie lifted his unwounded hand. I know it hits your hearts as false, but don't act in haste. The rest of the council will know my claim. Let them accept or reject it as they will. Rettinger's expression flickered as he gazed on the wreckage of the woman and men he'd so recently followed. He shook his head. But he was a born lieutenant, Dante knew, had seen it in the course of the battle with the rebels. That's the only smart course, Rettinger said. I won't risk adding to this tragedy, no matter how hard I might wish to. He turned around to face his men. Gather up the bodies. It's time to go home. Dante let the nether bleed away from his grasp. Blaze bent over Laramore's body and plucked at his cloak. Dante dropped his jaw to see his friend looting the body of the only other man he trusted in the entire kingdom. But before he could upbraid Blaze or punch him in the face, the boy stood and held out Laramore's badge. It was nearly the same as Dante's own. The outline of the tree, surrounded by a silver ring. But at the center of the tree, two blue sapphires glittered in the overcast light. I think he'd want you to have it, Blaze said. Dante nodded, unable to speak. The twin sapphires winked up at him from his palm. He turned away and wiped his eyes and shuffled around the snow until he found the cycle of Aron, the book that had been used to cause so much hurt. He brushed away the snow, held it to his chest, the soldiers piled the bodies on the wagon, wrapping loose limbs in the cloth of the slain. Hundreds had died on the journey to Baden, and all that had changed was the position of power from an old woman to an older man. A hundred miles lay between them and the dead city.
Dante closed his eyes and took the first step. Chapter 18 Callie led the soldiers through the empty miles of the road, encountering no one till they reached the fringes of the dead city. He took them over the river and through the outer sprawl, past the silent guards atop the pride gate and inn gate, and finally to the gates of the citadel itself. Without attacks, with significantly fewer men to slow them down, it took them under four full days. The guards of the citadel saw the colors of the order and the faces of their fellow armsmen and swung open the doors to let them through. What are you going to tell them? Dante said to Callie, as they approached the keep. The remaining members of the council stood on the keep's front steps, awaiting them in the dull afternoon sunlight. Over the last few days, Dante's anger toward Cali had sunk from the base of his skull to the pit of his stomach, leaving his mood sour but his mind clear. He'd resolved to use the old bastard. The council would never allow Dante as its leader, but with Cali seated at its head, he'd have a straight line to its decisions. Perhaps a seat for himself. Whichever, he'd no longer be a pawn to any other man. I'll tell them the truth, Callie said. He scowled at Dante. It's not funny. Callie had sent no riders ahead of their march, and they'd made no stops once they'd hit the city. The members of the council spilled down the keep stairs as they saw how few had come back from Barden. Their faces switched from anxious expectation to wavering shock. Calamond, of course. Tarkin said as they drew up. The priest's face wrinkled double as he squinted through the gleaming snow in the yard to look on Callie's face. Callie waved at him. Where's Samarand? Ollivander demanded. Dead, Callie said. Dead? Callie nodded. Very unfortunate. And the others? Check that corpse wagon back there, Blaze said, jerking his thumb behind him. Ollivander struggled for control of his face. What about Aron? Did they release him? The four other priests drew themselves as straight as their old backs would allow. Callie combed his beard with his hand. That, he said, doling out the words syllable by syllable. Is the reason she's dead? Ollivander gaped. Aron slew her. No, you half-wit. Aron didn't slay Samarand, Callie said, giving Dante a look that suggested how little he'd missed some parts of this place. She failed. She failed, and she decided to lie to you and the people of Gask and say she'd brought him forth. We disagreed on the wisdom of such a plan. How were you there to disagree with her in the first place, Calamandicus? Hart said, looking down on Callie with all the height of the keep's front stairs and his own seven-foot frame. We thought you'd been dead for fifteen years. A very good question, Callie said, tapping his chin. 
He thought for a moment, then laughed and gave them a bony-shouldered shrug. No more lies. We've had too many already. Why don't we try the truth for once? Which is, Ollivander said, I killed Jackson when he was down in Mallon. Couple months ago now. Isn't hard to duplicate a man's appearance if you know what you're doing. You probably won't believe this, but I meant no more harm than to be a voice of moderation on the council. I was of the mind Samaran's warmongering would set us back another hundred years. He glanced between the remaining members of the council. I know I'm not the only one. That's a convenient enough story, considering you ended up killing her, Hart said. Tally shrugged. Well, it happens to be true. Things disintegrated at a regrettable pace when I revealed myself and questioned her intent to deceive you. Ollivander stared hard at the old man. So you say. It's true, Dante said to bolster Callie's lie. Blaze and I were there at the foot of the white tree. Some of the council agreed with Callie, others with Samarand. When they attacked him, everyone else was killed. Laramore's boy, Ollivander said, cocking his head at Dante. So why didn't you kill the old man when it started? Surely Laramore went to her aid. He also once told me this man had led the council. I hesitated. It all happened so fast. Most of them were dead before I knew what was going on. Say I take this at face value, Ollivander said, shifting his gaze to Callie. It sounds enough like her. You've had a few days to think about what the rest of us should do. That is a delicate subject, Callie said. I was next in line. Callie's face grew guarded. It was never Samaran's to take. I thought you weren't here to take back your old chair, Ollivander said. His hands drifted toward his belt. You were here when she stole it from me, weren't you? Watching your lessons in that little chapel while she and the others conspired? I've been defending this city for thirty years, Ollivander said, dropping down a step. I've been on this council for fourteen. Where have you been all that time? Hiding in a cave a thousand miles away? It seems to me it was the will of the council that you should step down, not an act of treason. Callie thrust out his chin and paced forward, and Dante felt the nether shrouding the old man's form. He clamped his lips between his teeth, ready to bite until he bled. If there was to be one more battle, he'd hit hard as he could. He'd leave it all in rubble. I was driven out by treachery, Callie said in a voice that wasn't yet a shout. She turned them all against me, bent the laws to her advantage. The passage of time doesn't make it any less a betrayal. Things kept going while you were gone, old man. This isn't the same order you left behind. I'm here now. So am I, Ollivander said. He wrapped his fingers around the hilt of his sword. Stop, Tarkon said putting himself between Callie and Ollivander. You weren't yet in a position to see how it happened, Ollivander. All you know about why Callie left 
is what Samarand told you. Well, now she's dead. So are five of our brothers. You want to see the rest of us killed over a dispute that was never right in the first place? You want to take your vengeance till there's none of us left at all? Then time can finish turning our city into ruin. You're on his side, Ollivander said, flinging a hand at Callie. I am on the side of our order, Tarkon said. All of us are. I won't see any more of our blood spilled. Ollivander glanced between Callie and Tarkon, and the three other living priests. No one spoke. Perhaps, Hart said, breaking the long silence, the full council should be given a say on who's to replace the fallen. Callie opened his mouth, then clicked his teeth together and nodded. Dante wished Laramore were here. He could hardly grasp the layers of politics flying between these old men. I'd ask it anyway, Callie said. I've been away too long to know who's worthy to a point. Ollivander met eyes with heart. He dropped his hand from his sword. It's been a long time since the laws of the Citadel were amended. Perhaps we should learn from Samaran's death. Perhaps it's a dangerous thing to collect too much power in the hands of a single man. I thought so, even when I had it, Callie said. We could shift more responsibilities to the Council, Tarkon said. He smiled wryly at the few who remained. If it's time to make changes, the time won't get any righter than this. We'll have open discussions on the Council's new structure, Ollivander stated, more than asked. It will all be open, Callie said. Ollivander looked for a moment like he were trying to swallow a stone the size of his fist. At last he nodded. Then let it be remembered I laid down my claim in the name of rebuilding. Relief washed the faces of the council. Again, it had all gone too fast for Dante to fully follow. He felt the nether the priests had held ready soak back into the substance from where it had come. They turned to smaller details. The horses of the troop were led away to stables. The armsmen dispersed to meals and barracks. Rettinger made orders for the storage of the corpses until they could be properly buried. Callie and the boys followed the council priests out of the cold and into the keep. Well done out there. Callie told Dante, once they'd freed themselves from the others. Blaze, sensing he wanted a moment alone with the old man, had run off in search of real food. Callie smoothed his long, stringy hair back from his brow. That could have turned ugly. Shut up, Dante said. You're naming me to the council. Callie scratched one of his brambly eyebrows. Why am I doing that? Because I'll kill you in your sleep if you don't. Ollivander will back me. Not if I kill you in your sleep first, Callie chuckled. His face froze when he met Dante's eyes. You're not joking. Not at all. Then what if I do get to you first? Old men take five naps a day, Dante said. A tendril of nether curled around his finger. They're not going to like it, Callie muttered. 
He grinned then, as if acknowledging the weakness of that argument. But what would be the fun in ruling if you never make men do things they don't want to? Dante tightened his jaw. I'm glad you're so reasonable. Don't take that tone. I don't need to be threatened to do what's right. I'm not a recalcitrant child. Callie tugged on the end of his beard. You've earned your seat. All you had to do was ask. Dante said nothing, just stared at the old man who'd once given him safety in the maelstrom of the world. At one time, Callie had looked to him like a font of wisdom. Dante had thought the old man could teach him not just to wield the nether, but how to live easily, to use his knowledge to rise above the petty concerns and emotions that threatened to drive him mad. Callie taught him how to use his blood to fuel the shadows. But the only thing he taught Dante's heart was a hopeless bitterness he feared he could never escape. Do better with your rule than you did with me, Dante said. He turned and left the old man alone in his chambers, the room that had once been Samaran's. Blaze was waiting for him in the hall. All finished, he said. Yeah. Let's go get drunk, Blaze said. He clapped Dante on the shoulder and led the way down the stairs. At last, Dante saw its appeal. At first the council resisted, citing Dante's youth and his newness to their order, but Callie held fast, and in the end Dante was named to their ranks, by far the youngest to have ever held a seat. They promoted two monks of long standing, and left the other three seats vacant for the time being, reasoning it was better to wait until they had worthy candidates than to fill them in haste and risk erring. After two days of discussion, the council agreed now was not the time to open war with Malin, and Callie sent riders for points across the south. Their agents were to be recalled, asylum granted to any Malish rebels who may have lost their homes and families in the struggle. The orders with the smiths were cancelled. It was a time to rebuild, the council declared, to restore their strength and study what may have gone wrong with the rights to free the vaulted god. For the time being, the business of the Southlands was beyond their scope. The funerals were to be held the day after that decision. Dante ran down the keep's stairs the minute the council concluded and galloped through the town to the stoneworker they hired for their markers. He paid the craftsman three times the worth of the work and told him to put all his others on hold. But we don't even have a queen right now, the stoneworker said when Dante explained his order. That's what makes it so impressive, Dante said. It was delivered to the citadel the next morning, in time to join the wains headed for the hill overlooking the bay. The stone was simple, but then so had been Laramore's looks. The procession of council and monks and an honor guard of soldiers walked quietly from the citadel to the top of the hill, where the order kept its vaults. The bodies were laid at rest in the walls of the current sepulchre. Those who still lived stood on the hill, gazing at the grey, white-capped waters of the bay to their north and west, the city spread out behind them, buried in white, 
The same snows covered the ruins of the outer housing, the age-spotted buildings past the first wall, the well-kept temples and manors and business houses inside the second. The same white snows draped the black spires of the Cathedral of Ivars, lay on the grey stone walls of the citadel, the roof of the keep. Now and then, a single shout from down in the city caught a freak gust and reached their ears atop the hill, but mostly they stood in a soft breeze that blew unabated over the shin-deep snows. These bodies, they're just things, Callie said, once he'd readied himself to address the few score men and women who gathered outside the simple columns and cuts of the vault. He had actually combed his beard for the occasion, had switched his torn clothes for the elegant wear of his station. He looked old, but ageless, thin, but potent, as if he weren't a man, but a marble statue of himself. He moved his blue eyes over the waiting crowd. The people they were, the people we knew, they're not what's turning into dirt in that tomb behind his. He narrowed his eyes until the folds of his skin threatened to squeeze out his sight entirely. No, he said. We're here for a while, in these fleshy shells, and all the while we ask why. What's this pain I feel? Why do I feel so cut off from the men around me, from the skies above? I don't think any of us ever receives the answers to those questions. Have any of you? He raised his eyebrows at the men. A few of them cleared their throats and murmured soft negatives that could be mistaken for coughs. Neither have I, and I've lived a very long time. He looked out on all that snow, the silent violence of the cold-torn sea, the banks of clouds that hung over the land from one horizon to another. It was threatening to snow again. The people that wore those fading cases in there no longer have to face those questions. They found their answers. Don't let's feel sorry for the dead. Perhaps they've moved on to paradise at the right arm of Iran. Perhaps they howl into the oblivion of the starless void. Hard to say. Hard to know. One thing of which we may be certain is they're no longer alone. In some form, they're reunited with Iran and all those he's culled from this earth through all the long ages. I imagine that's an awful lot of people. As many as the flakes of snow that look like one big sheet from our position way up here. It stretches as far as we can see. Who knows how much further it goes beyond our sight? He paused, frowned at himself. Wind blew strings of his gray hair into his eyes. He brushed them away then rubbed his hands together against the cold. Someone coughed. We all want to be back there, he said, nodding at the cloud-covered skies. Well, now a few more of us are. The rest of us aren't yet ready. We must still live this earth. Live this earth, the man sighed. 
The priest spoke long, generous words about Samarand, about Baxter and Piotr, and the other dead members of the council Dante couldn't remember. He wondered if he should feel something for his part in putting them in their vault, for causing the grief that lined the faces of the men on the hill. Did it mean anything that every man who died had those who wept for his passing? How many had mourned for all the soldiers and trackers and hired blades he'd killed along the way? He found he didn't care, and not just because they'd all been trying to kill him as well. The guards didn't oversee justice in this lowly place, or if they did, it was a godly brand no human could understand. No one could be surprised when the living became departed, no matter how young they may be, no matter how abruptly it had caught them. He heard words about Samaran's iron will but fair heart, about some old man's thoughtful wisdom, about a less older man's noble spirit. They droned on for a long time. When the last man wrapped it up, they looked to Callie, who stepped forward and cleared his throat. Since no one else has, Dante said before the old man could conclude things, I'd like to speak a few words about Laramore. Callie quirked his brow, then gave him a nod. Dante wandered from the safety of the crowd to where those who'd spoken had faced the mourners, alone. His heart railed against his ribs. How could he find any words that weren't hollow? How did a eulogy become anything more than simple-minded words meant to comfort those who went on? Laramore was a good man, he started. His voice sounded thin, false. The eyes of all the men who watched him were already glazed. His cheeks burned. He thrust out his chin and looked past them all, past the condolences and aphorisms he'd heard repeated here and at half a dozen other funerals, stared through the poet's words for dead lords and ladies and all the singers' sad songs until all that was left was a burn beneath his sternum and a cold anger behind his eyes, and then he was speaking before he had a chance to weigh his words inside his head. I think he'd laugh at us here, he said glaring over the heads of the crowd. Make sport of our sober words and somber faces. He was fearless in that way, unstained by the harsh opinions of others. Yet he treated every man as his equal, even when they were just a boy. Perhaps if we had more like him, the judgments we pass would be more aligned with the stars where he now rests. Dante stared at the snow at his feet, searching for more words, but realized that was enough. Goodbye, Laramore. A few of the men uttered agreements. Callie said a few standard words of closure, and then the men dispersed from the mass to smaller groups, talking and laughing in quiet, gentle voices. He'd have liked that, Blaze said, coming up to Dante's side. He'd have made fun of me for it. Dante walked to the wagon that carried Laramore's stone and spoke for a while with the men who'd borne it. They found a clear patch beside the sepulchre where his body lay with the others and hacked at the hard ground with spades until they could lower in the marker's broad base. They firmed it in place with the overturned dirt, stamping the soil flat. 
By the time they'd finished, most of the mourners had started back down the hill toward the citadel. Callie stood beside Dante and gazed down with him at the gravestone. That's disrespectful, he said softly. The jaws of a dragon? Dante smiled tightly. Only if you didn't know him. Hmm. I suppose I'll trust your judgment. Snowflakes began to coast down through the sky. Blaze pulled his cloak tighter around his body. He put his hand on Dante's shoulder. He smiled at the marker. Then they too turned and started back toward their home, leaving the dead to theirs. Dante turned seventeen. He sat through meetings of policy and doctrine, met with Knack to resume his language lessons, attended the fortnightly sermons Callie'd made himself responsible for giving at the cathedral across the street from their closed gates. Winter carried on. Dante hadn't realized how much administration went into running the place, and had to fight to keep up with all the communiques with distant monks and their tangled questions of scripture, the delicate politics of the courtiers from the capital, the ambassadors from small fish baronies and earldoms looking for support from the ancient authority of the dead city. Days spun by. Sometimes Dante went sun up to sun down without seeing Blaze, who spent equal time investigating Narashtovic's pubs as he did drilling with the soldiers. After six weeks, the first of the rebels and refugees began to trickle in from the lands they'd left in Malin. Dante, as a Southlander, was assigned to clear their passage with the guards of the Pride Gate and establish their housing in the more recently abandoned quarters therein. They arrived with dirt-streaked faces and travel-torn clothes, some with the stumps of their limbs hanging in slings, others bearing illness and disease their war-weakened bodies had been unable to resist, or blue-black toes suffered in the frosts of the mountains. He asked Nack's aid and requisitioned some of the younger initiates to help him, overseeing their treatment of the wounded and the infirm. Two dozen or more arrived each day, and he called out to the nether to heal what he could. Those he and his aides couldn't make whole were deposited in a new cemetery cleared at the edge of the woods on the southern border of the city. They weren't happy times, but for once they weren't bitter times either. In some small way, Dante thought, he was making up for all the things he'd done between Bressel and Barden. Blaze started to go along with him, speaking to those refugees strong and willing enough to swap stories and news of their homeland. Wetton had been retaken by King Charles, they told him. The renegades had deserted the forest outside Bressel. A lasting treaty had been established in the Colin Basin between the Aronites and the clergy of the other sects. The dead had been buried, and a few new temples bearing the symbol of Barden had been burnt to cinders. Those who arrived a month after the first refugees spoke of a lasting peace, a return to the relative order of the political jockeying between the aging nobles and the growing guilds of Bressel, to the same minor sparks and threats that had always existed between the wide kingdom of Malin and the lesser settled territories in its west and south. Blaze began to wander off when Dante attended to the ceaseless treatment of the ill, 
staying gone until the evening, sometimes not returning till the next day's noon. As time softened Dante's mood, it seemed to stir up Blaze in a way that was too active for melancholy and too pensive for wanderlust. He talked little, even when they found the time to drink together. Dante didn't know what to do. If it were him, he'd want the space to work it out for himself. He let Blaze be. The sick kept coming, scores per day, and he lost himself restoring them to health, countering the name of the dead city, one man at a time. Let's go up top, Blaze said to Dante at the conclusion of a council session concerning the feelers toward independence that kept arriving from the Noran territories around the foothills of the Dundons. Being recognized by Narashtivik would all but guarantee their freedom in the capital. There were more refugees this morning. Dante said, tugging the collar of his cloak straight. They need me. Just for a moment. The city doesn't look so nasty from up there. Fine. Just for a moment. Dante left the council chambers and walked with Blaze down the hall to the cramped stairway that led to the peak of the keep. The stairs spiraled so tightly he always feared he'd get halfway up and meet someone on their way down, then have to find a way to turn himself around, climb back down to the landing, and start all over again. They met no one else, though, and emerged into the wood-roofed battlement alone. Blaze walked past where the roof stopped, out into the open wind, and leaned himself against a crenel. The city spread out beneath them. Snow starting to melt, Blaze said. I think we're going to send a force to guard the passes soon, Dante said. King Charles must know this city played some part in everything that's happened. Blaze nodded absently. I've been thinking, he said. I want to go back to Bressel. That's not a bad idea, either. We should probably try to reestablish diplomatic channels before anything else can start up. Not like that. What? Suddenly you can read the king's mind? That's not what I meant. Blaze stared down hard on the rooftops, black on the south faces, where the sun hit all day, and white on the north faces, where the snow lay in shadow. I mean, I want to live there again. What? It's something about this place, Blaze said, gesturing at the walled yard of the citadel, then the disrepair of the buildings in the outer half of the city. I just want to leave it for a while. Okay, Dante said. His brain felt numb. He rested his elbows in the gap between two Merlins and blinked down at Narashtivik. When? Soon. Two weeks at most. I thought you meant months from now at least. Dante stared at his own hands. He'd only known Blaze a few months, but he couldn't imagine one of them traveling somewhere without the other. Blaze wanted to leave. We've got wealth here, he said. Respect. We're doing good things. Saving the casualties of Samaran's war. The city's starting to come back to life. They don't need us for that. People would die without us. No, they wouldn't, Blaze said. 
You and Knack have trained enough acolytes to do the job. They wouldn't miss you if you left for Bressel for a while. They certainly don't need me. Do you even remember what Bressel was like? I lived there all my life. Well, did I ever tell you about the time I tried to talk myself into eating rats? Dante said in a tone that reminded himself of Laramore's. The only thing that stopped me was the shame of being seen roasting them in the common room. Blaze snorted. It was never like that for me. And what will it be like now? What's so great about Bressel? I don't know. Blaze shook his head. He dislodged himself from the wall and glared past Dante's shoulder. I just want to live for a while in a place where people aren't always looking at me like I might kill them for jostling me. I want to go to a public house where I still have to buy my own drinks. Meet a few women who won't make puns about unbuckling me. The people here don't treat us like men. They treat us like caged tigers. They all want to get close to us, to touch us, to prove to their friends that they're not afraid. Maybe that's all right with you, but I'm sick of it. They're just grateful. Dante said. When they hear Blaise Buckler and Dante Galland, they're not expecting we're a couple of kids. I don't care what they're expecting. Whatever they think I am, I'm not. Blaze turned back to the crenels and gazed down into the narrow streets. I'm leaving, Dante. I've meant to for a long time. I just hadn't figured it out yet. Fine. Leave then. Dante shoved Blaze in the shoulder. Did you hear me? Yeah. Blaze met his eyes, and for the first time in weeks, Dante saw nothing of the malaise that had dwelled in them for so long. He meant it. He didn't want to leave Dante behind, but he would if he had to. What was making Dante so adamant to stay then? Being recognized for once? Feared, even? In part, maybe. But while he hadn't yet mastered Laramore's total disdain for the opinions of his peers, nor was Dante ruled by them. Blaze was right about the refugees, too. The monks and acolytes were enough to save those able to be saved. But it wasn't just that Dante wanted to make some kind of repentance, either. At heart, knowing only what he had at the time, he wouldn't have undone any of the choices he'd made along the way. It was much deeper than that. Narashtavik remained the one place in the world that could teach him all the things he still didn't know. In a flash of instinct, he would have overruled with logic a few months earlier. He realized if he let that need keep him here, while he let Blaze wander his own path, he'd be no different than Kali, no better than the motives that had led Samaran to cause so much confusion in the South. If he spent a year or three off in the world, he'd still have decades in which to hone his power. You really want to go? Dante said. I have to. All right, Dante said. Maybe it's time for me to follow you for a while. Blazer's eyebrows flickered. You mean that? I'll ask Callie to sanction the trip. Send us as delegates to the halls of Bressel. I don't want to just say some pretty words to princes and then come right back. We've done enough for now, haven't we? Dante shrugged. Isn't it time we dissipated for a while? Long past, I think, Blaze said. He grinned slowly, 
as if he didn't trust himself to rediscover the expression. Dante laughed through his nose. No changing your mind. Once I ask Callie, there's no turning back. You just worry about what you'll tell him. I'll tell him whatever I please, Dante said. He knows I'll kill him if he ever tries to control me again. Yeah, right, Blaze said. He probably makes you change his diapers. That's how you got on the council, isn't it? You're the one who needs them, Dante said. He lunged at Blaze, faking like you were going to knock him off the roof. Blaze gasped, then tackled him to the stones. Below them, the city continued to thaw. Callie nodded when Dante made his case for the trip to Bressel. He leaned back in his chair and considered the boy. I've been meaning to send someone official. I suppose you'd do better at it than someone who can't speak the language without sounding like the coffin up a cat. Let me scare up an escort. No, Dante said. Just me and Blaze. Callie closed one eye. Without a lot of retainers around to make you look important, they might not take you as seriously as you deserve. Going without guards and circumstance will just be the better to convince them we mean what we say. Callie started to say something else, then sighed instead. How long do you plan to be gone? I don't know. A while. Even a leisurely pace and a few weeks indulging in the largesse of the courts should have you back here by summer's end. We'll be there longer than that. Maybe we'll head back before the passes grow treacherous. I can't say right now. Why don't we drop the pretense this is a negotiation? Callie said, rolling his eyes. Yes, fine. Do as you please. Maybe you'll take all the pandemonium with you. If you do down there what you did up here... A year from now, we could all be feasting in the Palace of Bressel. Yeah. Dante gazed on the old man and found he didn't fear him. His anger and hatred had burned down, too, become cold things, some of which looked solid but would fall apart at a touch, like charred-out logs the morning after a bonfire. I know why you lied to me. You wanted to be important again, you wanted to have men have to listen to you again. I had some notion about stopping a war as well. Try to remember to include that part when you write the history. Why did Gabe repeat your little story, though? Dante said, ignoring the rest. Did you trick him, too? Gabe wouldn't care who was leading the council. He was above that. Kelly snorted, his brows lifted and pinched together, as if Dante were making a joke. Then he leaned back in his chair and stared at the boy for a long time. We're going to win Naran independence, Callie said. When I plotted out that angle for Gabe's eyes, he snapped from his brooding with a speed that approached the alarming. Dante blinked. The capital isn't going to like that. Yes, but if you take a moment to consider the matter closely— you might see the capital's divine wisdom is a bit clouded by the belief the Norrin should do what they say because they can kill them if they don't. Callie waved a hand at him. Head back to Bressel, then. Stay a while, but try to spare a moment between now and your return to think about how on earth we're going to fulfill our promise to our good friend Gabe.
Dante and Blaze left alone on horseback two weeks later to the day. Packs full, affairs ordered, details of the diplomatic end resolved. Dante had been burdened down with letters of introduction and various hints toward treaties written in Callie's hand. He'd left the rib of Barden with Callie for study. He hadn't thought of it in weeks, busy as he was, with orders to forge it into a sword, if at all possible, which Callie denounced as perverse and ostentatious, but said he'd see to it all the same. Callie made no mention of the book Dante never let from his sight, and so he'd decided to take it with him once more. Other than essentials, Blaze carried little more than his sword, his single sapphired badge that marked him as Dante's second, and an empty flask which he claimed would never pass in sight of a settlement without being filled. Laramore's old badge winked at the throat of Dante's cloak as they emerged from the shadow of the keep. The streets were slushy, muddy at the edges. Water trickled between the cobbles. The guard at the pride gate waved to them as they walked through. Dante waved back, then turned his face to the tumbled blocks of the city fringes. It would take the arrival of ten times as many refugees as had arrived so far to run out of space in the vacant houses between Ingate and Pridegate. Tens of thousands could come before the slums beyond the Pridegate got filled. The scent of pines began to overwhelm those of human waste. It was early spring. Cool breezes had started to thaw the lowlands, but fresh snow appeared once or twice a week before shrinking back each afternoon. They took an unhurried route along the main roads to the riverway, the lowest pass through the Dundons. It would add a hundred miles to their journey, but for once, neither of them cared about their speed. Blaze grinned as the city disappeared behind them, and the dark woods rose up around them. Careful, he warned. There may be bad men about. Whatever will we do, Dante said. He drew his sword and pointed it down the road. Perhaps Blaze Chopper will defend us from those miserable souls. And Robert Slayer beside it. They laughed, slashing the air a few times, then put the weapons away, embarrassed somehow, almost guilty, as if the blades had seen too many dead men to be waved as a joke. The road rolled before them. They began to remember the prevalence of birdsong, the rhythm of clumping hooves, the rush of wind in waist-high grasses and pines unbent by snow. They joked a little, talked of what they'd do in Bressel once they'd had their talks with the local officials, but mostly they rode in silence, drifting in their own thoughts. They had stopped a war, delayed it more likely to another age, and that had cost lives of its own, a few of whom Dante'd even liked. To his eyes, the Aronites were no different or more dangerous than any other sect. Back in Malin, they would worship in secret again, or be maimed and killed for their heresy. At the foot of the white tree, he'd been convinced they'd been one right sword away from looking on the god's face, but his certainty had dimmed in the passing of days, a feeling as lost as a spent breath. Barden itself was no proof. Sown from a god's knuckle, the creation of a human power Dante someday hoped to match,
a mystery from before the memory of man. Each seemed equally likely and equally impossible. The woods gave way to plains, and they stopped in a town for a day of fresh food and a soft bed and rum for Blazer's flask. The plains gave way to hills, and for two days they rode in a sun so warm they were able to shed their cloaks. The following afternoon, a bitter wind blew in a storm of hail, and Dante raised his hood and heard it pocking from his cowl. Icy white pebbles bounced on the trail, dashing into quickly melted splinters. Blaze laughed, turned up his face to the light stings of the changed weather. Dante followed suit and took a hailstone to the eye. He could build a barden some day. He knew it in his bones. He knew it the way he knew water would feel wet, or that he could pick up a stone and throw it. At times he felt he could plunge both hands into the pale shell of reality and strip it away like sand. It wasn't arrogance. It wasn't destiny. It simply was. If he could stay alive, he tried to tally, briefly, how many had died in the last few months, most of them faceless, a few, like Laramore, never to be equaled again. But at last it would be a guess, and he wouldn't do the dead the final dishonor of lumping them into a single number, as if, in the end, all that mattered were a quantity. If he could stay alive, where so many others hadn't, he knew he would one day peer into those powers behind the hills and streams, and where he looked, the shadows would move. Snow infiltrated the high hills surrounding the Dundons. The horses plodded on. They lit fires by night, cooked the rabbits Dante killed with the simple flash of nether each dusk. He prodded up the meat-flecked skeletons and set them out on watch while they slept under the burning eyes of the stars and whatever gods might call them home. He passed refugees and tradesmen and vagabonds on the roads, but by night his rabbit guard stood sentry and was not disturbed. The hills banked down to the roaring mountain-fed river, and they followed its narrow gorge through the mountains. The snow was wet and heavy, but no more than a couple inches deep. The river flowed down to meet the wide, calm waters of the Chancet, and they descended into the bony trees, studded with the green buds of fresh growth. The horses churned the mud of the thaw, and the wind tossed rain showers. Perhaps Blaze had it right. Let the world turn on its own for a while. It had done so before they were born and it would do so after they were gone. For whatever ills it caused, the ambition of the men within it was no less natural than the nether itself. Whatever it was that drove them to do harm was the same need that compelled them to build sky-scratching cathedrals and castle walls twice as thick as a man was tall, to tramp down the roads that spoke through a thousand miles of farmland and wilderness, to gather in villages and towns and cities in the planet-hugging reach of conquest and commerce. The same need that made them grow mile on mile of wind-ruffled wheat, that made men fill libraries with books and books with words, that made them fill their lungs with air and their stomachs with beer, 
that peopled a poor woman's home with bright-eyed, soot-streaked children who would one day travel from one coast to another or launch across the shuddering waves far from sight of land or die before they knew what surrounded them, or rob an ancient temple in the dead of night and pry its secrets from the rubbly stone. Trees thrust up around Dante, blotting out the sun. Grass sighed at his ankles and thighs whenever he stepped off the road. Hundreds of pounds of horse rose and fell beneath him. Crows spat at each other in the boughs and were chased away by nattering squirrels. In the undergrowth, mice and rabbits and wolves stirred ankle-deep leaves. Spooked deer caught the boy's scent and crashed away through the brambles, and above them, by day or by night, the wind breathed in the trees. If there had ever been gods in this place, they'd been driven out by the crush of their own creations a long time ago. Aron, he knew, had not been at the tree. The cycle of Aron had led him through unknown years of man's knowledge. He had thought it would show him its very roots. Instead, in following it to its end, to the endless snowfield beneath the white tree where he believed he would find a god, an order and a meaning and a hold on this world, he had found himself simply trapped among mad people, doing mad things, had killed one friend and been betrayed by another, one more moat in a blind storm of ash, alone except for Blaze, vulnerable except for the wrath he found in the nether. His silence deepened. Possibly that was enough. After weeks of travel, the smoke of wet and mingled with the dusty sky. Red clouds piled up to the west. The road forked, one branch east toward town, another to the south and Bressel. Dante led his horse east. Where are you going? Blaze said, jerking his head at the other path. Wetton. We're only a couple of days out from Bressel. There's no hurry, Dante said. I want to see what's become of the city. Blaze bit the skin around his thumbnail. What if they recognize what's become of us? You do remember our last visit, the local hospitality of rope and high branches? Last time we were here, you looked like a rag wrapped around a stick, Dante said. Look at you now in your fancy clothes, your hair cut straight. Blaze eyed him. There were an awful lot of people in that field. Thousands, if I recall. If anyone gives us any trouble, Dante said, nudging his horse forward, we'll just point them at our badges. They'll be in no rush to invite more trouble from the north. If that doesn't do it, we'll tell them about how, at great personal risk, we saved their stupid town from war. This will end badly, Blaze declared, then rallied to catch up. They headed down the road where months ago thousands of citizens had fled fire and battle. Today, a shepherd was driving his flock to market, and the pair skirted around the grungy blobs of walking wool. The outskirts of the city were hewn in fresh, blonde wood, offset here and there by the charred-out husks of what remained. The streets were thick with sodden ash and charcoal. The rap of hammers smacked on all sides. 
Masons and carpenters shouted from scaffolds wrapped around the sharp corners of damaged temples and half-constructed manors, squeezing out a few last minutes of work in the waning daylight. Men and women hurried home from markets or the docks, or left the quiet warmth of their hearths for the clamor and company of a public house. Blazer's mouth twitched at the signs above the pubs, the painted heads of stags or owls or an anchor tilted on its side. Pint, Dante said, gazing down the street. As long as we're here, Blaze grinned. They found a public stable and parted with some silver as the horses were led away to be groomed and fed. Blaze elbowed Dante in the ribs and raced ahead through the damp chill of the early night. A fat turtle was printed above the doors of the first place he chose. Blaze flagged down a servant, and they were brought mugs and ale. Dante drank slowly, pleasantly surprised to find he liked the taste. Perhaps he was getting older. When Blaze wandered off to the latrine, Dante made a round of the room, holding a few brief conversations with any man or woman who looked at home. Drink up, he said when Blaze got back. Suddenly there's a hurry again. I have a terrible urge to go see if the inn where they arrested you was burnt down. If it hasn't, mind if we finish the job? Let's see where the night takes us, Dante said. Blaze drained his ale, and they hit the street again. The laughter of men echoed through the alleys. They wandered the city, half-remembering streets they'd last seen half a year ago, their direction sense aided by a couple pints apiece. Dante kept an eye out for the boys who'd helped them then. He couldn't remember their names, but didn't see either. Probably they hadn't made it through the upheaval. They'd had nothing to protect them, even in times of peace. But they had had their wits. Maybe they lived yet, hiding under the docks, peering down from the roofs on the men who owned the streets, waiting to descend till they could take a peace for themselves. Finally, Dante and Blaze came to the corner near the north end of town, where they'd slept a single night. The building was gone, torn down, replaced by a few tents and a small shack. Blaze spat on the dirt. Two bad buildings don't have tombstones, he said, giving the grounds the finger. I have a sudden urge to urinate. Dante peered down the street, knowing the pub the man in the fat turtle had directed him to had to be near. Blaze finished his business, and Dante headed down a cross street. Just when he thought he'd gone too far, his eyes seized on the image of a four-fingered hand painted above a pub door. This looks as good as any, Dante said, swinging through the door. He glanced through the room, then sighed and took a seat. After an hour and two pints for him and four for Blaze, he was ready to try their look somewhere else. Blaze was rambling on about how they should try to get arrested again just to see if the watch had the guts when the door banged open. Be right back, Dante said, threading past tables and outstretched legs to intercept the man who'd just entered. He stood behind the brown-bearded figure and tapped him on the shoulder. Time to meet your maker, you villain! Robert Hobble turned and punched blindly for Dante's head. 
Dante sidestepped the blow, then jumped forward and grabbed the man's collar. Robert screwed up his face, eyes leaping between Dante's. Liar soiled drawers, he said with beer-thick breath. You made it. Did you really do it? It's done. Dante heard bootsteps behind him. He stepped aside. No thanks to you, you cowardly son of a bitch, Blaze said. He brushed past Dante to face the old friend Dante'd been hunting since they stepped foot in Wetton. You'll understand someday, you filth-mouthed pup, Robert said, lips and eyes creased with a smile. He staggered forward and crushed Blaze up in a hug. Blaze's chin rested on the man's shoulder, and he gave Dante a strange, knowing look he'd remember years after Blaze had gone, but would never be able to understand. At times he thought he saw gratitude in that look, but at others it could have been betrayal. Sometimes he saw nothing in it but confusion, so faint it was barely there at all, like the face of a man who's forgotten how it had ever felt to be young. Robert unclinched, laughing and clapping his hands. This calls for a round. Many rounds. Rounds until they get the picture and roll the keg right up to our table. Dante hunted down a servant and let her know she had some lively stepping in her future. When he returned to the table, Robert was already yammering on at Blaze. So much has happened, boys, he said, draping one hand over the back of a chair and pointing at them with the other. Came back and the place was a battlefield. I rallied a few of the fellows I knew to help retake the town, and what do you know, they made me a captain. He flicked a tricolored badge on his chest. How long are you here? Got time to hear a few of my stories before you stop boring me with your own. I think I know how all of yours start, Blaze said. There I was, rum-soaked as the bottom of a barrel, when all of a sudden... It's like you were there, Robert said, reaching across the table and giving him a knock on the shoulder. We'll be here for a while, Dante said. For the moment, there's nothing more. They settled into the warm smoke of the hearth, the earthy smell of simmering stew, the stinging taste of bitter ale. Around them, men came and went, and argued and joked. Dante bent down to his pack and made sure the book was still there. He was a young man in a strange world. Someday he would take his place among the black, but for now the book was his. Just as much, Robert would be there whenever he took the time to find him. For Blaze, he couldn't imagine what could drive them apart. Dante leaned back on the solid wood of his chair, listening to the raucous calls of the crowd, to Robert's beery words and Blaze's guarded laughter. His ears soared with the sounds of all those who still lived. The Great Rift, The Cycle of Aron, Book Two Chapter One They would know his treason in two hundred feet. The wagon jolted over a snow-covered hole, shaking the swords in its belly. 
Down the path through the pines, six soldiers waited, laughter drifting on the icy air. Dante's blood ran as cold as the snows. The soldiers stood across the road astride their horses, red shirts glaring from their chests, straight swords hanging from their hips. Their mounts were lean and travel-worn, and snorted gouts of steam that mingled with the mist. The wagon rattled again. One of the men pointed down the path. Dante swore. It was too late to turn back. Blaze leaned in to the driver. Stop the cart. What are you doing? Dante said. Stopping the cart. Should I stop the cart? The driver said. Only if you don't want to get punched, Blaze said. The cart's wheels skidded in the snow-mucked dirt. Dante pitched forward, grabbing his wooden seat before he spilled into the road. Down the way, the riders stared. Well, that ought to throw them off our trail. Dante twisted in his seat to gaze at the muddy wagon. What do we tell them? That we're taking these arms to Narashtovic? Blaze rubbed his mouth. Those swords are seven feet long. They weigh twelve pounds. What are we going to tell them? They're bound for the race of giants. It isn't treasonous to arm. Well, then think of something. I'm trying, because treason, as it turns out, isn't one of those look-the-other-way crimes, except for people who attend the execution of traitors because you really don't want blood splashing into your eyes, or— I know, Blaze said. The red-shirted soldiers kneed their horses, starting down the rutted road. Blaze lowered his voice to a hiss. I've got a solution. A whole lot of murder. Dante shook his head hard. If a troop of the king's soldiers turns up dead in Norin lands, do you think that makes the Norin less likely to be invaded and massacred by the king? The soldiers' hooves clopped closer. Well, think fast! Dante's mind spun in circles. Forty feet away, the soldiers slowed their mounts to a walk. Their gazes lingered on Blazer's swords. Dante gritted his teeth. I can try to disguise them. The swords? Blaze whispered. What are you going to do, put wigs on them? The riders were too close to respond. Dante extended his mind to the nether, the shadowy substance that lurked within all things. Few could even see the nether. Those who commanded its power could change the shape of the world, mending the wounded or killing the firm. As a last resort, Dante would turn it on the king's soldiers pulling to a stop in front of the halted wagon. If they hid the bodies well enough, and the cold pine forest was bleak enough to conceal an entire city of the dead, there was the chance, however fleeting, the soldiers' deaths would be blamed on the snows or the bears instead of the Norren Dante was trying to free from the king's yoke. For now, though, he had a better idea. The lead rider had a permanent squint. Winter lingered on its deathbed, but his face was tanned and chapped. It was the face of a man who'd spent most of his forty-odd years in the wilds confronting strange men. He jerked his bristly chin at the wagon. What are you carrying down the king's road? It's a surprise, Blaze said. Surprises are meant to be opened. The man gestured two of his men around the back of the wagon. Rip it apart. There's no need for that. Dante hopped down from his seat.
Two of the mounted men drew swords with the whisper of steel on leather. Dante held up his hands. I'll open it for you. It's just a little wheat. Nothing wrong with a little wheat, is there? That depends on what's under the wheat. More wheat, or something shiny and silver. Who would bake bread out of silver? Blaze leapt down from the wagon to join the others at the back. You'd break a new chamber pot every morning. The man didn't look his way. Some like to hide their coin beneath their grain, to muffle the annoying clink, no doubt. Not to avoid King Modigan's taxes. No doubt, Dante muttered. He focused his mind and sent the nether winging to the wagon, coating its contents in a thin layer of illusion. A soldier pulled aside the oiled canvas, revealing long boxes stacked high. He lifted one of the lids with a squeak of wood. Instead of revealing the long, killing steel of swords, the soldier stared at a box piled high with dusty brown wheat. Dante held his breath. The soldier gazed blankly at the grain. He nodded. Dante willed him to turn away, to drop back the canvas and go on his way. Instead, he plunged his hand into the fake grain. Steel clanked. The man screamed and yanked back his hand. Blood flowed from a gash across three of his fingers. In a panic, Dante let the ethereal illusion fall away. The shocked wheat disappeared, replaced by the reality of the seven-foot swords filling the box. The commander's mouth fell open. Weeping wounds, what's happening here? Where did the wheat go? What are you doing with a cartload of Noran swords? Dante flung up his hands. Well, you see... From beside the road, a voice rumbled like falling stones. We're taking them away from Noran clans who would put them to no possible good use. Dante whirled. A lean and shaggy bear stepped from the pines, seven feet tall and dressed in travel-worn deerskin. He jerked back from the monster, drawing the nether to him in a dark rush. The bear smiled. Dante cursed silently. The man was a Noran, of course, impossibly tall, with thick shoulders and an even thicker beard that rose to just below his eyes. Coin-sized ears poked from his thicket of hair. No matter how many days Dante spent among them, their sheer inhuman size could still catch him off guard. I'm sorry I was gone for so long, my lords, the strange Norrin said. Is everything all right? Where have you been? Dante improvised. I thought I heard the call of the clan of the Whipping Reed, the Norrin said. They hunt these woods. I didn't want them to hunt us as well. The commander squinted up at the Norrin. His hand moved to his sword. Who are you? My name is Moorn, the Norrin said. I doubt that is what you mean. What I am is the slave of these fine men. I'm sorry if I startled you. Got your papers? I'm sorry we left our office in our other wagon, Blay said. He's registered in Yalin. That's where we're taking these swords. The commander stared at the blades gleaming in the winter sun. He shook his head hard enough to dislodge his own squint. You said you were hauling wheat. I saw wheat. I'm a hedge wizard, Dante lied. 
You see? He snapped his fingers. The wheat materialized atop the swords. Another snap, and it disappeared. One of the soldiers swore. The primitives in the clans look at me as a god. Much easier to convince them to turn over their arms when you've got divine right on your side. And you think you can trick us as easily as the savages? What are you trying to hide? In the Noran territory, steel is worth more than gold. Morn leaned forward, as if disclosing a secret. The king's own soldiers have been known to sell swords back to the same clans they confiscated them from. It's a sad thing, except for the soldiers, I suppose, who now have the money to finally make themselves happy. I've heard of that, one of the red-shirted soldiers nodded. There's no law out here except for what we enforce. That's right, said the commander. So who authorized this? Lord Wellamore of Yolan, Dante lied smoothly. He patted his pockets. I have his writ right here. Paper crinkled from his doublet. He removed the sheet. It was a purchase order for raw iron from a border town, but before he unfolded it, he overwrote it with a flick of nether. The illusory note was brief, to the point, and concluded with the signature of the non-existent Lord Wallamore. The weathered commander read the note, nodded, and passed it back to Dante. He jerked his head at the soldier's bleeding hand. Your deceit hurt one of my men. I'm sorry about that. Keeping our country safe carries constant risk. Dante frowned and drew on the nether again. This time he sent it flocking to the wounded man's hand. The wave of shadows washed away the gash like a trench dug below the tide line. Better. The man yanked back his hand, shaking it. Tickles! Dante turned back to the commander. Does this square us? He squinted between Dante, Morn, and the wagon. You're doing the king's will. Now get these arms out of here before a clan cuts your throat and carves your bones into spears. You got it, Blaze said. He leapt back into his seat behind the driver, who'd watched the exchange without a word. Dante gestured to the Norrin. Come along, Morn. As Dante slung himself in beside Blaze, Morn climbed up on the running boards, tilting the carriage under his weight. The driver flicked his reins. The horses leaned forward, yanking the carriage behind them. Dante unclasped his cloak and shucked it off his shoulders. Despite the freezing air, his skin was as hot as a stovetop. He didn't look back at the disappearing soldiers. What just happened? Our quick-thinking slave just saved the day, Blaze said. Hey, that reminds me. When did we get a slave? I'll ask him the moment I stop shitting my pants. Do you have any idea how close that was? They couldn't prove we're bringing this stuff to the Norrin. Dante snorted. Which wouldn't have stopped them from arresting us for treason and torturing us until we revealed Narashtavik spent the last five years funding armed Norrin rebellion. Maybe not. Blaze patted his swords. But these would have stopped them from living which would have put a bit of a damper on any arresting and torturing, and left us with a pile of corpses to deal with instead. The wagon bounced between the pines. Dante glanced over his shoulder. 
Given that Norrin men's beards grew like spring grass, it was tough to gauge their age, but Morn looked no younger than himself. Early twenties, perhaps. Morn caught him staring and nodded back. They spoke little over the next couple miles. Sunlight trickled through the pine needles, pale and bitter. Soon enough, the light dried up like morning rain. What do you think? Blaze pointed to the twilight woods. A couple hundred yards off the road, a log shack stood beneath the trees. Won't do any better than that tonight. Dante nodded and directed the driver to turn off the road. The shack's roof was half collapsed, but it was empty of humans and animals. Half-melted snow lay across half the floor. Dante helped towel off the horses, gazing steadily at Morn. What happened back there? Morn looked up and shrugged. You were stopped by Kingsman. They questioned you about smuggling, then let you go on your way. Yeah, I remember that along with when a total stranger leapt out of the woods and lied to save our asses. I didn't leap. All right, you strode from the woods without warning to assist three total strangers. You're not strangers. Dante threw up his hands. I've never seen you before in my life. I've seen you, Morn said. You've been down here for months, bringing us things. Things that could get you in trouble. I know what you're trying to do for my people. Wrong, Blaze said. We've been down here for years. Morn stiffened, face going slack with horror. You're right. I've only seen you here for months. I'm so sorry. I was just fooling with you, Blaze frowned. Don't take it so seriously. The young Norrin drew back his head in reproach. Speech is a dangerously imprecise form of communication, even when we try to be as exact as we can be. If we're sloppy on purpose, who knows what disasters might come of it? Nobody. That's who. Nobody mortal. Unless there is a soothsayer somewhere I don't know about. Well... Talking's the best system I've come up with so far, Blaze said. If you've watched us that long, you must live around here, Dante said. Morn nodded. Sometimes. My clan ranges more widely than most. That I know of. You would think it's nice, but you can only see so many hills before they all become the same hillish blur. Which clan is that? I belong to the clan of the Nine Pines. Oh, no, Blaze said. Morn cocked his head. Do you know of us unfavorably? You must, otherwise a groan must mean something different to you than it does to me. It's not your clan that's the problem, it's what you've got. We don't know they have it, Dante said. We don't even know if it's real. You're right. I'm being sloppy, Blaze said. It's not about what the Nine Pines may or may not have. It's about Dante's monomaniacal desire to have it for himself. If the quivering bow is real, we could use it to threaten the king into leaving the Norrin alone forever, and destroy the whole capital if he doesn't, 
What's so monomaniacal about that? Ah, Morn said. The quivering ball. Well, Dante said. Well, what? What else could it mean? Do you have it or not? I'm not going to just assume that's what you meant, Morn said peevishly. Anyway, if we have the quivering bow, I'm not aware of it. Dante's face fell. Oh, but there is much about my clan that I'm not aware of because I am young, and they don't tell me things because young people can't be trusted with wisdom, which makes no sense to me. How can young, foolish people become not young, not foolish people if you never expose them to wisdom? By hitting them? Blaze said. He smacked his horse's freshly toweled flank. The smell of animal sweat competed with the frosty pines. Anyway, in a few minutes, it'll be too dark to tell what's kindling and what's a snake. I don't know how much you guys know about building fires, but those aren't ideal working conditions. He wandered off to gather small branches for the night's fire. Small birds settled into the darkening trees, silhouettes on the skeletal branches. Dante rummaged through their catch-all pack for the spade, but the ground was half-frozen. No matter how hard he leaned into the undersized shovel, he could only scrape away a handful of dirt at a time. You are trying to dig a pit? Morn asked after a futile minute. I'm trying to dig a hill so we can build a fort on it and be safe and never leave. Dante scowled up at him. Although it was cold enough to see his own breath, he was sweating under his doublet. He flung down the spade. Forget it. It'll be morning before I'm finished with this. Perhaps I can help. Morn knelt and picked up the small shovel. His thick shoulders bunched as he drove it into the ground, dislodging a healthy load of black earth. He glanced up. How large would you like your pit? Fire-sized, Dante muttered. He dug steadily and contentedly, dislodging a half-frozen mix of dirt, leaves, old needles, and dormant grass roots. The smell was earthy and gently rotten. Once... The iron wedge of the spade bent on a rock. Morn gripped the point and the handle in his heavy hands, bore down, and straightened the bend right out. You've already saved our lives, Dante said, or at least from a load of trouble, so I'm loath to ask you another favor. Morn flung another scoop of dirt. But you would like me to ask my chieftain if we possess the quivering bow. Would you? Would I? That is a good question. The asking costs me nothing in a physical sense. On the other hand, if we don't have it because it is imaginary, I could be mocked by my entire clan. He sat back and pierced Dante with his gaze. What would you do with the bow? Dante froze. Could he really just say it out loud, to a total stranger? On the one hand, Morn was a Norrin himself. He would make for a very unlikely traitor or spy. On the other hand, what if he was?
The truth would be a risk then. But if there was any chance they had the quivering bow, it was a risk worth taking. We'll use it to free the Norrin from slavery, he said, to gain your independence, and that of my homeland of Narashtavik as well. Morn stared at him beneath the blackening pines. I will ask them. Ask who what? Blaze said, returning with an armload of branches, twigs, and yellow grass. What took you so damn long with the firewood? Dante said. Well, it's not like this stuff just falls off trees. Blaze knelt over the fire pit and arranged the kindling. He groaned as Dante and Morn struck out the details of when the two humans would meet the clan of the Nine Pines. Owls hooted through the barrens. Night stole over the woods, as gentle and cold as ancient ghosts. You two are a couple of chowder buckets, Blaze said, as they laid the blankets inside the half-ruined shack. There's no such thing as a bow that can shoot down walls. You should be in favor of this, Dante said. If the quivering bow is real, and we get a hold of it, it'll save us years of work. No more camping out in God's forsaken woods delivering swords to some clan that might turn them on their clan enemy as soon as we turn our backs. Not when we can say, Hey, King Modigan, release the Norrin, and us too while you're at it, or we'll bury you under a thousand tons of your own palace. Huh, Blaze said into the darkness. Any chance we can do this meeting tomorrow, Morn? There wasn't. Morn claimed the Clan of the Nine Pines was too far away. Instead, the three of them would reconvene in three days at the old Norrin ruins on Kerrin Hill. In the morning, he said his farewells. Dante and Blaze hopped on the wagon and made their delivery. Three days later, the two of them climbed Kerrin Hill under cover of night. Mist curled up the hillside. A face loomed downhill obscured by grey vapour and black branches. In fact, between the distance and the gloom, Dante couldn't be certain there was a face at all. That pale, unflinching shape could be a patch of trunk rubbed of its bark, the wilting white flower of a five-foot shrub. He glanced at Blaze. The blonde man was tracing an obscene drawing on the mist-slicked surface of a fallen stone. When he looked back, the face was gone. I think someone's following us. Blaze added another curve to his outline. No one is following us. What I'm proposing is the radical idea that they are. For one thing, you can't really be followed when you're just standing around. For another, we're six miles from nowhere in a graveyard that hasn't been used since we started putting points on the ends of our sticks. It's not a graveyard. Blaze smacked the table-sized stone with his palm. Dozens like it littered the hilltop, a handful of others still standing upright, weathered and patchy with lichen. Then what you call this? A rejected bed. Dante peered into the mist. The weather had warmed in the last three days, shrinking the snows and feeding the fog. Streamers wafted between the pine needles carrying the mud and clams scent of the river with them. It was a holy place once. Whatever it is, I'm cold as hell. 
Does Callie even know about this little mission of yours? More or less. Oh, really? I'm guessing that less is going to be upset to learn it's being used in place of not at all. Dante put on his haughtiest voice. The purview of my authority is as far-ranging as its cruelty, and you would be wise not to disrespect it. Blaze smeared his forearm across the sketch he'd drawn in the dew. Wasn't Morn supposed to be here an hour ago? Yeah. The shape reappeared among the pines, oval and unmoving, too pale and small to be Morn. Dante leaned forward on the stone he'd seated himself on. Blaze shoved his shoulder, spilling him into the sodden grass. If you're that concerned with being watched, let's go ask that guy what he's doing here. You can't just ask him. Of course I can. Blaze stalked downhill. If I don't like his answer, I can punch him, too. Dante hustled after him, boots skidding in the grass. Instinctively, he reached for the nether, drawing the dark power from the shadows of the rocks, the undersides of leaves, the night air itself. It coiled around his wrist, so perfectly black most people couldn't see it at all. Blaze swished through the carpet of brown needles, one sword swinging from his hip, the other bouncing from his back. Dante threaded through the gnarled trunks. By the time they reached the base of the hill, the stones at its crown were blurs in the mist. Well, Blaze said, if the watcher was here, you probably spooked him. Sounds like he'd deserve it, creeping around in the fog like that. Dante turned in a slow circle, scanning the trees for movement, flashes of color, but saw nothing but the pressing gray air. A stick snapped among the trees. Blaze's smile vanished. Dante drew the nether closer. Just ahead, a hulking figure plodded through the fog, seven feet tall, shoulders so solid he looked as if he could walk straight through the trees without slowing down. Hello, Morn, Dante said. Bit late, aren't you? Aren't we all sooner or later, the Norrin said. He gazed down at his sodden pants cuffs with exasperation too deep for a sigh. His silver and bone earrings glinted in the darkness. Can we do this down here, or do we have to trek up to that fallen down garbage up there? Your people built them, so they claim. Here's fine, Blaze said. Good. Morn ran a thick hand over the equally thick beard that grew from every inch of his face besides a gap around his eyes, and a small patch directly below his cavernous nose. So, about the bow. Yes, Dante said. The clan would like to know how they can be sure they can trust you. Dante scowled. We've been in and out of these hills for two years now. Spend two thousand more, and we'll be on equal footing. Our word, Blaze said, is good for a laugh. Morn's bovine eyes considered Blaze. Nothing personal. Who could take offense to that? Dante glared into the fog. 
Over a year ago, he stopped thinking of his duty in the territories as a political favor to be discarded at the first sign of trouble. Instead, he now regarded it as something he wanted to do, a cause he'd fight for even if Callie weren't forcing him to be here. He liked the Norrin. He believed in them. The problem was such feelings were rarely mutual. The Norrin, in large part, distrusted anything that came from beyond the territories. Hell, most of the time they distrusted anything that came from the wrong part within the territories, meaning anything beyond their village or their clan's roving range. No matter how much time Dante spent here, he kept having to prove himself to each new Norrin and clan he met. Sometimes he built up a relationship with a group, returned six months later, and found himself treated as a stranger again. The trust he'd established eroded like a beach during the storm season. The whole experience was so frustrating, there were times he wanted to smash a block down on the Norrin's oversized heads. By Norrin's standards, Morn had been extremely trusting to date. Against his better judgment, Dante had cultivated hope his whole clan would be the same. Open. Helpful. Faced with the truth, his hopes came crashing down. I don't even know what the Clan of Nine Pines is, exactly, Dante said. How am I supposed to know what they consider worthy of trust? Oh. Morn's disappointment was as thick as the fog. Well, I'm off then. Blaze glanced between them. That's it. It's a long walk home. Dante stood stunned watching the Norrin slog into the trees. At times he believed it was all a game the Norrin played, these endless spirals of approval-winning and worth-proving, and that when Morn returned home to tell this story, he'd be met with bearish laughter and grinning shakes of the head. Gullible outlanders. Would probably give their own balls a whack if you told them a man's testicular fortitude was considered an equal sign of the fortitude of their loyalty— he shook his head. This business with Morn and the clan was just the latest fence they'd have to hop. Under Callie's direction, he and Blaze had burned two years arranging and bodyguarding shipments to and from the Norrin territories to the south. Silver, swords, spears, great wains of grain. He met with village leaders, brokered peace and pacts with the human settlements on the fringes, delivered memorized messages too sensitive to be trusted to a page. Days and weeks and months spent preparing the territories for something they would never have dreamed possible. Independence from the Empire of Gask. Throughout his travels, he began to hear rumors of the Clan of the Nine Pines, who, along with their Dreaming Bear and Three-Part Falls, were widely considered one of the fiercest clans in all Norrendom. But, again, according to rumor, they had something else on top of that. The quivering bow. When Dante asked what that was, the Norrin had smirked knowingly. Why, it was just a legendary weapon whose arrows sent enemy walls shivering down like the banks of a flash-flooding river. From that point on, Dante learned all he could about the Nine Pines which wasn't much. Like most of the other clans, they were nomads. They traveled on foot, were rarely seen, 
and almost never spent time among the civilized city-dwelling Norrin. In the past, the Nine Pines paintings sold for sums that could have established estates. In present times, they were said to forge swords that never lost their edge. That, in itself, was interesting. But what had really snared the bunny was the bow. A bow that maybe, probably, didn't exist. When he first voiced his interest to Blaze, Blaze had dismissed the whole thing with a broad swipe of logic. If the bow were real, why wasn't the clan of the Nine Pines picking their teeth with the king's bones right now? To Dante, that didn't prove anything. You couldn't free a people or conquer an empire with a single weapon, no matter how powerful that weapon may be. You needed soldiers, lots and lots of soldiers. Most clans only had forty or fifty of those. And the fact the clans weren't exactly fond of banding together was perhaps the main reason so many of their people were enslaved across Gask. Still, in the months since learning about the bow, his hope had cooled. Until he met Morn, the first member of the Nine Pines he'd seen with his own eyes. Because what if the bow were real? It's all bullshit anyway. Blazer's virtual mind-reading had grown increasingly common, and somewhat unsettling, the more time the two spent with each other. If it comes to war, our best weapon's going to be stabbing. Lots of stabbing. That's your answer to everything. That's because it's such a good one. Now, can we get out of here already? Dante stirred fallen leaves with the toe of his boot. I'm sick of these games. If they'd drop all the ritual and let us do what we're here for, we'd already be hoisting their flags over the ramparts of Setevan. Blaze gave him the sort of frown reserved for the unanticipated expulsion of something that was just in your body. Then cut through the games, dummy. Follow Morn back to them. The clan would not care for that at all. He scanned the forest floor for anything white. Hope you've got your chasing shoes on. Now help me find something dead. I'm beginning to hate those words. If it makes you feel better, it can be alive. Until you get your hands on it. If the rabbit's family comes seeking satisfaction, I promise to stand as your second. Dante stooped and shuffled through the damp mulch. Finding a spare body, he had long ago learned, was much trickier than common sense tells you. In a world of living things, you would imagine the ground would groan with the fallen dead, that beneath the forest's skin of leaves and needles would lurk a second layer of bones and fur. But animals occupied a small corner of any given space. They were so rare, in fact, that when they dropped dead, their remains tended to get snapped up by any other creatures who shared the area. A nice enough truth when the goal is walking through the woods without plunging ankle-deep into a former muskrat. Not so nice when the goal is to put that muskrat to one last use. Blaze crunched through the leaves uphill. Dante smelled fresh mold and wet dirt. Morn was getting further away by the moment. Dante straightened, relaxing his gaze until his vision blurred. It was perhaps that very rarity of remains that made them stand out so sharply, if only you knew how to look. 
Possibly it was that corpses still held on to some trace of the nether, the grist of Aron's flawed mill that quickens all mortal life. Whatever the reason, within moments a cold, silver light glimmered at the base of a nearby pine, flickering like moonlight on a pool. Dante knelt to brush away the leaves. A faded whiff of decay rose from a scatter of small bones. Hair and sinew clung to ribs and joints. Dante smiled. Black wisps gathered in his fingers. Needing no more than a dab of blood, he picked a shallow scab on the back of his hand, waited for the small red bubble to rise, then touched his blood to the bones. Like rain on a window, shadowy nether slid from his hands to the body. Claws twitched, as if drawn by a string, a loose femur drew to the hip. The creature stood, swaying. It might have been a rat once, a squirrel. Now it was a silent automaton, and if Dante closed his eyes, he could see through its perspective instead. He nodded in the direction Morn had gone minutes earlier. The creature turned and dashed away in a spray of leaves. Dante called Blaze from down the hill. We'll stay a mile behind him. He'll never know we're here. Next time, I demand a plan with less walking, like sitting around being fed roast pork. I'm not sure how that forwards the cause of Norrin independence. Lay shrugged. They can figure that out for themselves. The creature raced along the forest floor, skidding through leaves, leaping over roots and dips, unhampered by the need to breathe or rest or slow for treacherous footing. Within minutes, it, and by extension Dante, could hear the Norrin threading through the brush with surprising grace. He and Blaze began their pursuit. Mist drifted between the hard-barked pines, thinning the further they got from the river. After a couple miles of woods, the forest dissipated in favor of grassy hills. The drawers and folds furred by spicy-smelling pines. The light of a half-moon drenched the trailless earth. Dante's breath rolled from his mouth in thin clouds. His nose and ears numbed while sweat dampened his underclothes, which were already a good week in need of a wash. Morn didn't take his first break until dawn took its first pink glance at the east. Blaze sat, blear-eyed, scowling at the block of bread Dante had taken along in case they didn't wind up returning straight to town after the meat. This stuff's hard as a brick, he said, spraying crumbs. Tastes like one, too. Yet you're eating it. Remind me not to invite you to my house. What's that hairy jerk doing now? Dante closed his eyes. More than a mile away, the creature watched from beneath a bush while Morn pried the bark from a fallen log and ate the pale grubs beneath. Enjoying a pan of bacon. I think I can smell it. Crisp meat. Smoking fat. God damn it! Morn rose, then crouched beside a body of water that was more puddle than pond. The wine looks good, too. 
At least tell me he looks sleepy. Blaze stretched out his leg, massaging his calf with his thumbs. I've had a few hours to think here, which, for one thing, is a few hours we're not spending getting swords into the hands of villagers. For another, what's the point of chasing after the world's greatest bow when the whole idea is to avoid war? Every day we're down here is a gamble. If the wrong person gets wind that we're arming the Norrin and brings that to the palace in Setevan, how long before the entire Gascon Empire is marching on the Norrin territories? Three seconds. Dante crunched into a bit of bread, chewing thickly. Now what if we have a bow that can drop their towers as fast as you drop your trousers? Won't that give them second thoughts? And you really think this thing exists? A bow that can win a war by itself? What are you, an idiot? Blaze threw up his hands. If this is a joke, then so is the fist I'm about to put through your teeth. Dante pulled his mind from the creatures, where Moan was chopping long, straight branches and leaning them against the low crotch of a tree. I just think it's worth sacrificing a couple days to confirm it doesn't exist. At least we'll have finally seen the Clan of the Nine Pines for ourselves. I heard they once killed an entire set of troop over the suggestion they start paying taxes. Don told me they give their children knives as soon as they can stand, accidentally cutting themselves as part of the process of learning to use one. Well, we've got to get those guys on board. King Modigan's army doesn't stand a chance against the knife babies. Blaze blew into his hands. I'll give it two more days. Past that. I will begin shrieking until you admit your mistake. Two days later. Two long, cold, relentless days of aching feet, stiff fingers, and dwindling bread that didn't taste good even when his belly was empty, and Dante was ready to turn back himself. Morn's course kept his resolve from dissolving completely. The Norrin was headed straight into nowhere an eastern course into grassy hills and patchy woods, too removed from the roads to see any signs of people besides the occasional hermit or roving tribe. Desolate and windy. A person could spend weeks combing these lands without finding a trace of the people he was after. That afternoon, Morn and his undead pursuit entered a wall of trees whose small green buds were just beginning to displace the stubborn, brittle leaves still hanging from their branches. Deep shadows pooled the ground. Morn walked noiselessly, hardly stirring the crackly blanket of leaves. After spending a good portion of the last few years learning to do the same, Dante envied the large man's effortless skill. Yet, with the sun a hand's breath from the hills, its light fading from the soil like a summer rain, Morn suddenly began scuffling his feet, trampling through great beds of leaves as if shouting his name to the world. Ahead, a quiet blue lake winked between the trees. Above its shallow, grainy banks, Morn was greeted by a trio of tall, stone-faced Norrin. Found them, Dante muttered. How many? Um... He stopped, ordering the distant skeleton to take a quick jaunt. Men and women sat around the fires, hauled wood, reeled in nets from the shore. 
Fifty. Maybe more. I have a thought, Blaze said. If these people are as brutal as they all say, is it wise for two strangers to burst in on their secret forest lair? Good question, rumbled a voice to the left. Adrenaline bloomed from Dante's solar plexus. He dropped into a low stance, drawing his sword with his right and the nether with his left. Blaze whipped out his blades with a leathery hiss. Twenty feet away, a man stepped from the trees, young enough that his beard only climbed halfway up his cheeks, but still a foot too tall to be mistaken for a human. A cleaver-like blade hung from his hand, the weapon as oversized as his bearish body. We're not enemies, Dante said. The clan'll be here to judge that in a minute. Dante flicked his eyes closed. At the camp, men and women grabbed up swords and bows and raced into the woods, backtracking Morn's route. He ordered the creature to follow them back. He reopened his eyes on the lone Norrin. How did you alert them? Joseph and Joe watches out for us all. Tell them to bring steak, Blaze said. I'm starving. He put away his swords, a motion so smooth it was like watching a feat of actual magic. Dante, unable to draw his blade without glancing at the handle first, left his out. He didn't say another word until Morn arrived in the dusk with a dozen other Norrin, each dressed in the same supple deer leather and silver ear piercings. Surprise, confusion, and anger battled for control of Morn's heavy eyebrows. Hi, Morn, Dante said. We followed you. I would have seen you from a mile away. That's why we stayed two miles behind. The other warriors regarded Dante with blank eyes, thick swords held before them. Dante had guided the dead watcher into some shrubs behind him. He blinked, glimpsing a silent woman stalking straight for him, a knife gleaming in her hand. Without turning, Dante knocked her to the ground with a club of nether, forceful enough to rattle her plate without cracking it. I am Dante Galland. Council member of the sealed citadel of Narashtavik. We're here for the cause of Norrin independence. I'm a guy in the forest, said a middle-aged Norrin, whose left cheek was nearly beardless for all the scars. And you are a long way from Narashtavik. Consider it a sign of our sincerity, Blaze said. Sincerity. You have strange words for trespassing strangers. Slowly, as a stalking cat, Dante drew his lowered blade across the back of his left hand, the cold metal bit into his skin, replaced by the warmth of a fresh wound and the hot blood dripping from the edge of his palm. Nether flocked to the fluid in swerving twists of darkness. You know why we're here, he said. With that bow, we could guarantee Setevan wouldn't dare set foot in the territories. There is a problem, the scarred man said. A problem the severity of which depends greatly on your perspective, said a female Norrin, no shorter than the males, yet significantly less hirsute. Her eyes were as orange as a harvest moon. From your perspective, it is not so auspicious at all. 
The scarred man waved the point of his ponderous sword at knee level, as if it were too heavy to lift without great cause. Strangers who come to the clan of the Nine Pines are required to leave as ash on the wind. A dozen Norrin lifted their weapons. Further back among the trees, others knocked arrows, sighting down the shafts. Why does everything have to be a fight with you? Blaze said sidelong. He bared his teeth and raised his blades. Dante summoned the nether to him in a great and hungry rush. For months, he had spent his free hours practicing the creation of lights and illusions, bending the nether into gigantic patterns, letters, and symbols that could be seen and interpreted from miles away. If some of Narashtivik's priests and monks were placed along the border, they could fling up the signs at the first sign of Gascon troops. Other scouts could then recreate the signs with fires and mirrors, passing the information deeper and deeper into the territories. Enough of these signalmen, in the right locations, and in the span of hours, crucial news could be transmitted hundreds of miles to Narashtivik and the territories. Those in the path of the coming storm would be given precious extra days of warning. This was the theory. In practice, men and women able to bend the energy of ether and nether were somewhat too rare to exile to mountaintops across the countryside. Yet the potential of this notion compels Dante to look past the impracticalities, and he'd spent many nights, when he wasn't too bone-tired to do anything at all, turning the darkness of the nether inside out, painting the air with blazing red letters, spelling, Blaze is dumb, or with crude animations of the blond man getting repeatedly whacked on the head by a succession of hammers. It was a challenging task, more subtle than skewering an enemy with a sudden spike of raw energy, and at first his concentration had been unable to sustain a moving image with any level of clarity for more than scant seconds. Yet he kept at it. Recently, he'd been able to illustrate whole, if short, stories above his head, while grinning Norrin bards chanted the poems his pictures matched. He hoped it would be enough. With the clan's warriors closing in, he dispelled the creature that had dogged Morn for two straight days. A light bloomed amidst the darkened treetops. The Norrin tipped back their heads, eyes narrowed. At first, the image in the sky was nothing more than simple color, silvery yet soft to the eye. But it quickly took on the shape of a young boy, black-haired, blue-eyed, his features, even at the age of five, sharp enough to skin a pear. High in the air, the glowing boy toddled through windy fields, overturning rocks at the edges of streams. By candlelight, a middle-aged man wearing a cassock and a kindly, if impatient, smile ran his fingers along the lines from a book of fairy stories. The next moment, the boy grew chest-high on the man, reciting unheard words from a book three times thicker. The boy grew taller yet. His dark hair flowed from his head, lengthening until it suddenly cued behind his head. By night, he walked down an overgrown lane, around him green outlines suggesting dense trees, where, in the basement of a ruined temple, he found a black book whose cover bore a stark white tree. 
The image shifted again. The young man sat at a library table, reading and rereading the book's opening pages. The scene leapt to a city street, cobbles and a flickering torch. A blond-haired boy stood beside the black-haired one, sword drawn against two armed and faceless men. The dark-haired boy, face twisted in terror, threw up his hand in a theatrical gesture. The group disappeared in a globe of darkness. When the scene returned to light, the two attackers lay dead. The images came fast, an old man lecturing the young man from inside a tomb, the blonde boy with a noose around his neck, then racing away on horseback, the two boys riding north through the outlines of snowy mountains, arriving at Narashtavik, the dead city, a sketch of ruins and high citadel at its center. A stark-faced woman lectured from a cathedral podium. At the fringes of the crowd, the boys failed to fire their bows. But then they were inside the citadel where the woman lived and ruled, and then stood on a snowy march with her priests and soldiers, who battled rebels in a dark wood, before arriving beneath the boughs of a monstrous white tree, its heavy limbs grown of sleek and solid bone. Light flashed beneath the tree, Chanting faces summoned a black door. The old man reappeared in a scrum of bloody chaos. When it cleared, the woman was dead, alongside dozens of others. The image pushed in on the dark-haired boy's face. Closer and closer, his blue eyes frozen on something far away, more cold and forlorn than that icy hill. He meant to do more. Their return to the hills of the territories the grain they'd deliver to the village on Clear Lake Hill, the pursuit of the man who'd slaughtered a Norrin wagon train, but his strength faltered. The illusion vanished. Dante dropped to one knee, panting. The Norrin looked down, blinking. Several dropped back a step. There, Dante said. We're no longer strangers. The scarred man glanced at the orange-eyed woman, then back to Dante. Can you do more than find loopholes and paint pretty pictures? Yes. Dante let out a shaking breath. His head throbbed, overwhelmed. He blinked the blurriness from his blue eyes, swept sweaty black hair from his forehead. Come at me, and I'll reduce you to the clan of the three or four pines before you bring me down. The woman gave the scarred man a small nod. Why don't we take a walk to camp? They led the way, distancing themselves to speak in soft, rumbling tones. Blaze elbowed him in the ribs. I look much better than that. At least I omitted the warts, Dante said. Did you actually think that would have any chance of working? It seemed smarter than fighting. I don't think a dead body can tell me where its bow is, no matter how long I yell at it. Leaves crunched underfoot, smelling of sap and must. The afterimage of his work lingered in Dante's eyes, silvery flecks that flashed whenever he blinked. A pair of Norrin followed them on either side, two more at their back. Blaze did nothing to disguise his stare. The Norrin paid them no mind. Wood smoke sifted through the budding branches. 
They were directed to a patch of clear, bare earth not far from where the lake lapped softly on the muddy shore. The scarred man was named Orlin, the orange-eyed woman, V. They disappeared inside a leather yurt to continue their conversation, while Arlo, the young Norrin who detained Dante and Blaze in the woods, brought out fried trout and raw greens. Blaze swallowed the crackly tail, then dug into the sweet, steaming white meat with bare fingers, plucking out ribs. This entire trip is worth it now, he declared. Even if we die, my ghost will agree. Dante dug his thumbnail against the scraps of green onion in his teeth. I think we've reached the point where if they wanted to kill us, they'd kill us. Maybe we're being fattened. They're nomads, not cannibals. Maybe they're branching out. Around them, the Norrin ate their own meals, stopping at the end to rip off the heads of cooked fish to suck out the eyes, then flinging the bony remainder into the lake. Imagine those fish are you, Dante said. Orlin and V emerged from the yurt and approached the main bonfire. Without a word, ten others joined them. The rest of the clan didn't look up, continuing to pick their teeth with fish bones and mend the nets they'd pulled from the lake. Dante raised his brows at Blaze and joined the Norrin at the welcome heat of the bonfire. Orlin stared at them without blinking, even when the shifting wind drove stinging smoke into his eyes. I don't know what you heard about us, the scarred chieftain said finally. Likely you've heard several things. When a thing is unknown, like our clan, people will rush to fill the void of knowledge with whatever stories they like best. We understand you want the same thing we do. Dante said, an independent Noran state free of tribute to or dependence on the nation of Gask. Vague enough to be a diplomat, V said. Watch out for his promises. Dante scowled over the fire. We know your clan has a long history of resistance against the capital. That's all we know. We've heard you possess a weapon called the Quivering Bow. If it does what rumor says it does— I think it could be a critical piece in forestalling a war, or in winning one, if the nobles at Setevan decide they've had enough of what's going on down here. Orlin inclined his head. The bow, yes. Then it's real? It has been a relic of the Clan of the Nine Pines for so long, none of us actually knows how we got it. V folded her large hands. Maybe it was strung with the guts of the patriarch Bo's first son, or maybe we stole it from lesser people who weren't worthy of it. Dante's head tingled. It can do what its name says, then. Shake down walls. If you know how to use it, Orlin said. And if you will use it to help free our people, you may have it, because what greater purpose could it serve? But there is a problem with it. Not an insurmountable problem, V added. It is not like the problem of why we are born only to suffer and die. Really, a rather minor problem, 
a dim constellation in the vast starscape of all that is wrong. Blaze pressed the heels of his hands to his forehead. Have you ever considered this problem only exists because you're too busy talking about it to solve it? You see, Orlin said, we don't know where it is. Chapter Two I see, Blaze said. Do you remember where you put it last? Orlin narrowed his eyes. Smoke rose from the fire in white walls, screening the stars. In the hands of a Gascon lord. What? Dante said. It was taken, along with every member of our cousins, the Clan of the Green Lake, some weeks ago. When was that, V? V tapped her hairless chin. Three weeks ago. That was when we found the lake crabs, remember? On the way back from finding the bodies of our clan cousins. The empty yurts. The wailing young who'd hidden in the woods. Oh, yes, the crabs. You do not often find the lake crabs. I had begun to think they'd all died out or at least moved to another lake. Dante pressed his fist against his lips, waiting for his anger to subside enough to open his mouth. If the quivering bow has been taken, I pledge our immediate support to getting it back. Blaze cocked his head. I call foul on that pledge. My support is thoroughly undecided. If that bow has fallen into enemy hands, yes, yes, then we'll all spend our next Falmux Eve watching the bunny races in hell. I'd like to at least know why the clan hasn't already gone after the bow and their cousins or whoever, before promising we'll do what they won't. He glanced at Orlin. No offense. None taken, the man said. We were simply waiting on the word of Joseon Joe. Joseon Joe? As in the god, Dante said. Oh, Blaise said. That, Joseon Joe. He looks out for the people. Shows them the way when they're lost, despite only having one eye. Orlin nodded. He lost it in a bet, over whether he could put out his own eye. I thought it was to use it as bait to finally catch Sansanamon, the eternal catfish, V frowned. That doesn't make any sense. You say you were waiting, Dante cut in. Today, Josin Joe spoke to me. Orlin said, tomorrow we move. Then I'd like to come with you. I can't speak for my friend. The two Norrin leaders exchanged an unreadable glance. Orlin considered the fire. Josin Joe said we'd find an unexpected and powerful ally. If you help us recover our cousin clan, you may have the quivering bow. Dante extended his hand. Agreed. Good. Orlin waved his thick hand. Now please leave the fire and go to your tent. Outsiders aren't allowed here. Dante forced his eyes not to roll. He stood. I understand. Morn appeared beside the fire. Your yurt's over here, 
It doesn't smell very good. He was right. Inside the deer leather tent, its fluffy cloth padding smelled musty and faintly fishy, conditions made worse by the fact it was notably warmer than the outside air. Dante conjured a soft white light to illuminate the bare interior. Blaze slung out his blanket and sat down with a sigh. This whole thing could be a wild goose chase, you know. And I don't see how a wild goose is going to do any good if its territories get invaded. Dante licked his thumb and smudged away the black fringes of the fresh scab on his hand. Even if we don't come out of it with a weapon of awful power, rescuing their cousins will only strengthen one of the nastiest fighting units in the entire region. It's the opportunity to put down a group of Norrin slavers, too. How is there any downside? First, we don't know the timescale. Second, if Kelly needs to reach us, he may as well shout up his own ass for all the good it'll do him. Since when did you care about what Kelly wants? It's not Kelly I'm concerned about. Blaze gestured at the wilds beyond the yurt wall. My worshippers will have a tough time reaching my grave if I'm struck dead in some stupid forest. A long trek will just prove the purity of their faith. True enough. Make it a tasteful marker, though. No more than twenty statues of weeping women. Dante woke in the pre-dawn darkness to the sound of feet squelching in the mud. He brought the nether to his hands, lying silent, until he remembered he was among a strange but hospitable people. He had been dreaming of walking through a forest like this one, but beneath the layer of leaves and grass lurked a gaping abyss, and his feet kept plunging into the open nothing exposing them to the unseen and unknown beings lurking beneath. Outside, looming silhouettes stalked the shoreline, rolling up yurts and drawing in the nets. Others knelt beside flat rocks, spread cloths to soak up any dew, and smoothed yellow parchment atop the cloths, preparing for the dawn light considered best for their stark line paintings. Smoked fish carried on the cold breeze. When Dante returned from relieving himself, Morn waited by the tent. He had clearly been designated the go-between, the buffer between the strangers and the tight circle of the clan. We move in an hour, the Norin said. Assuming you want him to come, alert the snoring thing you call your friend. Blaze groused and hacked like an angry duck, but calmed down quickly over a breakfast of dried fish and herb-crusted bread. Minutes after dawn, the clan split into two parts, the young warriors and hunters ready to track down their cousins of the Green Lake, and those who'd stay behind, those too old, young, or injured for travel, along with the small contingent of the battle-ready to provide for them and to see them from harm. There were no tears shed, no speeches or goodbye ceremonies. The travellers simply walked from the lake, while the remainder continued to mend nets, add brushstrokes to parchments, and pluck herbs from the boisterous woods. Now that's a farewell party, Blay said. Did anyone even bother to look up? Either we'll be back or we won't, Morn said. What's there to get so excited about? Rum, corsets, the promise of rest at the end of a long day's travel, 
Fleeting distractions from the only thought worth having. You're going to die. Blaze glanced from him to Dante. You two should talk. You're like two peas from the same moldy, withered, sprouted from a grave at midnight pod. Dante snorted. Death's inevitability makes it the very thing least worth thinking about. You don't see hermits retiring to mountaintops to contemplate the nature of smelling bad after a hard day's work. Morn exhaled through his nose, the steam of his breath condensing in his mustache. Well, you'll have plenty of time to think about how wrong you are once you're dead. Birds twittered from bare branches. Warmthless sunlight fell from the canopy like an old acorn. When the group stopped to rest before midday, a quartet of hunters quickly returned with a steaming boar. The clan fell upon it, skinning, gutting, and butchering. A broad-shouldered, middle-aged woman, who Dante thought, but wasn't certain, was V's sister, allotted slices of liver and raw muscle to everyone on the march. Blaze sucked his down so fast Dante doubted he'd chewed, then handed off the remainder to be packed in thick fern leaves. The clan resumed the walk two hours later. The pace was steady, and perhaps comfortable by Norrin standards, but to Dante, whose legs were several inches shorter, it was just this side of grueling, worsened by toe-grabbing roots and heel-sliding slicks of rain-rotted leaves. He had to soothe his physical exhaustion with draughts of nether every couple hours, a trade-off that left his muscles relaxed and unsore, but which left something at his core lacking and ground down. Not his spirit, but something with more physical weight, something more like his wind. He could see the strain in Blazer's face, too, the limp he tried to conceal as the sun shrank and his blisters swelled. Blaze would never complain about anything real, of course. Not an earshot of Dante, the Norrin, or any other being with a set of ears and the capacity for speech. When he slept, Dante swept the swelling from Blaze's feet, then collapsed into unconsciousness himself. By the second day, they were some forty miles from the camp by the lake and sixty miles or more from the village where, until rumors of the bow ripped them away, they'd been drilling Norrin militia to stand against cavalry. Too heavy to ride anything but the biggest workhorses, Norrin had as little experience defending themselves from mounted riders as Dante had defending himself from rainbows. Quite the walk, Blaze said once they'd pitched their yurt and sat down to rest in the twilight. It's enough to make a man question where he's going. After the one thing that can make a difference. Wild geese? A stick. Specifically, a curved one that can destroy a fortress in a single shot. It was a concept, however simple, he hadn't been able to completely convey to Blaze, at least not in terms the blond man found convincing. Callie had first laid it out to Dante a year and a half ago, on a brief return to the sealed citadel in Narashtivik, a summer visit where the bayside humidity was nearly intolerable, even at the top of the high, breezy tower where Callie liked to literally look down on the citizens, shouldering each other aside in the narrow streets beyond the citadel walls. 
The sapling thin old man hadn't spoken for some time after Dante joined him on the stone balcony, which was fine with Dante, so long as he was standing still, he could almost stop sweating. How do you fight a war that isn't a war? Callie said at last. More properly, how do you avert the war in the first place? He ran knob-knuckled fingers through a beard he refused to comb, despite years of protests from the servants tasked with making the council look properly holy. Think of it this way. A man with a club only has to shake it around and scream a little to convince the man without a club to back down. We're the man with the club, but we don't actually want to strike Setevan, the unarmed man, just to menace them into doing what we want, i.e., letting the Noran do whatever they want. Dante frowned. But in this case, the other man is actually many thousand men, and instead of being unarmed, they're actually carrying an army's worth of swords, spears, bows, axes. Yes, well, no need to get literal. It's about the idea. It's about convincing them they feel like a helpless man while believing we're waving about a frightened and lethal club. Have you ever considered writing a book? It would be a shame for this wisdom to be lost to the ages. Callie's brows arched into a scowl, a movement which, given their shrubby mass, might have forced a lesser man to sit down. I am trying to impart to you a philosophy of preparation that could save the lives of thousands. You could at least pretend to take it to heart. I'll take it to spleen. As there's no chance you'll take it to brain, I will consider that good enough. The point is, we couldn't possibly win a conventional war of army versus army. The alternative, then, is to explore all the ways to fight that aren't conventional, to find new clubs, and to steal them from the enemy. Despite his efforts to wind the old man up, Dante had taken the idea to at least one and possibly several of his organs, and felt confident Callie would approve of his current detour. It was, after all, the pursuit of a very large and nasty bludgeon. If Dante had passed the opportunity by, Callie would no doubt have spent more time yelling at him than he would have spent chasing down the bow. You champion ideas like this all the time, he told Blaze. I think the only reason you're against it is because you didn't come up with it yourself. I'm just tired of being in the dark here. Blaze elbowed Morn, who gave him a glare that could strike fire in a downpour. Joseph Joe told you anything about when we might stop walking and start arriving? Don't mock him. Well, any day now. The next one, I think. Dante didn't allow his hopes up but the next morning they intercepted the river where it weaved between modest hills and short cliffs, a quarter mile wide and as grey as the clouds overhead. A dirt path followed the shoreline. Within miles the clan stopped. V and a pair of warriors continued on to a cluster of dark holes speckling a rocky cliff above the stretches of flat green land bracketing the shores. Cling, Morn explained. Home of the man who can point us toward our cousins. Blaze nodded. Who aren't here themselves? Oh, no. 
Do you expect everything in your life to be that simple? No, but it's easier to complain as if I do. Thee and the others returned a half hour later. Though they made no specific announcements about it, Dante gathered that the coast had been cleared. The clan of the Nine Pines moved on as a whole, slipping double file down the hard-beaten path to cling. From a distance, Dante hadn't seen anything but caves, and had marked the place as a literal backwoods, just one step up, civilization-wise, from the nomad warriors he traveled with. Closer, though, he could see docks and barges past the trees at River's Edge, and smelled that particularly potent brew of hog shit that only arises from organized farming. On the other side of the path, the fields were empty, brown and tilled. The path switched from dirt to a bizarre foreign material. Dante could see no seams in it, suggesting a single sheet of hard-fired clay or the like, yet the path's solid mass couldn't be anything but stone. He said as much to mourn. Best roadmaster in the territories, God, the Norrin said. It's a wonder the humans haven't kidnapped him. Despite stooping for a closer look, Dante could only make out a handful of seams separating the stones that formed the road. Most were artfully concealed as part of the sandstone's grain, with others too fine to see even when he knew they must be there. Nor did it try to imitate the straight lines of many well-paved roads. Instead, it followed the subtle contours of the landscape with the same integrity that the river followed the low places through the hills. Indeed, given its appearance as a single flow of stone, it was possible, if you looked at it in the right way, to see the road as another river, a heavy creek from a realm where frozen water didn't form ice, but stone. He grew dizzy and straightened up. This must have taken an eternity to build. Cod doesn't build. He sculpts. Sorry. Dante said. He should have known better. When it came to tangible objects like the road, Norrin approached their craft with the same dedication and piety as a prophet approached his lord. He'd once seen an old woman go on carving a soapstone owl while her house literally burned down around her. Only when she passed out from the smoke had her son been able to drag her from the flames. I've never seen anything like it. Of course you haven't. Ahead, Orlin came to a stop. The clan stood in a square as finely cobbled as the road, a shallow bowl of seamless stone, the natural colors of which painted a vast mosaic of a salmon, its upper jaw as wickedly curved as a hawk's. At one end of the plaza, a single boulder, smooth and rounded as a river pebble, served as a podium or dais. Wooden shops ringed the plaza, some utilitarian, some elegantly simple, but beside the mastery of the plaza and the roads feeding into it, all equally forgettable. The land between plaza and river was grassy and empty, probably a field for festivals, prayer, and whatever else drew the crowds. The clan set camp in a field between the docks and warehouses, Flat-bottomed boats drifted downriver, bulging with barrels and tarps. Uphill, 
The black eyes of caves gazed down on the mild bustle of the port town. While the rank-and-file warriors spread blankets and rolled out the yurts, Orlin and V started up the road switchbacking Kling's highest hill. Blaze visored his hand against the afternoon sun. Where are they off to? To see the mayor about the kidnappings, Morn said. Dante gestured uphill. Then let's go. Oh, that's not allowed. How are we supposed to help track down your cousins when we can't question the only people who know where they went? By letting V and Orlin ask the questions themselves, and then by following them. To hell with that! Blaze took off jogging. And not the hell for fun, people, either. Morn dogged their heels, running close enough to trip them. You can't go up there. Dante didn't look back. Our upward progress suggests otherwise. Pedantically speaking, you can move up this hill, but don't say I didn't warn you when they throw you back down it, because that is what I am doing right now. They caught the two clan chieftains before they were halfway up the switchback. V gazed at Morn with distilled reproach, her orange eyes withering him. Orlin coughed into his hand and then considered the contents of his palm as if they contained a half-ruined map. No, he said. No what? Dante said. Further. Why on earth not? Because you are human, and this is Norrin business for Norrin ears. At first he thought this was a strange joke. In contrast to every other part of them, the ears of Norrin were bewilderingly small, coin-shaped, and often lost beneath their tangled hair. But Orlin and V were staring at him with the gravity of a prince's funeral. I'm aware of your tradition, he tried, but given how many lives may be at stake, I think an exception— V shifted forward. The next step you take up this hill will be your last with the clan. She drew her brows together. That sounded more ominous than I meant. I didn't mean we'd throw you down the hill, just that you'd no longer be permitted to travel with us. This is stupid, Blaze said, but apparently had nothing more convincing than that. Considering the affair settled, the two Norrin chieftains turned and continued uphill. Morn folded his arms. See how futile that was. So what now? Sit around and wait to be told what's next? No, Morn said. You don't have to sit. But Dante was tired from yet another day of relentless walking, so sitting beside his tent in the field was exactly what he did. At least until he nodded off. At which point he slumped around, waiting for word from above. News arrived after nightfall, when Blaze shoved him all the way over, jarring him awake. Orlin and V had returned from the hill. He rousted himself, knees popping, and headed to the shoreline. Boar roasted over a fire pit, smogging the air with rich, crackling meat. At the water, bulky silhouettes cast nets fringed with small rock weights. The two chieftains sat on their heels by the fire gnawing pork, wiping their greasy faces with their sleeves. Dante sat across from them. Did you find anything out? Yes. Orlan thought for a moment. 
that the mayor had nothing to say on the matter. But I thought he'd seen them. V wiped the back of her hand across her mouth. He said the slavers didn't pass through here after all, which doesn't tell us nothing. It tells us the slavers didn't pass through here. Frustration welled in Dante's throat. I thought Joseph and Joe told you to come here for answers. He did. And here we are, Orlin said, which is closer than we were before. V raised her right fist and held it to a coin-sized ear. Where we'll wait to hear from Joseph and Joe again. Dante nodded, too wound up to speak. Blaze gestured downriver. Dante followed him along the pebbly shore, where the smell of wet moss and faint fish carried on the river's gentle waves. Morn walked some ways behind. When they paused, the Norrin did too, crouching beside the water and pretending to investigate the rocks. He pursued Dante and Blaze all the way to the other side of the piers where the town ceased and the waterfront woods resumed. Dante stopped there, gazing out across the wide black river. I'm beginning to think they should be enslaved. Is this because they live longer? Blaze stooped. He picked up a pebble and slung it over the flat water. It sunk without a single skip. They think they can just wait around for a god to billow orders from the clouds? Dante stared at the steep hill beyond the plaza. Skeins of smoke curled from its crown, venting the hearths of the homes in its side. Does encamping their warrior band in the middle of town strike you as unusually aggressive? The kind of thing you'd do when you wanted to provoke answers from someone who doesn't want to give them? Exactly. Maybe. Blaze skipped another stone. Can you really see them turning on each other? I don't know. The Noran aren't exactly a unified people. But they've hardly been clawing at each other's throats the last few years. Dante glanced upstream, where Morn was kneeling, but on his heels, and staring out over the water. Still, if waiting around is their only goal, there is plenty of non-town space for them to occupy instead. So? Let's go feel the mare out for ourselves. What about our shadow? Blaze knew better than to glance at Morn. Point your finger at him and make him fall down. That isn't how it works. Yes, it is. All right, that's basically how it works. It was, in the scheme of things, a simple task, with no need for theatrics or even any blood to feed the nether, Dante squinted at the mossy rocks, the waves slurping through them, the nether pooled in his hand like the shadow of quicksilver. For Blaze's benefit, he pointed at Morn as one would point out a thief. The kneeling Norrin leaned forward like a toppling tree, spilling face first into the grass. Wait, do you even know where the mayor's house is? Of course. When somebody tells me I can't come with them, the first thing I do is watch where they go. They headed back for the plaza. Light and laughter poured from the windows of the public houses. 
A longboat had pulled in during their walk along the shore, its crew beelining for the likeliest source of liquor. It provided more than enough cover for any noise Dante made skirting the square. Was he being paranoid? Orlin and V wouldn't let them up to see the mayor themselves. They'd assigned Moorn to follow Dante and Blaze wherever they went, presumably as much to keep tabs on them as to ensure their own safety. But why let the pair of humans come along at all if the Norrin chiefs didn't consider their presence useful? As usual, when dealing with the Norrin approach to outsiders, Dante felt like he'd nodded off in the middle of a carriage ride and been dropped off in strange streets with no idea which way was north. He started up the switchback at a swift but unremarkable pace. Cave houses sat in the rocky face of the hill, doors cut to fill the irregular contours of the cave's natural mouths. Torch sconces projected from each side of the doors, some lit, illuminating the path ahead, and the family names painted in gorgeous runes above the entries. They climbed until Dante was panting and Kling lay below them in the haze of the river mist. Torches flickered around the salmon mosaic in the central plaza. Just ahead, Blaze nodded to a cave door, little different from the dozens below it or the handful above. It wasn't that late, perhaps an hour past supper time, but Dante was suddenly aware of the questionable etiquette of barging in on a city official under dark of night. Blaze promptly resolved this dilemma by planting himself in front of the cherrywood door and knocking like the hand of death himself. Faced with the sudden prospect of confronting the mayor, Dante wished he could run right back down the hill instead. Positions of leadership in the Norrin territories were filled through a process that baffled human commoners and horrified the nobles. In contrast to the process of power accumulation typical to human government, birthright, nepotism, wealth, and well-paid armed killers, Norrin men and women were promoted to chieftaincies, mayordoms, and regional stewardships based solely on the public perception of and appreciation for their opinions. Not their political opinions, either. Nobody cared what a man had to say about taxes or trade or the distribution of the commons— or anyway, if they did care, it wasn't over the political positions themselves, but rather for the theophilosophical reasoning that had led the leader in question to take those positions in the first place. Most of the time, it was even more abstract than that. Say a young woman appeared to live a noble, upright life among her clan. She also had bright, wise things to say about the Holy Scrolls and the right way to lead a well-lived life— and her deeds matched her words. These things would be noticed by her clansmen. Tucked away, and if a crisis struck, if the current chief died or went mad or had a philosophical revelation indistinguishable from madness, that bright, noble young woman might find herself elevated to the chieftaincy in the blink of an eye. How the public reached these decisions as to whose integrity was greatest and whose position was most convincing was as nebulous as it was sudden. Sometimes there was no open discussion at all, yet with less warning than a flash flood, a formerly beloved clan chief wound up replaced. Most perplexing of all, most leaders welcomed being replaced. To the Norrin, leadership was a burden— 
a leaden net of unwanted responsibilities, judgments, arbitrations, and bureaucratic wheel-spinning that left them precious little time to pursue the highest virtues—arts, craftsmanship, and tribal warfare. Meanwhile, the few Noran who desired political office were typically those who lacked the brains to ever be granted it. Many of the most thoughtful spoke little at all— preferring to be thought of as mentally crippled rather than exposing the wisdom of their philosophies and thus putting them at risk of a sudden promotion to power. And the more cunning leaders, upon discovering firsthand how unpleasant the demands of the crown, scepter, or wolf's head could be, took to deliberately espousing theories of life and scripture that were flawed, flagrantly heretic, or outright nonsense hoping to have the mantle snatched from their shoulders and draped over those of some other sucker. Often the public saw through these deceptions and played along anyway, in a stubborn effort to call the chieftain's bluff. The result was twofold. The policies of clans, villages, and territories could suddenly become bizarre or outright self-destructive, leading to regular turnover at the top and a widespread degree of low-level chaos that the regimented politics of the capital in Setevan found laughably easy to exploit, and which Dante found maddening to try to keep up with. And in the rare cases when a mayor or chief stuck fast to his or her position for years or decades, their realm might be stable, but the leaders themselves were often resentful and bitter of their responsibilities, sometimes poisonously so. The man who opened the door was one of the latter. Old even by Noran standards, grey coloured the mayor's head, brows, and beard. He was lean, like jerky as lean, but had lost none of his seven foot six inches height to old age, or in any event had plenty to spare. As he towered two full feet above, Dante suddenly understood how it felt to be a dog that's just been discovered snatching up the roast. Are you the mayor? Blay said. Are you knocking on the mayor's door without knowing who the mayor is? We're friends, Dante put in quickly. Doubt that. Don't often feel like taking a hammer to the heads of my friends. We're here to help. A clan of Noran was taken as slaves, and now they're gone, and the rest of us still got to look out for ourselves. The old Noran lowered his face inches from Dante's, filling him with the same vertigo that might come from being stared down by a mountain peak. Unless you're looking to become a part of my doorstep, get off it. Blaze stood his ground. If you change your mind, we'll be sleeping on your town's lawn. Something shifted in the old man's eyes. He closed the door hard enough to make Dante blink. Laughter trickled up from the plaza far below. He's got my vote, Blaze said. He's hiding something. Tall as he is, he could be hiding a pike up his ass and you'd never be the wiser. That would explain the general tightness of his character. Dante kicked a pebble down the trail. It bounced awry, bouncing over the edge and clattering on the stone incline below. He knows something. That's why the clan came here. That's what he meant about looking after themselves now. Sounded like typical Noran fatalism to me. I think he thinks talking would put him in danger. 
maybe pose a risk to the whole town. If so, how do we make him talk? I predict he's impervious to threats. Physical ones. A smile began to spread on Blazer's face. Bribery? Blackmail? We don't even know the guy's name. Then it's a good thing we have absolutely nothing better to do than plot and scheme to ruin his life. I'm sure you're aware that tradition and logic dictate the best place to scheme is in a pub. My thoughts exactly. Wait, really? Dante nodded downhill. The lanterns of the public houses flickered over the sprawling stone mosaic. If there is one thing you can always find in a pub, it's people willing to badmouth public officials. We'll have to be careful not to draw suspicion. I'll disguise myself by getting drunk. No less than three public houses stood in the square. Dante chose the loudest, a two-story structure with a ground floor of clamshell-studded clay bricks that must have been fired from river mud. Its upper level was unpainted pine boards. That and a visible slant to many of its windows marked the second story as a later and somewhat hasty addition. An old man poked at meat grilling over the fireplace. Scents of fish oil, beer, and sweat miasmed the wide room. Though few humans peopled the Norrin lands, the pub's patrons, like those of any decent port, were a diverse bunch, evenly split between human and Norrin. The furniture didn't reflect this democratic spirit. Human legs dangled from chairs built for much larger bodies. Blaze ordered while Dante found a promising seat at the end of a long table just high enough to make resting his elbows on it entirely awkward. The wooden bench was worn shiny and smooth from the butts of countless travelers. His pint was pleasantly bitter and just as cold as the wintry air outside. Blaze bought a platter of steaming, flaky whitefish, nearly doubling the price with a side of extra salt. Dante had expected the dozen-odd Norrin and humans at the table to begin criticizing, insulting, and slandering the mayor at a moment's notice. From their supple leather coats, they were native to the territories, if not Kling itself. But three pints and an hour later, he had nothing to show for himself but a decent buzz. Blaze seemed happy enough, chatting away with a shaven-headed Norrin about various flavors of Norrin beer, a topic which, given the hundreds of varieties of Norrin wheat, they approached the cultivation of their staple crop with the same rigor and vigor they brought to their art, could fill a solid month of discussion, and Blaze gave every indication of doing just that. Excuse me, Dante finally said to the gray-bearded Norrin to his right. Can you tell me who's mayor here? The man didn't look up from the chipped clay mug he'd been staring at the last five minutes. Why do you ask? With a drunk's skill for plucking up lies as easily as fallen scarves, Dante said, I'm looking to do some shipping here. You're not from here. It's obvious as a sunrise. So let me spare you the speeches about Mayor Banning and say this. He's great. You couldn't ask for a better leader. Honest, forthright, a man who looks out for his town. 
I see. Put him in charge, what, forty years ago? Stoics of Barnassus. After he wrote that, they tried to put him in charge of the whole territory, but Kling wanted him too, hometown and all. Fought themselves a little war about it. Kling's victory inspired him to write, The posture of virtue is not kneeling. I've read that, Dante said. He argues that taking a stand against a stronger foe guarantees the eternal blessings of both Hopped and Jolson Joe. Very spirited. The Norrin eyed him, drawing back in the universal gesture of reappraisal. Should try to take a look at his paintings if you get the chance. Landscapes so real you could tip them back and pour their rivers right into your mouth. Really? Where can I find them? Not his workshop, that's for sure, the old man laughed. He keeps that lockdown tighter than the princess's panties. Couldn't even tell you where it is. He gulped his beer. Can't blame him either. He'd never get one stroke down with a crowd of gogglers pressing in over his shoulders. Over the course of the night, Dante struck up conversations with the pub keep, another Norrin local, and a trio of human bargemen who made regular call at Kling. On the starlit walk back to the tent, he detoured back to the river shore. They all said the same thing. A man whose integrity and talent is matched only by his prolificness. He spat beery aftertaste into the slow-moving waters. I hope you came up with something more helpful. Oh, Blaze said. He reached down for a stone and wobbled, slapping both palms into the muck to steady himself. That. That. I sort of forgot why we were there. He attempted to wash his hands in the river and fell down again, soaking his pants. I think I need to go to sleep. Dante sighed and headed to the tent, where Blaze proved himself right by collapsing into his blanket, where he stayed until well past noon. The clan was similarly indolent, fishing, napping, sketching circles in the mud, where they lit candles and knelt to pray to Josen Joe for direction. Dante, turning to more earthly forms of action, decided to follow the mayor. Technically speaking, he wasn't following Mayor Banning. A dead fly was, but Dante had killed it. Three, actually, but the first two were too mangled to use, revived it of a sort, and sent it after Banning the moment the mayor lumbered from his cliffside home. Seeing through the fly's eyes was so nauseating, Dante puked his guts up all over the shoreline reeds, where a hungover blaze had had the same idea. Unlike the sights and sounds he received from dead animals, which were essentially the same as, if sometimes sharper than, his own, the senses relayed from the fly were kaleidoscopic and chaotic, a fractured fisheye view of the world that careered into stomach-stirring anarchy the moment the insect took wing. 
The only way Dante could keep up was to lie down in the darkness of the yurt with his eyes closed and a cloth over his face, a posture which Blaze imitated after just a few minutes of trying to battle the shimmering sunlight mirrored on the blue waters. Through the fly's manifold eyes, he watched Banning take meetings with merchants, have lunch with his wife, have more meetings with merchants, followed by a meeting with a mayor from Dan River, and finally with another pair of merchants, whom he spoke with over dinner and wine, before retiring home to read scriptural scrolls in the candlelight. The next day, during negotiations with a landlord from upriver over the prospect of floating his timber through Kling, Banning rose and smashed the fly into a gooey blot. Dante's second sight disappeared with a pinprick of pain in the center of his brain. Citing exhaustion, he sent Blaze to catch him a new fly, which he had back in action by mid-afternoon, just in time to watch things conclude with the would-be timber baron whose proposal was denied on the grounds it might interfere with local fishermen. For three days, Banning did nothing but rise, meet, eat, and read. On the fourth day, rather than descending the switch back to his offices on the short hill on the north end of town, the towering Norrin climbed to the very top of the rise in which his house was set and continued west into the woods. He wandered along as if aimless, gazing at sunbeams, kneeling to brush leaves from stones. After a few hours, during which Dante nodded off more than once, Banning trudged to a fold in the hills where a small, simple cabin hid among the thick trees. The mayor knocked on the door. A young Norrin appeared, smiling, and handed Banning a wide, flat object bundled in cloth. Paint smeared his hairy arms. Dante opened his eyes and went to get Blaze. He doesn't paint his own paintings, he explained. He doesn't have time. He's so busy running the town's affairs that he has some kid do it for him, then picks them up when they're done. So what? Blaze picked pulled chicken from his teeth, still traumatized from their days-long march of crusty bread, He'd made it his mission to try the fare of every stall, inn, and bakery in town. Every master in Bressel does that. We're a thousand miles from Bressel. To the Norren, the things you make are a reflection of your soul. That's why it's such a big deal. Passing off someone else's work as your own is like plagiarizing the cycle of Oron. A great way to get lynched by humorless scolds? And to get him to talk. Now, he's miles from town. We can catch him on the way back. What about him? Blaze nodded at Morn, who idled at the bakery across the plaza, crumbling bread into his mouth. Out of shame or confusion, the young Norrin hadn't mentioned suddenly falling asleep the other night, but he hadn't ceased following them either. Let him follow. If Banning tries to kill us, we'll have a witness. Blaze went back to the tent for his swords. While he was gone, Dante sat down and closed his eyes. Banning was still in the woods to the north, traipsing clingward with the help of a tall staff, a package tucked gently under his other arm. Dante didn't bother fetching his own sword. He doubted Banning would attack them outright, whether in feigned outrage to their accusation or to stop them from telling others. But if Dante was wrong 
and given how seriously the Norrin took these things, there was always a chance. His middling swordplay wouldn't be much use against the towering mare. They puffed their way up the switchback road, then followed the dirt trail traced across the hill's flat crest. Morn lagged a hundred feet behind, but once the trail gave out and the two of them cut across the high brown grasses of the open field, the young Norrin jogged to catch up, his face dark with annoyance at being forced to run after his troublesome human charges. Where are you going? Morn said when he reached their side. Our daily stroll across the middle of nowhere, Blaze said. You're not supposed to leave town. And my mother didn't want me to grow up a swordsman like my dad either. But that didn't stop me from disgracing her dearly departed memory. Turn around and get back to your tent. Dante scowled over his shoulder. If you'd like to try to stop us, please let me know where to send your remains. Now go back to town and beseech Joseph and Joe to tell you what to do next. It's worked great so far. Joseph and Joe's words are real. Morn's voice sounded so hurt, Dante almost stopped. You've heard him? Not me, personally. V and Orland do most of the talking. Then how do you know they're not making it all up? Some summers ago, the clan headed to the highlands to wait out the heat. The peaks are high and jagged there, ready to tear open the belly of any stupid and lazy clouds who get too low. But it was dry there, too, because sometimes the gods hate us. And who can blame them, when every smart lad in the land is ready to denounce their very existence? Morn waited a moment before going on. We were gathering gen nuts when Orlin went stock still. Joseph and Joe had spoken to him, he said. There was a fire past the western ridge. We needed to move. We traveled east. Within an hour, the fire jumped over the ridge and swept over the valley where we'd been earlier that morning. Maybe we'd have had enough time to get away, but we were on foot like always, and fire can outrun any man when it's hungry enough. Orlin probably smelled smoke, Dante said. When Joseph and Joe spoke to him, the wind was blowing westward. So he saw the smoke? Fire has a unique property of being visible. Morn trumped through the weeds in silence. At least tell me where you're going. Blaze touched the pommel of the sword at his hip. Oh, just to kick the mare until the stars wearing around his head show him the sign to tell us where the hell your cousins are. I think V hates me, Morn declared. Why else would she assign me to you two? Maybe she hates us. It's a stupid thing, really. You're running off to God's nowhere, and what am I supposed to do to stop you? Attack you? I don't think any good will come of that, except for the local worms. So I'm supposed to run off and tell Mommy and Daddy like a spited toddler. Morn shook his head at the state of things. You know what? To hell with them. If they want to guard you, they can guard you themselves. We're beating up the mayor. Let's go beat up the mayor.
the hill sloped down into a low forest of birches and young pines. Star-shaped yellow flowers dotted the roots of the trees. Dante shut his eyes to glance through the flies and tripped into a pile of pine needles. Smelling sap, he kept his eyes shut. Are you okay? Morn said. I think he's dead. I'm not dead. In the fly's fractured vision, dozens of bannings hiked up the side of a hillside more or less identical to their own. He ordered the fly up, stomach lurching. He managed to prevent himself from puking until the bug had located them among the trees, confirming the mare was no more than half a mile away. When Dante was finished, he kicked pine needles over the hot, sour mess, gargled with cool water, and gestured down the hill. Stop staring at me and start looking for our man. They need hardly have bothered. Within a minute, Banning began singing to himself, an eerie, droning tune that carried down the hillside like the honking of morbid geese. When Dante stepped in his path, the spire-tall Norrin stopped less than a foot away. Dante tensed, preparing to fling himself out of the way. I know you. Banning's face darkened. Just because the cliff isn't here doesn't mean I won't throw you down it. You should at least hear what I'm about to say, Dante said. Then some people might even not blame you for what you've done. Talk sense or talk less. That package under your arm, is your name on it? Banning didn't glance down. It's the last stroke I made. Typical of most artists, I imagine. Except, apparently, the man who actually paints yours. The mayor's gaze was as still and deep as a lake. Pick up a weapon. Dante cocked his head. What? So I don't have to say I killed an unarmed man. Sudden anger rippled through Dante's veins. With it came the nether, great pools he gathered in his hands. With a thought, he shaped them into shadowy ropes which looped around the tree branches and clawed at Banning's rugged face. The air dimmed like an instant sunset. Dante gave form to the nether for those who couldn't see it, viscous, liquid shadows that dripped from his hands like reluctant blood. I could have threatened you with violence, he said softly, but I could tell at a glance it wouldn't work and I've had to either back down or hurt you, which I don't much like to do. But if you don't answer my questions about the missing Norrin, I will tell the city where your masterpieces really come from. You'll be exiled from Kling to die as an old man in a place you do not know. Anger flowed over Banning's face, followed by a quiver of fear that was clearly visible beneath his thatchy beard. If someone were to have up and enslaved a clan, you think their fellow Norrin would be happy to point those people out? Unless? Unless saying such would threaten the ones that they hold dear. I see. Maybe even an entire town. Dante let the taut branches relax. The shadows faded from his hands. Then I'll put myself on the line, too. I'm from Narashtovic. I'm the agent of Kalimandicus, highest priest of Aron. 
I'm here to help. Narashtavikas part of Gask like anywhere else. And if the capital finds out we're here, we'll be invaded the minute they're finished with you. Banning slung the wrapped painting onto the forest floor. Tell them anything you like. I don't give a damn about my reputation. I don't know who took your people or who they sold them to. He stepped on the package, the wooden frame cracked beneath its weight. But I do know who took them down river. Who? You give me your word. Dante nodded. No one will know who told me. The old man grinned, a savage thing that bristled his beard like a wall of thorns. Oh, I want the ones who did it to know. What I want you to promise is you'll scream my name before you kill every last one of them. Chapter 3 Haggling for the barge drained Dante's patience as hard as the days-long process of watching Banning's meetings. Before he could even begin to bargain with the captain, Dante first had to convince Orlin and V that hiring a boat was necessary to begin with, a requirement that seemed self-evident to him. When your quarry is river pirates, you won't have much luck hunting them down on foot— but which took the better part of the night to hash out. By the next morning's walk to the docks, he was ready to give up on talking and try hitting instead. River Pirates It was simple enough that Dante considered it a major blow to Joseph Joe's credibility that the mercurial god hadn't passed that info along directly rather than shooing them in the vague direction of a recalcitrant old man— but once Banning had been ready to speak, he'd spoken like he might never have the chance to speak again. The slave ship had docked in Kling just over a month ago. The dockhands had seen the eyes glittering from the darkness below decks. There'd been talk in town, when the pirates debarked, of slaughtering them then and there, but none of the captives were known to be family of anyone in Kling and it had been pointed out that these weren't just a slapdash rowboat of common pirates, but the Bloody Knuckles, a multivessel armada headed by the three-decked galley, the Ransom. The last village to threaten the Bloody Knuckles had been so thoroughly robbed, raped, murdered, and torched that six years later the only remnant of the settlement were the cinders of its dead and the nightmares of their relatives. And so, a conspiracy of silence had been enacted by the town of Kling, or those few who knew about the slaves, anyway, a short list including the dockside witnesses, Banning, and a handful of the port's elders and most highly feared warriors, which Banning didn't break, until witnessing Dante summon the nether from the forest floor. In that moment, he decided the clan of the Nine Pines and its two human allies had a real chance to wipe out the bloody knuckles in a single blow. If only Dante could afford a boat. In theory, he had access to the full treasury of the sealed citadel of Narashtavik. The city had grown substantially in the last few years, propelled by Cali's new policies and the refugees from the war with Malin, who, finding abandoned homes available for the taking and the city's outer rings, had flocked by the thousands to the foreign city, 
bringing new businesses, trade routes, and labor in equal measure. Despite Cali's covert funding of the operations in the Norin territories, the city was rich by any objective measure. In practice, Dante couldn't just sign his name to a receipt of credit for the same reason a traitor can't stroll into the palace with a smile and a wave. Strictly speaking, he was a traitor. To Gask, anyway. He had plenty of silver cashed in their base of Norrin operations in Dunran, but that was 150 miles overland in the wrong direction, and even on the horses he couldn't afford, making that trip would set them back at least a week on a venture that was already weeks behind. He and Blaze had enough on their person to buy decent lodging and board for a couple of weeks apiece, but that was hardly enough to rent a boat and its crew for a journey of two hundred miles or more, with a passenger manifesto of some thirty armed warriors. The clan, meanwhile, had essentially nothing, with the exception of an armory of immaculately forged swords, which were priceless in the very real sense they refused to sell them. In the end, Dante had to resort to requesting credit from Banning, who agreed readily, going so far as to refuse all offers of repayment, be they sooner, wealth recouped from the pirates, or later, the weeks it would require to get word to Cali and hard funds. By the time all this was arranged, the crew of the Boomer was already drunk, and Captain Varlin, a stout man whose barrel-shaped body looked like it could serve as a ship of its own if properly hollowed, showed unusual concern in insisting they not shove off until the crew slept off their rum, wine, and beer. Dante boiled with the specific annoyance of a delayed journey. To occupy his mind, he practiced with the nether inside the yurt, forming images of blaze falling off a variety of cliffs, treetops, and towers. Morn woke him shortly after dawn, and they tramped down the pier to the boomer, a nondescript grain barge with a flat bottom and a single deck, below which spilled wheat was lodged into every corner and cranny. The clan, evidently confused by the concept of boats, set about erecting their tents below decks while Captain Varlin shouted the vessel into open water. A solid sheet of grey clouds tarped the sky. A low wind rippled the sails, chilling Dante at the side railing, where he watched them depart from Kling. On the receding docks, men lugged bales and barrels from and into waiting ships. The steep hill rose behind town, pocked with doors, slashed from top to bottom with the zigs and zags of its seamless, perfect road. Varlin nudged the barge to the middle of the river, clearing them from the port town's miasma of river muck and feces. Kling disappeared behind a bend. Dante had always wanted to take an extended trip via water, but he was soon glad he hadn't. In a word, it was boring. In another word, it was repetitive, a slow scrolling vista of shoreline trees, short hills, and sudden cliffs with rocky piles collected at their bottom. Shacks dotted the banks every mile or three. Every few hours the current pushed the boomer past a Norin village, their high conical roofs designed to keep the snow off, jabbed from the shores like pins in a knitter's cushion. For two days, this was all Dante saw, 
and though he wasn't one to bore easily, the trip was doing its best. His condition wasn't helped in the slightest by the clan warriors, who continued to treat him and Blaze like off-duty farm dogs, fed occasionally, otherwise ignored, despite the fact that, if not for them, the clan would still be sitting on a muddy bank waiting for their one-eyed god to stop chasing female mortals long enough to clue them in about where to go next. When he'd brought up that very point, Orlin had brushed it off. Josen Joe had sent them to the right place, he said, but left it up to them to find what they'd come for. The exception was Morn, who now spoke to them regularly, readily answered questions, and generally showed all the signs of having abandoned his task of minding the two humans. Possibly because they were trapped on a boat, where the only opportunities to sneak off into trouble involved getting very wet. Still, Dante thought Morn's shift in priorities was genuine. Somebody do something already, Blaze said from his seat on an out-of-the-way portion of the deck. I'm so bored I'm about to start counting my own fingers. You have ten, Morn said. Don't be so sure. I've been drumming this deck so hard I might have worn some of them down to the nub. You could try watching for pirates, Dante said. Oh, look! There aren't any. Try napping, you're cranky enough. Blaze pounded his fists on the deck. But I don't want a nap! Dante laughed. We could... tell stories. That actually doesn't sound horrible. He glanced up at the overcast sky, whose threats of rain had gotten as tedious as the scenery. What about this quaking bow? It would be very nice to have some idea exactly why we're sailing after a band of professional murderers on this terribly fearsome wheat bucket. The quivering bow. I don't care what it's called. I care about a graphic recounting of all the things it's destroyed. Dante gazed at a grey granite cliff, its face striated with white. I'm not sure I know any true stories. Some legends, perhaps. I don't care if it's true or false. All I want to hear is how a bow convinces a castle to blow up. Moorn lowered himself from the barge railing to sit on his heels. Tell him about how the quivering bow got made. Dante shrugged. I don't know how the quivering bow was made. Everyone knows how the quivering bow got made. I didn't grow up in Gaskmoorn. I hadn't even heard about the quivering bow until a year ago. Then I'll tell him how it was made. And you. Wouldn't do at all for you to have the thing, and not have any idea what went into making it. Is that a human thing, rushing off to use things up without caring where they came from? I think it's a blaze thing. Dante said. Blaze pressed his palm against his forehead. Right, now the Blaze thing is praying you both die if you don't get on with it. You should pray for yourself to die, Morn said. Then you'd get to do something really interesting. He cleared his throat and frowned down at his hands, which he'd placed palms down on the hard wood deck. I'll take a wild guess that you haven't heard of Corwell, either.
thought not. He's only the half-son of Margon, brother of Josin Joe himself. The first thing I would ask is why Corwell is half-mortal. But then again, I wouldn't need to ask because I actually have an education. Blaze rolled his hand through the air. Get on with it before your education and your body that holds it find themselves at the bottom of the river. Margun had a thing for Norrin women. The bigger the better. I think this is because he was a small god. Small like you, I mean. This meant he had nimble fingers and was very good at making clocks and flutes, and in picking the locks of sleeping Norrin women, which he did. A year later, Corwell was born. Corwell, being half-mortal, wasn't allowed in the heavens. Kind of for the same reasons you're not allowed to speak to Orlin, really. Instead, he grew up among the Norrin, where he used his Norrin strength and divine quickness to become an archer so fine he could shoot out a hawk's eye from so far away the hawk couldn't see him. This won the heart of Velia, a woman everyone agreed was the most beautiful Norrin born in seven generations. They married. They were happy. But Margon wasn't, because Corwell had gotten to Velia before he could. So he crept into their house one night and stole her, which, can I pause for a moment, that's not really acceptable in any form. A dad's supposed to be an example for his sons. I don't think anyone wants their sons to grow up to be a kidnapping rapist. Maybe he just wanted to keep the family business alive, Dante said. I would guess he was just selfish, but to each his own. Naturally, Corwell found it as despicable as I do, but couldn't do anything about it because Margon lived in a tower of solid iron with a top so high it was lost in the clouds, and the tower itself stood on a mountain so high it makes you too dizzy to stand. Corwell only made it up because he was half-god, but as much as he pounded on the tower's walls, he couldn't leave a scratch. It just gonged like a giant bell resounding through the clouds, which was probably a good thing, because when Corwell, in his completely relatable despair, flung himself from the mountain, his uncle, Josin Joe, had already been drawn there by the bell, and was able to catch him. Josin Joe offered to help, because, unlike Corwell's own father, he is a man of principles and upright character. Plucking a seedling from the base of the white tree, he bent it into a bow, stripping its leaves. This was a fairly normal tree, unlike its hideous progenitor, to be tied into a fan. He gave these to his nephew, and told him the tower's outer wall was invincible, but that it was just a shell around a very normal stone structure. If Corwell could fire an arrow through the single window just below the tower's peak, he could strike the inner stone, sending the whole thing crumbling down. So Corwell went back to the Iron Tower and called to his father, Margon, who didn't even bother to come out and explain himself, which again shows you what kind of man he was. 
Corwell waved the fan, blowing away the clouds. He drew back his mighty bow and sighted in on the window, which was just a black speck so tiny you couldn't even see it, let alone shoot an arrow through it. In fact, it was so far away, it took a full minute after he released his arrow for it to fly right through the distant window. Once more, the tower rung like a bell. Its note was so strong it knocked the birds from the sky. Half the mountain slid into the sea, which probably killed a lot of people if anyone lived on the nearby islands. And the tower itself crumbled, dashing down in a hellstorm of thudding stone and screaming iron. Horrified that everyone in it was dead, Corwell waved his fan, flushing the dust out to sea, and found Velia alive under the broken body of his father. Morn frowned again at the backs of his hands. Which sounds like a happy ending, except when you think about it, Corwell killed his own dad, and Velia was abducted and ravished by her husband's father, which he couldn't have been too happy about either. But that's how Corwell got the quivering bow, and at least nobody ever bothered him or his family again. Neat, Blaze said. No one will want to mess with us then, either. Now do you see why we're after it? Dante said. Sure. Sounds like we'd be invincible. So why not go after the Hammer of Tame while we're at it, or find a way to catapult the sun straight into Setevan? Origin stories are always exaggerated. If you don't buy Morns, I know when I think actually happened. I wasn't just making that up, Morn said. All I'm saying is, these are things we believe in, you know. I don't know where you're from that you don't even pretend to take them seriously. But it must be a rude place, many shoving-related deaths. Dante glared off at the cliffs drifting by at the speed of the current. I don't know what's true and what isn't. If the bow's real, then maybe Corwell's story is too, along with the one I've heard. It's about a Norrin named Wenworth, who only died about fifty years ago, so Wenworth the Mole died fifty-six years ago. It's at least reasonably trustworthy. In short, Wenworth was a Norrin warrior exiled from his clan after his younger brother convinced them he'd burned down their ancestral shrine, but his brother stole some of the relics from the shrine and sealed them up in a stone tomb a tomb in which his treachery would soon cause him to be interred. It began from jealousy. Wenworth and his brother Bode were sons of the chieftain, and Wenworth, as the elder, was naturally in place to— All hands! Captain Varlin bellowed from the barge's aftercastle. All hands take arms! A sailor leapt on the mainmast, climbing hand over hand up the rigging. Others rushed for the ship's bow, or passed around spears stored in a closet on the face of the stern's castle. Dante rose and peered across the grey waters. Small waves smacked the hull. The men called back and forth, adjusting sails, swinging the boomer's starboard and angling it at the eastern shore. Norrin warriors swarmed up the ladder from below decks. Dante and Blaze exchanged a look, then jogged to the bow 
and up the steps of the aftercastle, where Varlin relayed orders to a bald, gnomish old man, who in turn barked them to the crew in a voice far larger than his wiry body would seem to allow. What's happening? Dante said to the barrel-chested captain. Someone's distracting me from my duties, the captain said. If you think you see pirates, we need to know. No pirates. That's good, Blaze said. Just the bodies they left behind. Varlin nodded across the river and resumed jabbering at the gnomish man. Upriver, near the far bank, something flat yet jagged floated a short distance from the shore, a plain interrupted by sudden snagging upthrusts of snapped wood. Is that a shipwreck? Blaze said. The captain nodded. Then what are we doing sailing away from it? Avoiding a trap. The burly man pointed to a steep rise, its top lightly wooded where the river curved downstream. Such as a man left ashore on yonder hill with a signal mirror, ready to flash the vessel hidden around the bend. So what? We've got to check it out. Anything worth taking's already been took by the ones that burnt their ship. Blaze rolled his eyes. To help the survivors. That isn't part of our mission, Dante said. Our mission is to help the people of these lands. When you're brought to a Ron's hill in the sky, don't you want to be able to point to a few good deeds to balance out all the killings? A Ron doesn't judge. Well, he should. And we should, too. Blaze turned to Varlin. Take us to the rack. That thing looks days old. The only comfort they'll need is a burial. The blocky man rubbed his stubble. Well, you're paying for this trip, but one whiff of anything fishy and we're shoving off. Cowardice isn't a free meal, Blaze said. It isn't something we should be lining up for. He turned on his heel, brushing shoulders with Orlan, who joined them on the aftercastle. Dante followed Blaze down the steps. The gnomish sailor roared out new orders. Men clambered the rigging, tacking the sails to swing the barge larboard. Blaze set up position on the bow, swords sheathed. Morn procured a bow and hastily strung it. As they neared the wreckage, Dante kept one eye downstream for enemy boats, but the waters were empty, gray as the clouds. The wreck, it turned out, wasn't drifting so much as lodged in the rocks and mud ten yards from the shore. Its hull stopped a few feet above the water, charred and broken. Submerged white sails flapped in the current like bleached seaweed. Wood creaked on rocks. Soot and rot rolled over the clammy, muddy smell of the river. Varlin anchored and set his crew to preparing the boomer's single life raft which had just enough room for Dante, Blaze, and two sailors manning the oars. Though the wreck was as silent as the clouds, Morn crouched over the boomer's rails, bow at the ready, joined by a dozen other warriors of the clan. Two crewmen dipped their paddles into the cold water and pushed the rowboat forward. The tiny vessel rolled on the waves, swells thudding hollowly against its wooden sides. The deck of the wreck angled from the waters. One of the rowers reached for the damp railing and guided the rowboat in. They tied off, 
startling a crowd of crows, who hopped further down the ship and resumed pecking at the blackened arm tangled in a wrist-thick rope. Dante crawled past the crewman, grabbed onto the railing, and eased onto the slant of the deck, boots slipping on the slick wood. He braced himself and gave Blaze a hand up. A few feet to the right, where the deck met the water, a pair of legs lay on dry wood. The man's upper body swayed in the water, shirt billowing around his bruised and pale skin. Dante crouched down, breathing through his nose. This does not look good. That's because it's a wreck, Blaze said. Anyway, it doesn't matter if they're all dead. The important thing was coming here to check. Well, look at you. I'm surprised you could coax that high horse into the middle of a river. Sorry to interrupt all the beatings, threats, and killings to help someone for a change. Down sails and charred, shattered wood blanketed the deck. Reddish-brown ovals stained the canvas. Blaze curled a rope around his forearm and used it to brace himself as he half-climbed, half-walked up the deck toward the stern, where an open hatch gaped into darkness. He leaned over its edge, wrinkled his nose. If smells can kill, I hope you're ready with my eulogy. He unwrapped the rope from his arm and slid it down the canted deck to Dante. I'd be honored. You are an overweight nun with a drinking problem, right? Dante coiled the rope around his arm and scrabbled up the creaking planks. At the hatch, the stink of fresh death churned his gut. Water lapped gently in the darkness. Still clinging to the rope, Dante rolled onto his back, rooted through his pack, and emerged with a dull, semi-opaque marble. He rubbed the torchstone between his palms, periodically blowing on it as if it were a colicky fire, until a strong, pale light bloomed from the stone. Dante leaned over the hatch rim and lowered the stone into the gloom. Ropes, broken casks, and shards of pottery scattered the planks some fifteen feet below. Bodies lay propped against pillars or crushed between barrels. His nose already acclimating to the sense of decay and exposed guts, Dante smelled old smoke, coppery blood, and the sharp, irritating tang of oil. From the darkness beyond the stone's reach, something stirred the broken jars. Dante jolted back from the hatch, scrabbling to catch himself on its edge before he slid down the deck. There's something down there. A cargo hold has cargo? This is a discovery right up there with fire. Something alive. Oh. Blaze gazed down at the opening, as if suddenly regretting the entire venture, then grabbed the rope, scooted toward the deck railing, and started knotting. This river just has fish in it, right? Nothing with tentacles. I feel like a large tentacled object will pretty much go wherever it pleases. Why do I always forget to bring a trident? Blaze tested his knot with a tug, then slung the rope's free end down the hatch. It struck the bottom with a damp thud. He gestured down the pit. Well, you've got the light. Dante frowned at the gloom. I could just hand it to you. Too much work. Get climbing. Dante scowled, 
clamped the stone between his teeth and grabbed hold of the rope. For all he'd seen and done, the fights, the battles, the deaths, he was still afraid of the dark. Not in a rational way, either. He was less scared of whatever was really down there than of all the things that couldn't be. The venomous monsters, the clawed horrors, the spider-faced giants that would lurch from the darkness the moment he turned his back. But this wasn't a fear he could voice to Blaze, so he lowered himself hand over hand into the damp, chill gloom. As the rope swung with his weight, Dante glanced frantically from corner to corner, splashing the hold with the stone's white light. It rushed over shattered wood, burst barrels, bubbly green glass. His boots touched the floor. He shuffled through the debris towards a chest-high crate that was gouged but intact, then hunkered down and pressed his back against it. I'm down, he called. Feet dangled through the hatch. Blaze leapt straight down, the rope threaded through his elbows, slowing him just enough to stave off injury when he thumped to the planks. The boat groaned, grinding on the rocks, broken glass jangling in the darkness. Blaze threw his arms out for balance, and the ship settled into a new angle of rest. Possibly not a great idea. Not unless you're trying to drown. In which case, please ask me first. Dante glanced up the sloping boat. At the grey limits of the torchstone's reach, a man lay face down beneath a mass of loose barrel staves and hoops. Other than Blaze's disturbance of the rubble, Dante hadn't heard anything since descending, besides the smack of waves against the hull. He crept across the floor and knelt beside the body. The man's wrist was cold as the river. Dante turned downslope. Beside him, Blaze eased through the ruins, pointing at a pair of legs jutting from a mound of broken crates and spilled white cloth. Dante stepped through the tacky, rusty stain around the body and crouched beside one foot. Tucking up its pant leg, the shin was white and cold. There was no need to check the third man for warmth or pulse. He slumped against the curved inner wall, head missing from the nose up. Dante moved past, smelling cold, stagnant water. The torch stone's white lights glimmered on the black pool that was the back half of the sunken boat. Broken boards and whole barrels floated there, circling in an unseen current. He suddenly felt very cold. Okay, Blaze said. I've seen enough. Dante stared into the black water. He thought he could see something moving there, a serpentine twilight shape that could only be seen in glimpses from the corner of his eye. A voice moaned from the darkness. Dante nearly dropped the stone. Blaze yelped. Remind me never to do anything good again. They found her curled tight under a shroud of sodden, dirty cloth. Dark-haired, a few years older, mid-twenties. Her bare arms were as ropey as the rigging, but her cheeks were sunken, her skin as pale as the sails swaying in the current. A bloody bandage held her left leg together. Go get help, Dante said. I'll see what I can do. Blaze's footsteps faded up the slope. Dante drew his knife across the back of his hand, 
The Nether reacted at once, restless in this borderland between air and water, light and dark, life and death. He took hold of the woman's wrist, which pulsed heat like a stove. Shadows flowed down his arms, sinking into her skin like rain into sand. She coughed so hard her shoulders lifted from the deck. He turned her head sideways to let her dribble phlegm onto the damp wood. He breathed slowly, drawing the nether from the black pool, from the shadows under casks and crates, from the bodies of the dead. The heat of her skin ebbed. He checked the wound on her leg. It was red as a rose, inflamed and oozing blood. A white shard of bone projected from her skin. For now, he left it, along with her pain, fighting her fever instead, her soul-deep chills the things that threatened to devour the final remnants of whatever spirit still clung to her bones. She hadn't awoken by the time the crewman from the boomer arrived, nor even when they built a stretcher, strapped her to it, and lifted her into the waning daylight of the top deck. The rowboat shepherded Dante and the woman back to the boomer, then turned around to pick up Blaze and the other hands who'd helped with the rescue. Dante settled her into a cabin on the aftercastle and summoned the ship's barber, who set her leg and cleansed the wound. That, at last, was enough to wake her. Dante called the shadows to soothe her pain. She collapsed into the sheets, sweating and unconscious. Back on the open deck, Blaze puffed his cheeks with a sigh. Think she'll live? Yes, in the sense that she hasn't died while we're talking. Past that, I give her even odds. Dante glanced at Captain Varlin, who stood with arms folded. We should question her next time she wakes up. She might be able to point us in the right direction. Varlin squinted his small black eyes against the sunset. Need to get away from the wreck. Night's coming. Meaning? Dante said meaning dead sailors become unruly jealous of those who aren't. Dante was too tired to argue. The boomer weighed anchor, steering for the river's middle. He sat watch over the woman, but quickly nodded off. An hour later, heavy knocking jolted him from his seat. Orlin shoved open the door before Dante crossed the tiny cabin. What's going on here? The chieftain demanded. Dante moved to block the massive man's entry. Since when was I allowed to speak to you? Since you ordered we stop. Are we currently standing hip-deep in dead pirates? That is when we stop. That woman is near death. Unless you'd like to beat her there, lower your God's damned voice and get out of this room. Orlin's scarred cheek twitched. He backed from the cabin, lowering his shaggy head to clear the doorframe. Dante followed him outdoors. The clouds had cleared, and stars reflected from the waters. I should know by morning whether she'll wake up, Dante said. If she does, she may know where the ransom's gone. Away, and we need to follow. What if we pass right by in the night, or worse, they run into us? The Norrin shook his head. Josin Joe has spoken to me. The ransom is more than a hundred miles downriver. 
Forgive me for preferring to get the facts from an actual witness. Joseph Joe is both actual and a witness. Every day we dawdle takes our cousins of the clan of the Green Lake another day away. Orlen closed his eyes and nodded. We sail on. We're not going anywhere. I'm the one who paid the captain. Orlin gave him a tight smile and started up the aftercastle stairs. Dante returned to the cabin. A few moments later, shouts rang up from above, followed by the angry thumps of a 350-pound Norrin descending the stairs. The woman woke before Dante did, rasping for water. He returned with a full mug. She gulped it down without stopping, then fell back among the bedclothes, gasping. Who are you? My name's Dante. What happened to your ship? Her sunken eyes dwindled further in their sockets. We were attacked. The war galley. The bloody knuckles. They wore red sashes over their hands. I thought it was strange. Bad for one's grip. He smiled. You're a fighter. She gazed down at her leg, where fresh bandages wrapped her compound fracture. I doubt that title can still be applied. We don't know that yet. Dante retrieved his small knife belt and placed it against the back of his left hand. She stared. He cleared his throat. This will look weird, but I promise you, you're a sorcerer. A netherman. He cocked his head. Would you like to see? She nodded. He leaned forward and neatly sliced the bandage from her leg. After a long breath, he cut a fresh line next to the scab on his hand, calling out to the nether. Her thigh was warm to the touch. He shut his mind to everything but the cold flow of shadows and the heat of her broken leg. Tendrils of nether disappeared beneath her skin, prodding, exploring. She hissed through her teeth. Linked to her leg, he could feel its raw edges, its jagged breaks, the mewling pulse of snarled flesh. As gently as he knew how, he guided the torn-up pieces to match the unbroken hole of her other leg. She arched back into the blankets, sweat popping across her skin. Beneath the red mess around her wound, bone met and hardened together like an icicle that's reached the bottom of the sill. Before the last of Dante's strength gave out, he pulled her punctured flesh together, meat and veins knitting into a thick, pink scar. He dropped, catching himself on his palms. The room smelled like blood and raw beef. For a while, there was no sound but their breathing and the rock of the waves against the boat. Don't you dare try to walk in it, he said eventually unless you want me to break the other one. What just happened? The resumption of your sword-slinging career. You can thank me by explaining who attacked you, what they wanted, and where they went when they were done. Her name was Lyra Condors. She was, to Dante's mild surprise, a mercenary, hired by the former Notus for guard duty. The attack, to the best of her knowledge, had come three days ago. The galley appeared in the night without warning, ramming their stern below the waterline, 
and backbeating its oars to disengage. The notice's captain tried to take them into shore, but arrows rained down on the decks. As sailors jumped overboard, arrows slashed into the black water around them. Lyra had gone below decks with a handful of survivors, where she hoped to make her stand and wade in pirate's blood. But the ship had been rammed again, and she was struck by a falling crate. She woke to smoke roiling down the hatches. Her leg was broken, the ship was sinking, and everyone else was dead. Unable to climb or even stand, Lyra clawed her way through the rubble to the water pooling at the back of the hold, where she wetted down sheets and used them to mask her mouth against the smoke swirling down from above. For hours she slept fitfully atop a crate, waking when fire and flooding plunged the ship's bow into the rocky river bottom. The flames went out. Below the hatch, she tried piling up crates into a makeshift staircase, but she was far too tired. She tried tying a thin rope to a knife and hooking it over the edge, but it never lodged deeply enough to hold her weight. Instead, she curled up in the cotton sheets in the dark and the cold, where she resolved to die. You saved my life, she finished. That makes it yours. Excellent. I could use another life or two. A vein stood out from her pale brow. I'm not kidding. I literally owe you my life. I'm pledging it to you in repayment. Dante frowned. Let's not go pledging anything while we're still too dizzy to recite the alphabet. Are you saying my life isn't worth having? You don't know the first thing about why we're here. We could be sailing off to slaughter every baby in Gask. How would your life look then? Pretty baby killery, I'd wager. What are you doing here? He looked away. Hunting down those pirates. Probably to kill them all. She laughed, a throaty thing that transitioned quickly to a cough. I'm not going anywhere. And not just because my leg would rebel and declare its independence from my body. Dante set all this aside and pushed on to whether Lyra had an estimate for the Bloody Knuckles' numbers. Roughly forty armsmen, but certainly additional oarmen, too, though they were quite possibly slaves. Whether the ransom had any distinguishing characteristics. Unusually large for a riverboat, with a figurehead composed of two massive horns or tusks. And whether her ship had any warning at all as it approached. No, it was as if the night had disgorged it whole. With that, he nodded, patting her unhurt leg. Thank you. This could be a tremendous help. Do you really mean to destroy them? Dante smiled. You should see what we have downstairs. Blaze waited outside the cabin, peering through the doorway as Dante exited. She's awake and overflowing with useful intelligence about the bloody knuckles. He gazed about the crisp, cold morning, searching for the captain. I think they carry a sorcerer with them. Oh? Did she relate stories about a perversely morbid youth with a handsome, dashing friend? The ransom sounds sneakier than the malish pox. Maybe it's got an expert crew, and maybe they have someone who can make a whole ship disappear. After relaying Lyra's info, 
It required little work to convince Farland to double the night watch. Even so, Dante napped through the day, rising at the red clouds and shadowy cliffs of dusk to sit in the prow. He asked Blaze to join his night watch. With no discussion whatsoever, Morn joined them too, providing blankets and black tea to buttress them against the cold night winds. Acts which brought Dante's favor, well enough not to tell the Norrin he was completely unnecessary. Not that the whole business was anything but a hunch. But the river was wide enough, and the boomer's crew knowledgeable enough of it, to sail all night, cleaving to the river's middle, sails stricken, propelled by the current. Dante stared every time a fire gleamed in the darkness, imagining lamps hanging from the prows of enemy galleys slinking through the night. But they turned out to be nothing but campfires, of course, travelers along the road that paralleled the river, or the lanterns of the villagers spotting the banks every few miles. The river tricked him, too. The wash of the waves was as regular as the stroke of oars, and for long stretches he strained his ears against the darkness, peering for glimpses of the ship that must be bearing down on them, its shiny ram plowing a foamy furrow through the waves. Tell me more about Joseph and Joe, he said to Morn one night as much to break himself from these paranoid visions of midnight fleets as to better understand the Norrin's relationship to their god. Does he speak to everyone? Morn glanced up from his papers. He was working on a treatise that the movement of the heavens were fueled by a regular input of sorrow, which was why the gods had created man in the first place. No. Then who does he speak to? Orlin? V? Mostly, not exclusively. He blew on the ink shining on his parchment. He speaks to travelers sometimes, scouts. He's sympathetic to anyone alone and away from home, you see. When he speaks, is it just to the one person, or can he be heard by anyone standing nearby? Only the recipient. Why? I'm trying to figure out whether anyone can vouch for what's claimed to be said. In other words, could Orland be making up visitations to advance his own agenda? More or less, Dante grinned. Neither more nor less, actually. Exactly that. Morn set down his papers and gazed at the black waters with an expression that was cousin to a frown. Humans do that, don't they? put themselves ahead by making up whatever they want about their most sacred beliefs. Cheapening everything with false prophecy. Well, we don't. Not about Joseph Joe. When he speaks, it's to save our lives. Dante's natural instinct was to question that, in fact, to mock it. But there was an earnestness to mourn that made his claim approach credence. It wasn't that Norrin never lied— or were too rarefied to consider manipulating others through their beliefs. But there did seem to be a level they just wouldn't stoop to. Perhaps it came from being bullied, enslaved, and slaughtered by the kingdoms of men for so long that the notion of betraying each other's deepest trusts had become as anathema as barbecuing your own newborn. Perhaps they were simply different, baked from a different blend of the nether that rose in men's souls. Whatever the case, it wasn't that Dante could rule out the idea that Orlin could be lying. 
He just didn't think it was the most likely explanation. He slept at dawn, rising a few hours later to check on Lyra, whose face, once paled by the experience of looking death in the eye, had resumed an olive shade rather close to Dante's own. Valen had seen no further sign of shipwrecks. That afternoon, they set to port in Honda, a thriving Noran city with a healthy human minority, a city that embodied the late days of winter, a cliffside place of mist, fog, and starkly high, cone-capped towers. There, they took on fresh water, and the crew swabbed below decks, while the clan, smelling rather righteous after days cooped downstairs, bathed in the frigid waters, splashing and laughing at each other's hairy bodies. Dante, Blaze, and Morn checked in at a portside tavern for word of the bloody knuckles, finding the news matched Orlin's word from Josen Joe. The ransom was last seen far downstream, by all indications bound for Gask's human lands. That was enough for Blaze, who retired for a nap once the stars turned to the small part of the morning. Dante remained in the prow, accompanied by a blanket and tea gone cold. In his heart, he knew he was only feeding his own unreason. The captain had his own sailors out on watch, men plenty used to the noises and darkness of the riverway, less prone to imaginary glimpses of hostile faces or cruelly curved figureheads appearing from the misty drapery. Even so, he remained, watching the waves, using the idle hours to contemplate the ways to let Setevan know the bow was in service of supporters of the Norrin, without exposing that it was specifically Narashtevik doing the supporting. Hours later, darkness moved on the waters. Dante leaned forward, as if that would bring him any closer to what he was seeing, blankets slipping from his shoulders. The mist had thinned to something more felt than seen, and the gappy clouds showed stars by the dozen. It wasn't a shape on the water that was dark. It was a patch of the water itself, blank as a cave. Nearby waves flashed pricks of reflected starlight. Waters had strange textures to them, of course. Dante had spent enough time looking down on Narashtevik's bay to see the ocean, through some function of the light, banded with light and dark strips of blue. At times, parts of the surface nearly boiled with fury, while others washed on as flatly as a table. Running bodies of water, in other words, didn't make a ton of sense to the eye, particularly when you've been staring at them for minutes on end. But after several more minutes, the black patch was demonstrably closer. Dante had fixed its position to a rocky outcropping on the left bank, and while the boomer's course had taken them nearer the patch, the darkness had moved too, advancing past the swell of rock. Against the current. In the gloom, it was hard to place its precise distance. It was only slightly darker than everything else, and its amorphous edges blended with the rippling river. Less than a mile away, though, perhaps as little as half that, and growing nearer. He'd never worked the nether at such a distance, 
The further away you got, the clumsier and more draining it became. But he brought the shadows to him nevertheless, condensing them in his hands and unspooling them in a dark thread that reached across the water towards the coming darkness. When the thread intersected the patch, the nether disappeared, fizzling away from his command. Dante's blood ran cold as the river. With a focus fine as a needle's tip, he tried again. When the forces intersected, he was ready for the unseen attack, holding fast to his thin thread of nether and probing beyond. The black patch was nether, too, a vast cloud given color and shape, obscuring anything that lurked within it. He withdrew. He pried open the scab on his hand. The nether filled him like a deep breath after a long dive. He lanced toward the netherial fog, driving into it with all he had, shredding and rending its ties to the physical world, driving it back to its lairs in the dark places of the world. In its place, he shaped a starburst of cleansing light. In the ghastly white noon some three hundred yards away, a galley slashed through the sluggish current, light glinting from its heavy bronze ram. Above, two wicked horns curled from its prow. Chapter Four The Ransom, he shouted. The Ransom is here! He needn't have bothered. The night watch had already begun to cry out, first in wordless animal surprise, then in the coded language of a ship at war. Ahead, the Ransom's oarmen redoubled their beat, thrashing the waters. Varlan's voice boomed through the night. The ship lurched starboard. Dante pounded up the aftercastle steps. They're going to ram us. No shit, Varlan rasped. Flaming arrows too. Oh shit. And a sorcerer. The captain flung up his pudgy hands. Lyle's bruised balls. What the hell have you sailors into? The boomer continued to veer right. A hundred yards away, the ransom matched course, its captain roaring orders that echoed between the cliffs. Against all instincts of self-preservation, Dante raced down the steps towards the prow, joined along the way by an armed and sleep-angry Blaze. What's going on? Blaze called. As he raced by, Dante gestured to the men hauling ropes and canvas through the rigging. I think those shouts translate to, We're about to be murdered! He pulled up to the railing. Blaze leaned over next to him, gaping at the oncoming vessel. It looks like we're about to be rammed. Yep. Then what the fuck are we doing up here? Drawing them a target? We're here to stop them. Water splattered from oars, spilling off the ransom's glinting ram. The galley closed, impossibly fast yet horribly slow. A lone silhouette ran from the rail of its high top deck. A voice bellowed through the darkness. The oars retracted from the water, slipping smoothly through the slots in the hull. The ship hurtled closer and closer, as massive as the wing of a castle. Dante grabbed hard to the rails. The ransom gashed by mere feet away, near enough that anyone on its deck could have leapt down to the lower boomer. Its crew was braced for impact, though, and Dante didn't see a single enemy face as the ship's slick wooden hull whisked by, stirring the cold freshwater air. The boomer's crew groaned in relief at the miss. 
the top deck of the ransom blossomed with a string of tiny orange fires. Get down! Dante shoved Blaze to the deck and followed him down. Blaze socked him in the shoulder. Ask next time! Lines of light creased the sky. The flaming arrows whacked into the deck, slashing through the sails. One thumped into the prow, feet behind Blaze. A man fell screaming from the rigging and thudded on the deck. Men with buckets rushed to douse the flames. The warriors of the clan of the Nine Pines swarmed from below, bows in hand. Others carried heavy furs taken from the walls of their yurts, which they draped over the railings. The archers took up behind the makeshift screens, pelting the men on the ransom with return fire. Dante narrowed his eyes and focused the nether. Flame leapt up from the rear of the enemy vessel. It was quenched before Dante made it five steps toward the stern. The two boats carried their opposite ways, firing arrows back and forth across the widening gap. The ransom's oars dipped back in the water, and the ship began the slow business of circling around. Dante neither saw nor felt further sign of the bloody knuckles sorcerer. By the time the ransom came about and took up chase, the two boats had fallen out of bow range. The enemy still took the occasional shot, gauging range with their fiery arrows. Ugly, Blaze said. What? The deck of this ship, once they start boarding it. Suppose I'd better fetch my sword. Dante started for the staircase down. Oh, don't forget, leave at least one of them alive to torture the slave's location out of. Blaze's mouth quirked. Do you have to put it like that? The planks were slick with water, scarred with scorches, and prickled with arrow shafts. Dante hadn't been below decks in a couple days, and the stench of sweat was thick as mud. Torn apart yurts scattered the floor. Clansmen loaded their arms with swords and spears and thudded upstairs. Dante found his sword in a chest near the rear and returned to the surface. Arrows whispered from the Noran archers, who'd relocated from the larboard railing to that on the back of the aftercastle. Others hid at the aft's base, the wooden rise sheltering them from enemy fire, and emerged to batter down any fresh flames with their furs. Blaze was there, too, along with Morn, who carried a curved, single-edged blade. You might want to get below decks, Dante said. Morn glanced up from rubbing his sword with a rag. Why would I want to do that? To avoid anything unpleasant, such as dying. I'd rather die than hide downstairs to listen to the screams of my clan. That's the kind of thing that sounds a lot less noble when you're moaning in the blood with a sucking chest wound. Morn cocked his head, meeting Dante's eyes. I'm not trying to be noble. I would literally prefer to die fighting for my friends and blood family. Why would you suggest I wouldn't? Do you think I would enjoy crying in the dark? Forget it. Dante climbed the steps to get a glimpse of the ransom. It was closing rapidly, oars circling through the water, while the boomer relied on currents and a rather slack wind. Not that they were trying to outrun the bloody knuckles, so far as he knew. In fact, he had the impression that appearing to flee at full sail was merely a ploy to keep their would-be predators on the hunt— to avoid the ram, too, he supposed. He was no admiral. The next few minutes were confusing ones. Dante waited behind an open door, while the archers fired and crew strained with the rigging. 
Three men jogged down the aftercastle steps, bearing a grimacing Norrin, an arrow projecting from his ribs. Lay him on the deck. Dante rushed into the open deck. The men stopped, glancing between each other as if he were a stranger in the street. Dante circled in front of them. Put him down, goddammit! They stretched the wounded man on the damp planks. Dante knelt, stripping the Norrin shirt away from the arrow buried in the side of his furry chest. Blood slid to the wood. The man's eyes were open and moving, but he did no more than grimace as Dante tested the arrow, then yanked it wetly from the wound. Dante slung it aside and clamped his hands to the bleeding. Within moments, the blood staunched, scabbing. Dante rose, wiping his hands on his pants. Get him below. Will he be okay? One of the clan warriors asked. He's less fit to fight than a dropped baby bird, but he'll be fine. The Norrin knelt to offer the wounded man his shoulder. They limped towards the stairs. On the castle, men shouted. The ransom loomed above the railing, oars pulling in as it swung alongside the smaller craft. Hooks and grapnels arced from the pirate vessel, clunking into the boomer's planks and rails. Sword-bearing Norrin charged to the railing to hack at the ropes drawing the two ships together. Arrows whisked from above, dropping two warriors and driving the others back. Men with knuckles wrapped in red cloth vaulted down the eight-foot rise between the ships. The Norrin met them, heavy swords hammering the pirates to the deck. Sabres and short swords flashed in the enemy's hands. Norrin dropped along the line. Blaze charged a tall, ragged-haired man, intercepting the enemy's incoming thrust with his left-hand blade, flicking his wrist and elbow in an upward snap. The parry deflected the pirate's sword past Blaze's shoulder. Blaze's right-hand weapon buried itself in the enemy's gut. Dante moved to Blaze's flank. A spear jabbed at his ribs. He battered it down with a clumsy strike, then thrust out his empty hand. The nether punched straight through the spearman's neck. He collapsed into the railing. Nether speared down from the upper vessel, knocking three clan warriors from their feet. Blood patted the deck. Above, a man in a long coat with a single stripe of hair atop his shaved head raised his hand in an eagle's claw. Dante fell back from the clanging melee, lashing a bolt of shadows at the chest of the man in the coat. The sorcerer's face blanked in shock. He jerked backwards, blasting raw nether at the incoming force, dashing it into the night. His gaze snapped to Dante. A rush of piercing energy followed. Dante knocked it aside with a wedge of shadows. They struggled this way for some seconds, needles of nether twining around one another and boiling away into nothing. Dante eased his resistance, falling back a step as the other man's dark tendrils wormed forward. The man in the coat smiled. Dante lashed out for the ransom's railing instead, pelting the man with a hail of hard splinters. His focus collapsed. Dante drove forward, lancing the man's heart with a bolt of raw force. To his right, a blade flicked at his face. Blaze intercepted with crossed swords, scissoring the enemy's weapon into the planks, then rolled his forearms, swinging his blades through a tight circle and snapping them into the attacker's jacket-padded collarbones. As the man staggered, Dante took him under the ribs with his sword. Humans and Norrin flopped and bled, 
No member of the Bloody Knuckles remained standing on the boomer. The Noran warriors sheathed their swords and clambered up the ropes marrying the two vessels, archers covering them from below. Dante climbed up too, but the ransom's top deck was nearly empty. As two small skirmishes broke out, a handful of men with red-wrapped knuckles fled below decks or leapt off the side. Think you've got this? Dante said to Blaze. Considering I've got thirty sword-wielding Noran monsters on my side, I'm going to say yes. Blaze raced to catch up with the pursuing Noran. Dante slid back down the rope to the barge, treating the wounded until his command of the Nether faltered and the shadows refused to venture from their crannies. His nerves felt as raw scraped as a fresh hide. By the time the battle finished, the five surviving members of the Bloody Knuckles matched the total number of nine pines dead. Their original numbers had been roughly equal, but that was the nature of armed conflict, particularly in smaller scale, where an advantage in strength, size, and the sudden removal of the enemy's nethermancer could be exploited for an overwhelming victory. The man in the long coat had been the cornerstone of the Bloody Knuckles' terror. There were likely just a few hundred men and women in all of Gask with any real talent in the use of nether or ether, and mere dozens with the skill to match the dead man's. Combined with the pirates' willingness for stark and sudden violence, it was no wonder they terrorized the local waterways for over a decade. Orland's response to the pirates was no less violent. The few who tried to hide among the ore slaves were quickly ratted out, then just as swiftly executed and flung over the side of the galley. The five survivors were brought to the boomer, where the deck was still being cleared of bodies and swabbed of blood. A man with a shaved head and a bleeding, smashed nose was forced to kneel in front of Orlin. The Noran chief's heavy sword hung from his hand. I'm going to ask once, because the question is so simple, failing to understand it will tell me you have no brains to spill. One month ago, you took possession of a group of Noran of the clan of the Green Lake. Where did you take them? The man hawked blood on the planks. They're rightful owners. Orlin's sword flashed in the torchlight. Pink matter spattered the deck. Orlin blinked at his sword in surprise. Oh, brains, I was wrong. He beckoned to two warriors who thrust another pirate to his knees. Orlin stepped forward. Where did you take the Noran of the clan of the Green Lake? The man tried to wriggle away. He toppled, crashing to the floor. Jolinden, one of the beefish there, uglier than dysentery, name's Peregrine. Don't know from there. Thank you, Orlin nodded. He slit the man's throat. The man gaped at him, eyes bright with betrayal. While he bled out, the warriors took their blades to the other three survivors, dumping the remains into the river. Seems wrong, Blaze muttered. I know, Dante said. Should have at least interrogated them properly. I'm talking about the part where they're butchered like hogs. Treasonous hogs, hogs who tried to stick their hogs' noses up the farmer's daughter's skirt. They were murderers. We don't know they all were. There must be some good pirates. 
Maybe we executed the guy who wanted them to change their wicked ways. Varlin cleared his throat. His face was haggard and sooty. We got a few things to figure out before weighing anchor. The ransom, for instance. We'll be scuttled, Orlin said. Hold on a minute. That thing is a proper galley of war. You could threaten a barney with it. You take a look at the old lady you're standing on. He gestured to the boomer's slashed sails, its torched canvas and smashed rails and blood-stained decks. I'd be lucky to break even from what you paid me. The point of pirate busting is to thrust your hands into their deep and jingly pockets. Thrust away. The ship itself was a vessel for killers and slavers who can continue to enjoy it as their tomb. Varlin rolled his thick lips together. You hairy bastard. This is dumber than a cotton bottle. Dante wasn't surprised. As a whole, Nor intended to treat wealth with indifference or disdain, particularly the clans, who were perfectly able to fend for themselves. When it came to the galley slaves waiting below the ransom's decks, however, he had no idea which way Orlin would break. He could see the Noran chief, without a whiff of hypocrisy, ordering their slaughter as accomplices. Just as likely, he would treat them as his most honored guests, leading them by the hand into the daylight and striking off their chains. Instead, Orlin went to bed, leaving V, Varlin, Dante, and Blaze to hash out an agreement that the slaves be freed and offer the option to sign on with the captain's crew. He'd lost three men to stray arrows. The families of the dead crew, meanwhile, would be compensated with whatever was found on the boat, minus half to be divided among the former slaves to give them a chance to make it once the boomer made port in Dolendom. It was the kind of compromise that left both parties mad. V was talked out of whippings for the slaves. She considered the lashes cleansing for the slaves' own good. Meanwhile, Varlin demanded all the ransom's wealth. Blaze reminded him he'd had more than a little help wiping out the bloody knuckles, the most hated local raiders of the last generation, and that, by the way, greed had been the knuckles' chief motivation, too. By the end, Dante was frustrated and impatient and exhausted, but helped search the captured ship anyway, both to ensure the agreement was honored— the ship's crew was noticeably more sullen than before the battle, giving the Norrin long looks of barely concealed resentment, and to make a personal search of the captain's cabin, where he overturned drawers, smashed open chests, and knocked on walls for secret compartments until Blaze asked him what the hell he was doing, which took several minutes longer than Dante expected. Somebody knew something. Dante stepped back from a bolted-down desk, surveying the scree of papers, gold-plated trinkets, and strings of what he suspected were knuckle-bones hanging from the wall. If the ransom just attacked every ship heading downstream, the traders would have dug themselves a new river years ago. Think somebody tipped them off? Unless Joseph Joe is playing both sides, how else would they know to attack the boomer? So... You're looking for evidence of this little theory, Blaze said. Yes. Hard proof that someone told them we were after them and let them know how to find us. Dante set down a curved, ornate knife and stared at Blaze. 
Why the hell else would I be tearing the room apart? Should I go try yelling at their corpses instead? Oh, just thought you might be interested in this. Blaze passed him a thick, grainy piece of paper folded twice. Inside was a sloppy, almost childish drawing of a barge, wide and single-masted. It could have been any of the cargo vessels plying the river, but its prow extended into a figurehead of an owl, wings swept back, preparing to launch into flight. What are they doing with the drawing of the boomer? Blaze nodded. And who drew it? There was, of course, no signature. No words whatsoever. The only way to determine the sketch's authorship would be to force everyone in a 500-mile radius to draw another barge and compare the output to this child's scrawl on a fuzzy sheet of pulp. In practical terms, that plan was only slightly better than attempting to snag the sun in a net and putting it in his pocket so Dante could have toast wherever he went. They found nothing else of interest. The galley slaves, a mixture of Noran and human men, were transferred to the suddenly crowded boomer. The ransom was made to drop anchor. Clansmen piled the bodies of the bloody knuckles in its hold, spilled oil over them, and splashed its top deck to boot. The grapnels joining the two ships were severed. The boomer weighed anchor, letting the current carry it away. In the first light of dawn, a woman of the Nine Pines ascended the steps of the stern, bent her bow, and sent a flaming arrow winging toward the ransom. It snapped into the top deck, fire dwindling until it looked like it would wink out completely. Then an orange wall flared across the former slaver. Thick white smoke roiled into the sky. Dante emerged from his cabin late that afternoon. Morn quickly informed him both Orlan and Lyra were waiting to speak to him. Dante drank some tea, stretched the soreness from his muscles, and went to see Lyra. Her cabin scent had the moist, mushroomy pall of the wounded, but she looked better already, a touch of pink to her broad cheeks. You killed them without me, she said. Accusation gleamed from her eyes. Would you have liked us to drag them in here for you to club from your bed? You could have brought me out to watch. There were no guarantees we'd even win. If just one of them had broken through, you would have discovered that steel tastes a lot like horrible pain. I've been cut before. She gazed at the cabin's round window. I hope to be healed when you caught them, to pay them back. And you. The info you gave me about the attack on your ship is the reason we're here talking instead of sitting at the bottom of the river, waving to each other for eternity. Still, I'll pay you back. He folded his arms. Enough of this debt of honor nonsense. You don't owe me for saving you any more than you owe everyone else on this ship for not stabbing you in your sleep. He gestured in the vague direction of the other cabins. Anyway, it was Blaze who made us go to the wreck. Then my debts just doubled. For the love of... Don't think of my life as dedicated to you. Think of it as dedicated to goodness. Your act deserves praise, support, protection. My debt's not to you, 
but the ideal your act of rescue embodies. Dante narrowed his eyes, seeing her in a light completely separate from the waning rays angling through the window. I'm not all good. She leaned back into her blankets, weary. Then may my devotion be a double-edged sword that inspires you to do better. His reasons for objecting weren't yet shaped well enough to hammer into words, so he left it at that. It wasn't that he disagreed with the premise of a personal loyalty that ran so deep you'd put your own life in harm's way. He supposed he'd done that for Blaze. More than once, in fact. Often enough that Dante's just afterlife would feature a full servant crew composed entirely of Blazers. Meanwhile, he might not give up his life for Callie, but he'd probably give up a leg or an arm. His left arm, at the very least. For semi-friends like Morn, he'd sacrifice a finger or two. Even for strangers, a woman being beaten in the street, say, he'd risk a black eye or a bloody nose, although he reserved the right to complain about it later. But Lyra hardly knew him. If she were serious, in a sense, she already had committed suicide for him, submerging her identity and desires beneath a sea of principle. He and Blaze protected and fought for each other because they believed in the same causes. Sure, the original cause they'd fought for had been basic self-preservation, but that was a pretty good one, he thought. On a deep down level, Lyra's desire to rid herself of her own personal goals disturbed him. He headed below decks to snag Blaze and find Orlin among the close, smelly yurts. Orlin insisted they head back upstairs to the foremost section of the bow, which, aside from the ship's cabins, was perhaps the one spot on the boomer with any major privacy. Not only could they see anyone approaching, but the rustle of water around the prow cushioned their words from anyone wandering too close. Orlin sat on his heels and gestured them to do the same. I think it's time to clear the air. Or at least to choke it with a different brand of smoke, V said. There aren't to be any more secrets. Certainly, less secrets, V said. We might inadvertently maintain secrets we weren't aware were secret. Blaze stared dumbly. I hope the melted substance in my ears is wax. In short, Orlin said, it's time we pool resources. Work together. Achieve as one. I'd complained that it's about time, Dante said, but it took so long to arrive, I'm too puzzled to resent you. V screwed up her orange eyes and gazed up at the gentle flapping sails, which had been restored, with gruesome stitching, to an approximation of their pre-battle wholeness. There are two reasons. At least two reasons. We may have others. First, Orlin said, for the clan of the Nine Pines, trust needs more than a handshake. I'm sure this seems quaint to you, or a series of pointless hurdles, but that is because when you look at yourselves, you see Dante the Noble and Blaze the Also Noble. But when we look, we see two of the species that has enslaved so many of our own. V nodded. 
Better to look like the whole of an ass than to look from behind the bars of a cage. Dante tapped his thumbs together. That's all well and good, but wasn't the business of Kling enough to earn your trust? Orlin frowned, rippling his beard. For blackmailing a mayor, anyone can do that. Not everyone can save our ship from being rammed. Specifically, V said, only you did. And fighting alongside the clan is, in a sense, to become a part of the clan. V nodded again. But only in a sense. Blaze twirled his hand in a let's-move-it-along gesture. Let's get to the second reason before we forget what we're talking about and who we are. We are about to pass into human lands, Orlin said. We'll need humans to move us forward. Our trust will still be circumscribed, V said. Blaze cocked his head. Well, you should at least get it drunk first. What more can we do? Dante said. Should I put the King of Gask in a headlock and knuckle his scalp until he renounces Norrin's slavery forever? We're here to help. Orlin nodded, eyes closed. So you keep repeating. We're very grateful. There is no question of your sincerity. The question is whether Narashtovic might be angling for independence of its own, V said. Dante smiled in disbelief. Not at the question itself. The question was good enough that Dante had considered it several times himself. Callie's entire support of Norrin independence stemmed from a single promise to a single Norrin who'd helped Callie reclaim his seat at the head of the Council of Narashtovic. That debt served repayment, no doubt. But if that were the only source of Callie's motivation, the scale of his repayment was somewhere between generous and a level of insanity normally associated with bottling your own urine. Maybe the old man just believed in liberty. In Callie's own cynical way, he did believe in the principle of self-rule. At the very least, he thought it was pretty stupid to decide rulership of an empire based on which Blue Blood's family tree had the most tightly snarled and inbred branches. But neither was Callie a banner-waving proponent of the island south of Malin, where they appointed leaders based on some sort of common vote. When the matter had once come up in passing at a council meeting, Callie had dismissed the notion by asking, why not just put a pig in charge? In other words, Callie wasn't leading the charge for Norrin freedom on the basis of principle alone. To further muddy the waters, the old man bristled whenever some new tax or formality had to be paid to the palace at Setevan, forcibly dispelling any illusions he held of Narashtovic's autonomy. Dante had no doubt this resentment fueled Callie's dedication to fleeing the Norrin from their sometimes literal yoke. And if that were true, it was easy to imagine Callie had another motive in mind, that if the Norrin territories gained independence, Narashtovic could easily follow. Outrageous, Dante said to V's accusation. Callie's done nothing but help the Norrin. Orlin glanced between the two humans. It is settled. Great, Blaze said. Then, in honor of our newfound mutual trust and appreciation, I'd like to let you know one of your people is a dirty, rotten turncoat.
V didn't move, didn't even lean forward, but her presence seemed to increase in the same way the full moon grows larger the closer it comes to the horizon. If this is a joke, human humor is stranger than the beasts that wash up from the deep sea. It's no joke, except maybe one of those cosmic ones. Then be very, very precise about what you say next. The corners of Blaze's mouth tucked in a subtle way that usually presaged the breaking of objects and sometimes people. Without removing his eyes from V's, he reached into his pocket, removed the drawing, and smoothed it on the deck, holding it in place against the steady breeze of the boat's passage. We found this in the captain's quarters on the ransom, Blaze said. Either Banning hedged his bets and warned the bloody knuckles they were about to have to rename themselves the bloody spinal stumps, or someone from the clan wanted to give them an extra sporting chance. V surged forward, Orlin barred an arm across her large chest. Her face hung before Blaze like an angry moon. Excuse her, Orlin said. She is a staunch advocate of Vorgas's three C's. Vorgas's three C's, Dante said. Clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and crushing of skulls of those who slander your clan. Then let's add a fourth, considerately not assaulting your dear, dear allies. V relaxed to her original position. Your proposition is not a binary either-or. There is also the possibility someone saw you bumbling around Kling, recognized the clan, and surmised our purpose. Fine, Blaze said. It could be literally anyone, up to and including me and my evil twin I've never met. That's a very useful way of honing in on who actually did it. We will keep our eyes open, Orlin said. V restrained a sigh. And conduct our own investigation. It will have to be a passive one until more information allows us to turn aggressive. Dante nodded. Unless there are any more accusations or fists to be thrown, what, then, do you have for us? Orlan glanced over his shoulder at the wide grey river. Where this river passes through Dolandon marks the border between Norren territories and Old Gask. Are you familiar with the border? Big black line, right? Blaze said. Very invisible, in fact. But people who behave like their nightmare's own nightmare wait for any who cross from one side to the other. Norren do, anyway. Humans are free to cross the river as they please. So, you've enlisted us for any duties on the human side? which we believe will be considerable. This man, Peregrine, is a beefer, meaning a trader of meat, meaning a dealer of Norrin slaves. We'll need you to find out who he sold our cousins to. Dante scratched the base of his neck. His hair was getting long again. Do you expect that will be difficult? How should we know? V said. Do you think we've met him before? Perhaps he is a braggart, and will tell you for the swell of telling you that he is a man who owns other lesser men. Alternately, 
The secret of a client could be a thing he wouldn't reveal on pain of pain. Again, very helpful to have such hard details, Blay said. Now we know he could react in any conceivable way. Orlin ran his thumb along his scarred cheek. We'll send clan warriors with you to pose as servants. They can help with any unexpected situations. Or attempts to murder you, V said. We'll take Moon, Dante said. We will send Gala, too. She is one of our finest warriors. I think Moon will be sufficient. Orlin pressed his palms together and glared at Dante over his fingertips. One servant among two men of means will diminish you both. Gala goes too. Dante held up his hands, already regretting being brought into the outer circle of trust. Fine. Good. We are scheduled to arrive in Dolenden late tomorrow morning. That's it, Blay said. Orlan gave another of his monkish nods. There is only ever so much. Dante stood, knees popping. He wandered with Blaze along the railing, stopping once they were out of easy earshot of the Norren or any idling crew. That last thing didn't even make sense, Blaze said. And did you get the impression they were pushing another babysitter on us? Guaranteed. They still don't trust us. Maybe they're right not to. I've always wondered why Kelly was so interested in this whole business. The only reason I've ever pushed him on it is because he's finally doing something I agree with. They hunted down Morn to bring him up to speed and to pump him for more information about the border city of Dolendam. The clan of the Nine Pines almost always stuck to the wilds, hunting the hills and fishing the lakes, but the clans frequently delegated unpartnered young men to roles as wandering scouts, both for the specific purpose of keeping up on the doings of rival clans and for the much broader aim of seeing whatever there was to see. As it turned out, Morn had also spent a couple weeks in Dolendon, which was two more weeks than Orlin or V had spent there. According to Morn, it was, for the most part, your typical large city, a scab of nobles, wealthy merchants, and shipping tycoons crusted over a great messy wound of laborers and peons. The difference was Dolendon was literally split down the middle, Norren to the eastern shore and humans to the western, and the only Norren allowed to cross westward were slaves. In other words, some tenth of the total populace of Dolendon, a figure Blaze found incredulous, why don't they just flex their biceps, pop their bonds, and start smashing skulls? And Dante found dubious. With that many slaves running around, how could you tell which Norren on the western shore were owned and which ones were free? Morn explained. Slaves were branded on their right cheeks. All Norren citizens were lawfully obligated to restrict their beards to an inch in length so the slaves couldn't comb them over their brands. Any Norren man with a longer beard could be arrested on sight and, in the best-case scenario, deported to the eastern banks. Permits were allocated to allow Norren leaders, traders, and diplomats to handle their business on the human side, but there were never more than a few dozen permits active at any one time, and even the permanent ones, most were day passes, had to be renewed annually at a steep fee. And yes, Free Norren had tried to thwart this system by branding themselves, 
wandering the western shore, and passing as slaves out on the errands of their masters, but all brands were registered at the chattelry office. Meanwhile, Noran sporting unknown brands were eligible to be captured and held in the officers' cells, and if they weren't claimed within a month, at the cost of a claimant fee and, naturally, a second fee for the registry of one's brand, to be auctioned at the monthly market to the benefit of Dolandon's coffers. In short, challenge the system at the risk of your eternal freedom. Other than being regularly invaded by chattelry office agents in pursuit of escaped slaves, the Eastern Shore was essentially left to its own affairs, however, meaning it bore but a superficial resemblance to the standard human sprawl of urban trade, labor, appointed offices, and law enforcement. Rulers were determined through typical Noran process, that is, the murky theophilosophical sparring grounds. But East Dolenton was special among Noran cities in that it was the only one to be truly massive in the way Setevan was massive or Bressel, or, of late, Narashtivik itself. This allowed for a phenomenon unique among all Noran territories, and thus probably the world. The Nulladoon. Oh, come on, you can't just stop there, Blaze frowned. You wouldn't be telling us if it wasn't important. It would take too long to explain, Morn said. We won't reach Dolendon for nearly a day. That's what I just said. Then be brief, Dante said. It might be important. Morn screwed up his face. It's like... a game of dice. That doesn't sound that involved. That runs the city. And instead of the exchange of money, it determines the exchange of items and nulla. Blaze glanced away from the grassy riverbanks. Nulla? How can I explain the Nulla Dune if you don't even know? Morn interrupted himself to sigh, and leaned his heavy arms upon the boomer's railing. It means craft favors. I.O.U.'s, sort of, but instead of money, it can be whatever the Norrin making the promise is famous for. Swords, tapestries, dances. Dances? I told you, it's complicated. Even this bare attempt to summarize the Nulladoon put Morn into one of his moods. Dante had spent enough time in the territories to know what Nulla were, but he had little inclination to attempt to wheedle, cajole, or flatter Morn into explaining exactly what the Nulladoon was, particularly when below decks smells like bandaged blood and infection— Evidence of nearly a dozen wounded warriors suffering from everything from scrapes and bruises to deep sword wounds and one broken arm. By the time Dante finished treating them, the warrior's arm was free of its sling. Stitches were trimmed from sashed arms and bellies. Sweaty brows cooled and relaxed. If it came down to it, he expected each one could lift a sword by the time they debarked in Dolendon. The lead-up to their arrival was an uneventful passage of forested shorelines. Through the bare branches, metal clanged and axes chunked. After the frost, bitter winds and shadowed pockets of snow on their long descent from the hills, the hard, cool sunlight of Dolendon felt like a tepid relief. 
so too did the return to a proper city, even a foreign one. Docks choked the river on both its east and west, and the smoke of countless chimneys mingled into a single cloud above the river. But otherwise, the shores of Dolondon looked like two different countries. On the west, wood cottages sprouted on the outskirts, often built right onto the walls of pre-existing houses. Past a high stone defensive wall, the buildings leapt to three and four stories in height, crowned by the high, snow-shedding peaks typical of Gascon construction. Houses stood wall to wall, so straight and narrow, an arrow shot through one window might well pass straight through another on the far side. Except on the hastiest houses, those that leaned like beer-blinded longshoremen. The windows were ovals, ringed by dark wood that stood out from the blonde pinewood walls and occasional splash of whitewash. Three hills stood at a reproachful distance from the urban crush, lush green courtyards visible between round-towered manors of clean white limestone. There were no such manors on the eastern side. No defensive walls, either. In fact, there appeared to be very little of stone at all, aside from some homes dug straight into the sides of the hills. Rather than cottages and shacks, the space between the surrounding meadows and the city proper consisted of tents, yurts, and other nomadic repositories. Sophisticated multi-family shelters with patterns and illustrations stitched into the oiled leather sides mixed with the crudest of pine-branch lean-tos. Further in, the round-windowed wooden houses rarely rose above two stories. Hey, Morn, your people's side looks like shit, Blay said. The skin crinkled around Morn's bovine eyes. Hey, Blaze, your people's side looks like it uses the people from my side as beasts of burden. I'm not criticizing. Well, I am. Varlin and crew guided the boomer to a dock big enough to tie the barge up. The clan had all but completely unloaded their gear by the time Dante finished re-explaining the situation to the stout captain, who was affronted that Dante couldn't be more specific about how long they'd spend in town than a day or several. The river smelled of sewage and mud, sludgy vegetables and used cooking oil. To preserve the ruse, they were a common barley barge with the usual assortment of random passengers. Dante stayed on board along with Blaze, Morn, Lyra, and Gala, who stood just under six and a half feet tall, practically a dwarf by Noran standards. Despite her stony muscles, she was almost thin, too. With the rest of the Clan of the Nine Pines departing through the streets to camp out on the edges of town, the boomer shoved off tacking across the river to tie up at another dock and discharge its remaining passengers. Dante and crew donned hooded winter cloaks and ascended the pier to the streets of Western Dolondon. The city was, at a glance, no different from all major cities. Men and women rushed along with a haste that seemed absurdly self-important to the outside eye, particularly when most of them were probably on their way to hold foolish discussions over too much tea, or to broker business deals they would regret the moment they lay down to sleep. It was the sort of jostling, steaming hustle that exasperates everyone involved, leading to behavior that ranges from the annoying, 
People slinging elbows, carriage wheels, throwing mud. What self-important pricks. To the potentially lethal. The reckless, wild-eyed speed of the horse teams, who could easily crush a man if he didn't hear the driver's shouts, and who drove as if arriving thirty seconds early to their appointments would make the difference between laughing from the castle's roof and dying in the shit-caked gutters. Annoying or outright dangerous, these conditions struck Dante with equal irritation. Dolendon was, in short, exactly the same and exactly as different as every big city in the world. It was unique in its particular blend of spices, smoke, and waste. It was identical in its bustle, the urban pace someone from nowhere would dismiss as a fine place to visit but not live, while visitors from other big cities would peg as interesting, in its own quaint way, but not half so much as wherever they were from. In Dante's case, it wasn't as large as Bressel, or as historically, almost mythically charged as Narashtovic. Still, it was a city in the way all non-cities aren't, and he breathed the air as if it were the vapors of a cleansing tonic, observing shops and citizens as if they held secrets he'd never uncover. By the time Blaise selected an inn entirely at random, Dante was already regretting a departure which would inevitably come too soon. The three-story structures, eaves, and cornices were heavy with elaborate Gascon Old Empire leaf carvings, but the inside was drafty and stained, perfect for maintaining appearances on a limited budget. Dante and Blaze got pleasantly drunk, which is what one does in new cities, particularly when plying locals and regular passers-by for information but learned nothing revelatory about Peregrine, the beefer, other than that he resented the slang term for his profession, and that he lived on Sandon Hill. Dante woke with the sun nearly full overhead. His mouth tasted like soured beer. Morn watched reproachfully from the common room, munching on bread and celery. Dante dispatched a letter of introduction to one of the messengers trotting up and down the boardwalks, then returned upstairs to wake Blaze, a task every bit as dangerous as wandering into a pirate's ambush. Their subterfuge was simple. They'd pose as malish aristocrats resettled in Gask, in the hopes of trebling their fortunes shipping tea from the valleys of Galador to the busy southern ports. All they needed was labor which they'd heard the Norrin provided in spades. Peregrine replied via messenger that evening for a meet on the following day. It's been so long since we've been somewhere proper, Blaise said that night, as if he'd needed a full day to absorb the shift from windswept grass and birded hills to bustling city. The clan won't mind if we dawdle on their cousins, will they? What's three more days in chains to people who expect to spend their whole lives in them? Morn gazed over the foamy tower of his beer. If V heard you, she'd split you like a log. Not a log she liked, either. Well, V's not here, is she? I'm making a decision in my capacity as leader. Dante glanced at Gala, who hadn't said four words since they'd stepped onto the docks. I declare this beer is for enjoying, not arguing. We'll see what happens tomorrow. 
Beyond the greasy oval windows, wagons hauled grain and clay and stone and hay to the houses on the hills. The carriage arrived on schedule the following noon. Morn and Gala held the doors while Dante and Blaze seated themselves on the hardwood bench. The Norrin gave slight bows, then circled to the back of the carriage and stepped onto the running boards. The vehicle's body groaned and lowered under their weight. Why can't they sit in here? Dante said. Blaze peered at him from the corners of his eyes. Because they'd squish us to death? Oh yes, and their slaves. It was rhetorical. Out the screened window, humans came and went, hopping over piles of horseshit and stopping outside the tea houses to snag passing friends by the collars and grin in their faces. Around them, silent, stooped men carried sacks and letters, faces grim and grimy. Norrin strode on errands too, bearded lighthouses among the sea of humans. The giant's cheeks were cut close or shaved bald, showing tiny pink lines, letters, and simple icons. The carriage swung uphill. Gala and Morn stepped down to trot along behind. A paper fluttered from a high window. In a narrow gap between houses, a Norrin sat in the mud, clutching his bloody face. The road leveled out. The crush of structures cleared out in favor of wide lawns, green shoots pushing past the brown of winter. Dante pressed against the carriage door as the driver swung onto a cobbled road. Ahead, the pavement reeled straight toward a white stone manor that could have served as the keep of some towns. Whip-thin trees lined the path and the house's front, their branches blue-green and needly. A bold man in outdated formal wear received them in the echoing foyer. Morn and Gala were seen to the servants' quarters. Sunlight gushed through the windows, illuminating swirling dust motes. Two fires snapped in the manor's central hall. Dante accepted a padded red seat in front of one hearth, where he warmed his hands and gazed across the wall tapestries, stitched portraits of middle-aged men, most of whom showed grass-green eyes and regally aquiline noses. Their beards were a timeline of high Gascon style, trim, pointy triangles, then aggressive, full-faced snarls that would have driven off a bear. Finally, the cut of the previous generation, square sideburns, which continued perpendicular from the earlobe to connect to a straight, manicured moustache. Warm enough? Behind them, a tall, green-eyed man clicked across the stone, his padded coat clinging smartly to his chest. His coat was green as his eyes, and divided into neat squares by glossy black stitching. Dante rose. Lord Peregrine. Lords Winslow and Lionstones. He greeted Dante and Blaze in turn. Dante quashed his frown at the names Blaze had given them. I'm honored you took to me on your expansion to Gask. The loftiness of your reputation competes with the peaks of the Junholds, Blaze said, entirely straight-faced. Talk turned for some minutes to the common ground of all wealthy strangers, whether they enjoyed their trip, have they yet been to Dolandon's frozen gardens, 
the short-sighted taxation policies of their respective rulers. Peregrine's self-deprecating discourse on the nature of success in business, which he compared to a blind shepherd repeatedly driving his flock off a cliff, then crowing in triumph after one of his fallen sheep broke open a vein of gold, was charming enough that Dante temporarily forgot the Lord had built that fortune on the literal backs, as well as hands, legs, and sinews, of hundreds, if not thousands, of Noran slaves. Fifteen or twenty, Blaze said once the topic finally turned to their own business, specifically the number of laborers their tea-growing operation would require. Perrigan raised his thin black eyebrows. Then you hardly need even my modest expertise. You could fill that order at the back market on your way home. That's just for the initial outlay, Blaze said. It's all about feasibility, you know, the sustainability of the strategy. We could wait for another three or five years and plunge whole barrel into the operation, but who knows how diluted the market will look then, you know. Whereas if we start now, well, the leverage cranks itself. Of course. In which case we'll need a regular supply of bodies, Dante said. Perrigan gazed across the faces of his ancestors on the wall tapestries. Strong backs are always in demand, of course, but we may be able to arrange an annual contract. Not all of our investors are as confident as we are. We were hoping to make a strong initial splash. Nothing opens a man's eyes like having water dashed in his face, Blaze added. We heard you were in possession of the entire clan of the Green Lake. Ah. The man leaned back in his padded chair, smoothing his rich green coat. Fearsome warriors. Their plowshares are as fierce as their swords. So you have them, Dante said. No. Dante's face fell. Do you know who does? Naturally. I'm the one who sold them. We were hoping to make the buyer an offer, with workers such as those. I'm afraid not. Perrigan cut in with a regretful smile. Let's leave it at that. We're all gentlemen here. Blaze drew back his head, shoulders straightened. Surely we can make a gentleman's agreement not to tell any other men, gentle or otherwise, that the name of a certain other gentleman was disclosed here? It's easy enough to earn money, much harder yet to earn a reputation. I bank on my integrity more deeply than any credit. The deal was made in private, and there it must remain. There must be some arrangement we can make, Dante said, thinking quickly. We're not just men of business. We're men who make things happen. Oh, no doubt. So when I say the matter is closed, it is with trepidatious hope you do not use those powers to do against me. Along the walls, the eyes of the tapestries swung to focus on Peregrine. Their gazes grew steely, glaring, beards bunched as jowls soured into frowns and sneers. Their lips began to move, muttering silent condemnations, the dark rhythms of curses. The movement caught Peregrine's eye. He did a double take, staring expressionlessly at the displeasure of his ancestors, their shaking heads and curled lips. Like that, they stopped, once more still stitching, hanging from the wall. You don't see that every day, Blaze improvised. 
How often do all your relatives agree on anything? The last wisps of nether fell from Dante's grasp. That depends on who is convincing them. To Peregrine's credit, he met Dante's eyes, his cheeks and brows showing mere hints of strain. What is this supposed to prove? Blaze smiled. How crummy your afterlife would be if you suddenly joined them. It's not a threat, Dante said. Just a display of the powers we could put at your disposal. I am a wealthy man. Peregrine smoothed his mustache, and with it, his face. He gestured to the high stone walls, the snapping fires, and finally the tapestries, where his gaze lingered, hardening into a resentful scowl. My face isn't beside my ancestors. That's because the only one worthy of capturing my likeness to hang along my forefathers refuses to do so on account of the grounds by which I made the wealth that would pay her. Her name is Waring. She lives on the east side. And if we acquire her service, Dante said, you will also acquire the buyer's name. The departure was as chilly as the air outside the manor. A servant closed the groaning doors. You know, we could just ask one of them. Blaze gestured toward the servant. They'll usually respond to beatings. Dante buttoned his coat to the collar. The few who know would probably be killed for speaking. Let's see Warring and see what happens. Their carriage waited. As Dante piled in, Moore leaned in to the Norrin driver and exchanged a few words. The horses trotted down the path, wheels grinding loose pebbles. From the hilltop, Dolandon stretched for miles, bifurcated by the silvery band of the river. The carriage swung a sudden left down an alley of tight-packed houses and descended another hill into a wide plaza of packed dirt and trampled grass. At the square's fringes, humans jabbered to each other, scribbling notes, exchanging them, frowning, and then scribbling a fresh note, often to the exact same reaction. Behind them, Norrin crouched in cages of thick wood and pitted metal. Many were half-naked, others shoeless. A fat man lumbered forward, leaning against the weight of the bucket hanging from his hand. Water splashed over his shoes. He slopped the bucket across the floor of one cage, rinsing waste onto the muddy ground, then turned and waddled back toward the fountain at the plaza's center. Men in padded cotton coats milled about the grounds, pausing in front of occupied cages. Then, with their hands on their hips or chins, they appraised the captive subjects from tip to toes. Equally well-dressed sellers approached to point out abundances of muscles and teeth. As their carriage cornered down another alley, an eye-patched man, accompanied by two others brandishing spears, swung open the bars of a cage and shouted its occupants into the sunlight. Blaze, who rarely stopped talking even after years of travel together, didn't speak until the carriage wheels clicked onto the mortared stone of the bridge. 
The eastern shorefront was a profusion of shops, warehouses, and public houses from whose open windows wafted spiced tea and spicier tobaccos. Dante called a stop outside a shop with a carving of a loom above its door and rugs piled in its windows. Morn hopped down and went inside while Gala watched the street, sword on her back. Morn emerged a minute later and fed the driver directions to Warrings. Her shop stood in the middle of a cockeyed street so narrow they had to debark the carriage and continue on foot. The building's squarish design, slightly flared at the top, suggested it had once been a yurt, long since plastered over with timber, and its cramped, dark interior only confirmed that. The close air was heavy with the smell of soap and dried linen. Dante seated himself on a bench a few inches too high, where he was joined by Blaze and Morn, and kicked his heels. Between the three of them, there was scarcely space to turn around. Though Dante had spent little time in Narashtavik in the last few years, and littler time yet attending to the ceremonial and social sides of his post as one of the twelve-person council there, he'd nonetheless acted as a man about town on more than one occasion. Often enough to think Waring's shop was all wrong for her apparent stature, the floors of finest artists and craftsmen were supposed to be open and airy, intentional wastes of space, which called all the more attention to the sparse examples of their work on display, and thus how valuable these few pieces must be. By contrast, Waring's main floor was a crush of raw fabric, loose threads, and steel needles. The unfinished materials lumped in piles around the finished work. Work that more than justified the urgency of Peregrine's vain request. Most of Waring's tapestries showed landscapes and cityscapes, misty hills, dignified white row houses, and the primarily civilized hill homes of the Norren. A minority displayed the faces of human men and women, most in three-quarter or full profile, but a few straight on. Their gazes, so superior and regal, they made Dante feel as if he'd loudly farted. Yet there was a softness to their eyes, too, a mitigating light that suggested all was forgiven, that we are, after all, all human, even those of us whose blood runs blue as the sky. This liveliness was shared by the landscapes and cityscapes. When Dante glanced away, or an unseen draught ruffled the room, the rivers and lamps and stars twinkled. In short, they were amazing. He had half a mind to hire warring services for himself. After the clearing of a throat or two, a thin Norrin woman emerged from the back room. At six feet tall, her brown eyes were nearly level with Dante's, or at least as close as he had ever come on a Norrin. Her bare arms could easily pass for human as well, though one that got plenty of exercise, say, a water carrier or a widow who'd taken charge of her late husband's farm. She indicated her three guests. Her hands were as swift and precise as a professional swordsman's. I know why you're here. She seated herself behind her cluttered desk. You want me to build you an airship? Dante blinked. We're here about a tapestry. Well... You're obviously not here for the jokes. I can spare five minutes. Please don't waste them. 
he launched into an extremely abbreviated version of what had brought them to her. The woman cut him off as soon as he got to Peregrine's name. Absolutely not. I don't think you understand. Dante glanced toward the closed door, as if spies might have their waggling ears pressed to the other side. If we do this for him, he will give us the location of an entire clan of slaves. Slaves which, if we have our druthers, won't be slaves for long. Then beat it out of him. That's what I suggested, Blay said. This is true, Dante said. It's much easier to arrest dozens of unwilling captives from their baronial owner when you're arrested or dead. Waring's brown eyes didn't sway from his. You're not going to guilt me into this. You know what Peregrine does. The only work I'll ever do for him will be sown from his own hide. Dante sighed inwardly, wishing he had the power to annihilate the entire kingdom of Gask, Noran territories and himself included, and thus avoid another single moment of this self-defeating nonsense. I know the perspective must be very skewed from a horse that high, but I'm trying to help. And I'd help you if I could. But immortalizing that man would violate every principled bone in my body. Unfortunately for you, that's all of them. Well, Dante rose, feeling like he weighed a thousand pounds. Your work is exceptional. He left to meet Gala in the crooked alley. Blaze glanced back at the shop. Is it time to go beat a nobleman? The idea was tempting as a basement-cooled beer after a long day, but Dante shook his head. That's our last resort. I didn't realize we had any other resorts. Moon, I need you to tell me more about the Nolodoon. Gala, I need you to find out to what extent Waring participates in it. It's a little like chess, Moon said. Gala shook her head. More like hearts, or pluck. I was getting to that. I thought you said it was like dice, Dante said. That too. Morn tipped back his head and considered the high, patchy clouds. It also resembles an argument. An argument, Blay said. How's that? Mostly because it is one. Dante exhaled audibly. I think I need to see this. Is there somewhere we can sit down and play around? Morn shrugged his broad shoulders. Oh, just anywhere. The Noran man gave Gala the name of a public house and directions to it. She nodded and strode down the alley. Morn led them toward the docks. Baked vegetables and potatoes steamed from vendors' stalls, tickled with herbs from all over. At a thoroughfare, Norrin drove mule teams, or simply hauled the wagons themselves, leaning into leather straps tied to flatbeds, bearing bricks or chopped wood or burlap sacks. About one out of ten women showed brands on their cheek. Morn led them into a busy tavern with two leaping salmon painted above its door. Inside, Norrin partook in the standard drinking, laughing, gossiping, and news-chasing, but an unusual number of the crowd were gathered at the back, peering over the shoulders of three men seated at a wide table. Blaze bought pints, Morn went to speak to the bartender, and came back with a set of battered wooden cases. Dante sipped beer, cold as the street and just as bitter.
Nulladoon, Morn said, unprompted. First, you have a board. Well, that sounds easy enough, Blaze said. Most things do when you've no idea what you're talking about. Morn rubbed the thin strip of bare skin between his brows and hairline. Sorry, I'm under a lot of stress here. There are classical map arrangements some players specialize in, but you can arrange your tiles freeform, too, with opponents taking turns until the map's complete. Pieces are affected by elevation and water and so forth. He unsnapped the hasps of one case and found out a handful of flat wooden squares, mostly painted blue or green. From a second case, he drew several wooden figures, worn and chipped but still identifiable as archers and spearmen and scouts. Then they are your pieces. Like chess, they all move and attack in their own ways, but they can do other things too. Morn pulled the twine from a deck of cards and spread them out. Dante didn't recognize a single one. Then you have your cards. Your opponent does too. You both have cards. Cards affect units and conditions like weather, and you can use them to provoke your opponent into using, losing, or giving you some of his cards. Think of them like ploys, battlefield gambits. He stared at the array of equipment. Dante picked up the cards and leafed through them. Where does the argument come in? Everywhere. Morn sighed. Each turn also involves an ongoing philotheosophical debate. Like the maps, they can be classic topics or decided on by the players. The soundness and originality of your argument influence play similarly to the cards. You're just making this up, aren't you? Blay said. Arguments? So after you've shouted at each other for a bit, the other guy's just going to say, Oh, good point, here's my king. The merits of each player's arguments are decided by one to three arbiters. If the argument's that good or that bad, the spectators weigh in. A biased arbiter won't stay biased for long, not unless he enjoys black eyes. Moon glanced to the back of the room, where men roared with abrupt and unified triumph. Once it quieted, he went on. Victory is achieved through wiping the other guy out or forcing him to concede. The winner collects his nulla, the terms of which are decided before the match. Dante looked up from a carving of a fanged, long-nosed beast. That's the idea. All I have to do is beat Waring in a match. Perrigan gets his tapestry. We get our name. Before we get any deeper, I think we should talk about something, Blaze said. Like, what the hell this has to do with why we're here? Morn clicked the tiles against the table. It's a good plan. It's also a very bad plan. Start with the good. If Warring plays, and they all do, she'll abide by her debts. Blaze quirked his mouth with doubt. She'll break her personal rule about no dealing with abominable slave drivers to stick by the rules of some game? Yes, Morn said. And if that doesn't do it, the threat of fines, beatings, and in extreme cases enslavement should convince her instead. So, what's the bad? 
Dante said. You can't possibly win. Of course I can. How long have you been playing Nulla Doon? Well, never. Morn gestured to the spread of pieces, cards, and tiles. Never. You've been playing for never. Which is funny, because most of this city's been playing since always. Since they were kids. Big deal, Blaze nodded. We can just cheat. Morn went as still as one of the wooden units. You can't cheat at Nulladoon. I can cheat at anything. I'll cheat you right now if you want. What would you like to be cheated at? It's... sacred. It's not something you do. Dante leaned in, matching the low tones of the Norrin man, if not his awed disgust. Morn, what does it matter? We're talking about saving your cousin's lives. Is that less important than the rules of a game? The Norn exhaled until his whole body slumped like a discarded shirt. I don't like this. Me neither, Blay says. It's more tangled up than spiders playing tag. Dante reached for his beer. If you can think of a better way, I'm all ears. I can think of twenty. That doesn't involve punching, stabbing, or us being jailed. I can't think of any. Dante took a long drink to hide his smile. He couldn't think of anything less convoluted either, but in point of fact, he wanted to play. He'd been allured by the Nulladoon from the moment Morn mentioned it, and hearing its rough details had hooked him all the harder. It was clearly a game you could get lost in, endlessly variable, with strategies within strategies, all of which might be compromised or annihilated by the wrong stroke of luck, leaving you angry yet determined, obsessed to play again, and prove that when the game is fair, you cannot be beat. He looked forward to studying its facets and depths with an intellectual eagerness he hadn't felt since discovering the cycle of Aron. After several complaints he was hardly an expert, Morn relented and agreed to teach him. Morn arranged the map in one of its simplest variants, led Dante through a quick overview of piece selection, just as customizable as the maps, then proceeded through what he warned was a dumbed-down game. Though it was clearly an expository match, with Morn constantly pausing to explain a rule and its limitless permutations, exceptions, and contingencies, it nonetheless drew a steady stream of onlookers, many who seemed as interested in the fact a human was learning their game as in the outcome of the halting match itself. Morn had no trouble enlisting a trio to arbitrate the scoring of their debates. And those were the stumbling blocks. Dante grasped the core combat at once, a rock-paper-scissors-style system of engagement with just enough intrinsic complexity to allow for in-depth strategy in every situation. By their second game, several of his gambits drew appreciative nods and chuckles from the crowd, yet each skirmish, every single god's damn one, resulted in the loss of a unit, territory, or both, overcome by modifiers from Morn's cards, or his victories in debate. Dante simply didn't know enough. He knew most of the key players, Joseph and Joe, and his host of brothers, cousins, and enemies, and when it came to philosophical concepts, he was easily Morn's better. 
Yet he didn't know enough of Norrin theosophy to marry the general to the specific. It was beyond frustrating. Gala returned in the middle of their third match. She plays. Finally, some good luck, Blaze said. Not really. They all play. Told you, Morn said. He advanced his swordsman. After a brief exchange of modifiers, Dante removed his ice drake from the board. After his third loss, Dante dropped from his oversized seat to go update Orlin on their situation. Gala had arranged a note drop under one of the piers, and warned him it could be days or even weeks before they moved on. He penned a letter of aid to Peregrine, too, alerting him Dante believed they'd secure his tapestry soon enough, but that he'd first need access to as many libraries of Norrin lore as Peregrine could get him into. He resumed play. Moorn's style was plodding and defensive, advancing his pieces with stubborn deliberance until his advantage was too overwhelming to break. His style of debate mirrored it, carefully laying the groundwork and initial conditions. That history showed Joseph and Joe was in Canwell on the third day of the third year, before unleashing his conclusions in an ironclad case, and thus couldn't have been the father of Kandak, whose mother had, on the day of the boy's conception, been across the land in Meriden. Dante tried a range of guiding strategies before settling on his standard, a deceptive style that appeared cautious yet relied on massive risks taken right under Morn's oversized nose. These efforts panned out often enough to turn the tables more than once, but by the time the two of them were too tired to go on, Dante still hadn't won a single match. Letters of recommendation arrived from Peregrin the next day. Dante split time between the two banks of the river, playing Noladun in the east and reading Noran's scripture in the west. On the third day of play, Dante retreated his main force to a steep hill, leaving a contingent of swift, light-hitting drakes trapped behind Morn's infantry wall, doomed before the next turn. But during that turn's debate, Dante tricked Morn into a confession that the traditional sacrifices to stall Pharaoh's wrath weren't rams, they were deer. Using that as a hinge for his conclusion that Pharaoh's domain was not with herding nomads, but instead among wild hunters, Dante racked up enough conditionals to send his lone remaining swordsman into a berserk fury. Morn lost three units before the berserker fell, along with the center of his line. Peppered by Dante's hilltop archers, harassed and ensnared by the hit-and-run drakes, Morn removed the last of his pieces from the board four turns later. The audience applauded and whooped. Significant fun was made of Morn's loss to a scrawny human outlander. Morn's smile was as slow as his advance across the battlefield. Good move, he said. Now why don't you play someone who actually knows what the units with the spiky things are called? Dante slouched back in his chair, heart thudding. But I don't have any nullar to wager. You're so dumb you'd probably forget what food is for, Blaze said. You're the best healer in town. Bet with that. Despite the potential for humiliation at the hands of a human, when it came to Nulladoon, the standard Noran suspicion of outsiders evaporated altogether. Within minutes of announcing he was looking for a match, Dante had enough appointments to fill out the day. It wasn't simply the novelty factor, either. 
Word had somehow spread that he'd healed several members of the clan of the Nine Pines after a ferocious battle, and that his healing nulla could cure anything short of death itself. In a city as mean, pestilential, and backbreaking as Dolenden, challengers lined up like he were passing out free wine. He lost, of course. The first game was a war of attrition. He couldn't keep up with his white-haired foe's subtle modifiers and wily wisdom during disputes. He played his second game against a young woman, but the match collapsed in less than twenty minutes when Dante's opening charge, intending to attain an initial strength advantage he could then leverage murderously through strangulating conservatism, died on enemy spears. The third match lasted right until midnight, however, a back-and-forth tilt that saw him and his rival switch not just tactical but geographical position several times, a game of reversals and re-reversals so captivating that the pub's owner began to complain his patrons had forgotten how to drink. When Dante's final piece, a battered sorcerer, finally dropped, there were as many sighs as cheers. Dante's opponent, a middle-aged potter, immediately bought him three beers. But it didn't matter that he lost, except for the time he lost when winners cashed in their nullerits and called him away to soothe a sister's pneumonia or heal a father's broken wrist. Dante didn't resent the lost time. He didn't need to become the best. Not after he figured out how he could cheat. While card play was a single dimension of the game, it could provide a big enough advantage to overcome many slips of tactics and strokes of poor luck. If Dante could see his opponent's hand, through his connection to a dead fly on the wall, say, or better yet, a lizard, something small enough to escape notice but which at least shared his basic senses, he could overwhelm that field of the game, flushing out his opponent's hand while strengthening his own, anticipating their movements and preparing his counter-moves in advance. In one private test with Morn, Blaze acting as a hapless arbiter, it worked so well it was nearly too obvious. They tried again, with Dante playing his cards with just enough deliberate mistakes and oversights to pass muster. He continued playing, reading, analyzing, discussing. He won his first competitive match, earning a minor nuller from a silversmith, which he cashed in for the forging of a unique nulladoon piece, a thin, unimposing sorcerer, one outstretched hand painted with charcoal shadows. Gala poked into Waring's playing habits, learning the weaver participated in at least one match a week and sometimes binged for several straight days. It was absorbing, engrossing, addicting. Some part of him wanted to forget that quivering bow existed, to give up his very council seat in Narashtivik to continue matching wits in the smoky taverns of Dolodon's Norren shore. This was a fantasy, of course. Across town, the clan of the Nine Pines waited in their tents. Somewhere in the heart of Gask, the clan of the Green Lake waited in their chains. Within a week, he won as often as he lost. That achieved, he began to cheat. At first, a single glance at their starting hand through the eyes of a spider hanging from the wall, and in later games, continuous looks at their changing cards. Still, he didn't win every game, but he took most, and many easily. It earned him many nulla, too, of all stripes and shapes, 
a small cask of home-brewed beer, a wavy-bladed dagger, labor from carvers of wood and stone, which he promptly turned in for more figures for his expanding Nulladoon set. But victory robbed him. When his opponents clicked their pieces into their wooden boxes, frustration or sad self-disappointment creasing their bearded faces, he had to turn away, a risk blurting his deception. When Norrin recognized his face, called him by name, and bought him drinks and meals, his stomach turned with inward disgust. He had to end it. Two weeks from the night Morn had won their first match, he issued his challenge. He had no doubt Waring knew his motives, or at least what he would ask if he won. But denying a public challenge was a disgrace, one that could lessen the perceived value of the denier's crafts or skills. Were they afraid they made unworthy gifts? And thus the social standing of the denier themselves. Waring accepted. She set a date for Wednesday night, three days hence. What happens if you lose? Morn asked that night. They'd headed upstairs to Dante's room to unwind and go over the ins and outs of Waring's standard strategy. Pieces and cards littered the board, scattered between chipped beer mugs. Dante shrugged. Convince her to see reason? She won't. Then I'll keep coming back. She won't see you, Morn said. Then I'll make myself look very, very scary. Dante lifted his palms. What do you want me to say? Maybe there won't be anything I can do. Well, I just wanted to know if you'd considered that possibility. I think it's an important one for everyone to spend some time thinking about. The Norrin knocked an unpainted wooden archer on its side. Lots of time, to be quite frank. It's always less disappointing that way. What's your nulla, anyway? Belay said from his seat in the window. Morn glanced over. What? Your nulla. You all have one, right? So what's yours? Oh. Morn cupped his hands together, forming a box, then peeked inside, as if expecting to find the answer. Well. Dante frowned. I thought you guys start in on your calling before you learn how to shake a rattle. The thing is, the quality of my work doesn't yet match up to my personal standards. Oh, come on! Blaze shoved off the windowsill and refilled his mug from a pitcher on the table. Foam spattered the board. Morn scowled and toweled it up with his sleeve. Blaze took a long swig foam mustaching his lip. We're all friends here. If I'm going to mock your lack of skills, it'll be to your face. The Norrin rubbed his beard. Arrowheads. Fletching? That's great. Nothing badder than a man who makes his own weapons. Morn shook his head. Just arrowheads. There's a lot to them, you know. For instance, you humans favor metalheads exclusively, but obsidian arrowheads are frightening. Sharp as a razor, but they'll break off inside your gut if you try to pull them out the wrong way. On the other hand, rock isn't what you'd call malleable, and I, for one, 
think the entire arrowhead industry is conservative to the point of absurdity. Why are we so locked into the triangle? What about a crescent shape? Much better for attempting to sever distant ropes, I say. And what if you shape them so they whistle in flight? There'd be no need to carry a bulky old horn into the battlefield. Blaze nodded thoughtfully. I'd make my nuller sex. Morn reddened beneath his beard. It doesn't work that way. It can be anything, can't it? It has to be something tangible, something you can hold. Oh, there'd be something to hold. Morn snatched his mug from the table. It can't just be an experience. Other people have to be able to see it. What about poems? Dante said. What about them? You can write them down, can't you? That seems like a cheat. Most poems are recited. I don't see what's cheating about it. What if I give you a drawing afterwards? Blaze said. Morn glared into his beer. You're not taking this seriously. How about dancers? Dante said. You said dancers could be nuller. Those are public. Other people can see and confirm the value of what you're receiving. Look, Blaze said, if I've dedicated my whole life to sex, I think I'll be good enough at it that it'll be no issue to throw a sheet across the plaza and... I don't think they would appreciate a solo performance, Dante said. Morn rose, swaying. I'm going to bed. Three days came and went like the boats at the piers. It was time. Waring didn't care about the venue, so Dante had arranged to hold it in the pub where he'd learned to play. He was comfortable there. And the playing stations lined the back wall, providing ready purchase for a spying spider. Waring arrived alone, seating herself opposite Dante. The crowd closed in behind her, pointing at specific positions on the table despite the fact that not a single tile had been laid. Waring withdrew a glossy teak box from a purple velvet sack. The case's latches snicked. She arranged her pieces, soapstone warriors and beasts dressed in minutely sewn clothing, leather armor, cotton trousers, and brown boots laced with single lengths of thread. Finished, she gazed at him over the table. I hear you're among the best human players of your generation. He shrugged stacking tiles with wooden clicks. When the right cause inspires me, I'll see it through at any cost. What cause led you to pushing toy soldiers around a fake map? One of those casual injustices that has been going on for so long that speaking about it in polite company brands you a fanatic. Ah, that narrows it down. They agreed on a map. Lake Patch a common terrain where many ponds funneled action into the killing fields of open meadows. Peace allotment, standard three, a skirmisher-heavy default, which they modified with an allowance to swap out any two units. And the terms of the nuller. A tapestry, he said. Choice of subject decided by me. Her brown eyes met his. It said you're a healer. 
Once you cause enough wounds, you get a pretty good idea how to fix them. My father was enslaved for debt a few years into my apprenticeship. They worked him in the fields. One day they were short of oxen, so they made him pull the plow. He tripped in a gopher hole and broke his leg. She laid her first tile, holding his gaze. They didn't bother to set it. He still can't walk. Old wounds are harder work, he said. But if I can, I will. The arbiters, to reduce the risk of rogue decisions stripping him of victory, Dante had insisted on three of them, introduced themselves and sat. The audience placed bets of drinks and money, and sometimes small nulla of their own. Mostly, they watched with open grins as the final piece was placed and warring opened, drakes zagging along one side of the board, while her archers and gnomes ducked in and out of cover. Dante advanced to intercept, his forces aligned in a shifting sickle, striking from both points of the blade as Waring rearranged her defenses from one side of the field to the other. She gave a small smile. You fight like a human. What does that mean? I have no damn idea what you think you're doing. He smiled back, then played a run of cards. By the time he completed the side game, he'd depleted twice as many of her cards as he'd spent, snagging a crucial modifier to his sorcerer's armor. The figure was a tentpole of his strategy, obliterating anything that came too close, yet it had already been bloodied to dangerous levels by the regular pelting of her archers, who fired behind the safety of lakes, clad in nothing stronger than their brown cotton robes. Take a break, he said an hour later. Their forces were on the verge of a critical, all-out melee. For the last several moves, her gnomes had harried his Norrin frontliners, dancing forward to the very point of overextension, before drawing back into the protective range of her archers. He'd withdrawn his sorcerer early on to preserve it as he maneuvered his bear cavalry to block those damned gnomes. Recognizing his ploy, She'd arranged her troops into jagged yet subtly intricate lines of defense that could snap shut like a cougar's jaws. No running off for advice from your friends, she smiled. His own smile was as tight as her deployment. Just for a drink. Want one? A beer. She tipped her head at the laughing throngs, foam drying on their beards. If there's any left. He shouldered through the crowd face brushed by bulging bellies and sweaty arms. It stunk like men who've spent too long working, playing, or both. He smiled at strangers' encouragement, their playful taunts, and returned from the bar with two heady mugs. Play resumed. A discussion of the moral implications of Lord John abdicating his throne, and thus abandoning his responsibility to his subjects, to save Lady Heron from the underworld, resulted in a rhetorical stalemate. Dante argued his duty to his war-threatened kingdom outweighed his duty to his wife, while Waring argued that a man who won't attempt to save that which is dearest to him is unfit to rule a kingdom in the first place. On the board, Waring advanced and retreated methodically, rhythmically, her drakes weaving among his lines like a shuttle through the loom. At times her forces showed patterns with no identifiable strategic goals, 
as if she were playing more for the aesthetics than for the thrill of the challenge or the nulla favors earned from victory. Dante leaned back in his chair. Until now, he had been thinking of the game purely in the abstract, analyzing it within the strict rules of its own internal logic. Position his spearmen just so as to block the enemy's drakes. Keep his slingers in motion, reducing oppositional accuracy. Play his card of blood debt on the same turn the bulk of his Noran swordsmen were in position to strike. On some level, he'd realized the game must have emerged as a way for city-bound Noran to settle disputes their earlier, wilder, free-ranging ancestors had settled, and still did in the case of the Nine Pines and others, through blood and steel under harsh and silent skies. But there was another level to Nolodun, too. It wasn't just a practical game. It was a game of the Noran's own spirit, a celebration of their talents, their skill with their hands, and their sheer love of fun for its own sake. A chance to express one's own being and witness another in similar expression. And then, in victory or defeat, to give or receive something tangible, if only the memory of a wonderful dance or song, and so appreciate each other all over again. This understanding lent him no tactical advantage. Knowledge of her cards was enough to slip the noose around her neck. Waring was highly skilled, but not one of the highest masters, and when his bear cavalry pressed her gnomes against the shore of a lake, the pesky skirmishers were eliminated to a man. But when his sorcerer finished its turn, and Waring extended her finger to topple her last drake, Dante knew he hadn't allowed her to see the nature of himself. Worse yet, perhaps he had. He hadn't played the game. He cheated. And he had won. This audiobook has been broken into multiple parts to make the download faster. You have reached the end of a part, but not the end of the complete audiobook. So please check your library for the next part of this audiobook. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.